War Council. On the flight from Vroengard to Urubain, Safira did not have to battle her way through a storm, and was fortunate enough to have a tailwind to speed her progress. For the Eldenari told her where to find the fast-moving stream of air, which they said blew nearly every day of the year. Also, the Eldenari fed her a constant supply of energy, so she never flagged or grew tired. As a result, the city first came into sight on the horizon a mere two days after they departed the island. Twice during the trip, when the sun was at its brightest, Aragon thought he glimpsed the entrance to the pocket of space where the Eldunari floated hidden behind Sephira. It appeared as a single dark point, so small that he could not keep his eyes fixed upon it for more than a second. At first he assumed it was a mote of dust, but then he noticed that the point never varied in its distance from Sephira, and when he saw it, it was always in the same place. As they flew, the dragons had, through Umaroth, poured memory after memory into Aragon and Sephira, a cascade of experiences, battles won and battles lost, loves, hates, spells, events witnessed throughout the land, regrets, realizations, and ponderings concerning the workings of the world. The dragons possessed thousands of years of knowledge, and they seemed driven to share every last bit. It's too much, Aragon had protested. We can't remember it all, much less understand it. No, said Umaroth, but you can remember some, and it may be that some will be what you need to defeat Galbatorix. Now, let us continue. The torrent of information was overwhelming. At times Aragon felt as if he was forgetting who he was, for the dragon's memories far outnumbered his own. When that happened, he would separate his mind from theirs and repeat his true name to himself until he again felt secure in his identity. The things he and Sephira learned amazed and troubled him, and oftentimes caused him to question his own beliefs. But he never had time to dwell on such thoughts, for there was always another memory to take their place. It would, he knew, take him years to begin to make sense of what the dragons were showing them. The more he learned about the dragons, the more he regarded them with awe. Those who had lived for hundreds of years were strange in their ways of thinking, and the oldest were as different from Glader and Sephira as Glader and Sephira were from the Fanghur in the Beor Mountains. Interacting with these elders was confusing and unsettling. They made jumps, associations, and comparisons that seemed meaningless, but that Aragon knew made sense at some deep level. He was rarely able to figure out what they were trying to say, and the ancient dragons did not deign to explain themselves in terms that he could understand. After a while, he realized that they couldn't express themselves in any other way. Over the centuries, their minds had changed. What was simple and straightforward for him often seemed complicated for them, and the same was true in reverse. Listening to their thoughts, he felt, must be like listening to the thoughts of a god. When he made that particular observation, Sephira snorted and said to him, There is a difference. What? Unlike gods, we take part in the events of the world. Perhaps the gods choose to act without being seen. Then what good are they? You believe that dragons are better than gods? He asked, amused. When we are fully grown, yes. 
What creature is greater than us? Even Galbatorix depends upon us for his strength. What of the Neathwal? She sniffed. We can swim, but they cannot fly. The very oldest of the Eldunari, a dragon by the name of Valder, which meant ruler in the ancient language, spoke to them directly only once. From him they received a vision of beams of light turning into waves of sand, as well as a disconcerting sense that everything that seemed solid was mostly empty space. Then Valder showed them a nest of sleeping starlings, and Aragon could feel their dreams flickering in their minds fast as the blink of an eye. At first, Valder's emotion was one of contempt. The starlings' dreams seemed tiny, petty, and inconsequential. But then his mood changed and became warm and sympathetic, and even the smallest of the starlings' concerns grew in importance until it seemed equal to the worries of kings. Valder lingered over the vision, as if to make sure that Aragon and Sephira would remember it amid all the other memories. Yet neither of them was certain what the dragon was trying to say, and Valder refused to explain himself further. When at last Urabain came into view, the Eldunari ceased sharing their memories with Aragon and Sephira, and Umaroth said, Now you would be best served by studying the lair of our foe. This they did, as Sephira descended toward the ground over the course of many leagues. What they saw did not encourage either of them, nor did their moods improve when Gleda said, Calvatorix has built much since he drove us from this place. The walls were not so thick nor so tall in our day. To which Umaroth added, Nor was Illyria this heavily fortified during the war between our kind and the elves. The traitor has burrowed deep and piled a mountain of stone about his hole. He will not come out of his own accord, I think. He is like a badger who has retreated into his den and who will bloody the nose of anyone who tries to dig him out. A mile southwest from the wall shelf and the city beneath lay the Varden's camp. It was significantly larger than Aragon remembered, which puzzled him until he realized that Queen Islanzadi and her army must have finally joined forces with the Varden. He gave a small sigh of relief. Even Galbatorix was wary of the might of the elves. When he and Sephira were a league or so from the tents, the Eldunari helped Aragon extend the range of his thoughts until he was able to feel the minds of the men, dwarves, elves, and urgles gathered within the camp. His touch was too light for anyone to notice unless they were deliberately watching for it, and the moment he located the distinctive strain of wild music that marked Blodgarm's thoughts, he narrowed his focus to the elf alone. Blodgarm, he said, it is I, Aragon. The more formal phrasing seemed natural to him, after so long spent reliving experiences from ages past. Shadeslayer, are you safe? Your mind feels most strange. Is Sephira with you? Is she hurt? Has something happened to Glader? They are both well, as am I. Then... Blodgarm's confusion was evident. Cutting him off, Aragon said, 
We're not far, but I've hidden us from sight for the time being. Is the illusion of Sephira and me still visible to those below? Yes, Shadeslayer. We have Sephira circling the tents a mile above. Sometimes we hide her in a bank of clouds, or we make it seem as if you and she have gone off on patrol. But we dare not let Galbatorix think you've left for long. We will make your images fly away now, so that you may rejoin us without arousing suspicion. No, rather wait and maintain your spells for a while longer. Shadeslayer? We are not returning directly to the camp. Aragon glanced at the ground. There's a small hill, perhaps two miles to the southeast. Do you know it? Yes, I can see it. Sephira will land behind it. Have Arya, Oric, Jormunda, Roran, Queenis Lanzardi, and King Orin join us there. But make sure they do not leave the camp all at once. If you could help hide them, that would be best. You should come as well. As you wish. Shadeslayer, what did you find on... No, do not ask me. It would be dangerous to think of it here. Come, and I will tell you. But I do not want to blare the answer where others might be listening. I understand. We will meet with you as quickly as we can, but it may take some time to stagger our departures correctly. Of course, I trust you'll do what's best. Aragon severed their connection and leaned back in the saddle. He smiled slightly as he imagined Blodgarm's expression when he learned of the Eldunari. With a whirl of wind, Sephira landed in the hollow by the base of the hill, startling a flock of nearby sheep who scurried away while uttering plaintive bleats. As she folded her wings, Sephira looked after the sheep and said, It would be easy to catch them, since they cannot see me. She licked her chops. Yes, but where would be the sport in that? Aragon asked, loosening the straps around his legs. Sport does not fill your belly. No, but then you aren't hungry, are you? The energy from the Eldunari, though insubstantial, had suppressed her desire to eat. She released a great amount of air in what seemed to be a sigh. No, not really. While they waited, Aragon stretched his sore limbs, then ate a light lunch from what remained of his provisions. He knew that Sephira was sprawled her full, sinuous length on the ground next to him, though he could not see her. Her presence was betrayed only by the shadowed impression her body left upon the flattened stalks of grass, like a strangely shaped hollow. He was not sure why, but the sight amused him. As he ate, he gazed out at the pleasant fields around the hill, watching the stir of air in the stalks of wheat and barley. Long, low walls of piled stone separated the fields. It must have taken the local farmers hundreds of years to dig so many stones out of the ground. At least that wasn't a problem we had in Palancar Valley, he thought. A moment later, one of the dragon's memories returned to him, and he knew exactly how old the stone walls were. They dated to the time when humans had come to live in the ruins of Illyria, after the elves had defeated King Palancar's warriors. He could see as if he had been there, Lines of men, women, and children combing over freshly tilled fields and carrying the rocks they found over to where the walls would be. After a time, Aragon allowed the memory to fade away, 
and then he opened his mind to the ebb and flow of energy around them. He listened to the thoughts of the mice in the grass and the worms in the earth and the birds that fluttered past overhead. It was a slightly risky thing to do, for he could end up alerting any nearby enemy spellcasters to their presence. But he preferred to know who and what was close, so that no one could attack them by surprise. Thus he sensed the approach of Arya, Blodgarm, and Queen Islanzadi, and he was not alarmed when the shadows of their footsteps moved toward him from around the western side of the hill. The air rippled like water, and then the three elves appeared before him. Queen Islanzadi stood in the lead, as regal as ever. She was garbed in a golden corselet of scale armour, with a jewelled helm upon her head, and her red, white-trimmed cape clasped about her shoulders. A long, slim sword hung from her narrow waist. She carried a tall, white-bladed spear in one hand, and a shield shaped like a birch leaf. Its edges were even serrated like a leaf in the other. Arya, too, was clad in fine armour. She had exchanged her usual dark clothes for a corselet like her mother's, although Arya's was the grey of bare steel, not gold, and she wore a helm decorated with embossed knotwork upon the brow and nosepiece, and a pair of stylized eagle wings that swept back from her temples. Compared with the splendour of Islanzadi's raiment, Arya's was sombre, but all the more deadly because of it. Together, mother and daughter were like a pair of matched blades, where one was adorned for display and one fitted for combat. Like the two women, Blodgarm wore a shirt of scale armour, but his head was bare, and he carried no weapon besides a small knife on his belt. "'Show yourself, Aragon Shadeslayer,' said Islanzadi, looking toward the spot where he stood. Aragon released the spell that concealed him and Sephira, then bowed to the elf queen. She ran her dark eyes over him, studying him as if he were a prized draught horse. Unlike before, he had no difficulty holding her gaze. After a few seconds, the queen said, You have improved, Shadeslayer. He gave a second, shorter bow. Thank you, your majesty. As always, the sound of her voice sent a thrill through him. It seemed to hum with magic and music, as if every word were part of an epic poem. Such a compliment means much from one so wise and fair as you. Islanzadi laughed, showing her long teeth, and the hill and the fields rang with her mirth. And you have grown eloquent as well. You did not tell me he had become so well-spoken, Arya. A faint smile touched Arya's face. He is still learning. Then to Aragon she said, It is good to see you safely returned. The elves plied him, Sephira, and Gleda with numerous questions, but the three of them refused to provide answers until the others had arrived. Still Aragon thought that the elves sensed something of the Eldunari, for he noticed that they sometimes glanced in the direction of the Heart of Hearts, although they seemed not to realize it. Oric was the next to join them. He rode from the south on a shaggy pony that was lathered and panting. Ho, Aragorn! Ho, Sephira! The dwarf king cried, raising a fist. He slid down from his exhausted mount, stomped over, and pulled Aragorn into a rough embrace, pounding him on the back. When they had finished greeting each other, a 
and Oreg had given Sephira a rub on her nose, which made her hum. Aragon asked, Where are your guards? Oreg gestured over his shoulder. Braiding their beards by a farmhouse a mile west of here, and none too happy about it, I dare say. I trust every last one of them, their clanmates of mine, but Blodgarm said I should best come alone, so alone I've come. Now tell me, why this secrecy? What did you discover on Vroengard? You'll have to wait for the rest of our council to find out, said Aragon, but I am glad to see you again. And he clapped Oric on the shoulder. Roran arrived on foot soon afterward, looking grim and dusty. He gripped Aragon's arm and welcomed him, then pulled him aside and said, Can you stop them from hearing us? He motioned with his chin toward Oric and the elves. It took Aragon only a few seconds to cast a spell that shielded them from listeners. Done. At the same time, he separated his mind from Glader and the other Eldunari, although not from Sephira. Roran nodded and looked off over the fields. I had some words with King Orin while you were gone. Words? How so? He was being a fool and I told him so. I take it he didn't react very kindly. You could say that. He tried to stab me. He what? I managed to knock his sword out of his hand before he could land a blow. But if he had had his way, he would have killed me. Orin? Aragon had trouble imagining the king doing any such thing. Did you hurt him badly? For the first time, Roran smiled, a brief expression that quickly vanished under his beard. I scared him, which might be worse. Aragon grunted and clenched the pommel of Brisinger. He realized that he and Roran were mirroring each other's posture. They both had their hands on their weapons, and they both stood with their weight on the opposite leg. Who else knows of this? Jormunder, he was there, and whomever Orin has told. Frowning, Aragon began to pace back and forth as he tried to decide what to do. The timing of this couldn't be worse. I know. I wouldn't have been so blunt with Orin, but he was about to send royal greetings to Galbatorix and other such nonsense. He would have put us all in danger. I couldn't allow that to happen. You would have done the same. Maybe so but this just makes things all the more difficult. I'm the leader of the Varden now. An attack on you or any of the other warriors under my command is the same as an attack on me. Orin knows that, and he knows we're of the same blood. He might as well have thrown a gauntlet in my face. He was drunk, said Roran. I'm not sure he was thinking of that when he drew his sword. Aragon saw Arya and Blodgarm giving him curious glances. He stopped pacing and turned his back to them. I'm worried about Katrina, Roran added. If Orin is angry enough, he might send his men after me or her. Either way, she could get hurt. Jormunder has already posted a guard at our tent, but that's not enough protection. Aragon shook his head. Orin wouldn't dare hurt her. No, he can't harm you, and he doesn't have the stomach to confront me directly. So what does that leave? An ambush, knives in the dark. Killing Katrina would be an easy way for Orin to have his revenge. I doubt that Orin would resort to knives in the dark or harming Katrina. You can't say for sure, though. Aragon thought for a moment. 
I'll place some spells on Katrina to keep her safe, and I'll let Orin know that I've placed them. That should put a stop to any plans he might have. The tension in Roran seemed to drain away. I'd appreciate that. I'll give you some new wards as well. No, save your strength. I can take care of myself. Aragon insisted, but Roran kept refusing. Finally, Aragon said, Blast it, listen to me! We're about to go into battle against Galbatorix's men. You have to have some protection, if only against magic. I'm going to give you wards whether you like it or not, so you might as well smile and thank me for them. Roran glowered at him, then he grunted and raised his hands. Fine, as you wish. You never did know when it was sensible to give up. Oh, and you do? A chuckle came from within the depths of Roran's beard. I suppose not. I guess it runs in the family. Hmm. Between Brom and Garrow, I don't know who was the more stubborn. Father was, said Roran. Uh, Brom was as... No, you're right. It was Garrow. They exchanged grins, remembering their life on the farm. Then Roran shifted his stance and gave Aragon an odd sideways look. You seem different than before. Do I? Yes, you do. You seem more sure of yourself. Perhaps it's because I understand myself better than I once did. To that, Roran had no answer. Half an hour later, Jormunda and King Orin rode up together. Aragon greeted Orin as politely as ever, but Orin responded with a curt reply and avoided his gaze. Even from a distance of several feet, Aragon could smell wine on his breath. Once they were all assembled before Sephira, Aragon began. First he had everyone swear oaths of secrecy in the ancient language. Then he explained the concept of an Eldenari to Oric, Roran, Jormunda, and Orin, and he recounted a brief history of the dragon's gem-like hearts with the riders and Galbatorix. The elves appeared uneasy with Aragon's willingness to discuss the Eldenari before the others, but none protested, which pleased him. He had earned that much trust, at least. Oric, Roran, and Jormunda reacted with surprise, disbelief, and dozens of questions. Roran, in particular, acquired a sharp gleam in his eye, as if the information had given him a host of new ideas on how to kill Galbatorix. Throughout, Orin was surly, and remained stridently unconvinced of the existence of the Eldunari. In the end, the only thing that quelled his doubts was when Aragon removed Glader's heart of hearts from the saddlebags and introduced the dragon to the four of them. The awe they displayed at meeting Glader gratified Aragon. Even Orin seemed impressed, although after exchanging a few words with Glader, he turned on Aragon and said, Did Nasawada know of this? Yes, I told her at Feinster. As Aragon expected, the admission displeased Orin. So once again, the two of you chose to ignore me. Without the support of my men and the food of my nation, the Varden would have had no hope of confronting the Empire. I am the sovereign ruler of one of only four countries in Allegasia. My army makes up a goodly portion of our forces, and yet neither of you deemed it appropriate to inform me of this. Before Aragon could respond, Oryx stepped forward. They did not tell me about it either, Orin. The dwarf king rumbled, 
and mine people have helped the Varden for longer than yours. You should not take offence. Aragon and Nasawada did what they thought was best for our cause. They meant no disrespect. Orin scowled and looked as if he was going to continue arguing, but Glader preempted him by saying, They did as I asked, King of the Sodans. The Eldunari are the greatest secret of our race, and we do not share it lightly with others, even kings. Then why have you chosen to do so now? demanded Orin. You could have gone into battle without ever revealing yourself. In answer, Aragon recounted the story of their trip to Vroengard, including their encounter with the storm at sea and the sight they had witnessed at the very top of the clouds. Arya and Blodgarm seemed the most interested in that part of his story, whereas Oric was the most uncomfortable. Bazul! But that sounds a nasty experience, he said. It makes me shiver just to think of it. The ground is the proper place for a dwarf, not the sky. I agree, said Sephira, which caused Oric to scowl suspiciously and twist the braided ends of his beard. Resuming his tale, Aragon told of how he, Sephira, and Glader had entered the Vault of Souls, though he refrained from divulging that this had required their true names. And when he at last revealed what the Vault had contained, there was a moment of shocked silence. Then Aragon said, Open your minds. A moment later, the sound of whispering voices seemed to fill the air and Aragon felt the presence of Umaroth and the other hidden dragons surround them. The elves staggered, and Arya dropped to one knee, pressing a hand to the side of her head as if she had been struck. Oric uttered a cry and looked about wild-eyed, while Roran, Jormunder, and Orin stood dumbfounded. Queen Islanzadi knelt, adopting a pose much like her daughter's. In his mind, Aragon heard her speaking to the dragons, greeting many by name and welcoming them as old friends. Blodgarm did likewise, and for several minutes a flurry of thoughts passed between the dragons and those gathered at the base of the hill. The mental cacophony was so great Aragon shielded himself from it and retreated to sit on one of Sephira's forelegs while he waited for the noise to subside. The elves seemed most affected by the revelation. Blodgarm stared into the air with an expression of joy and wonder, while Arya continued to kneel. Aragon thought he saw a line of tears on each of her cheeks. Islanzadi beamed with a triumphant radiance, and for the first time since he had met her, Aragon thought she seemed truly happy. Oric shook himself then and broke from his reverie. Looking over at Aragon, he said, by Morgothal's hammer, this puts a new twist on things. With their help, we might actually be able to kill Galbatorix. You didn't think we could before? Aragon asked mildly. Of course I did, only not so much as I do now. Roran shook himself, as if waking from a dream. I didn't... I knew that you and the elves would fight as hard as you could but I didn't believe you could win. He met Aragon's gaze. Galbatorix has defeated so many riders, 
and you're but one, and not that old. It didn't seem possible. I know. Now, though, a wolfish look came into Roran's eyes. Now we have a chance. Aye, said Jormunder, and just think, we no longer have to worry so much about Murtag. He's no match for you and the dragons combined. Aragorn drummed his heels against Saphira's leg and did not answer. He had other ideas on that front. Besides, he did not like to consider having to kill Murtag. Then Orin spoke up. Umaroth says that you have devised a battle plan. Do you intend to share it with us, Shadeslayer? I would like to hear it as well, said Islanzadi in a kinder tone. And I, said Oric. Aragon stared at them for a moment, then nodded. To Islanzadi, he said, Is your army ready to fight? It is. Long have we waited for our vengeance. We need wait no longer. And ours? Aragon asked, directing his words toward Orin, Jormunder, and Oric. Mine Nerlin are eager for battle, proclaimed Oric. Jormunder glanced at King Orin. Our men are tired and hungry, but their will is unbroken. The Urgles too? Them too. Then we attack. When? demanded Orin. At first light. For a moment, no one spoke. Roran broke the silence. Easy to say, hard to do. How? Aragon explained. When he finished, there was another silence. Roran squatted and began to draw in the dirt with the tip of a finger. It's risky. But bold, said Oric. Very bold. There are no safe paths anymore, said Aragon. If we can catch Galbatorix unprepared, even a bit, it might be enough to tip the scales. Jormunder rubbed his chin. Why not kill Murtag first? That's the part I don't understand. Why not finish him and Thorn while we have the chance? Because, Aragon replied, then Galbatorix would know of them and he motioned toward where the hidden Eldunari floated. We would lose the advantage of surprise. What of the child? Orin asked harshly. What makes you think that she will accommodate you? She hasn't before. This time she will, Aragon promised, more confidently than he felt. The king grunted, unconvinced. Then Islanzadi said, Aragon... It is a great and terrible thing you propose. Are you willing to do this? I ask not because I doubt your dedication or your bravery, but because this is something to be undertaken only after much consideration. So I ask you, are you willing to do this, even knowing what the cost may be? Aragon did not rise, but he allowed a bit of steel to enter his voice. I am. It must be done, and we are the ones to whom the task has fallen. Whatever the cost, we cannot turn away now. As a sign of her agreement, Saphira opened her jaws a few inches and then snapped them shut, punctuating the end of his sentence. Islanzadi turned her face toward the sky. And do you, 
And those you speak for approve of this, Umaroth Elder? We do, replied the white dragon. Then here we go, Roran murmured. A Matter of Duty The ten of them, including Umaroth, continued to talk for another hour. Orin required more convincing, and there were numerous details to decide. Questions of timing and placement and signalling. Aragon was relieved when Arya said, Unless either you or Sephira object, I will accompany you tomorrow. We would be glad to have you, he said. Islanzadi stiffened. What good would that accomplish? Your talents are needed elsewhere, Arya. Blodgarm and the other spellcasters I assigned to Sephira and Aragon are more skilled at magic than you, and more experienced in battle as well. Remember they fought against the Forsworn, and unlike many, they lived to tell of it. Many of the elder members of our race would volunteer to take your place. It would be selfish to insist upon going when there are others better suited for the task who are willing and close at hand. I think no one is as suited for the task as Arya, Aragon said in a calm voice, and there is no one other than Sephira I would rather have by my side. Islanzadi kept her gaze upon Arya, and to Aragon said, You are still young, Shadeslayer, and you are allowing your emotions to cloud your judgment. No, mother, said Arya, it is you who are allowing your emotions to cloud your judgment. She moved toward Islanzadi with long, graceful steps. You are right. There are others who are stronger, wiser, and more experienced than I. But it was I who ferried Sephira's egg about Alagazia, I who helped save Aragon from the Shade Doza, and I who, with Aragon's help, killed the Shade Varog in Feinster. Like Aragon, I am now a Shade Slayer and you well know that I swore myself in service to our people long ago. Who else among our kind can claim as much? Even if I wanted to, I would not turn away from this. I would sooner die. I am as prepared for this challenge as any of our elders, for it is to this I have devoted the whole of my life, as has Aragon, and the whole of your life has been so short said Islanzadi. She put her hand up to Arya's face. You have devoted yourself to fighting Galbatorix all these years since your father's death. But you know little of the joys life can provide, and in those years we have spent such a small amount of time together, a handful of days scattered throughout a century. It is only since you brought Sephira and Aragon to Elasmira that we have begun to speak once more, as a mother and daughter ought. I would not lose you again so soon, Arya. It was not I who chose to remain apart, said Arya. No, said Islanzadi, and she took her hand away. But it was you who chose to leave de Weldenvarden. Her expression softened. I do not wish to argue, Arya. I understand that you see this as your duty. But please, for my sake, will you not allow another to take your place? Arya lowered her gaze and was silent for a time. Then she said, 
I cannot allow Aragon and Sephira to go without me, any more than you can allow your army to march into battle without you at its head. I cannot. Would you have it said of me that I am a coward? Those of our family do not turn away from what must be done. Do not ask me to shame myself. The shine in Islanzadi's eyes looked suspiciously like tears to Aragon. Yes, said the queen, but to fight Galbatorix. If you are so afraid, said Arya, but not unkindly, then come with me. I cannot. I must stay to command my troops, and I must go with Aragon and Sephira. But I promise you, I shall not die. Arya placed her hand on Islanzadi's face, even as her mother had done to her. I shall not die. Once more Arya repeated the phrase, but this time in the ancient language. Arya's determination impressed Aragon. To say what she had in the ancient language meant that she believed it without qualification. Islanzadi also appeared impressed, and proud too. She smiled and kissed Arya once on each cheek. Then go, and go with my blessings, and take no more risks than you must. Nor you. And the two of them embraced. As they separated, Islanzadi looked at Aragon and Sephira and said, Watch over her, I implore you, for she has not a dragon or the Eldunari to protect her. We will, both Aragon and Sephira replied in the ancient language. Once they had settled what needed to be settled, the war council broke and its various members began to disperse. From where he sat by Sephira, Aragon watched the others mill about. Neither he nor she made an effort to move. Sephira was going to remain hidden behind the hill until the attack, while he intended to wait for dark before he ventured into the camp. Oric was the second to depart after Roran. Before he did, the dwarf king came over to Aragon and gave him a rough hug. Ah, I wish I were going with the two of you, he said, his eyes solemn above his beard. And I wish you were coming, said Aragon. Well, we'll see each other afterward and toast our victory with barrels of mead, eh? I look forward to it. As do I, said Sephira. Good, said Oric and he nodded firmly. That's settled, then. You'd better not let Galbatorix get the better of you, or I'll be honour-bound to march in after you. We'll be careful, Aragon said with a smile. I should hope so, because I doubt I could do much more than tweak Galbatorix on the nose. That I would like to see, said Sephira. Oric grunted. May the gods watch over you, Aragon, and you as well, Sephira. And you, Oric, Thrift's son. Then Oric slapped Aragon on the shoulder and stomped off to where he had tied his pony to a bush. When Islanzadi and Blodgarm left, Arya stayed. She was deep in conversation with Jormunder, and so Aragon thought little of it. When Jormunder rode off, however, and Arya still lingered nearby, he realized that she wanted to talk to them alone. Sure enough, once everyone else had gone, she looked at him and Sephira and said, 
Did something else happen to you while you were gone? Something that you didn't want to speak of in front of Orin or Jormunder? Or my mother? Why do you ask? She hesitated. Because you both seem to have changed. Is it the Aldunari? Or does it have to do with your experience in the storm? Aragon smiled at her perception. He consulted with Sephira, and when she approved, he said, We learned our true names. Arya's eyes widened. You did? And were you pleased with them? In part, said Sephira. We learned our true names, Aragon repeated. We saw that the earth is round, and during the flight here, Umaroth and the other Eldunari shared many of their memories with us. He allowed himself a wry smile. I can't say we understand all of them, but they make things seem different. I see, murmured Arya. Do you think the change is for the better? I do. Change itself is neither good nor bad, but knowledge is always useful. Was it difficult to find your true names? So he told her how they had accomplished it, and he also told her about the strange creatures they had encountered on Vroengard Island, which interested her greatly. As Aragon spoke, an idea occurred to him, one that resonated within him too strongly to ignore. He explained it to Sephira, and once again she granted him her permission, although somewhat more reluctantly than before. Must you? she asked. Yes. Then do as you will, but only if she agrees. When they had finished speaking of Roengard, he looked Arya in the eyes and said, Would you like to hear my true name? I would like to share it with you. The offer seemed to shock her. No, you shouldn't tell it to me or anyone else, especially not when we're so close to Galbatorix. He might steal it from my mind. Besides, you should only give your true name to the one whom you trust above all others. I trust you, Aragorn. Even when we elves exchange our true names, we do not do so until we have known each other for many, many years. The knowledge they provide is too personal, too intimate to bandy about, and there is no greater risk than sharing it. When you teach someone your true name, you place everything you are in their hands. I know, but I may never have the chance again. This is the only thing I have to give, and I would give it to you. Aragon, what you are proposing, it is the most precious thing one person can give another. I know. A shiver ran through Arya and then she seemed to withdraw within herself. After a time, she said, No one has ever offered me such a gift before. I'm honoured by your trust, Aragon, and I understand how much this means to you. But no, I must decline. It would be wrong for you to do this, and wrong for me to accept, just because tomorrow we may be killed or enslaved. Danger is no reason to act foolishly no matter how great our peril. Aragon inclined his head. Her reasons were good reasons, and he would respect her choice. Very well, as you wish, he said. Thank you, Aragon.
A moment passed. Then he said, Have you ever told anyone your true name? No. Not even your mother? Her mouth twisted. No. Do you know what it is? Of course. Why would you think otherwise? He half shrugged. I didn't. I just wasn't sure. Silence came between them. Then, when, how did you learn your true name? Arya was quiet for so long, he began to think that she would refuse to answer. Then she took a breath and said, It was a number of years after I left Duweldenvarden, when I finally had become accustomed to my role among the Varden and the dwarves. Phelan and my other companions were away, and I had a great deal of time to myself. I spent most of it exploring Trondheim, wandering in the empty reaches of the city mountain, where others rarely tread. Trondheim is bigger than most realize, and there are many strange things within it. Rooms, people, creatures, forgotten artifacts. As I wandered, I thought, and I came to know myself better than ever I had before. One day I discovered a room somewhere high in Trondheim. I doubt I could locate it again, even if I tried. A beam of sunlight seemed to pour into the room, though the ceiling was solid, and in the center of the room was a pedestal, and upon the pedestal was growing a single flower. I do not know what kind of flower it was. I have never seen its like before or since. The petals were purple, but the center of the blossom was like a drop of blood. There were thorns upon the stem, and the flower exuded the most wonderful scent, and seemed to hum with a music all its own. It was such an amazing and unlikely thing to find. I stayed in the room, staring at the flower for longer than I can remember, and it was then and there that I was finally able to put words to who I was and who I am. I would like to see that flower some day. Perhaps you will. Arya glanced toward the Varden's camp. I should go. There is much yet to be done. He nodded. We'll see you tomorrow, then. Tomorrow. Arya began to walk away. After a few steps, she paused and looked back. I'm glad that Sephira chose you as her rider, Aragon, and I'm proud to have fought alongside you. You have become more than any of us dared hope. Whatever happens tomorrow, know that. Then she resumed her stride, and soon she disappeared around the curve of the hill, leaving him alone with Sephira and the Aldenari. Fire in the Night When darkness fell, Aragon cast a spell to hide himself. Then he patted Sephira on the nose and set out on foot for the Varden's camp. Be careful, she said. Invisible as he was, it was easy to slip past the warriors who kept watch around the periphery of the camp. As long as he was quiet, and as long as the men did not catch sight of his footprints or shadows, he could move about freely. He wound his way between the woolen tents until he found Roran and Katrina's. He wrapped his knuckles against the central pole, and Roran popped his head out. Where are you? whispered Roran. Hurry in! Releasing the flow of magic, Aragon revealed himself. Roran flinched, 
then grabbed him by the arm and pulled him into the dark interior of the tent. Welcome, Aragon, said Katrina, rising from where she sat on their tiny cot. Katrina, it's good to see you again. She gave him a quick embrace. Will this take long? Roran asked. Aragon shook his head. It shouldn't. Squatting on his heels, he thought for a moment, then began to chant softly in the ancient language. First he placed spells around Katrina to protect her against any who might harm her. He made the spells more extensive than he had originally planned, in an attempt to ensure that she and her unborn child would be able to escape Galbatorix's forces should something happen to both him and Roran. These wards will shield you from a certain number of attacks, he told her. I can't tell you how many exactly, because it depends on the strength of the blows or spells. I've given you another defence as well. If you're in danger, say the word Frethia two times, and you'll vanish from sight. Frethia, she murmured. Exactly. It won't hide you completely, however. The sounds you make can still be heard, and your footprints will still be visible. No matter what happens, don't go into water, or your position will be obvious at once. The spell will draw its energy from you, which means that you'll tire faster than usual, and I wouldn't recommend sleeping while it's active. You might not wake up again. To end the spell, simply say, Frethia letter. Frethia letter. Good. Then Aragon turned his attention to Roran. He spent longer placing the wards around his cousin, for it was likely Roran would confront a greater number of threats and he endowed the spells with more energy than he thought Roran would have approved of, but Aragon did not care. He could not bear the thought of defeating Galbatorix, only to find that Roran had died during the battle. Afterward, he said, I did something different this time, something I should have thought of long ago. In addition to the usual wards, I gave you a few that will feed directly off your own strength. As long as you're alive, they'll shield you from danger. But, he lifted a finger. They'll only activate once the other wards are exhausted. And if the demands placed upon them are too great, you'll fall unconscious and then you'll die. So in trying to save me, they may kill me? Roran asked. Aragon nodded. Don't let anyone drop another wall on you and you'll be fine. It's a risk, but worth it, I think, if it keeps a horse from trampling you or a javelin from going through you. Also, I gave you the same spell as Katrina. All you have to do is say Frethia twice and Frethia letter to turn yourself invisible and visible at will. He shrugged. You might find that useful during the battle. Roran gave an evil chuckle. That I will. Just make sure the elves don't mistake you for one of Galbatorix's spellcasters. As Aragon rose to his feet, Katrina stood as well. She surprised him by grasping one of his hands and pressing it against her chest. Thank you, Aragon, she said softly. You're a good man. He flushed, embarrassed. It's nothing. Guard yourself well tomorrow. You mean a great deal to both of us, and I expect you to be around to act the doting uncle for our child. I'll be most put out if you get yourself killed. He laughed. Don't worry. Sephira won't let me do anything foolish. Good. She kissed him on both cheeks then released him. Farewell, Katrina. Roran accompanied him outside. Motioning toward the tent, Roran said, Thank you. I'm glad I could help. 
they gripped each other by the forearms and hugged. Then Roran said, Luck be with you. Aragon took a long, unsteady breath. Luck be with you. He tightened his grip on Roran's forearm, reluctant to let go, for he knew that they might never meet again. If Saphira and I don't come back, he said, will you see to it that we're buried at home? I wouldn't want our bones to lie here. Roran raised his brows. Saphira would be difficult to lug all the way back. The elves would help, I'm sure. Then yes, I promise. Is there anywhere in particular you would like? The top of the bald hill, said Aragon, referring to a foothill near their farm. The bare-topped hill had always seemed like an excellent location for a castle, something they had discussed at great length when younger. Roran nodded. And if I don't come back, we'll do the same for you. That's not what I was going to ask. If I don't, you'll see to Katrina? Of course, you know that. Aye, but I had to be sure. They gazed at each other for another minute. Finally, Roran said, We'll be expecting you for dinner tomorrow. I'll be there. Then Roran slipped back into the tent, leaving Aragon standing alone in the night. He looked up at the stars and felt a touch of grief, as if he had already lost someone close to him. After a few moments, he padded away into the shadows, relying upon the darkness to conceal him. He searched through the camp until he found the tent Horst and Elaine shared with their baby girl, Hope. The three of them were still awake as the infant was crying. Aragon, Horst exclaimed softly when Aragon made his presence known. Come in, come in. We haven't seen much of you since Dras Leona. How are you? Aragon spent the better part of an hour talking with them. He did not tell them of the Eldenari, but he did tell them of his trip to Vroengard, and when Hope finally fell asleep, he bade them farewell and returned to the night. He next sought out Jode, whom he found reading scrolls by candlelight while his wife, Helen, slept. When Aragon knocked and stuck his face into the tent, the scarred, thin-faced man put aside his scrolls and left the tent to join Aragon. Jode had many questions, and while Aragon did not answer them all, he answered enough that he thought Jode would be able to guess much of what was about to happen. Afterward, Jode laid a hand on Aragon's shoulder. I don't envy you the task that lies ahead. Brom would be proud of your courage. I hope so. I'm sure of it. If I don't see you again, you should know I've written a small account of your experiences and of the events that led to them, mainly my adventures with Brom in recovering Saphira's egg. Aragon gave him a look of surprise. I may not get the opportunity to finish it, but I thought it would make a useful addition to Heslant's work in Domia Avarwirta. Aragon laughed. <laughs> I think that would be most fitting. However, if you and I are both alive and free after tomorrow, there are some things I should tell you which will make your account that much more complete and that much more interesting. I'll hold you to it. Aragon wandered through the camp for another hour or so, pausing by the fires where men, dwarves, and urgles still sat awake. He spoke briefly with each of the warriors he met, inquired whether they were being fairly treated, commiserated about their sore feet and short rations, and sometimes exchanged a quip or two. 
he hoped that by showing himself among them, he could lift the warriors' spirits and strengthen their resolve, and thus spread a sense of optimism throughout the army. The Urgles, he found, were in the best mood. They seemed delighted about the upcoming battle and the opportunities for glory that it would provide. He had another purpose as well, to spread false information. Whenever someone asked him about attacking Urubain, he hinted that he and Safira would be among the battalion to beseech the northwestern section of the city wall. He hoped that Galbatorix's spies would repeat the lie to the king as soon as the alarms woke Galbatorix the following morn. As he looked into the faces of those listening to him, Aragon could not help but wonder which, if any, were Galbatorix's servants. The thought made him uncomfortable, and he found himself listening for footsteps behind him when he moved from one fire to the next. At last, when he was satisfied that he had spoken to enough warriors to ensure that the information would reach Galbatorix, he left the fires behind and made his way to a tent that was set slightly away from the others by the southern edge of the camp. He knocked on the centre pole, once, twice, three times. There was no response, so he knocked again, this time louder and longer. A moment later, he heard a sleepy groan and the rustle of shifting blankets. He waited patiently until a small hand pulled aside the entrance flap and the witch-child Elva emerged. She wore a dark robe much too large for her, and by the faint light of a torch some yards away he could see a frown upon her sharp little face. What do you want, Aragon? she demanded. Can't you tell? Her frown deepened. No, I can't only that you want something badly enough to wake me in the middle of the night, which even an idiot could see. What is it? I get little enough rest as it is, so this had best be important. It is. He spoke without interruption for several minutes, describing his plan, then said, Without you, it won't work. You're the point upon which it all turns. She gave an ugly laugh. Such irony, the mighty warrior relying upon a child to kill the one he cannot. Will you help? The girl looked down and scuffed her bare foot against the ground. If you do, all this, he motioned toward the camp and the city beyond, may end far sooner, and then you will not have to endure quite so much. I'll help. She stamped her foot and glared at him. You don't have to bribe me. I was going to help anyway. I'm not about to let Galbatorix destroy the Varden just because I don't like you. You're not that important, Aragon. Besides, I made a promise to Nasawada, and I intend to keep it. She cocked her head. There's something you're not telling me. Something you're afraid Galbatorix will find out before the attack. Something about... The sound of clanking chains interrupted her. For a moment Aragon was confused. Then he realized the sound was coming from the city. He put his hand on his sword. Ready yourself, he said to Elva. We may have to leave at once. Without argument, the girl turned around and disappeared inside the tent. Reaching out with his mind, Aragon contacted Sephira. Do you hear it? Yes. If we have to, 
We'll meet you by the road. The clanking continued for a short while. Then there was a hollow boom, followed by silence. Aragon listened as intently as he could, but heard nothing more. He was just about to cast a spell to increase the sensitivity of his ears when there was a dull thud accompanied by a series of sharp clacks. Then another, and another. A shiver of horror ran down Aragon's spine. The sound was unmistakably that of a dragon walking on stone. But what a dragon to hear its steps from over a mile away. Shrunken, he thought and his gut clenched with dread. Throughout the camp, alarm horns blared, and men, dwarves, and urgles lit torches as the army scrambled to wakefulness. Aragon spared Elva a sideways glance as she hurried out of the tent, followed by Greta, the old woman who was her caretaker. The girl had donned a short red tunic, over which she wore a male hauberk, just her size. The footsteps in Urubain ceased. The dragon's shadowy bulk blotted out most of the lanterns and watchlights in the city. How big is he? Aragon wondered, dismayed. Bigger than Glada, that was certain. As big as Belgabad? Aragon could not tell, not yet. Then the dragon leaped up and out from the city, and he unfurled his massive wings, and their opening was like a hundred black sails filling with wind. When he flapped, the air shook as if from a clap of thunder, and throughout the countryside dogs bayed and roosters crowed. Without thinking, Aragon crouched, feeling like a mouse hiding from an eagle. Elva tugged on the hem of his tunic. We should go, she insisted. Wait, he whispered, not yet. Great swaths of stars vanished, a shrunken wheeled across the sky, climbing higher and higher. Aragon tried to guess the dragon's size from the outline of his shape, but the night was too dark and the distance too hard to determine. Whatever Shrukan's exact proportions, he was frighteningly large. At only a century of age, he ought to have been smaller than he was, but Galbatorix seemed to have accelerated his growth, even as he had thorns. As he watched the shadow drifting above, Aragon hoped with all his might that Galbatorix was not with the dragon or if he was, that he would not bother to examine the minds of those below. If he did, he would discover... Eldunari, gasped Elva. That's what you're hiding. Behind her, the girl's caretaker frowned with puzzlement and started to ask a question. Quiet, growled Aragon. Elva opened her mouth and he clamped his hand over it, silencing her. Not here, not now, he warned. She nodded and he removed his hand. At that very moment, a bar of fire as wide as the Anora River arced across the sky. Shrukan whipped his head back and forth, spraying the torrent of blinding flames above the camp and the surrounding fields, and the night filled with a sound like a crashing waterfall. Heat stung Aragon's upturned face, then the flames evaporated like mist in the sun leaving behind a throbbing afterimage and a smoky, sulphurous smell. The huge dragon turned and flapped once more, shaking the air, before his formless black shape glided back down toward the city and settled among the buildings. Footsteps followed, then the clanking of the chains, 
and finally the echoing crack of a gate slamming shut. Aragon released the breath he had been holding and swallowed, though his throat was dry. His heart was pounding so hard it was painful. We have to fight? That? He thought, all his old fears rushing back. Why did he attack? Asked Elva in a small, fearful voice. He wanted to frighten us, Aragon frowned. Or distract us. He searched through the mines of the Varden until he found Jormunder, then gave the warrior instructions to check that all the sentries were still at their posts and to redouble the watch for the remainder of the night. To Elva, he said, Were you able to feel anything from Shrukan? The girl shuddered. Pain, great pain, and anger too. If he could, he would kill every creature he met and burn every plant until there were none left. He's utterly mad. Is there no way to reach him? None. The kindest thing to do would be to release him from his misery. The knowledge made Aragon sad. He had always hoped that they might be able to save Shrukan from Galbatorix. Subdued, he said, we had best be off. Are you ready? Elva explained to her caretaker that she was leaving, which displeased the old woman, but Elva soothed her worries with a few quick words. The girl's power to see into others' hearts never ceased to amaze Aragon, and trouble him as well. Once Greta had granted her consent, Aragon hid both Elva and himself with magic, and then they set off together toward the hill where Sephira was waiting. Over the wall and into the moor. Must you do that? asked Elva. Aragon paused in the midst of checking the leg straps on Sephira's saddle and looked over to where the girl sat cross-legged on the grass, toying with the links of her mail shirt. What? he asked. She tapped her lip with a small, pointed fingernail. You keep chewing on the inside of your mouth. It's distracting. After a moment's consideration, she said, And disgusting. With some surprise, he realized that he had bitten the inner surface of his right cheek until it was covered with several bloody sores. Sorry, he said, and healed himself with a quick spell. He had spent the deepest part of the night meditating, thinking not of what was to come, nor of what had been, but only of what was. The touch of the cool air against his skin, the feel of the ground beneath him, the steady flow of his breath, and the slow beat of his heart as it marked off the remaining moments of his life. Now, however, the morning star Airedale had risen in the east, heralding the arrival of dawn's first light, and the time had come to ready themselves for battle. He had inspected every inch of his equipment, adjusted the harness of the saddle until it was perfectly comfortable for Sephira, emptied the saddlebags of everything but the chest that contained Glader Zeldunari and a blanket for padding, and buckled and rebuckled his sword belt at least five times. He finished examining the straps on the saddle, then jumped off Sephira. Stand up, he said. Elva gave him a look of annoyance, but did as she was asked, 
brushing grass from the side of her tunic. Moving quickly, he ran his hands over her thin shoulders and tugged on the edge of her male hauberk to ensure that it was sitting properly. Who made this for you? A pair of charming dwarf brothers called Umar and Ulmar. Her cheeks dimpled as she smiled at him. They didn't think I needed it, but I was very persuasive. I'm sure she was, Sophira said to Aragon. He suppressed a smile. The girl had spent a goodly portion of the night talking with the dragons, beguiling them as only she could. However, Aragon could tell that they also feared her, even the older ones such as Valder, for they had no defense against Elva's power. No one did. And did Umar and Ulmar give you a blade to fight with? he asked. Elva frowned. Why would I want that? He stared at her for a moment, then he fetched his old hunting knife which he used when eating, and had her tied around her waist with a leather thong. Just in case, he said when she protested. Now, up you go. She obediently climbed onto his back and locked her arms around his neck. He had carried her to the hill in that manner, which had been uncomfortable for them both, but she could not keep pace with him on foot. He carefully climbed up Sophia's side to the peak of her shoulders. As he clung to one of the spikes that protruded from her neck, he twisted his body so that Elva was able to pull herself into the saddle. Once he felt the girl's weight leave him, Aragon dropped back to the ground. He tossed his shield up to her, then lunged forward, arms outstretched, when it nearly pulled her off Sephira. Have you got it? he asked. Yes, she said, tugging the shield onto her lap. She made a shooing motion with one hand. Go, go! Holding Brissinger's pommel to keep the sword from tangling between his legs, Aragon ran to the top of the hill and knelt on one knee, staying as low as he could. Behind him, Sephira crawled partway up the rise, then pressed herself flat against the ground and snaked her head through the grass until it was next to him and she could see what he saw. A thick column of humans, dwarves, elves, urgles, and weircats streamed out of the Varden's camp. In the flat grey light of early dawn, the figures were difficult to make out, especially because they carried no lights. The column marched across the sloping fields toward Urubane, and when the warriors were about half a mile from the city, they divided into three lines. One positioned itself before the front gate, one turned toward the southeastern part of the curtain wall, and one went toward the northwestern part. It was the last group that Aragon had hinted he and Sephira were going to accompany. The warriors had wrapped rags around their feet and weapons, and they kept their voices to a whisper. Still, Aragon could hear the occasional bray of a donkey or the whinny of a horse, and a number of dogs were barking at the procession. The soldiers on the walls would soon notice the activity, most likely when the warriors began to move the catapults, ballistae, and siege towers that the Varden had already assembled and placed in the fields before the city. Aragon was impressed that the men, dwarves, and urgles were still willing to go into battle after seeing Shrukan. They must have a great deal of faith in us, he said to Sephira. The responsibility weighed heavily upon him, and he was keenly aware that if he and those with him failed, Few of the warriors would survive. Yes, but if Shrukan flies out again, they will scatter like so many frightened mice. Then we'd best not let that happen. A horn sounded in Urubain, 
and then another and another, and lights began to appear throughout the city as lanterns were unshuttered and torches lit. Here we go, Aragon murmured, his pulse quickening. Now that the alarm had been raised, the Varan abandoned all attempts at secrecy. To the east, a group of elves on horseback set off at a gallop toward the hill that backed the city, planning to ride up the side of it and attack the wall along the top of the immense shelf that hung over Urabain. In the centre of the Varden's mostly empty camp, Aragon saw what appeared to be Sephira's glittering shape. On the illusion sat a lone figure, which he knew bore a perfect copy of his own features, holding a sword and shield. The duplicate of Sephira raised her head and spread her wings. Then she took flight and loosed a stirring roar. They do a good job of it, don't they? he said to Sephira. Elves understand how a dragon is supposed to look and behave, unlike some humans. The shadow Sephira landed next to the northernmost group of warriors. Although Aragon noticed the elves were careful to keep her some distance from the men and dwarves, so that they would not brush up against her and discover that she was as insubstantial as a rainbow. The sky lightened as the Varden and their allies gathered in orderly formations at each of the three locations outside the walls. Inside the city, Galbatorix's soldiers continued to prepare for the assault, but it was obvious as they ran about the battlements that they were panicked and disorganized. However, Aragon knew their confusion would not last long. Now, he thought, now, don't wait any longer. He swept his gaze over the buildings, searching for the slightest scrap of red, but none met his eye. Where are you, blast it, show yourself! Three more horns sounded, this time the Vardens. A great chorus of shouts and cries rose from the army. Then the Vardens' war machines launched their projectiles at the city, archers loosened their arrows, and the ranks of warriors broke and charged toward the seemingly impenetrable curtain wall. The stones, javelins, and arrows appeared to move slowly, as they arced across the ground that separated the army from the city. None of the missiles hit the outer wall. It would be pointless trying to batter it down, so the engineers aimed above and beyond. Some of the stones shattered as they struck within Urabain, sending dagger-like shards in every direction, while others punched through buildings and bounced up the streets like giant marbles. Aragon thought how horrible it would be to wake amid such confusion with large chunks of stone raining down. Then activity elsewhere caught his attention as the shadow Sephira took flight over the rotting warriors. With three flaps of her wings, she climbed above the wall and bathed the battlements with a tongue of flame that to Aragon's eye appeared somewhat brighter than normal. The fire he knew was real enough, conjured into being by the elves close to the northern part of the wall, who had created and were sustaining the illusion. The apparition of Sephira swooped back and forth over the same stretch of wall, clearing it of soldiers. Once she had, a band of twenty-some elves flew from the ground outside the city up to the top of one of the wall towers, so they could continue to keep watch on the apparition as it ranged deeper into Urabain. If Murtag and Thorn don't show themselves soon, they're going to start wondering why we're not attacking the other parts of the wall, he said to Sephira. They will think we're defending the warriors trying to breach this section, she replied. Give it time. Elsewhere along the wall, 
soldiers fired arrows and javelins at the army below, felling dozens of the Varden. The deaths were unavoidable, but Aragon regretted them all the same, for the warriors' attacks were merely a distraction. They had little chance of actually surmounting the city's defences. Meanwhile, the siege towers trundled closer, and flights of arrows leaped between their upper levels and the men on the battlements. From above, a ribbon of burning pitch fell across the edge of the overhang and disappeared among the buildings below. Aragon looked up and saw flashes of light atop the wall that guarded the lip of the precipice. Even as he watched, he saw four bodies tumble over the side. They looked like understuffed dolls as they plummeted toward the ground. The sight pleased Aragon, for it meant the elves had taken the upper wall. The shadow Sephira looped over the city, lighting several buildings on fire. As she did, a flock of arrows shot up from archers stationed on a nearby rooftop. The apparition swerved to avoid the darts, and seemingly by accident, crashed into one of the six green elf towers scattered throughout Urubane. The collision looked perfectly real. Aragon winced with sympathy as he saw the dragon's left wing break against the tower, the bones snapping like stalks of dry grass. The imitation Sephira roared and thrashed as she spiralled down to the streets. The buildings hid her after that, but her roars were audible for miles around, and the flame she seemed to breathe painted the sides of the houses and lit the underside of the stone shelf that hung over the city. I would never have been so clumsy, sniffed Sephira. I know. A minute passed. The tension within Aragon increased to a nearly unbearable level. Where are they? he growled, clenching his fist. With every passing second, it became increasingly likely the soldiers would discover that the dragon they thought they had forced down did not actually exist. Sephira saw them first. There, she said, showing him with her mind. Like a ruby blade dropped from above, Thorn plunged out of an opening hidden within the overhang. He fell straight down for several hundred feet, then unfolded his wings just enough to slow himself to a safe speed, before landing in a square close to where the shadow Sephira and the shadow Aragon had fallen. Aragon thought he spotted Murtag on the red dragon, but the distance was too great to be sure. They would have to hope it was Murtag, because if it was Galbatorix, their plan was almost certainly doomed to failure. There must be tunnels in the stone, he said to Sephira. More dragon fire erupted from between the buildings, then the apparition of Sephira hopped above the rooftops, and like a bird with an injured wing, fluttered a short distance before sinking to the ground again. Thorn followed. Aragon did not wait to see more. He spun around, ran back along Sephira's neck, and threw himself into the saddle behind Elva. It took just a few seconds to slip his legs into the straps and tighten two on each side. He left the rest loose. They would only slow him later. The uppermost strap held Elva's legs also. Swiftly chanting the words, he cast a spell to hide the three of them. When the magic took effect, he experienced the usual sense of disorientation as his body vanished. It looked to him as if he were hanging a number of feet above a dark, dragon-shaped pattern pressed into the plants of the hill. The moment he finished the spell, Sephira surged forward. 
she jumped off the crest of the hill and flapped hard, struggling to gain height. It's not very comfortable, is it? said Elva, as Aragon took his shield from her. No, not always, he replied, raising his voice to be heard over the wind. In the back of his mind, he could feel Glader and Umaroth and the other Eldunari watching as Sephira angled downward and dove toward the Varden's camp. Now we will have our revenge, said Glader. Aragon hunched low over Elva as Sephira gained speed. Gathered in the centre of the camp, he saw Blodgarm and his ten elven spellcasters, as well as Arya, who carried the Douthdert. They each had a thirty-foot-long piece of rope tied around their chests, under their arms. At the other end, all the ropes were bound to a log as thick as Aragorn's thigh, and equal in length to a fully-grown Urgle. When Sephira swooped toward the camp, Aragorn signalled them with his mind, and two of the elves threw the log into the air. Sephira caught it with her talons, the elves jumped, and a moment later Aragorn felt a jolt as Sephira dipped as she took up their weight. Through her body, Aragorn saw the elves, the ropes, and the log wink out of sight as the elves cast a spell of invisibility, the same as he had. Flapping mightily, Sephira climbed a thousand feet above the ground, high enough that she and the elves below could easily clear the walls and buildings of the city. To their left, Aragorn glimpsed first Thorn and then the shadow Sephira as they chased each other on foot through the northern part of the city. The elves controlling the apparition were trying to keep Thorn and Murtag so busy physically that neither of them would have the opportunity to attack with their minds. If they did, or if they caught the apparition, they would quickly realize they had been fooled. Just a few more minutes, Aragorn thought. Over the fields flew Sephira, over the catapults with their devoted attendants, over banks of archers with their arrows stuck in the ground in front of them like tufts of white-topped reeds, over a siege tower and over the warriors on foot, men, dwarves and urgles hiding beneath their shields as they rushed ladders toward the curtain wall, and among them elves, tall and slender, with their bright helms and their long-bladed spears and narrow-bladed swords. Then Sephira soared past the wall itself. Aragorn felt a strange twinge as Sephira reappeared beneath him, and he found himself looking at the back of Elva's head. He assumed that Arya and the other elves hanging below them had become visible as well. Aragorn bit off a curse and ended the spell that had concealed them. Galbatorix's wards, it seemed, would not allow them to enter the city unseen. Sephira hastened her flight toward the citadel's massive gate. Below them, Aragorn heard shouts of fear and astonishment, but he paid them no heed. Murtag and Thorn were the ones he was worried about, not the soldiers. Bringing in her wings, Sephira dove toward the gate. Just when it looked as if she was going to slam into it, she turned and reared upright while backflapping to slow herself. When she had reached a near stop, she allowed herself to drift downward until the elves were safely on the ground. Once they had cut themselves free of the ropes and moved out of the way, Sephira landed in the courtyard before the gate, jarring both Aragorn and Elva with the force of the impact. Aragorn yanked on the buckles of the straps that held him and Elva in the saddle, then he helped the girl down from Sephira's back, and they hurried after the elves toward the gate. The entrance to the citadel took the form of two giant black doors, 
which met in a point high above. They looked to be made of solid iron and were studded with hundreds if not thousands of spiked rivets, each the size of Aragon's head. The sight was daunting. Aragon could not imagine a less inviting entrance. Spear in hand, Arya ran to the sally port set within the left-hand door. The port was visible only as a thin, dark seam that outlined a rectangle barely wide enough for a single man to pass through. Within the rectangle was a horizontal strip of metal, perhaps three fingers wide and thrice as long, that was slightly lighter than its surroundings. As Arya neared the door, the strip sank inward a half-inch, then slid to the side with a rusty scrape. A pair of owlish eyes peered out of the dark interior. "'Who are you, then?' demanded a haughty voice. "'State your business or be gone!' Without hesitation, Arya jabbed the Douthdert through the open slot. A gurgle emanated from within. Then Aragon heard the sound of a body falling to the floor. Arya pulled the lance back and shook the blood and scraps of flesh from the barbed blade. Then she grasped the haft of the weapon with both hands, placed the tip of it along the right seam of the sallyport, and said, Derma! Aragon squinted and turned aside as a fierce blue flame appeared between the lance and the gate. Even from several feet away, he could feel the heat. Her face contorted with strain, Arya pressed the blade of the spear into the gate, slowly cutting through the iron. Sparks and drops of molten metal poured out from underneath the blade and skittered across the paved ground like grease on a hot pan, causing Aragon and the others to step back. As she worked, Aragon glanced in the direction of Thorn and the shadow Sephira. He could not see them, but he could still hear roars and the crash of breaking masonry. Elva sagged against him, and he looked down to see that she was shaking and sweating as if she had a fever. He knelt next to her. Do you want me to carry you? She shook her head. I'll be better once we're inside and away from... that. She motioned in the direction of the battle. At the edges of the courtyard, Aragorn saw a number of people, they did not look like soldiers, standing in the spaces between the grand houses, watching what they were doing. Scare them off, would you? He asked Sephira. She swung her head around and gave a low growl, and the onlookers scurried away. When the fountain of sparks and white-hot metal ceased, Arya kicked at the sallyport until, on the third kick, the door fell inward and landed on the body of the gatekeeper. A second later, the smell of burning wool and skin wafted out. Still holding the Douthdert, Arya stepped through the dark portal. Aragon held his breath. Whatever wards Galbatorix had placed on the citadel, the Douthdert ought to allow her to pass through them without harm even as it had allowed her to cut open the sallyport. But there was always a chance that the king had cast a spell the Douthdert would be unable to counter. To his relief, nothing happened as Arya entered the citadel. Then a group of twenty soldiers rushed toward her, pikes outstretched. Aragon drew Brisinger and ran to the sallyport, but he dared not cross the threshold of the citadel to join her, not yet. Wielding the spear with the same proficiency as her sword, Arya fought her way through the men, dispatching them with impressive speed. Why didn't you warn her? exclaimed Aragon, never taking his eyes off the fight. Elva joined him by the hole in the gate. Because they won't hurt her, 
the words proved prophetic. None of the soldiers managed to land a blow. The last two men tried to flee, but Arya bounded after them and slew them before they had gone more than a dozen yards down the immense hallway, which was even larger than the four main corridors of Trunchheim. When all of the soldiers were dead, Arya pulled the bodies aside so that there was a clear path to the sallyport. Then she walked down the hallway a good forty feet, placed the Douthdet on the floor, and slid it back out to Aragon. As her hand left the spear, she tensed, as if in preparation for a blow, but she seemed to remain unaffected by whatever magics were in the area. Do you feel anything? Aragon called. His voice echoed in the interior of the hall. She shook her head. As long as we stay clear of the gate, we should be fine. Aragon handed the spear to Blodgarm, who took it and entered through the sallyport. Together, Arya and the fur-covered elf went into the rooms on either side of the gate and worked the hidden mechanisms to open it, a task that would have been beyond the same number of humans. The clanking of chains filled the air as the giant iron doors slowly swung outward. Once the gap was wide enough for Sephira, Aragon shouted, Stop! and the doors ground to a halt. Blodgarm emerged from the room to the right, and keeping a safe distance from the threshold, slid the Douthdert to another of the elves. In that fashion, they entered the citadel, one by one. When only Aragon, Elva, and Sephira remained outside, a terrible roar sounded in the northern part of the city, and for a moment the whole of Urubain fell silent. They have discovered our deception, cried the elf Uthinare. He tossed the spear to Aragon. Hurry, Arjatlam! You next, said Aragon, handing the Douthdert to Elva. Cradling it in the crooks of her arms, she scurried over to join the elves, then pushed the spear back to Aragon, who grabbed it and ran across the threshold. Turning, he was alarmed to see Thorn rise above the buildings by the far edge of the city. Aragon dropped to one knee, placed the Darth Dead on the floor, and rolled it to Sephira. Quickly! he shouted. A number of seconds were lost as Sephira fumbled with the lance, struggling to pick it up between the tips of her jaws. At last she got it between her teeth, and she leaped into the gigantic corridor, scattering the bodies of the soldiers. In the distance, Thorn bellowed and flapped furiously, racing toward the citadel. Speaking in unison, Arya and Blodgarm cast a spell. A deafening clatter sounded within the stone walls, and the iron doors swung shut many times faster than they had opened. They closed with a boom that Aragon felt through his feet, and then a metal bar three feet thick and six feet wide slid out of each wall and through brackets bolted to the inside of the doors, securing them in place. That should hold them for a while, said Arya. Not for that long, said Aragon, looking at the open sally port. Then they turned to see what lay before them. The hallway ran for what Aragon guessed was close to a quarter mile, which would take them deep inside the hill behind Urubain. At the far end was another set of doors, just as large as the first, but covered in patterned gold that glowed beautifully in the light of the flameless lanterns mounted at regular intervals along the walls. Dozens of smaller passageways branched off to either side, 
but none were large enough for Shrukan, although Sephira could have fit in many of them. Red banners, embroidered with the outline of the twisting flame that Galbatorix used as his sigil, hung along the walls every hundred feet. Otherwise, the hall was bare. The sheer size of the passageway was intimidating, and its emptiness made Aragon that much more nervous. He assumed the throne room was on the other side of the golden doors, but he did not think it would be as easy to reach as it appeared. If Galbatorix was even half as cunning as his reputation implied, he would have littered the corridor with dozens if not hundreds of traps. Aragon found it puzzling that the king had not already attacked them. He did not feel the touch of any mind, save those of Sephira and his companions, but he remained acutely aware of how close they were to the king. The entire citadel seemed to be watching them. He must know we're here, he said, all of us. Then we had best make haste, said Arya. She took the darth dart from Sephira's mouth. The weapon was covered in saliva. Thorough, said Arya, and the slime fell to the floor. Behind them, outside the iron gate, there was a loud crash as Thorn landed in the courtyard. He uttered a roar of frustration, then something heavy struck the gate, and the walls rang with the noise. Arya trotted to the front of their group, and Elva joined her. The dark-haired girl placed a hand on the shaft of the spear, so that she too shared its protective powers, and the two of them started forward, leading the way down the long hall as they hurried ever deeper into Galbatorix's lair. The Storm Breaks Sir, it's time. Roran opened his eyes and nodded at the boy with a lantern who had stuck his head into the tent. The boy hurried off, and Roran leaned over and kissed Katrina on the cheek. She kissed him back. Neither of them had slept. Together they rose and dressed. She finished first, for it took him longer to don his armor and weapons. As he pulled on his gloves, she handed him a slice of bread, a wedge of cheese, and a cup of lukewarm tea. He ignored the bread, took a single bite of cheese, and downed the whole cup of tea at once. They held each other for a moment, and he said, If it's a girl, name her something fierce. And if it's a boy? The same. Boy or girl, you have to be strong in order to survive in this world. I'll do it, I promise. They released each other, and she looked him in the eye. Fight well, my husband. He nodded, then turned and left before he lost his composure. The men under his command were assembling by the northern entrance to the camp when he joined them. The only light they had was from the faint glow above and the torches planted along the outer breastwork. In the dim, flickering illumination, the warriors' figures seemed like a pack of shuffling beasts, threatening and alien. Among their ranks were a large number of urgles, including some cull. His battalion contained a greater share of the creatures than most, as Nasawada had deemed them more likely to follow orders from him than from anyone else. The Urgles carried the long and heavy siege ladders that would be used to climb over the city walls. Also among the men were a score of elves. Most of their kind would be fighting on their own, but Queen Islanzadi had granted permission for some to serve in the Varden's army, 
as protection against attack by Galbatorix's spellcasters. Roran welcomed the elves and took the time to ask each their name. They answered politely enough, but he had a feeling they did not think very highly of him. That was all right. He did not care for them either. There was something about them he did not trust. They were too aloof, too well-practiced, and above all, too different. The dwarves and urgles, at least, he understood, but not the elves. He could not tell what they were thinking, and that bothered him. Greetings, Stronghammer, said Nargajvog, in a whisper that could be heard at thirty paces. Today we shall win much glory for our tribes. Yes, today we will win much glory for our tribes, Roran agreed, moving on. The men were nervous. Some of the younger ones looked as if they might be sick, and some were, which was only to be expected. But even the older men seemed tense, short-tempered, and either overly talkative or overly withdrawn. The cause was obvious enough. Shrooken. There was little Roran could do to help them, other than to hide his own fears and hope that the men did not lose their courage entirely. The sense of anticipation that clung to everyone there, himself included, was dreadful. They had sacrificed much in order to reach this point, and it was not just their lives that were at risk in the battle to come. It was the safety and well-being of their families and descendants, as well as the future of the land itself. All of their prior battles had been similarly fraught, but this was the final one. This was the end. One way or another, there would be no more battles with the Empire after this day. The thought hardly felt real. Never again would they have the chance to kill Galbatorix. And while confronting Galbatorix had seemed fine enough in conversations late at night, now that the moment was almost upon them, the prospect was terrifying. Roran sought out Horst and the other villagers from Carverhall and the lot of them formed a knot within the battalion. Burgett was among the men, clutching an axe that looked freshly sharpened. He acknowledged her by lifting his shield, as he might a mug of ale. She returned the gesture, and he allowed himself a grim smile. The warriors muffled their boots and feet with rags, then stood waiting for the order to depart. It soon arrived, and they marched out of the camp, doing their best to keep their arms and armour from making noise. Roran led his warriors across the field to their place before the front gate of Urubain, where they joined two other battalions, one led by his old commander, Martland Redbeard, and one led by Jormunder. The alarm went up in Urubain soon afterward, so they pulled the rags off their weapons and feet and prepared to attack. A few minutes later, the Varden's horns sounded the advance, and they set off at a run across the dark ground toward the immensity of the city wall. Roran took a place at the forefront of the charge. It was the fastest way to get himself killed, but the men needed to see him braving the same dangers they faced. It would, he hoped, stiffen their spines and keep them from breaking rank at the first sign of serious opposition. For whatever happened, Urubain would not be easy to take. Of that he was sure. They ran past one of the siege towers, the wheels of which were over twenty feet high, and creaked like a set of rusty hinges. And then they were on open ground. Arrows and javelins rained upon them from the soldiers atop the battlements. 
The elves shouted in their strange tongue, and by the faint light of dawn, Roran saw many of the arrows and spears turn and bury themselves harmlessly in the dirt. But not all. A man behind him uttered a desperate cry, and Roran heard a clatter of armor as men and ergles leaped aside to avoid stepping on the fallen warrior. Roran did not look back, nor did he or those with him slow their headlong dash toward the wall. An arrow struck the shield he held over his head. He barely felt the impact. When they arrived at the wall, he moved to the side, shouting, Ladders! Make way for the ladders! The men parted to allow the urgles carrying the ladders to move forward. The ladder's great length meant that the cull had to use poles made of trees lashed together to push them upright. Once the ladders touched the wall, they sagged inward under their own weight, so that the upper two-thirds lay flat against the dressed stone and slid from side to side, threatening to fall. Roran elbowed his way back through the men and grabbed one of the elves, Othiara, by the arm. She gave him a look of anger which he ignored. Keep the ladders in place, he shouted. Don't let the soldiers push them away. She nodded and began to chant in the ancient language, as did the other elves. Turning, Roran hurried back to the wall. One of the men was already starting to climb the nearest ladder. Roran grabbed him by the belt and pulled him off. I'll go first, he said. Stronghammer. Roran slung his shield over his back, then began to climb, hammer in hand. He had never been fond of heights, and as the men and ergles grew smaller below him, he felt increasingly uneasy. The feeling just grew worse when he reached the section of the ladder that lay flat against the wall, for he could no longer wrap his hands all the way around the rungs, nor could he get a good foothold. Only the first few inches of his boots would fit on the bark-covered branches, and he had to move carefully to ensure that they did not slip off. A spear flew past him, close enough that he felt the wind on his cheek. He swore and kept climbing. He was less than a yard from the battlements when a soldier with blue eyes leaned over the edge and looked straight at him. Gah! Roran shouted, and the soldier flinched and stepped back. Before the man had time to recover, Roran scrambled up the remaining rungs and hopped over the battlements to land on the walkway along the top of the wall. The soldier he had scared stood several feet in front of him, holding a short archer's sword. The man's head was turned to the side as he shouted at a group of soldiers farther down the wall. Roran's shield was still on his back, so he swung his hammer at the man's wrist. Without the shield, Roran knew he would have difficulty fending off a trained swordsman. His safest course was to disarm his opponent as quickly as possible. The soldier saw what he intended and parried the blow. Then he stabbed Roran in the belly. Or rather, he tried to. Aragon's spells stopped the tip of the blade a quarter inch from Roran's gut. Roran grunted, surprised, then knocked aside the blade and brained the man with three rapid strikes. He swore again. It was a bad beginning. Up and down the wall, more of the Varden tried to climb over the battlements. Few made it. Clumps of soldiers waited at the top of most every ladder, and reinforcements were streaming onto the walkway from the stairs to the city. Baldor joined him. He had used the same ladder as Roran, and together they ran toward a ballista manned by eight soldiers. The ballista was mounted near the base of one of the many towers that rose out of the wall, each of which stood about two hundred feet apart. Behind the soldiers and the tower, Roran saw the illusion of Sephira that the elves had created, 
flying over and around the wall, breathing fire on it. The soldiers were smart. They grabbed their spears and poked at him and Baldor, keeping them at a distance. Roran tried to catch one of the spears, but the man wielding it was too fast, and Roran nearly got stabbed again. A moment more, and he knew the soldiers would overwhelm him and Baldor. Before that could happen, an Urgle pulled himself over the edge of the wall behind the soldiers, then lowered his head and charged, bellowing and swinging the iron-bound club he carried. The Urgle struck one man in the chest, breaking his ribs, and another on the hip, breaking his pelvis. Either injury ought to have incapacitated the soldiers, but as the Urgle bulled past them, the two men picked themselves off the stone as if nothing had happened, and proceeded to stab the Urgle in the back. A sense of doom settled upon Roran. We'll have to bash in their skulls or take off their heads if we're going to stop them, he growled to Baldor. Keeping his eyes on the soldiers, he shouted to the Varden behind them, They can't feel pain! Out over the city, the illusionary Sephira crashed into a tower. Everyone but Roran paused to look. He knew what the elves were doing. Jumping forward, he slew one of the soldiers with a blow to the temple. He used his shield to shove the next soldier aside. Then he was too close for their spears to be of any use, and he was able to make short work of them with his hammer. Once he and Baldor had killed the rest of the soldiers around the ballista, Baldor looked at him with an expression of despair. Did you see? Sephira! She's fine. But don't worry about it, she's fine. Baldor hesitated, then accepted Roran's word and they rushed at the next clump of soldiers. Soon afterward, Sephira, the real Sephira, appeared over the southern part of the wall as she flew toward the citadel, prompting cheers of relief from the Varden. Roran frowned. She was supposed to remain hidden for the whole of her flight. Frithia, Frithia, he said quickly under his breath. He remained visible. Blast it, he thought. Turning, he said, Back to the ladders! Why? demanded Baldor as he grappled with another soldier. Uttering a ferocious shout, he pushed the man off the wall into the city. Stop asking questions! Move! Side by side, they fought their way through the line of soldiers that separated them from the ladders. It was bloody and difficult, and Baldor received a cut on his left calf behind his grieve and a severe bruise on one of his shoulders where a spear nearly pierced his mailed shirt. The soldiers' immunity to pain meant that killing them was the only way to stop them, and killing them was no easy task. Also it meant that Roran dared not show mercy. More than once he thought he had killed a soldier, only to have the wounded man rear up and strike at him while he was engaged with another opponent. And there were so many soldiers on the walkway he began to fear that he and Baldur would never make it off. When they reached the nearest ladder, he said, Here, stay here. If Baldur was puzzled, he did not show it. They held off the soldiers by themselves until another two men climbed up the ladder and joined them, then a third. And at last, Roran began to feel as if they had a good chance of pushing back the soldiers and capturing that segment of the wall. Even though the attack had been devised as only a distraction, Roran saw no reason to treat it as such. If they were going to risk their lives, they might as well get something out of it. They needed to clear the walls anyway. 
Then they heard Thorn roar with rage, and the red dragon appeared over the tops of the buildings, winging his way toward the citadel. Roran saw a figure he thought was Murtag on his back, crimson sword in hand. What does it mean? shouted Baldor between sword strokes. It means the game is up, Roran replied. Brace yourself, these bastards are in for a surprise. He had barely finished speaking when the voices of the elves sounded above the noise of the battle, eerie and beautiful, as they sang in the ancient language. Roran ducked under a spear and poked the end of his hammer into a soldier's belly, knocking the wind from the man's lungs. The soldiers might not be able to feel pain, but they still had to breathe. As the soldier struggled to recover, Roran slipped past his guard and crushed his throat with the rim of his shield. He was about to attack the next man when he felt the stone tremble beneath his feet. He retreated until his back was pressed against the battlements, then widened his stance for balance. One of the soldiers was foolish enough to rush him at that very moment. As the man ran toward him, the trembling grew stronger. Then the top of the wall rippled like a blanket being tossed, and the onrushing soldier, as well as most of his companions, fell and remained prone, helpless to rise as the earth continued to shake. From the other side of the wall tower that separated them from Urbane's main gate, came a sound like a mountain breaking. Fan-shaped jets of water sprayed into the air, and then with a great noise, the wall over the gate shuddered and began to crumble inward. And still the elves sang. As the motion beneath his feet subsided, Roran sprang forward and killed three of the soldiers before they were able to stand. The rest turned, and fled back down the stairs that led into the city. Roran helped Baldor to his feet, then shouted, After them! He grinned, tasting blood. Maybe it wasn't such a bad start after all. That which does not kill. Stop, said Elva. Aragon froze with his foot in the air. The girl waved him back, and he retreated. Jump to there, said Elva. She pointed at a spot a yard in front of him. By the scrollwork. He crouched, then hesitated, as he waited for her to tell him whether it was safe. She stamped her foot and made a sound of exasperation. It won't work if you don't mean it. I can't tell if something is going to hurt you unless you actually intend to put yourself in danger. She gave him a smile that he found less than reassuring. Don't worry, I won't let anything happen to you. Still doubtful, he flexed his legs again, and was just about to spring forward when, stop! He cursed and waved his arms as he tried to keep from falling onto the section of floor that would trigger the spikes hidden both above and below. The spikes were the third trap Aragon and his companions had encountered in the long hallway leading to the golden doors. The first had been a set of hidden pits. The second had been blocks of stone in the ceiling that would have squished them flat. And now the spikes, much like those that had killed Weirden in the tunnels beneath Drasleona. They had seen Murtag enter the hallway through the open sally port, but he had made no effort to pursue them without Thorn. After watching for a few seconds, he had disappeared into one of the side rooms, 
where Arya and Blodgarm had broken the gears and wheels used to open and close the stronghold's main gate. It might take Murtag an hour to fix the mechanisms, or it might take him minutes. Either way, they dared not dawdle. Try a little bit farther out, said Elva. Aragorn grimaced, but did as she suggested. Stop. This time he would have fallen had Elva not grabbed the back of his tunic. Even farther, she said. Then, stop. Father. I can't, he growled, his frustration increasing. Not without a running start. But with a running start, it would be impossible to stop himself in time, should Elva determine that the jump was dangerous. What now? If the spikes go all the way to the doors, we'll never reach them. They had already thought of using magic to float over the trap, but even the smallest spell would set it off, or so Elva claimed, and they had no choice but to trust her. Maybe the trap is meant for a walking dragon, said Arya. If it's only a yard or two long, Sephira or Thorn could step right over without ever realizing it was there. But if it's a hundred feet long, it would be sure to catch them. Not if I jump, said Sephira. A hundred feet is an easy distance. Aragon exchanged concerned glances with Arya and Elva. Just make sure you don't let your tail touch the floor, he said, and don't go too far, or you might run into another trap. Yes, little one. Sephira crouched and gathered herself in, lowering her head until it was only a foot or so above the stone. Then she dug her claws into the floor and leaped down the hallway, opening her wings just enough to give herself a bit of lift. To Aragon's relief, Elva remained silent. When Sephira had gone two full lengths of her body, she folded her wings and dropped to the floor with a resounding clatter. Safe, she said. Her scales scraped on the floor as she turned around. She jumped back, and Aragon and the others moved out of the way to give her room to land on her return. Well, she said, who's first? It took her four trips to ferry them all across the bed of spikes. Then they continued forward at a swift trot, Arya and Elva again in the lead. They encountered no more traps until they were three-quarters of the way to the gleaming doors, at which point Elva shuddered and raised her small hand. They immediately stopped. Something will cut us in two if we continue, she said. I'm not sure where it will come from. The walls, I think. Aragon frowned. That meant that whatever would cut them had enough weight or strength behind it to overcome their wards. Hardly an encouraging prospect. What if we... He started to say, then stopped as twenty black-robed humans, men and women alike, filed out of a side passageway and formed a line in front of them, blocking the way. Aragon felt a blade of thought stab into his mind as the enemy magicians began to chant in the ancient language. Opening her jaws, Sephira raked the spellcasters with a torrent of crackling flame, but it passed harmlessly around them. One of the banners along the wall caught fire, and scraps of smouldering fabric fell to the floor. Aragon defended himself, but he did not attack in turn. It would take too long to subdue the magicians one by one. Moreover, their chanting concerned him. If they were willing to cast spells before they had seized control of his mind, as well as those of his companions, then they no longer cared if they lived or died. 
only that they stopped the intruders. He dropped to one knee next to Elva. She was speaking to one of the spellcasters, saying something about the man's daughter. Are they standing over the trap? he asked, keeping his voice low. She nodded, never pausing in her speech. Reaching out, he slapped the palm of his hand against the floor. He had expected something to happen, but still he recoiled when a horizontal sheet of metal thirty feet long and four inches thick shot out of each wall with a terrible screech. The plates of metal caught the magicians between them and cut them in two, like a pair of giant tin snips, then just as quickly retreated back into their hidden slots. The suddenness of it shocked Aragon. He averted his eyes from the shambles before them. What a horrible way to die! Next to him, Elva gurgled, then slumped forward in a faint. Arya caught her before her head hit the floor. Cradling her with one arm, Arya began to murmur to her in the ancient language. Aragon consulted with the other elves about how best to bypass the trap. They decided that the safest way would be to jump over it, as they had with the bed of spikes. Four of them climbed onto Sephira, and she was just about to spring forward when Elva cried out in a weak voice, Stop! Don't! Sephira flicked her tail, but remained where she was. Elva slid out of Arya's grasp, staggered a few feet away, leaned over, and was sick. She wiped her mouth on the back of her hand, then stared at the mangled bodies that lay before them, as if fixing them in her memory. Still staring at them, she said, There is another trigger, halfway across in the air. If you jump... She clapped her hands together, a loud, sharp sound, and made an ugly face. Blades come out from high on the walls, as well as lower. A thought began to bother Aragon. Why would Galbatorix try to kill us? If you weren't here, he said, looking at Elva, Sephira might be dead right now. Galbatorix wants her alive, so why this? He gestured at the bloody floor. Why the spikes and the blocks of stone? Perhaps, said the elf woman in Vidya, he expected the pits to capture us before we reached the rest of the traps. Or perhaps, said Blodgarm in a grim voice, he knows that Elva is with us and what she is capable of. The girl shrugged. What of it? He can't stop me. A chill crept through Aragon. No, but if he knows of you, then he might be scared, and if he's scared, then he might really be trying to kill us. Sephira finished. Arya shook her head. It doesn't matter. We still have to find him. They spent a minute discussing how to get past the blades, whereupon Aragon said, What if I used magic to transport us over there, the way Arya sent Sephira's egg to the spine? He gestured toward the area past the bodies. It would require too much energy, said Glader. Better to conserve our strength for when we face Galbatorix, Umaroth added. Aragon gnawed on his lip. He looked back over his shoulder and was alarmed to see far behind them Murtag running from one side of the hallway to the other. We don't have long. Maybe we could put something into the walls to keep the blades from coming out. The blades are sure to be protected from magic, Arya pointed out. 
Besides, we don't have anything with us that could hold them back. A knife, a piece of armour? The plates of metal are too big and heavy. They would tear past whatever was in front of them as if it were not there. Silence fell upon them. Then Blodgarm licked his fangs and said, Not necessarily. He turned and placed his sword on the floor in front of Aragon, then motioned for the elves under his command to do the same. Eleven blades in total they laid before Aragon. I can't ask you to do this, he said. Your swords! Blodgarm interrupted with a raised hand, his fur glossy in the soft light of the lanterns. We fight with our minds, Shadeslayer, not our bodies. If we encounter soldiers, we can take what weapons we need from them. If our swords are of more use here and now, then we would be foolish to retain them merely for reasons of sentiment. Aragon inclined his head. As you wish. To Arya, Blodgarm said, It should be an even number if we are to have the best chance of success. She hesitated, then drew her own thin-bladed sword and placed it among the others. Consider carefully what you are about to do, Aragon, she said. These are storied weapons all. It would be a shame to destroy them and gain nothing by it. He nodded, then frowned, concentrating as he recalled his lessons with Oromis. Umaroth, he said, I'll need your strength. What is ours is yours, the dragon replied. The illusion that hid the slots from which the sheets of metal slid out was too well constructed for Aragon to pierce. This was as he expected. Galbatorix was not one to overlook such a detail. On the other hand, the enchantments responsible for the illusion were easy enough to detect, and by them he was able to determine the exact placement and dimensions of the openings. He could not tell exactly how far back the sheets of metal lay within the slots. He hoped it was at least an inch or two from the outer surface of the wall. If they were closer, his idea would fail, for the king was sure to have protected the metal against outside tampering. Summoning the words he needed, Aragon cast the first of the twelve spells he intended to use. One of the elves' swords, Laufins, he thought, disappeared with a faint breath of wind, like a tunic being swung through the air. A half-second later, a solid thud emanated from the wall to their left. Aragon smiled. It had worked. If he had tried to send the sword through the sheet of metal, the reaction would have been substantially more dramatic. Speaking faster than before, he cast the rest of the spells, embedding six swords within each wall, each sword five feet from the next. The elves watched him intently as he spoke. If the loss of their weapons upset them, they did not show it. When he had finished, Aragon knelt by Arya and Elva, who were both once more holding the Douthdet, and said, Get ready to run. Sephira and the elves tensed. Arya had Elva climb onto her back while still maintaining her hold on the green lance. Then Arya said, Ready. Reaching forward, Aragon again slapped the floor. A jarring crash sounded from each wall, and threads of dust fell from the ceiling, blossoming into hazy plumes. The moment he saw that the swords had held, Aragon dashed forward. He had barely taken two steps when Elva screamed, Faster! 
roaring with the effort, he forced his feet to strike the ground even harder. To his right, Sephira ran past, head and tail low, a dark shadow at the edge of his vision. Just as he reached the far side of the trap, he heard the snap of breaking steel, and then the cringe-inducing shriek of metal scraping against metal. Behind him, someone shouted. He twisted as he flung himself away from the noise, and he saw that everyone had crossed the space in time, save the silver-haired elf woman, Yela, who had been caught between the last six inches of the two pieces of metal. The space around her flared blue and yellow, as if the air itself was burning, and her face contorted with pain. Flauger! shouted Blodgarm, and Yela flew out from between the sheets of metal, which snapped together with a ringing clang. Then they retreated into the walls with the same terrible shrieking that had accompanied their appearance. Yela had landed on her hands and knees close to Aragon. He helped her to her feet. To his surprise, she seemed unharmed. Are you hurt? he asked. She shook her head. No, but my warts are gone. She lifted her hands and stared at them with an expression close to wonder. I've not been without wards since, since I was younger than you are now. Somehow the blades stripped them from me. You're lucky to be alive, said Aragon. He frowned. Elva shrugged. We would have all died except for him, she pointed at Blodgarm, if I hadn't told you to move faster, Aragon grunted. They continued on their way, expecting with every step to find another trap. But the rest of the hallway proved to be free of obstacles, and they reached the doors at the end without further incident. Aragon looked up at the shining expanse of gold. Embossed across the doors was a life-sized oak tree, the leaves of which formed an arching canopy that joined with the roots below to inscribe a great circle about the trunk. Sprouting from either side of the trunk's midsection were two thick bundles of branches, which divided the space within the circle into quarters. In the top left quarter was a carving of an army of spear-bearing elves marching through a thick forest. In the top right quarter were humans building castles and forging swords. In the bottom left, urgles, cull mostly, burning down a village and killing the inhabitants. In the bottom right, dwarves mining caves filled with gems and veins of ore. Amid the roots and branches of the oak, Aragon spotted weircats and the razak, as well as a few small, strange-looking creatures that he failed to recognize. And coiled in the very center of the bowl of the tree was a dragon that held the end of its tail in its mouth, as if biting itself. The doors were beautifully crafted, under different circumstances, Aragon would have been content to sit and study them for most of a day. As it was, the sight of the shining doors filled him with dread as he contemplated what might lie on the other side. If it was Galbatorix, then their lives were about to change forever, and nothing would ever be the same, not for them and not for the rest of Alagazia. I'm not ready. Aragon said to Sephira. When will we ever be ready? She replied. She flicked out her tongue, tasting the air. 
he could feel her nervous anticipation. Kalbatorix and Shruken must be killed, and we are the only ones who might be able to do it. What if we can't? Then we can't, and what will be, will be. He nodded and took a long breath. I love you, Saphira. I love you too, little one. Aragon stepped forward. Now what? he asked, trying to hide his uneasiness. Should we knock? First, let's see if it's open, said Arya. They arranged themselves in a formation suitable for battle. Then Arya, with Elva next to her, grasped a handle set within the left-hand door and prepared to pull. As she did, a column of shimmering air appeared around Blodgarm and each of his ten spellcasters. Aragon shouted with alarm, and Saphira released a short hiss as if she had stepped upon something sharp. The elves seemed unable to move within the columns, even their eyes remained motionless, fixed upon whatever they had been looking at when the spell took effect. With a heavy clank, a door in the wall to the left slid open, and the elves began to move toward it, like a procession of statues gliding across ice. Arya lunged toward them, barbed spear extended before her, in an attempt to cut through the enchantments binding the elves. But she was too slow, and she could not catch them. Let her! shouted Aragon. Stop! The simplest spell he could think of that might help. However, the magic that imprisoned the elves proved too strong for him to break, and they disappeared within the dark opening, the door slamming shut behind them. Dismay swept through Aragon. Without the elves! Arya pounded on the door with the butt of the Douthdet, and she even tried to find the seam between the door and the wall with the tip of the blade, as she had with the sallyport. But the wall seemed solid, immovable. When she turned around, her expression was one of cold fury. Umaroth, she said, I need your help to open this wall. No, said the white dragon. Galbatorix is sure to have hidden your companions well. Trying to find them will only waste energy and place us in even greater danger. Arya's slanting eyebrows drew closer as she scowled. Then we play into his hand, Umaroth Elder. He wants to divide us and make us weaker. If we continue without them, it will be that much easier for Galbatorix to defeat us. Yes, little one, but think you not also that the Eggbreaker might want us to pursue them? He might want us to forget him in our anger and concern, and thus to rush blindly into another of his traps. Why would he go to so much trouble? He could have captured Aragon, Saphira, you and the rest of the Eldunari, even as he captured Blodgarm and the others. But he didn't. Perhaps because he wants us to exhaust ourselves before we confront him, or before he attempts to break us. Arya lowered her head for a moment, and when she looked up, her fury had vanished, at least on the surface, replaced by her usual controlled watchfulness. What, then, should we do, Ebrithil? We hope that Galbatorix will not kill Blodgarm or the others, not immediately at least, and we continue on 
until we find the king. Arya acquiesced, but Aragon could tell that she found it distasteful. He could not blame her. He felt the same. Why didn't you sense the trap? He asked Elva in an undertone. He thought he understood, but he wanted to hear it from her. Because it didn't hurt them, she said. He nodded. Arya strode back to the golden doors and again grasped the handle on the left. Joining her, Elva wrapped her small hand around the shaft of the Douthdert. Leaning away from the door, Arya pulled and pulled, and the massive structure slowly began to swing outward. No one human, Aragon was sure, could have opened it, and even Arya's strength was barely sufficient. When the door reached the wall, Arya released it, and then she and Elva joined Aragon in front of Sephira. On the other side of the cavernous archway was a huge, dark chamber. Aragon was unsure of its size, for the walls lay hidden in velvet shadows. A line of flameless lanterns mounted on iron poles ran straight out from either side of the entranceway, illuminating the patterned floor and little else, while a faint glow came from above through crystals set within the distant ceiling. The two rows of lanterns ended over five hundred feet away, near the base of a broad dais, upon which rested a throne. On the throne sat a single black figure, the only figure in the whole room, and on his lap lay a bare sword, a long white splinter that seemed to emit a faint glow. Aragon swallowed and tightened his grip on Brisinger. He gave Sephira's jaw a quick rub with the edge of his shield, and she flicked out her tongue in response. Then, by unspoken consent, the four of them started forward. The moment they were all in the throne room, the golden door swung shut behind them. Aragon had expected as much, but still the noise of it closing made him start. As the echoes faded to dusky silence within the high presence chamber, the figure upon the throne stirred as if waking from sleep, and then a voice a voice such as Aragon had never heard before, deep and rich, and imbued with authority greater than that of Ajahad or Oramis or Hrothgar, a voice that made even the elves seem harsh and discordant, rang forth from the far side of the throne room, and it said, Ah, I have been expecting you. Welcome to my abode. And welcome to you in particular, Aragon Shadeslayer, and to you, Sephira Brightscales. I have much desired to meet with you, but I am also glad to see you, Arya, daughter of Islanzadi, and Shadeslayer in your own right, and you as well, Elva, she of the Shining Brow, and of course, Gleda. Umaroth, Valder, and those others who travel with you unseen. I had long believed them to be dead, and I am most glad to learn otherwise. Welcome all. We have much to talk about.
the heart of the fray. Along with the warriors of his battalion, Roran fought his way down off Urabain's outer wall to the streets below. There they paused to regroup. Then he shouted, To the gate! and pointed with his hammer. He and several men from Carvajal, including Horst and Delwyn, took the lead as they trotted along the inside of the wall toward the breach the elves had created with their magic. Arrows flitted over their heads as they ran, but none were aimed at them specifically, and he did not hear any of their group take a wound. They encountered dozens of soldiers in the narrow space between the wall and the stone houses. A few paused to fight, but the rest ran, and even those who fought soon retreated down the adjoining alleyways. At first, the savage intensity of slaughter and victory blinded Roran to all else. But when the soldiers they met continued to flee, a sense of unease began to gnaw his stomach, and he began to look around with greater alertness, searching for anything that seemed different from what it ought to be. Something was wrong, he was sure of it. Galbatorix wouldn't let them give up this easily, he muttered to himself. What? asked Albrecht, who was next to him. I said Galbatorix wouldn't let them give up this easily. Twisting his head around, Roran shouted to the rest of the battalion, Pin back your ears and look sharp! Galbatorix has a surprise or two in store for us, I wager. We won't let ourselves get caught unawares, though, now will we? Strong hammer! they shouted in return, and pounded their weapons against their shields. All but the elves, that was. Satisfied, he quickened the pace, even as he continued to scan the rooftops. They soon broke out into the rubble-strewn street that led to what had once been the main gate of the city. Now all that was left was a gaping hole several hundred feet wide at the top, with a pile of broken stones at the bottom. Through the gap streamed the Varden and their allies, Men, dwarves, urgles, elves, and weircats, fighting alongside one another for the first time in history. Arrows rained down on the army as it poured into the city, but the elves' magic stopped the deadly darts before they could cause harm. The same did not hold true for Galbatorix's soldiers. Roran saw a number of them fall to the Varden's archers, although some appeared to have wards that protected them from the arrows. Galbatorix's favorites, he assumed. As his battalion joined the rest of the army, Roran spotted Jormunder riding in the press of warriors. Roran called out greetings, and Jormunder replied in kind and shouted, Once we reach that fountain, he pointed with his sword toward a large, ornate edifice that stood in a courtyard several hundred yards in front of them. Take your men and head off to the right. Clear the southern part of the city, then meet back up with us at the citadel. Roran nodded exaggerating the movement so Jormunder would see. Sir, he felt safer now that they had the company of other warriors, but still his sense of unease continued. Where are they? he wondered, looking at the mouths of the empty streets. Galbatorix had supposedly gathered the whole of his army in Urabain, but Roran had yet to see evidence of a large force of men. There had been surprisingly few soldiers on the walls, and those who were present had fled far sooner than they should have. He's luring us in, Roran realized with sudden certainty. It's all a play designed to trick us. Catching Jormunder's attention again, he shouted, Something's wrong! Where are the soldiers? Jormunder frowned 
and turned to speak with King Orin and Queen Islanzadi, who had ridden up to him. Oddly enough, a white raven sat on Islanzadi's left shoulder, his claws hooked into her corselet of golden armour. And still the Varden continued to march deeper and deeper into Urabain. What is the matter, Stronghammer? growled Nargajvog as he pushed his way over to Roran. Roran glanced up at the heavy-headed cull. I'm not sure. Galbatorix... He forgot whatever else he was going to say when a horn sounded among the buildings ahead of them. It blared for the better part of a minute, a low, ominous tone that caused the Varden to pause and look around with concern. Roran's heart sank. This is it, he said to Albrecht. Turning, he waved his hammer, motioning toward the side of the street. Move over, he bellowed. Get between the buildings and take cover! It took his battalion longer to extricate itself from the column of warriors than it had to join it. Frustrated, Roran continued shouting, trying to get them to move faster. Quickly, you sorry dogs! Quickly! The horn sounded again, and Jormunder finally called a halt to the army. By then, Roran's warriors were safely wedged into three streets, where they stood clustered behind buildings, waiting for his orders. He stood by the side of a house, along with Garjvag and Horst, peering around the corner as he tried to see what was happening. Once more the horn sounded, and then the tramp of many feet echoed through Urabain. Dread crawled through Roran as he saw rank after rank of soldiers march into the streets leading from the citadel, the rows of men brisk and orderly, their faces devoid of even the slightest hint of fear. But their head rode a squat, broad-shouldered man upon a grey charger. He wore a gleaming breastplate that bulged over a foot outward as if to accommodate a large belly. In his left hand he carried a shield painted with the device of a crumbling tower upon a bare stone peak. In his right hand he carried a spiked mace that most men would have found difficult to lift, but that he swung back and forth with ease. Roran wet his lips. He guessed that the man was none other than Lord Bast, and if even half the things he had heard about the man were true, then Bast would never ride straight at an opposing force unless he was utterly certain of destroying it. Roran had seen enough. Pushing himself off the corner of the building, he said, We're not going to wait. Tell the others to follow us. You mean to run away, strong armor? rumbled Nargajvag. No, said Roran. I mean to attack from the side. Only a fool would attack an army like that head on. Now go! He gave the Urgle a shove, then hurried down the cross street to take his position at the front of his warriors. And only a fool would go head to head with the man Galbatorix has chosen to lead his forces. As they made their way between the densely packed buildings, Roran heard the soldiers start to chant, Lord Bast! Lord Bast! Lord Bast! And they stamped the ground with their hobnail boots and banged their swords against their shields. Better and better, Roran thought, wishing he were anywhere but there. Then the Varden shouted in return, the air filled with cries of Aragon and the Riders! And then the city rang with the sounds of clashing metal and the screams of wounded men. 
When his battalion was level with what Roran guessed was the midpoint of the Empire's army, he had them turn and start in the direction of their enemies. Stay together, he ordered. Form a wall with your shields, and whatever you do, make sure you protect the spellcasters. They soon spotted the soldiers in the street, spearmen mostly, pressed close against one another as they shuffled toward the front of the battle. Nargajvog let out a ferocious bellow, as did Roran and the other warriors in the battalion, and they charged toward the ranks of men. The soldiers shouted with alarm, and panic spread among them as they scrambled backward, trampling their own kind as they tried to find room to fight. Howling, Roran fell upon the first row of men. Blood sprayed around him as he swung his hammer and felt metal and bone give way. The soldiers were so tightly packed that they were nearly helpless. He killed four of them before even one managed to swing a sword at him, which he blocked with his shield. By the edge of the street, Nargajvog knocked down six men with a single blow of his club. The soldiers started to climb back to their feet, ignoring injuries that would have crippled them had they been able to feel pain, and Garjvag struck again, pounding them to a pulp. Roran was aware of nothing but the men in front of him, the weight of his hammer in his hand, and the slipperiness of the blood-coated cobblestones under his feet. He broke and he battered, he ducked and he shoved, he growled and he shouted, and he killed and he killed and he killed until to his surprise he swung his hammer and found nothing but empty air before him. His weapon bounced against the ground, striking sparks from the cobblestones, and a painful jolt ran up his arm. Roran shook his head, his battle rage clearing. He had fought his way completely through the mass of soldiers. Spinning around, he saw that most of his warriors were still engaged with soldiers to his right and left. Loosing another howl, he dove back into the fray. Three soldiers closed in on him, two with spears, one with a sword. Roran lunged at the man with the sword, but his foot slipped beneath him as he stepped on something soft and wet. Even as he fell, he swung his hammer at the ankles of the nearest man. The soldier danced back and was about to bring his sword down on Roran when an elf leaped forward and with two quick strokes beheaded all three soldiers. It was the same elf woman he had spoken to outside the city walls, only now splattered with stripes of gore. Before he could thank her, she darted past, her sword a blur as she cut down more of the soldiers. After watching them in action, Roran decided that each elf was worth at least five men, not even counting their ability to cast spells. As for the Urgles, he just did his best to stay out of their way, especially the Cull. They seemed to make little distinction between friend and foe once roused, and the cull was so big it was easy for them to kill someone without meaning to. He saw one of them crush a soldier between his leg and the side of a building and not even notice. Another time he saw a cull behead a soldier with an inadvertent swipe of a shield while turning about. The fighting continued for another few minutes, whereupon the only soldiers remaining in the area were dead soldiers. Wiping the sweat from his brow, Roran glanced up and down the street. Farther into the city, he saw remnants of the force they had destroyed disappearing between the houses as the men ran to join another part of Galbatorix's army. He considered pursuing them, but the main battle lay closer to the edge of the city, and he wanted to fall upon the rear of the attacking soldiers 
and disrupt their lines. This way, he shouted, raising his hammer and starting down the street. An arrow buried itself in the edge of his shield, and he looked up to see the silhouette of a man sliding below the peak of a nearby roof. When Rorin emerged from between the close-set buildings into the open area before the remnants of Urubain's front gate, he found a scene of such confusion that he hesitated, unsure of what to do. The two armies had mingled together until it was impossible to determine lines or ranks, or even where the front of the battle was. The crimson tunics of the soldiers were scattered throughout the square, sometimes singly, sometimes in large clusters, and the fighting had spilled into all of the nearby streets, the armies spreading outward like a stain. Among the combatants Roran expected to see, he also spotted scores of cats, ordinary cats, not weir cats, attacking the soldiers, as savage and frightening a sight as he had ever beheld. The cats, he knew, followed the direction of the weircats. And in the centre of the square, sitting upon his grey charger, was Lord Bast, his large round breastplate gleaming with the light of the fires burning in nearby houses. He swung his mace again and again, faster than any human ought to have been able to, and with every blow he slew at least one of the Varden. Arrows fired at him, vanished in puffs of sickly orange flame. Swords and spears bounced off him as if he were made of stone, and even the strength of a charging cull was not enough to knock him off his steed. Roran watched with astonishment as with a casual swipe of his mace the armour-clad man brained an attacking cull, breaking his horns and skull as easily as an eggshell. Roran frowned. How can he be so strong and fast? Magic was the obvious answer, but that magic had to have a source. There were no gems upon Bast's mace or armour, nor could Roran believe that Galbatorix would be feeding energy to Bast from a distance. Roran remembered his conversation with Aragon the night before they rescued Katrina from Hellgrind. Aragon had told him that it was basically impossible to alter a human's body to have the speed and strength of an elf, even if the human was a rider which made what the dragons had done to Aragon during the Blood Oath celebration all the more amazing. It seemed unlikely that Galbatorix could have managed a similar transformation with Bast, which again made Roran wonder, where was the source of Bast's unnatural might? Bast pulled on the reins of his steed, turning the horse around. The light moving across the surface of his swollen breastplate caught Roran's attention. Roran's mouth went dry, and he felt a sense of despair. From what he knew, Bast was not the sort of man to have a belly. He would not let himself go soft, nor would Galbatorix have chosen such a man to defend Urubain. The only explanation that made sense, then, was that Bast had an Eldunari strapped to his body underneath his oddly-shaped breastplate. Then the street shook and split, and a dark crevice appeared beneath Bast and his charger. The hole would have swallowed them both with room to spare, but the horse remained standing upon thin air as if its hooves were still planted firmly upon the ground. A wreath of different colours flickered around Bast like a nimbus of tattered rainbows. Alternating waves of heat and cold emanated from his location, and Roran saw tendrils of ice crawling up from the ground 
seeking to wrap themselves around the horse's legs and hold them in place. But the ice could not grip the horse, nor did any of the magic seem to have an effect on either the man or the animal. Bast pulled on the reins again, then spurred his horse toward a group of elves who stood beside a nearby house, chanting in the ancient language. It was they, Rorin assumed, who had been casting the spells against Bast. Lifting his mace above his head, Bast charged into the midst of the elves. They scattered, seeking to defend themselves, but to no avail. For Bast split their shields and broke their swords, and when he struck, the mace crushed the elves as if their bones were as thin and hollow as those of birds. Why didn't their wards protect them? Roran wondered. Why can't they stop him with their minds? He's only one man, and there's only one Eldunari with him. A few yards away, a large round stone crashed into the sea of struggling bodies, leaving behind a bright red smear, and bounced into the front of a building where it shattered the statues above the doorframe. Roran ducked and cursed as he looked for where the stone had come from. Halfway across the city, he saw that Galbatorix's soldiers had retaken the catapults and other war machines mounted on the curtain wall. They're firing into their own city, he thought. They're firing at their own men. With a growl of disgust, he turned away from the square so that he was facing the interior of the city. We can't help here, he shouted to the battalion. Leave Bast to the others. Take the street over there. He pointed to his left. We'll fight our way to the wall and make our stand there. If the warriors responded, he did not hear, for he was already moving. Behind him, another stone crashed into the fighting armies, causing even more screams of pain. The street Rorin had chosen was full of soldiers, as well as a few elves and weircats, who were clumped together by the front door of a hatter's shop, hard-pressed to fend off the large number of enemies around them. The elves shouted something, and a dozen soldiers fell to the ground, but the rest remained standing. Diving into the midst of the soldiers, Roran again lost himself in the red-tinged haze of battle. He leaped over one of the fallen soldiers and brought his hammer down on the helm of a man with his back turned. Confident that the man was dead, Roran used his shield to shove the next soldier back and then jabbed with the end of his hammer at the man's throat, crushing it. Next to him, Delwyn caught a spear in his shoulder and went down on one knee with a cry of pain. Swinging his hammer even faster than normal, Roran drove back the spearman while Delwyn pulled the weapon out and got back to his feet. Fall back, Roran told him. Delwyn shook his head, teeth bared. No, fall back, blast you, that's an order. Delwyn cursed, but he obeyed and Horst took his place. The smith, Roran noticed, was bleeding from cuts on his arms and legs, but they did not seem to interfere with his ability to move. Evading a sword thrust, Roran took a step forward. He seemed to hear a faint rushing sound behind him, and then a thunderclap went off in his ears, and the earth spun around him, and everything went black. He woke with a throbbing head. Above, he saw the sky, bright now with the light from the rising sun and the dark underside of the crevice-lined overhang. Groaning with pain, he pushed himself upright. He was lying at the base of the city's outer wall, 
next to the bloody fragments of a stone from a catapult. His shield was missing, as was his hammer, which concerned him in a befuddled sort of way. Even as he tried to regain his bearings, a group of five soldiers rushed at him, and one of the men stabbed him in the chest with a spear. The point of the weapon drove him back against the wall, but it did not pierce his skin. Grab him! shouted the soldiers, and Roran felt hands take hold of his arms and legs. He thrashed, trying to wrench free, but he was still weak and disoriented, and there were too many soldiers for him to overpower. The soldiers struck at him again and again, and he felt his strength fading as his wards shielded him from the blows. The world grew grey, and he was about to lose consciousness again, when the blade of a sword sprouted from the mouth of one of the soldiers. The soldiers dropped him, and Roran saw a dark-haired woman whirling among them, swinging her sword with the practised ease of a seasoned warrior. Within seconds she killed the five men, although one of them managed to give her a shallow cut along her left thigh. Afterward she offered him her hand and said, Strong hammer. As he grasped her forearm, he saw that her wrist, where her worn bracer did not cover it, was layered with scars, as if she had been burned or whipped nearly to the bone. Behind the woman stood a pale-faced teenage girl, clad in a piecemeal collection of armour, and also a boy, who looked a year or two younger than the girl. "'Who are you?' he asked, standing. The woman's face was striking, broad and strong-boned, with the bronzed, weather-beaten look of one who had spent most of her life outdoors. A passing stranger, she said. Bending at the knees, she picked up one of the soldier's spears and handed it to him. My thanks. She nodded, and then she and her young companions trotted off among the buildings, heading farther into the city. Roran stared after them for a half-second, wondering, then shook himself, and hurried back along the street to rejoin his battalion. The warriors greeted him with shouts of astonishment, and heartened, attacked the soldiers with renewed vigour. However, as Roran took his place along with the other men from Carverhole, he discovered that the stone that had struck him had also killed Delwyn. His sorrow quickly turned to rage, and he fought with even greater ferocity than before, determined to help end the battle as soon as possible. The Name of All Names Afraid but determined, Aragon strode forward with Arya, Elva, and Sephira toward the dais where Galbatorix sat relaxed upon his throne. It was a long walk, long enough that Aragon had time to consider a number of strategies, most of which he discarded as impractical. He knew that strength alone would not be enough to defeat the king. It would require cunning as well, and that was the one thing he felt he most lacked. Still, they had no choice now but to confront Galbatorix. The two rows of lanterns that led to the dais were wide enough apart that the four of them were able to walk side by side. For that, Aragon was glad, as it meant Sephira would be able to fight next to them if need be. As they approached the throne, Aragon continued to study the chamber around them. It was, he thought, a strange room for a king to receive guests in.
Aside from the bright path that lay before them, most of the space was hidden within impenetrable gloom, even more so than the halls of the dwarfs beneath Tronchim and Farthandur, and the air contained a dry, musky scent that seemed familiar, even though he could not place it. Where is Shrukan? he said in an undertone. Safira sniffed. I can smell him, but I don't hear him. Elva frowned. Nor can I feel him. When they were perhaps thirty feet from the dais, they halted. Behind the throne hung thick black curtains made of velvety material, which stretched up toward the ceiling. A shadow lay over Galbatorix, concealing his features. Then he leaned forward into the light, and Aragorn saw his face. It was long and lean, with a deep brow and a blade-like nose. His eyes were hard as stones, and they showed little white around the irises. His mouth was thin and wide, with a slight downturn at the corners, and he had a close-cropped beard and moustache, which, like his clothes, were black as pitch. In age he appeared to be in his fourth decade, still at the height of his strength, yet near the beginning of his decline. There were lines on his brow and on either side of his nose, and his tanned skin had a thin look to it, as if he had eaten nothing but rabbit meat and turnips through the winter. His shoulders were broad and well built, and his waist trim. Upon his head was a crown of reddish gold set with all manner of jewels. The crown appeared old, older even than the hall, and Aragon wondered if perhaps it had once belonged to King Palancar many hundreds of years ago. On Galbatorix's lap rested his sword. It was a rider's sword, that much was obvious, but Aragon had never seen it like before. The blade, hilt and crossguard were stark white, while the gem within the pommel was as clear as a mountain spring. Altogether there was something about the weapon that Aragon found unsettling. Its colour, or rather its lack of colour, reminded him of a sun-bleached bone. It was the colour of death, not life, and it seemed far more dangerous than any shade of black, be it ever so dark. Galbatorix examined them each in turn with his sharp, unblinking gaze. So you have come to kill me, he said. Well then, shall we begin? He lifted his sword and spread his arms to either side in a welcoming gesture. Aragon widened his stance and raised his sword and shield. The king's invitation unsettled him. He's playing with us. Still keeping hold of the Douthdert, Elva stepped forward and began to speak. However, no sound came from her mouth, and she looked at Aragon with an expression of alarm. Aragon tried to touch her mind with his own, but he could feel nothing of her thoughts. It was as if she were no longer in the room with them. Galbatorix laughed, then returned his sword to his lap and leaned back in his throne. Did you truly believe that I was ignorant of your ability, child? Did you really think you could render me helpless with such a petty, transparent trick? Oh, I have no doubt your words could harm me, but only if I can hear them. His bloodless lips curved in a cruel, humorless smile. Such folly. 
This is the extent of your plan? A girl who cannot speak unless I grant her leave? A spear more suited for hanging on a wall than carrying into battle? And a collection of Eldunari half out of their minds with age? Tut, tut! I had thought better of you, Arya, and you, Gleda. But then I suppose your emotions have clouded your reason, since I used Murtag to slay Oromis. To Aragon, Sephira, and Arya, Gleda said, Kill him! The golden dragon felt perfectly calm, but his very serenity betrayed an anger that surpassed all other emotions. Aragon exchanged a quick glance with Arya and Sephira, and then the three of them started toward the dais, even as Gleda, Umaroth, and the other Eldunari attacked Galbatorix's mind. Before Aragon managed to take more than a few steps, the king rose up from his velvet seat and shouted a word. The word reverberated within Aragon's mind, and every part of his being seemed to thrum in response, as if he were an instrument upon which a bard had struck a chord. Despite the intensity of his response, Aragon was unable to remember the word. It faded from his mind, leaving behind only the knowledge of its existence and how it had affected him. Galbatorix uttered other words after the first, but none seemed to have the same power, and Aragon was too dazed to comprehend their meaning. As the last phrase left the king's lips, a force gripped Aragon, stopping him in mid-stride. The jolt shook a yelp of surprise from him. He tried to move, but his body might as well have been encased in stone. All he could do was breathe, look, and as he had already discovered, speak. He did not understand. His wards should have protected him from the king's magic. That they did not left him feeling as if he were teetering on the edge of a vast abyss. Next to him, Sephira, Arya, and Elva appeared likewise immobilized. Enraged by how easily the king had caught them, Aragon joined his mind with the Eldunari as they battered at Galbatorix's consciousness. He felt a vast number of minds opposing them, dragons all, who crooned and babbled and shrieked in a mad, disjointed chorus that contained such pain and sorrow. Aragon wanted to pull himself away, lest they drag him down into their insanity. They were strong, too, as if most of them had been Glader's size or larger. The opposing dragons made it impossible to attack Galbatorix directly. Every time Aragon thought he felt the touch of the king's thoughts, one of the enslaved dragons would throw itself at Aragon's mind and, gibbering all the while, force him to retreat. Fighting the dragons was difficult on account of their wild and incoherent thoughts. Subduing any one of them was like trying to hold down a rabid wolf. And there were so many of them, far more than the riders had hidden in the Vault of Souls. Before either side could gain the advantage, Galbatorix, who seemed entirely unaffected by the invisible struggle, said, Come out, my dears, and meet our guests. A boy and a girl emerged from behind the throne and came to stand by the king's right hand. The girl looked about six, the boy perhaps eight or nine. They shared a close resemblance, and Aragon guessed they were brother and sister. Both were dressed in their night garments. 
the girl clung to the boy's arm and half hid behind him, while the boy appeared frightened but determined. Even as he struggled against Galbatorix's Eldunari, Aragon could feel the minds of the children, could feel their terror and confusion, and he knew they were real. Isn't she charming? asked Galbatorix, lifting the girl's chin with one long finger. Such large eyes and such pretty hair. And isn't he a handsome young lad? He put his hand on the boy's shoulder. Children, it is said, are a blessing to us all. I do not happen to share that belief. It has been my experience that children are every bit as cruel and vindictive as adults. They only lack the strength to subjugate others to their will. Perhaps you agree with me, perhaps you don't. Regardless, I know that you of the Varden pride yourselves on your virtue. You see yourselves as upholders of justice, defenders of the innocent, as if any are truly innocent, and as noble warriors fighting to right an ancient wrong. Very well, then. Let us test your convictions and see if you are what you claim to be. Unless you stop your attack, I shall kill these two. He shook the boy's shoulder. And I shall kill them if you dare attack me again. In fact, if you displease me excessively, I shall kill them anyway. So I advise you to be courteous. The boy and the girl appeared sick at his words, but they made no attempt to flee. Aragon looked over at Arya, and he saw his despair mirrored in her eyes. Umaroth, they cried out. No, growled the white dragon, even as he wrestled with the mind of another Eldunari. You have to stop, said Arya. No, he'll kill them, said Aragon. No, we will not give up, not now. Enough, roared Glada. There are hatchlings in danger, and more hatchlings will be in danger if we do not kill the egg-breaker. Yes, but now is the wrong time to try, said Arya. Wait a little while, and perhaps we can find a way to attack him without risking the lives of the children. And if not, asked Umaroth, Neither Aragon nor Arya could bring themselves to answer. Then we will do what we must, said Sapphira. Aragon hated it, but he knew she was right. They could not place the two children before the whole of Alagasia. If possible, they would save the boy and the girl, but if not, then they would still attack. They had no other choice. As Umaroth and the Eldunari he spoke for grudgingly subsided. Galbatorix smiled. There, that's better. Now we may speak as civilized beings, without worrying about who is trying to kill whom. He patted the boy on the head, and then pointed toward the steps of the dais. Sit. Without arguing, the two children settled on the lowest step, as far from the king as they could get. Then Galbatorix motioned and said, Cowster. And Aragon slid forward until he was standing at the base of the dais, 
as did Arya, Elva, and Sephira. Aragorn continued to be bewildered that their wards were not protecting them. He thought of the word, whatever it might have been, and a horrible suspicion began to take root within him. Hopelessness quickly followed. For all their plans, for all their talking and worrying and suffering, for all their sacrifices, Galbatorix had captured them as easily as he might a litter of newborn kittens. And if Aragorn's suspicion was true, the king was even more formidable than they had suspected. Still, they were not entirely helpless. Their minds were, for the moment, their own, and so far as he could tell, they could still use magic, one way or another. Galbatorix's gaze settled upon Aragorn. So you are the one who has given me so much trouble, Aragorn, son of Morzan. You and I should have met long ago. Had your mother not been so foolish as to hide you in Carvajal, you would have grown up here in Urubain, as a child of the nobility, with all the riches and responsibilities that entails, instead of whiling away your days grubbing in the dirt. Be that as it may, you are here now, and those things shall at last be yours. They are your birthright, your inheritance, and I shall see to it that you receive them. He seemed to study Aragon with greater intensity, and then he said, you look more like your mother than your father. With Murtag, the opposite holds true. Still, it matters little. Whichever one you resemble most, it is only right that you and your brother should serve me, even as did your parents. Never, said Aragon with a clenched jaw. A thin smile appeared on the king's face. Never, we shall see. His gaze shifted. And you, Sephira, of all my guests today, I am gladdest to see you. You have grown to a fine adulthood. Do you remember this place? Do you remember the sound of my voice? I spent many a night talking to you and the other eggs in my charge during the years when I was securing my rule over the Empire. I... I remember a little, said Sephira, and Aragon relayed her words to the king. She did not want to communicate directly with the king, nor would the king have allowed it. Keeping their minds separate was the best way to protect themselves when not in open conflict. Galbatorix nodded. And I am sure you will remember more the longer you stay within these walls. You may not have been fully aware of it at the time, but you spent most of your life in a room not far from here. This is your home, Sephira. It is where you belong, and it is where you will build your nest and lay your eggs. Sephira's eyes narrowed, and Aragon felt a strange yearning from her, mixed with a burning hatred. The king moved on. Arya Drotningu. Fate, it seems, has a sense of humour, for here you are, even as I ordered you to be brought so long ago. Your path was a roundabout one, but still you have come, and of your own accord. I find that rather amusing, don't you? Arya pressed her lips together 
and refused to answer. Galbatorix chuckled. I admit you have been a thorn in my side for quite some time now. You've not caused as much mischief as that bumbling meddler Brom, but neither have you been idle. One might even say that this whole situation is your fault, as it was you who sent Saphira's egg to Aragon. However, I hold no enmity toward you. If not for you, Saphira might not have hatched, and I might never have been able to flush the last of my enemies from hiding. For that, I thank you. And then there is you, Elva, the girl with the sigil of a rider upon her brow, dragon-marked and blessed with the wherewithal to perceive all that pains a person and all that will pain them. How you must have suffered these past months! How you must despise those around you for their weaknesses, even as you are forced to share in their misery! The Varden have used you poorly. Today I shall end the battles that have so tormented you, and you shall no longer have to endure the mistakes and misfortunes of others. That I promise. On occasion I may have need of your skill, but in the main you may live as you please, and peace shall be yours. Elva frowned, but it was obvious that the king's offer tempted her. Listening to Galbatorix, Aragon realized, could be as dangerous as listening to Elva herself. Galbatorix paused and fingered the wire-wrapped hilt of his sword while he regarded them with a hooded gaze. Then he looked past them, toward the point in the air where the Eldunari floated hidden from sight, and his mood seemed to darken. Convey my words to Umaroth as I speak them, he said. Umaroth, we are ill-met once again. I thought I killed you on Vroengard. Umaroth responded, and Aragon began to relay his words. He says that you killed only his body. Arya finished. That much is obvious, said Galbatorix. Where did the riders hide you and those with you? On Vroengard, or was it elsewhere? My servants and I searched the ruins of Doro Areba most closely. Aragon hesitated to deliver the dragon's answer, as it was sure to displease the king, but he could think of no other option. He says that he will never share that information with you of his own free will. Galbatorix's eyebrows met above his nose. Does he now? Well, he'll tell me soon enough, whether he wishes to or not. The king tapped the pommel of his glaringly white sword. I took this blade from his rider, you know, when I killed him, when I killed Vrail, in the watchtower that overlooks Palancar Valley. Vrail had his own name for this sword. He called it Islinger, Lightsbringer. I thought Vranger was more appropriate. Vranger meant awry, and Aragon agreed that it fitted the sword better. A dull boom sounded behind them, and Galbatorix smiled again. Ah, good. Murtag and Thorn shall be joining us shortly, and then we can begin properly. Another sound filled the chamber, then a great gusting noise 
that seemed to come from several directions at once. Galbatorix glanced over his shoulder and said, It was inconsiderate of you to attack so early in the morning. I was already awake. I rise well before dawn. But you woke Shrukan. He gets rather irritated when he's tired, and when he's irritated, he tends to eat people. My guards learned long ago not to disturb him when he's resting. You would have done well to follow their example. As Galbatorix spoke, the curtains behind his throne shifted and rose toward the ceiling. With a sense of shock, Aragon realized that they were actually Shrukan's wings. The black dragon lay curled on the floor with his head close to the throne. The bulk of his massive body forming a wall too steep and too high for any to climb without magic. His scales had not the radiance of sapphires or thorns, but rather sparkled with a dark, liquid brilliance. Their inky colour made them almost opaque, which gave them an appearance of strength and solidity that Aragon had not seen in a dragon's scales before. It was as if Shrukan were plated with stone or metal, not gems. The dragon was enormous. Aragon at first had difficulty comprehending that the entire shape before them was a single living creature. He saw part of Shrukan's corded neck and thought he was seeing the main part of the dragon's body. He saw the side of one of Shrukan's hind feet and mistook it for a shin. A fold of a wing was an entire wing in his mind. Only when he looked up and found the spikes atop the dragon's spine did Aragon grasp the full extent of Shrukan's size. Each spike was as wide as the trunk of an ancient oak tree. The scales surrounding them were a foot thick, if not more. Then Shrukan opened an eye and looked down at them. His iris was a pale blue-white, the colour of a high mountain glacier, and it appeared startlingly bright amid the black of his scales. The dragon's huge, slitted orb darted back and forth as he studied their faces. His gaze seemed to contain nothing but fury and madness, and Aragon felt certain that Shrukan would kill them in an instant if Galbatorix allowed it. The stare of the enormous eye, especially when it held such evident malice, made Aragon want to run and hide in a burrow deep, deep underground. It was, he imagined, very much how a rabbit must feel when confronted by a large, toothy creature. Beside him, Sephira growled, and the scales along her back rippled and lifted like hackles. In response, jets of fire appeared in the yawning pits of Shrukan's nostrils, and then he growled as well, drowning out Sephira and filling the chamber with a rumble like that of a rock slide. On the dais, the two children squeaked and curled into balls, tucking their heads between their knees. Peace, Shrukan, said Galbatorix, and the black dragon grew silent again. His eyelid descended, but it did not close completely. The dragon continued to watch them through a gap a few inches wide, as if waiting for the right moment to pounce. He does not like you, said Galbatorix. But then he does not like anyone, do you now, Shrukan? The dragon snorted, and the smell of smoke tinged the air. Hopelessness again overwhelmed Aragon. 
Shrukan could kill Safira with the bat of his paw, and as large as the chamber was, it was still too small for Safira to evade the great black dragon for long. His hopelessness turned to frustrated rage, and he wrenched at his invisible bonds. How is it you can do this? he shouted, straining every muscle in his body. I would like to know that as well, said Arya. Galbatorix's eyes seemed to gleam beneath the dark eaves of his brow. Can you not guess, elfling? I would prefer an answer to a guess, she replied. Very well. But first you must do something, so that you may know that what I say is indeed the truth. You must try to cast a spell, both of you, and then I shall tell you. When neither Aragon nor Arya made to speak, the king gestured with his hand. Go on. I promise that I will not punish you for it. Now try. I insist. Arya went first. Throuther, she said, her voice hard and low. She was, Aragon guessed, trying to send the Douthdet flying toward Galbatorix. The weapon, however, remained fixed to her hand. Then Aragon spoke. Brissinger! He thought that perhaps his bond with his sword would allow him to use magic where Arya could not. But to his disappointment, the blade remained as it was, glittering dimly in the dull light of the lanterns. Albatorix's gaze grew more intense. The answer must be obvious to you now, elfling. It has taken me most of the past century, but at long last I have found what I was searching for, a means of governing the spellcasters of Alagasia. The search was not easy. Most men would have given up in frustration, or if they had the required patience, fear. But not I. I persisted, and through my study I discovered what I had for so long desired a tablet written in another land and another age, by hands that were neither elf nor dwarf nor human nor ergle. And upon that tablet there was scribed a certain word, a name that magicians throughout the ages have hunted for with nothing but bitter disappointment as their reward. Galbatorix lifted a finger. The name of all names, the name of the ancient language. Aragon bit back a curse. He had been right. That's what the Razak was trying to tell me, he thought, remembering what one of the insect-like monsters had said to him in Helgrind. He has almost found the name, the true name. As disheartening as Galbatorix's revelation was, Aragon clung to the knowledge that the name could not stop him or Arya, or Saphira for that matter, from using magic without the ancient language. Not that it would do much good. The king's wards were sure to protect him and Shrukan from any spells they might cast. Still, if the king did not know that it was possible to use magic without the ancient language, or even if he did, but he believed that they did not then they might be able to surprise him and maybe distract him for a moment, although Aragon was not sure how that might help. Galbatorix continued, With this word 
I can reshape spells as easily as another magician by command the elements. All spells shall be subject to me, but I am subject to none, except for those of my choosing. Perhaps he doesn't know, Aragon thought, a spark of determination kindling in his heart. I shall use the name of names to bring every magician in Alagasia to heal, and no one shall cast a spell but with my blessing, not even the elves. At this very moment, the magicians of your army are discovering the truth of this. Once they venture a certain distance into Urubain, past the front gate, their spells cease to work as they should. Some of their enchantments fail outright, while others twist and end up affecting your troops instead of mine. Galbatorix tilted his head, and his gaze grew distant, as if he were listening to someone whispering in his ear. It has caused much confusion among their ranks. Aragon fought the urge to spit at the king. It doesn't matter, he growled. We'll still find a way to stop you. Galbatorix seemed grimly amused. Is that so? How? And why? Think what you are saying. You would stop the first opportunity that Alagasia has had for true peace in order to sate your overdeveloped sense of vengeance? You would allow magicians everywhere to continue to have their way, regardless of the harm they cause others. That seems far worse than anything I have done. But this is idle speculation. The finest warriors of the riders could not defeat me, and you are far from their equal. You never had any hope of overthrowing me. None of you did. I killed Durza, and I killed the Razak, said Aragon. Why not you? I am not as weak as those who serve me. You could not even trounce Murtag, and he is but a shadow of a shadow. Your father Morzan was far more powerful than either of you, and even he could not withstand my might. Besides said Galbatorix, as a cruel expression settled on his face. You are mistaken if you think you destroyed the Razak. The eggs in Drasleona weren't the only ones I took from the leather blucker. I have others hidden elsewhere. Soon they shall hatch, and soon the Razak shall once more roam the earth to do my bidding. As for Durza, shades are easy to make and they are often more trouble than they are worth. So you see, you have won nothing, boy. Nothing but false victories. Above all, Aragon hated Galbatorix's smugness and his air of overwhelming superiority. He wanted to rage at the king and curse him with every oath he knew. But for the sake of the children's safety, he held his tongue. Do you have any ideas? He asked Sephira, Arya, and Gleda. No, said Sephira. The others remained silent. Umaroth? Only that we should attack while we still can. A minute passed wherein no one spoke. Galbatorix leaned on one elbow and rested his chin on his fist while he continued to watch them. By his feet... The boy and the girl cried softly.
Above, Shrukun's eye remained fixed on Aragon and those with him, like a great ice-blue lantern. Then they heard the doors to the chamber open and close, and the sound of approaching footsteps, the footsteps of both a man and a dragon. Murtag and Thorn soon appeared in their field of vision. They stopped next to Sephira, and Murtag bowed. Sir, the king motioned, and Murtag and Thorn walked over to the right of the throne. As Murtag took up his position, he gave Aragon a look of disgust. Then he clasped his hands behind his back and stared toward the far end of the chamber, ignoring him. You took longer than I expected, said Galbatorix, in a deceptively mild voice. Without looking, Murtag said, The gate was more damaged than I originally thought, sir, and the spells you placed on it made it difficult to repair. Do you mean that it's my fault you are tardy? Murtag's jaw tightened. No, sir, I only mean to explain. Also, part of the hallway was rather messy, and that slowed us. I see. We shall speak of this later. But for now, there are other matters we must attend to. For one, it is time our guests meet the final member of our party. Moreover, it is high time we had some proper light in here. And Galbatorix struck the flat of his blade against one arm of his throne, and in a deep voice he cried, Naina! At his command, hundreds of lanterns sprang to life along the walls of the chamber, bathing it with warm, candle-like illumination. The room was still dim about the corners, but for the first time Aragon could make out the details of their surroundings. Scores of pillars and doorways lined the walls, and all about were sculptures and paintings and gilt scrollwork. Gold and silver had been used with abundance, and Aragon glimpsed the sparkle of many jewels. It was a staggering display of wealth, even when compared with the riches of Tronchi Morella's mirror. After a moment, he noticed something else. A block of grey stone, granite perhaps eight feet tall, which stood off to their right, beyond where the light had previously reached. And chained, standing to the block, was Nasawada, wearing a simple white tunic. She was watching them with wide-open eyes, though she could not speak, for a knotted cloth was tied over her mouth. She looked worn and tired, but otherwise healthy. Relief shot through Aragon. He had not dared hope to find her alive. Nasawada! he shouted. Are you all right? She nodded. Has he forced you to swear fealty to him? She shook her head. Do you think I would let her tell you if I had? asked Galbatorix. As Aragon looked back at the king, he saw Murtag cast a quick, concerned glance toward Nasawada, and he wondered at its significance. Well, have you? Aragon asked in a challenging tone. As it so happens, no. I decided to wait until I had gathered all of you together. Now that I have, none shall leave until you have pledged yourself in service to me. Nor shall you leave until I have learned the true name of each and every one of you. That is why you are here. 
not to kill me, but to bow down before me and to finally put an end to this noisome rebellion. Sapphira growled again, and Aragon said, We won't give in. Even to his own ears, his words seemed weak and toothless. Then they will die, Galbatorix replied, pointing at the two children. And in the end your defiance will change nothing. You do not seem to understand you have already lost. Outside, the battle fares badly for your friends. Soon my men will force them to surrender, and this war will arrive at its destined conclusion. Fight if you wish, deny what is before you if it comforts you, but nothing you do can change your fate, or that of Alagazia. Aragon refused to believe that he and Sephira would have to spend the rest of their lives answering to Galbatorix. Sephira felt the same, and her anger joined with his, burning away every last bit of his fear and caution, and he said, Ve weonata ono vergari, eka theot otherum. We will kill you, I swear it. For a moment Galbatorix appeared aggravated, then he spoke the word again, as well as other words in the ancient language besides, and the vow Aragon had uttered seemed to lose all meaning. The words lay in his mind like a handful of dead leaves, devoid of any power to impel or inspire. The king's upper lip curved in a sneer. Swear all the oaths you want. They shall not bind you not unless I allow them to. I'll still kill you, Aragon muttered. He understood that if he continued to resist, it might mean the lives of the two children. But Galbatorix had to be killed, and if the price of his death was the deaths of the boy and the girl, then that was a cost Aragon was willing to accept. He knew he would hate himself for it. He knew that he would see the faces of the children in his dreams for the rest of his life but if he did not challenge Galbatorix, then all would be lost. Do not hesitate, said Umaroth. Now is the time to strike. Aragon raised his voice. Why won't you fight me? Are you a coward? Or are you too weak to match yourself against me? Is that why you hide behind these children like a frightened old woman? Aragon, said Arya in a warning tone. I am not the only one who brought a child here today, replied the king, the lines on his face deepening. There is a difference. Elva agreed to come, but you didn't answer the question. Why won't you fight? Is it that you've spent so long sitting on your throne and eating sweets that you've forgotten how to swing a sword? You would not want to fight me, youngling, growled the king. Prove it then. Release me and meet me in honest battle. Show that you are still a warrior to be reckoned with, or live with the knowledge that you are a snivelling coward who dares not face even a single opponent without the help of your Eldenari. You killed Vrail himself. Why should you fear me? Why should... Enough, said Galbatorix. A flush had crept into his hollow cheeks. Then, like Quicksilver, his mood changed and he bared his teeth in a fearsome approximation of a smile. 
he rapped the arm of his seat with his knuckles. I did not gain this throne by accepting every challenge put to me, nor have I held it by meeting my foes in honest battle. What you have yet to learn, youngling, is that it does not matter how you achieve victory, only that you achieve it. You're wrong. It does matter, said Aragon. I will remind you of that when you are sworn to me. However, Galbatorix tapped the pommel of his sword, since you wish so badly to fight, I will grant your request. The flare of hope that Aragon felt vanished when Galbatorix added, but not with me, with Murtag. At those words, Murtag flashed an angry look at Aragon. The king stroked the fringe of his beard. I would like to know once and for all which of you is the better warrior. You will fight as you are, without magic or Eldunari, until one of you is unable to continue. You may not kill each other, that I forbid. But short of death, I will allow most anything. It will be rather entertaining, I think, to watch brother fight brother. No, said Aragon, not brothers, half-brothers. Brom was my father, not Morzan. For the first time, Galbatorix appeared surprised. Then one corner of his mouth twisted upward. Of course, I should have seen it. The truth is in your face for any who know what to look for. This duel will be all the more fitting, then. The son of Brom pitted against the son of Morzan. Fate indeed has a sense of humor. Murtag also reacted with surprise. He controlled his face too well for Aragon to determine whether the information pleased or upset him. But Aragon knew that it had thrown him off balance. That had been his plan. If Murtag was distracted, it would be that much easier for Aragon to defeat him. And he did intend to defeat him, regardless of the blood they shared. Letter, said Galbatorix, with a slight motion of his hand. Aragon staggered as the spell holding him vanished. Then the king said, Ganga Apta, and Arya, Elva, and Sephira slid backward, leaving a wide space between them and the dais. The king muttered a few other words, and most of the lanterns in the chamber dimmed, so that the area in front of the throne was the brightest spot in the room. Come now, said Galbatorix to Murtag. Join Aragorn, and let us see which of you is the more skilled. Scowling, Murtag walked to a spot several yards from where Aragorn stood. He drew Zarok. The blade of the crimson sword looked as if it were already coated in blood, then lifted his shield and settled into a crouch. After glancing at Sephira and Arya, Aragorn did the same. Now fight, cried Galbatorix and clapped his hands. Sweating, Aragon began to move toward Murtag, even as Murtag moved toward him. Muscle against Metal Roran yelped and jumped aside as a brick chimney smashed into the ground in front of him, followed by the body of one of the Empire's archers. He shook the sweat from his eyes, then moved around the body and the pile of scattered bricks, hopping from one patch of open ground to the next. 
much as he used to hop along the stones by the Enora River. The battle was going badly, that much was obvious. He and his warriors had remained close to the outer wall for at least a quarter of an hour, fighting off the advancing waves of soldiers. But then they had allowed the soldiers to lure them back among the buildings. In retrospect, that had been a mistake. Fighting in the streets was desperate and bloody and confusing. His battalion had become spread out, and only a small number of his warriors remained close by, men from Carvajal mostly, along with four elves and several urgles. The rest were scattered among the nearby streets, fighting on their own, without direction. Worse, for some reason that the elves and other spellcasters could not explain, magic no longer seemed to be working as it should. They had discovered this when one of the elves had tried to kill a soldier with a spell, only to have a Varden warrior fall down dead instead, consumed by the swarm of beetles the elf had summoned forth. His death had sickened Roran. It was a horrible, senseless way to die, and it might have happened to any of them. Off to their right, closer to the main gate, Lord Bast was still rampaging through the main body of the Varden's army. Roran had caught sight of him several times, on foot now, striding among the humans, elves and dwarves, and dashing them aside like so many ninepins with his huge black mace. No one had been able to stop the hulking man, much less wound him, and those around him scrambled to stay out of reach of his fearsome weapon. Roran had also seen King Oric and a group of dwarves hewing their way through a group of soldiers. Oric's jeweled helm flashed in the light as he swung his mighty warhammer, Voland. Behind him, his warriors shouted, For Oric's corner! Fifty feet past Oric, Roran had glimpsed Queen Islanzadi whirling through the battle, her red cape flying, and her shining armor as bright as a star amid the dark mass of bodies. About her head had flitted the white raven that was her companion. What little Roran saw of Islanzadi impressed him with her skill, ferocity, and bravery. She reminded him of Arya, but he thought that the queen might be the greater warrior. A cluster of five soldiers charged around the corner of a house and nearly ran into Roran. Shouting, they leveled their spears and did their best to skewer him like a roast chicken. He ducked and dodged and with his own spear caught one of the men in the throat. The soldier remained on his feet for a minute more, but he could not breathe properly and soon he fell to the ground, tangling the legs of his companions. Roran seized the opportunity, stabbing and cutting with abandon. One of the soldiers managed to land a blow on Roran's right shoulder, and Roran felt the familiar decrease in his strength as his wards deflected the blade. He was surprised that the wards protected him. Only a few moments before, they had failed to stop the rim of a shield from tearing open the skin on his left cheek. He wished that whatever was happening with the magic would resolve itself one way or another. As it was, he dared not risk leaving himself open for even the slightest blow. Roran advanced toward the last two soldiers, but before he reached them there was a blur of steel, and then their heads dropped to the cobblestones, surprised expressions on their faces. The bodies collapsed, and behind them Roran saw the herbalist Angela, garbed in her green and black armour and carrying her sword staff. Close by her side were a pair of weircats, one in the shape of a brindle-haired girl with sharp, blood-stained teeth and a long dagger, the other in the shape of an animal. He thought it might have been Solombum, 
but he was not sure. Roran, how nice to see you, said the herbalist, with a smile that seemed altogether too cheery, considering the circumstances. Imagine meeting here. Better here than in the grave, he shouted, picking up an extra spear and heaving it at a man farther down the street. Well said. I thought you went with Aragon. She shook her head. He didn't ask me, and I wouldn't have gone if he had. I'm no match for Galbatorix. Besides, Aragon has the Eldenari to help him. You know? he asked, shocked. She winked at him from under the lip of her helm. I know lots of things. He grunted and tucked his shoulder behind his shield as he rammed into another group of soldiers. The herbalist and the weircats joined him, as did Horst, Mandel, and several others. Where's your hammer? shouted Angela as she spun her bladed staff, blocking and cutting at the same time. Lost! I dropped it! Someone howled with pain behind him. As soon as he dared, Roran looked back and saw Baldor clutching the stump of his right arm. On the ground, his hand lay twitching. Roran ran back to him, leaping over several corpses along the way. Horst was already by his son's side, fending off the soldier who had severed Baldor's hand. Drawing his dagger, Roran cut a strip of cloth from the tunic of a fallen soldier, then said, Here! and tied it around the stump of Baldor's arm, stanching the bleeding. The herbalist knelt next to them, and Roran said, Can you help him? She shook her head. Not here. If I use magic, it might end up killing him. If you can get him out of the city, though, the elves can probably save his hand. Roran hesitated. He was not sure he dared spare anyone to escort Baldor safely out of Urubain. However, without a hand, Baldor would face a hard life, and Roran had no desire to condemn him to that. If you won't take him, I will, bellowed Horst. Roran ducked as a stone the size of a hog flew past overhead and glanced off the front of a house, scattering pieces of masonry through the air. Inside the building, someone screamed. No, we need you. Turning, Roran whistled and picked two warriors, the old cobbler Loring and an Urgle. Get him to the elves' healers as fast as you can, he said, pushing Baldor toward them. As he went, Baldor picked up his hand and tucked it under his hauberk. The Urgle snarled and said in a thick accent that Roran barely understood, No, I stay, I fight. He struck his sword against his shield. Roran stepped over, grabbed one of the creature's horns, and pulled on it until he had twisted the Urgle's head halfway around. You'll do as I say, Roran growled. Besides, it's not an easy task. Protect him and you'll win much glory for you and your tribe. The Urgle's eyes seemed to brighten. Much glory, he said, mashing the words between his heavy teeth. Much glory, Roran confirmed. I do it, Stronghammer. With a sense of relief, Roran watched the three of them depart, heading toward the outer wall so that they might skirt most of the fighting. He was also pleased to see the human-shaped weircat follow after them, the feral, brindle-haired girl swinging her head from side to side as she scented the air. Then another group of soldiers attacked, and all thoughts of Baldor left Roran's mind. He hated fighting with a spear instead of a hammer, 
but he made do, and after a time the street again grew calm. He knew the respite would be short. He took the opportunity to sit on the front doorstep of a house and try to regain his breath. The soldiers seemed as fresh as ever, but he could feel exhaustion dragging on his limbs. He doubted he could keep going for much longer without making a fatal mistake. As he sat panting, he listened to the shouts and screams coming from the direction of Urubain's ruined front gate. It was difficult to tell what was happening from the general clamour, but he suspected the Varden were getting pushed back, for the noise seemed to be receding slightly. Amid the commotion, he could hear the regular crack of Lord Bast's mace striking warrior after warrior, and then the increasing cries that invariably followed. Roran made himself stand. If he sat for much longer, his muscles would start to stiffen. A moment after he moved away from the doorstep, the contents of a chamber pot splashed across the spot where he had just been. Murderers! shouted a woman above him, and then a pair of shutters banged shut. Roran snorted and picked his way around bodies as he led his remaining warriors over to the nearest cross street. They paused wary when a soldier raced past, panic upon his face. Close behind, a pack of yowling housecats chased after him, blood dripping from the fur around their mouths. Roran smiled and started forward again. He stopped a second later when a group of dwarves with red beards ran toward them from deeper within the city. Better yourself, one shouted. We have a whole pack of soldiers nipping at our heels, a few hundred of them at least. Roran looked back up the empty cross street. Perhaps you're lost, he began to say, and then stopped when a line of crimson tunics appeared around the corner of a building a few hundred feet away. More and more soldiers followed, pouring into the street like a swarm of red ants. Back! Roran shouted. Back! We have to find somewhere defensible. The outer wall was too far away, and none of the houses were large enough to have enclosed courtyards. As Roran ran down the street with his warriors, a dozen or so arrows landed around them. Roran stumbled and fell, writhing, as a bolt of pain shot up his spine from the small of his back. It felt as if someone had jabbed him with a large iron bar. A second later, the herbalist was by his side. She tugged at something behind him, and Roran screamed. Then the pain decreased, and he found himself able to see clearly again. The herbalist showed him an arrow with a bloody tip before throwing it away. Your mail stopped most of it, she said, as she helped him to his feet. Gritting his teeth, Roran ran with her to rejoin their group. Every step pained him now, and if he bent at the waist too far, his back spasmed and he found it almost impossible to move. He saw no good places to make a stand, and the soldiers were getting closer, so at last he shouted, Stop! Form up! Elves to the sides! Urgles front and centre! Roran took his place near the front, along with Darman, Albrecht, the Urgles, and one of the red-bearded dwarves. So you are the one they called Stronghammer, said the dwarf, as they watched the advance of the soldiers. I fought alongside your half-brother in Farthendur. It is mine honour to fight with you as well. Roran grunted. He just hoped he could stay on his feet. 
Then the soldiers crashed into them, shoving them back through sheer weight. Roran set his shoulder against his shield and pushed with all his might. Swords and spears stuck through the gaps in the wall of overlapping shields. He felt one scrape against his side, but his hauberk protected him. The elves and the urgles proved invaluable. They broke the soldiers' lines and earned Roran and the other warriors room to swing their weapons. At the edge of his vision, Roran saw the dwarf stabbing the soldiers in the legs, feet and groin, causing many to fall. The supply of soldiers seemed endless, however, and Roran found himself forced backward step by step. Not even the elves could stem the tide of men, try though they might. Othiara, the elf woman Roran had spoken to outside the city wall, died from an arrow in the neck, and the remaining elves received many wounds. Roran was injured several more times himself, a cut on the upper part of his right calf, which would have hamstrung him if it had been a little bit higher, another cut on the thigh of the same leg, where a sword had slipped under the edge of his hauberk, a nasty scrape on his neck, where he hit himself with his own shield, a stab wound on the inner part of his right leg that fortunately missed the major arteries, and more bruises than he could count. He felt as if every part of himself had been beaten soundly with a wooden mallet, and then a pair of clumsy men had used him as a target for knife-throwing. He dropped back from the front line a few times to rest his arms and catch his breath, but he always rejoined the fight soon afterward. Then the buildings opened up around them, and Roran realised that the soldiers had succeeded in driving them into the square before Urubain's broken gate, and that there were now enemies behind them as well as before them. He chanced to look over his shoulder and saw the elves and the Varden retreating before Bast and his soldiers. Right! shouted Roran. Right! Up against the buildings! He pointed with his bloody spear. With some difficulty, the warriors packed behind him edged to the side and onto the steps of a huge stone building, fronted with a double row of pillars as tall as any of the trees in the spine. Between the pillars, Roran glimpsed the dark, yawning shape of an open archway, big enough to accommodate Sephira, if not Shrukan. Up! Up! Roran shouted, and the men, dwarves, elves and urgles ran with him to the top of the stairs. There they set themselves among the pillars and repelled the wave of soldiers that charged after them. From their vantage point, which was perhaps twenty feet above the level of the streets, Roran saw that the Empire had nearly forced the Varden and the Elves back out the gaping hole in the outer wall. We're going to lose, he thought, with sudden desperation. The soldiers charged up the steps once again. Roran dodged a spear and kicked its owner in the belly, knocking the soldier and two other men down the stairs. From one of the ballistae on a nearby wall tower, a javelin streaked down toward Lord Bast. When it was still a few yards from him, the javelin burst into flames, then crumbled into dust, as did every arrow shot at the armoured man. We have to kill him, thought Roran. If Bast fell, then the soldiers would likely break and lose confidence. But given that both the elves and the cull had failed to stop him, it seemed doubtful that anyone other than Aragon could. Even as he continued to fight, Roran kept glancing at the large armoured figure, hoping to see something that might provide a way to defeat him. He noticed that Bast walked with a slight hitch in his stride, 
as if he had once injured his left knee or hip, and the man seemed a hair slower than before. So he does have his limits, thought Roran, or rather the Eldunari does. With a shout, he parried the sword of the soldier who had been pressing him. Jerking his shield up, he caught the soldier underneath the jaw, killing the man instantly. Roran was out of breath and faint from his wounds, so he withdrew behind one of the pillars and leaned against it. He coughed and spat. His spittle contained blood, but he thought that was just from where he had bitten the inside of his mouth and not from a punctured lung. At least he hoped so. His ribs felt sore enough that one of them might be broken. A great shout rose from the Varden, and Roran looked around the pillar to see Queen Islanzadi and eleven other elves riding through the battle toward Lord Bast. Again upon Islanzadi's left shoulder sat the white raven, and he cawed and lifted his wings, the better to balance upon his moving perch. In her hand Islanzadi carried her sword, while the rest of the elves carried spears, with banners attached close to their leaf-shaped blades. Roran leaned against the pillar, hope rising within him. Kill him, he growled. Bast made no move to avoid the elves, but stood waiting for them, with his feet spread wide and his mace and shield by his sides, as if he had no need to defend himself. Throughout the streets, the fighting slowed to a standstill, as everyone turned to watch what was about to happen. The two elves in the lead lowered their spears, and their horses sprang forward into a gallop, the muscles beneath their glossy hides flexing and relaxing as they raced across the short distance that separated them from Bast. For a moment it looked as if Bast would surely fall. It seemed impossible that anyone on foot could withstand such a charge. The spears never touched Bast. His wards stopped them an arm's length from his body, and the hafts shattered in the elves' hands, leaving them holding useless shards of wood. Then Bast lifted his mace and his shield, and with them he struck the horses on the sides of their heads, breaking their necks and killing them. The horses fell, and the elves upon them jumped free, twisting in the air as they did. The next two elves did not have time to change course before they reached Bast. Like their predecessors, they split their spears on his wards, and then they too jumped free of their horses as Bast struck the animals down. By then, the eight other elves, including Islanzadi, had managed to turn and rein in their steeds. They trotted in a circle around Bast, keeping their weapons pointed at him, while the four elves on the ground drew their swords and cautiously advanced toward Bast. The man laughed and hefted his shield as he prepared for their attack. The light caught his face under his helm, and even from a distance, Roran could see that it was broad and heavy-browed with prominent cheekbones. In some ways, it reminded him of the face of an ergle. The four elves ran at Bast, each from a different direction, and they cut and stabbed at him in unison. Bast caught one of the swords on his shield, deflected another with his mace, and let his wards stop the blades of the two elves behind him. He laughed again and swung his weapon. A silver-haired elf threw himself to the side, and the mace flew past harmlessly. Twice more Bast swung, and twice more the elves evaded him. Bast showed no signs of frustration. 
but hunched behind his shield and bided his time, like a cave bear waiting for whosoever might be foolish enough to venture into his lair. Outside the ring of elves, a block of halberd-wielding soldiers took it upon themselves to run screaming toward Queen Islanzadi and her companions. Without pause, the queen lifted her sword over her head, and at her signal, a swarm of buzzing arrows shot out from the ranks of the Varden and felled the soldiers. Roran shouted with excitement, along with many of the Varden. Bast had been edging ever closer to the bodies of the four horses he had slain, and now he stepped into their midst so that the bodies formed a low, tumbled wall on either side of him. The elves to his left and right would have no choice but to leap over the horses if they wished to attack him. Clever, Roran thought, frowning. The elf in front of Bast darted forward, shouting something in the ancient language. Bast seemed to hesitate, and his hesitation encouraged the elf to come closer. Then Bast lunged forward, his mace came crashing down, and the elf crumpled to the ground, broken. A groan went up from the elves. The three remaining elves on foot were more cautious thereafter. They continued to circle Bast, running in to attack him on occasion, but mostly keeping their distance. Surrender! exclaimed Islanzadi, and her voice could be heard throughout the streets. There are more of us than you. No matter how strong you are, in time you will tire, and your wards will fail. You cannot win, human. No, said Bast. He straightened and dropped his shield with a loud clatter. Sudden dread filled Roran. Run, he thought. Run, he shouted a half-second later. He was too late. Bending at the knees, Bast grabbed the neck of one of the horses and with his left arm alone threw the horse at Queen Islanzadi. If she spoke in the ancient language, Roran did not hear it, but she lifted her hand, and the body of the horse stopped in mid-air, then dropped to the cobblestones, where it landed with an unpleasant sound. On her shoulder the raven screeched. Bast was not looking, however. As soon as the carcass left his hand, he scooped up his shield and sprinted toward the nearest of the mounted elven riders. One of the three remaining elves on foot, a woman with a red sash tied around her upper arm, ran toward him and slashed at his back. Bast ignored her. Over a flat stretch of land, the elves' horses might have been able to outdistance Bast, but in the limited space between the buildings and the closely packed warriors, Bast was both faster and more nimble. He rammed his shoulder into the ribs of one of the horses, toppling it over, and then swung his mace at an elf upon another horse, knocking the elf from his seat. A horse screamed. The circle of elven riders disintegrated, each turning in a different direction as they tried to calm their mounts and address the threat before them. A half-dozen elves ran out from the nearby press of warriors and surrounded Bast, all hacking at him with frenzied speed. Bast disappeared behind them for a moment. Then his mace rose up, and three of the elves flew tumbling away. Then another two, and Bast strode forward, blood and gore clinging to the flanges of his black weapon. Now! roared Bast. And throughout the square, hundreds of soldiers ran forward and assailed the elves, 
forcing them to defend themselves. No! Roran growled, agonized. He would have gone with his warriors to help, but too many bodies, both living and dead, separated them from Bast and the elves. He glanced over at the herbalist, who looked as worried as he felt, and said, Can't you do something? I could, but it would mean my life and that of everyone here. Galbatorix as well? He's too well shielded, but our army would be destroyed, along with most everyone in Urubane, and even those at our camp might die. Is that what you want? Roran shook his head. I thought not. Moving with uncanny speed, Bast struck elf after elf, felling them with ease. With one of his swings, he caught the shoulder of the elf woman with the red sash and knocked her sprawling onto her back. She pointed at Bast and screamed in the ancient language, but the spell went awry, for another elf slumped forward and toppled out of his saddle. The front of his body split from head to seam. Bast slew the elf woman with a jab of his mace and then continued to run from horse to horse until he reached Islanzadi on her white mare. The elf queen did not wait for Bast to kill her steed. She leaped out of her saddle, her red cape billowing, and her companion, the white raven, beat his wings as he took flight from her shoulder. Before she alit, Islanzadi lashed out at Bast, her sword a streak of shining steel. Her blade rang as it collided with his wards. Bast retaliated with a counterstroke, which Islanzadi parried with a deft turn of her wrist, sending the spiked ball of his mace crashing into the cobblestones. Around them a space formed, as friend and foe alike paused to watch them duel. Overhead, the raven circled, shrieking and cursing in the harsh manner of his kind. Never had Roran seen such a fight. The blows from both Islanzadi and Bast were too fast to follow. Only a blur was visible when they struck, and the sound of their weapons clashing was louder than all of the other noises in the city. Again and again, Bast tried to crush Islanzadi with his mace, even as he had crushed the other elves. But she was too fast for him to catch, and she seemed, if not his equal in strength, at least strong enough to knock aside his blows without difficulty. The other elves, Roran thought, must be aiding her, for she appeared not to tire, despite her exertions. Akal and two elves joined Islanzadi. Bast paid them no mind, other than to kill them one by one, when they made the mistake of venturing within his reach. Roran found himself gripping the pillar so hard, his hands began to cramp. Minutes passed as Islanzadi and Bast fought back and forth across the street. In motion, the elf queen was glorious, swift, lithe, and powerful. Unlike Bast, she could not afford to make a single mistake, nor did she, for her wards would not protect her. With every moment, Roran's admiration for Islanzadi increased and he felt he was witnessing a battle that would be sung about for centuries to come. The raven often dove at Bast, seeking to distract him from Islanzadi. After the raven's first few attempts, Bast ignored the bird, for the maddened creature could not touch him, and it took pains to keep away from his mace. The raven seemed to grow frustrated. It shrieked louder and more frequently, and was bolder with its attacks, and with each sally, it edged ever closer to Bast's head and neck. Finally, as the bird again swooped past Bast, the man twisted his mace upward 
changing its path in mid-air, and clipped the raven on its right wing. The bird cried out in pain and dropped a foot toward the ground, before struggling to climb back into the sky. Bast swung at the raven again, but Islanzadi stopped his mace with her sword, and they stood facing each other with their weapons locked together at the top, the blade of her sword wedged between the flanges of his mace. Elf and human swayed as they pushed against one another. Neither was able to gain the advantage. Then Queen Islanzadi shouted a word in the ancient language, and where their weapons met, a harsh, brilliant light shone forth. Squinting, Roran shaded his eyes with his hand and averted his gaze. For a minute, the only sounds were the cries of the wounded and a ringing, bell-like tone that grew louder and louder until it was nearly unbearable. To the side, Roran saw the weircat with Angela cringing and covering its tasseled ears with its paws. When the sound was at the very height of its intensity, the blade of Islanzadi's sword cracked, and the light and the bell-like tone vanished. Then the elf queen smote at Bast's face with the broken end of her sword, and she said, Thus I curse you, Bast, son of Berengar. Bast allowed her sword to fall upon his wards. Then he swung his mace once more and caught Queen Islanzadi between her neck and her shoulder, and she collapsed to the ground, blood staining her corselet of golden scale armor, and all was still. The white raven circled once over Islanzadi's body and uttered a doleful cry, then flew slowly toward the breach in the outer wall, the feathers of its wounded wing red and crumpled. A great wail went up from the Varden. Throughout the streets, men cast down their weapons and fled. The elves shouted with rage and grief a most terrible sound, and every elf with a bow began to fire arrows toward Bast. The arrows burst into flame before they touched him. A dozen elves charged him, but he swatted them aside as if they weighed no more than children. In that moment, another five elves darted in, lifted up Islanzadi's body, and bore her away upon their leaf-shaped shields. A sense of disbelief gripped Roran. Of them all, Islanzadi was the one he had least expected to die. He glared at the men who were fleeing and silently cursed them for traitors and cowards. Then he returned his gaze to Bast, who was rallying his troops in preparation for driving the Varden and their allies back out of Urubain. The pit in Roran's stomach grew larger. The elves might continue to fight, but the men, dwarves and urgles, no longer had a taste for battle. He could see it in their faces. They would break and retreat, and Bast would slaughter them by the hundreds from behind. Nor, Roran was sure, would Bast halt at the city walls. No, he would continue onto the fields beyond and chase the Varden back to their camp, scattering and killing as many as he could. It was what Roran would do. Worse, if Bast reached the camp, Katrina would be in danger, and Roran had no illusions as to what would happen if the soldiers caught her. Roran stared down at his bloody hands. Bast had to be stopped, but how? Roran thought and he thought, 
running through everything he knew about magic until, at last, he remembered how it had felt when the soldiers were holding him and striking him. Roran took a deep, shuddering breath. There was a way, but it was dangerous, incredibly dangerous. If he did what he was contemplating, he knew that he would probably never see Katrina again, much less their unborn child. Yet the knowledge brought him a certain peace. His life for theirs was a fair trade. And if he could help save the Varden at the same time, then he would be happy to give it. Katrina. The decision was an easy one. Raising his head, he strode over to the herbalist. She looked as shocked and grief-ridden as any of the elves. He touched her on the shoulder with the edge of his shield and said, I need your help. She gazed at him with red-rimmed eyes. What do you intend to do? Kill Bast! His words captivated all of the warriors nearby. Roran, no! exclaimed Horst. The herbalist nodded. I'll help however I can. Good. I want you to fetch Jormunder, Garjvag, Oric, Grimmer, and one of the elves who still has some authority. The curly-haired woman sniffed and wiped her eyes. Where do you want them to meet you? Right here. And hurry, before any more men flee. Angela nodded. Then she and the weircat trotted away, sticking close to the sides of the buildings for protection. Roran, said Horst, clutching his arm. What do you have in mind? I'm not going to go up against him by myself, if that's what you're thinking, said Roran, nodding toward Bast. Horst appeared somewhat relieved. Then what are you going to do? You'll see. Several soldiers carrying pikes ran up the steps of the building, but the red-haired dwarves who had joined Roran's force held them off with ease, the steps for once giving them the advantage of height over their opponents. While the dwarves fenced with the soldiers, Roran went to a nearby elf who, with a snarl fixed on his face, was emptying his quiver at a prodigious speed, sending each of his arrows arcing toward Bast. None of them, of course, found their mark. Enough, said Roran. When the dark-haired elf ignored him, Roran grabbed the elf's right hand, his bow hand, and pulled it to the side. That's enough, I said. Save your arrows. A growl sounded, and then Roran felt a hand around his throat. Do not touch me, human. Listen to me. I can help you kill Bast. Just let me go. After a second or two, the fingers gripping Roran's neck relaxed. How, strong hammer? The bloodthirstiness of the elf's voice contrasted with the tears on his cheeks. You'll find out in a minute, but I have a question for you first. Why can't you kill Bast with your minds? He's only one man, and there are so many of you. An anguished expression crossed the elf's face. Because his mind is hidden from us. How? I do not know. We can feel nothing of his thoughts. It is as if there is a sphere around his mind. We can see nothing within the sphere, nor can we pierce it. Roran had expected something like that. Thank you, he said, and the elf made a slight motion of his head in acknowledgement. Garjvag was the first to reach the building. 
He emerged from a nearby street and ran up the steps with two huge strides, then turned and roared at the thirty soldiers following him. Seeing the cull safe among friends, the soldiers wisely dropped back. Strong hammer, exclaimed Garjvag. You asked, and I have come. After a few more minutes, the others Roran had sent the herbalist to fetch arrived at the great stone building. The silver-haired elf who presented himself was one Roran had seen with this Lanzardi on several occasions. Lord Daithada was his name. The six of them, all bloody and weary, stood in a clump among the fluted pillars. I have a plan to kill Bast, Roran said, but I need your help, and we have little time. Can I count on you? That depends on your plan, said Oric. Tell it to us first. So Roran explained it as quickly as he could. When he finished, he asked Oric, Can your engineers aim the catapults and ballistae as accurately as needed? The dwarf made a noise in his throat. Not with how humans build their war machines. We can put a stone within twenty feet of the target, but any closer than that is up to luck. Roran looked at the elf lord, Daithada. Will the others of your kind follow you? They will obey my orders, Stronghammer. Do not doubt it. Then will you send some of your magicians to accompany the dwarves and help guide the stones? There would be no guarantee of success. The spells might easily fail or go astray. We'll have to risk it. Roran swept his gaze over the group. So I ask again, can I count on you? Out by the city wall, a chorus of fresh screams erupted as Bast smashed his way through a bank of men. Garjvag surprised Roran by being the first to answer. You are battle-mad, Stronghammer, but I will follow you, he said. He made a ruck-ruck sound that Roran thought might be laughter. There will be much glory in killing Bast. Then Jormunder said, Aye, I'll follow you as well, Roran. We have no other choice, I think. Agreed, said Oric. Agreed, said Grimmer, king of the Weircats, drawing the word out into a throaty growl. Agreed, said Lord Daithada. Then go, said Roran. You know what you need to do. Go! As the others departed, Roran called his warriors together and told them his plan. Then they hunkered between the pillars and waited. It took three or four minutes, precious time, in which Bast and his soldiers pushed the Varden ever closer to the breach in the outer wall. But then Roran saw groups of dwarves and elves run up to twelve of the nearest ballistae and catapults on the walls and free them from the soldiers. Several more tense minutes passed. Then Oric hurried up the steps to the building, along with thirty of his dwarves, and said to Roran, They're ready! Roran nodded. To everyone with him, he said, Take your places! The remnants of Roran's battalion formed a dense wedge, with him at the tip, and the elves and urgles directly behind him. Oric and his dwarves took up the rear. Once all of the warriors were in place, Roran shouted, Forward! 
and trotted down the steps into the midst of the enemy soldiers, knowing that the rest of the group was close behind him. The soldiers had not been expecting the charge. They parted before Roran like water before the prow of a ship. One man tried to bar Roran's way, and Roran stabbed him through the eye without breaking stride. When they were about fifty feet from Bast, who had his back turned, Roran stopped, as did the warriors behind him. To one of the elves, he said, Make it so everyone in the square can hear me. The elf muttered in the ancient language, then said, It is done. Bast! shouted Roran, and was relieved to hear his voice echo over the whole of the battle. The fighting throughout the streets came to a halt, save for a few individual skirmishes here and there. Sweat dripped down Roran's brow, and his heart was pounding, but he refused to feel afraid. Bast! he shouted again, and slapped the front of his shield with his spear. Turn and fight me, you maggot-ridden cur! A soldier ran at him. Roran blocked his sword, and in one easy motion swept the man off his feet and dispatched him with two quick jabs. Pulling his spear free, Roran repeated his call. Bast! The broad, heavy figure slowly turned to face him. Now that he was closer, Roran could see the sly intelligence that lay in Bast's eyes and the small, mocking smile that lifted the corners of his childlike mouth. His neck was as thick as Roran's thigh, and beneath his male hauberk his arms were knotted with muscles. The reflections from his protruding breastplate kept snaring Roran's gaze despite his efforts to ignore them. Bast! My name is Roran Stronghammer, cousin to Aragon Shadeslayer. Fight me if you dare! or be branded a coward before all here today. No man scares me, Stronghammer, or should I say Lackhammer, for I see no hammer upon you. Roran drew himself up. I need no hammer to kill you, you beardless bootlicker. Is that so? Bast's tiny smile grew wider. Give us room, he shouted and waved his mace at the soldiers and Varden alike. With the soft thunder of thousands of feet treading backward, the armies withdrew, and a wide circular area formed around Bast. He pointed his mace at Roran. Galbatorix told me of you, Lackhammer. He said I was to break every bone in your body before I killed you. What if we break your bones instead? said Roran. Now! He thought as hard as he could, trying to shout his thoughts into the darkness that surrounded his mind. He hoped the elves and the other spellcasters were listening as promised. Bast frowned and opened his mouth. Before he could speak, a low whistling noise sounded over the city, and six stone projectiles, each the size of a barrel, hurtled over the tops of the houses from catapults on the walls. A half-dozen javelins accompanied the stones. Five of the stones landed directly on Bast. The sixth missed and went bouncing across the square like a rock across water, bowling over men and dwarves alike. The stones cracked and exploded as they struck Bast's wards, 
sending fragments flying in every direction. Roran ducked behind his shield and nearly fell as a fist-sized chunk of stone slammed into it, bruising his arm. The javelins vanished in a flare of yellow fire, which gave a ghoulish light to the clouds of dust that floated upward from Bast's location. When he was sure it was safe, Roran looked over his shield. Bast was lying on his back amid the rubble, his mace on the ground next to him. Get him! Roran bellowed and ran forward. Many of the gathered Varden started toward Bast, but the soldiers they had been fighting shouted and attacked, stopping them from covering more than a few steps. With a roar, the two armies turned on each other once again, both factions inflamed with a desperate anger. As they did, Jormunder emerged from a side street, leading a hundred men whom he had collected from the edges of the battle. He and those with him would help hold back the scrum of combatants while Roran and the others dealt with Bast. From the opposite side of the square, Garjvarg and six other Karl charged out from behind the houses they had been using for cover. Their pounding footsteps shook the ground, and men of both the Empire and the Varden scrambled to move out of their way. Then hundreds of weircats, most in their animal forms, slipped out from the main body of the intermingled armies and streamed across the cobblestones, teeth bared, toward where Bast lay. Bast had just begun to stir when Roran reached him. Grabbing his spear with both hands, Roran brought it down on Bast's neck. The blade of the weapon stopped a foot away, and the tip bent and snapped as if it had struck a block of granite. Roran cursed and continued to stab as quickly as he could, trying to keep the Eldunari within Bast's breastplate from recovering its strength. Bast groaned. Hooray! Roran bellowed at the Urgles. Once they were close enough, Roran sprang aside so that the cull would have the room they needed. Taking turns, each of the massive Urgles struck at Bast with their weapons. His wards blocked them, but the cull continued to hammer away. The sound was deafening. Weircats and elves gathered around Roran. Behind them, he was half aware of the warriors he had brought with him, holding off the soldiers, along with Jormunder's men. Just when Roran was beginning to think that Bast's wards would never give way, one of the cull uttered a triumphant shout, and Roran saw the creature's axe glance off the front of Bast's armour, denting it. Again! Roran shouted. Now! Kill him! The cull lifted his axe out of the way, and Garjvarg swung his iron-bound club toward Bast's head. Roran saw a flurry of motion, and then there was a loud thud as the club struck Bast's shield, which the man had pulled over himself. Blast it! Before the Urgles could attack again, Bast rolled up against the legs of one of the cull, and his hand latched onto the back of the cull's right knee. The cull bellowed with pain and hopped backward, pulling Bast out of the knot of cull. The Urgles and two elves closed in around Bast once more, and for a number of heartbeats it seemed as if they might subdue him. Then one of the elves went flying, her neck crooked at an odd angle. A cull fell onto his side, shouting in his native language. Bone protruded from his left forearm. Garjvarg snarled and jumped back, 
blood streaming from a fist-sized hole in his side. No, thought Roran, going cold. It can't end like this. I won't let it. Shouting, he ran forward and slipped between two of the giant Urgles. He barely had time to see Bast, bloody and enraged, with his shield in one hand and a sword in the other, before Bast swung his shield and struck Roran on the left side of his body. The air rushed out of Roran's lungs, and the sky and the ground spun around him, and he felt his helmet-covered head bouncing against the cobblestones. The world seemed to keep moving beneath him, even when he rolled to a stop. He lay where he was for a time, struggling to breathe. At last he was able to fill his lungs with air, and he thought he had never been so grateful for anything as he was for that breath. He gasped. Then he howled as his body filled with pain. His left arm felt numb, but every other muscle and sinew burned with agony. He tried to push himself upright and fell back onto his stomach, too dizzy and hurt to stand. Before him was a fragment of yellowish stone, veined with coiled branches of red agate. He stared at it for a while, panting, and the whole time the only thought running through his mind was, have to get up, have to get up, have to get up. When he felt ready, he tried again. His left arm refused to work, so he was forced to rely on his right alone. Hard as it was, he got his legs underneath him, and then he slowly rose to his feet, shaking and unable to take more than shallow breaths. As he straightened, something pulled in his left shoulder, and he uttered a silent scream. It felt as if a red-hot knife was buried in the joint. Looking down, he saw that his arm was dislocated. Of his shield, nothing remained but a splintered board still attached to the strap around his forearm. Roran turned, searching for Bast, and saw the man thirty yards away, covered in clawing weircats. Satisfied that Bast would be occupied for at least a few more seconds, Roran returned his gaze to his dislocated arm. At first he could not remember what his mother had taught him, but then her words returned to him, faint and blurred by the passage of time. He pulled off the remnants of his shield. Make a fist, mumbled Roran, and he did so with his left hand. Bend your arm so your fist points forward. That he did, though it worsened his pain. Then turn your arm outward, away from your... He screamed a curse as his shoulder grated, the muscles and tendons pulling in ways they were not supposed to stretch. He kept turning his arm, and he kept clenching his fist. And after a few seconds, the bone popped back into the socket. His relief was immediate. He still hurt elsewhere, especially his lower back and ribs, but at least he could use his arm again and the pain was not so excruciating. Then Roran looked toward Bast again. What he saw sickened him. Bast was standing in a circle of dead weircats. Blood streaked his dented breastplate, and clumps of fur clung to his mace, which he had retrieved. His cheeks were scratched deeply, and the right sleeve of his male hauberk was torn, but otherwise he appeared unharmed. The few weircats who still faced him were careful to keep their distance. 
and it looked to Roran as if they were about to turn tail and run. Behind Bast lay the bodies of the Kull and the elves he had been fighting. All of Roran's warriors seemed to have disappeared, for none but soldiers surrounded Roran, Bast, and the Weircats, a seething mass of crimson tunics, the men pushing and shoving as they struggled against the eddies of the battle. Shoot him! Roran shouted, but no one seemed to hear. Bast noticed, however, and he began to lumber toward Roran. Blackhammer! he roared. I'll have your head for this. Roran saw a spear on the ground. He knelt and picked it up. The motion made him light-headed. Let's see you try, he replied. But the words sounded hollow, and his mind filled with thoughts of Katrina and their child who was yet to be. Then one of the weircats, who was in the form of a white-haired woman, no taller than Roran's elbow, ran forward and cut Bast along the side of his left thigh. Bast snarled and twisted, but the weircat was already retreating, hissing at him while she did. A moment more Bast waited, to ensure that she would not trouble him again, and then he continued walking toward Roran, limping now as his new wound exacerbated the hitch in his stride. Blood sheeted down his leg. Roran wet his lips, unable to look away from his approaching foe. He had only the spear, he had no shield, he could not outrun Bast, and he could not hope to match Bast's unnatural strength or speed, nor was there anyone nearby to help him. It was an impossible situation, but Roran refused to admit defeat. He had given up once before, and he would never do so again, even though reason told him that he was about to die. Then Bast was upon him, and Roran stabbed at his right knee in the desperate hope that he might by some chance cripple him. Bast deflected the spear with his mace, then swung at Roran. Roran had anticipated the counterattack and was already stumbling backward as fast as his legs would allow. A gust of wind touched his face as the head of the mace swept past, inches from his skin. Bast showed his teeth in a grim smile, and he was about to strike again when a shadow fell on him from above, and he looked up. Islanzadi's white raven dropped out of the sky and landed on Bast's face. The raven screeched with fury as it pecked and clawed at Bast, and Roran was astonished to hear the raven say, Die! 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 Bast swore and dropped his shield. With his free hand, he batted the raven away, breaking its already injured wing. Ribbons of flesh hung loose from his brow, and blood painted his cheeks and chin crimson. Roran lunged forward and stabbed Bast's other hand with his spear, causing Bast to drop his mace as well. Then Roran seized his chance and stabbed at Bast's exposed throat. However, Bast caught the spear with one hand, tore it from Roran's grip, and broke it between his fingers as easily as Roran might break a dry twig. Now you die, said Bast, spitting blood. His lips were torn and his right eye was ruined, but he could still see out of his remaining orb. The man reached for Roran, seeking to envelop him in a deadly embrace. Roran could not have escaped even if he had wanted to. But as Bast's arms closed about him, Roran grasped Bast's waist and twisted with all his might, 
putting as much weight and pressure as he could on Bast's wounded leg, the leg with the hitch. Bast held for a moment, then his knee buckled, and with a cry of pain he fell forward onto one leg and caught himself with his left hand. Squirming around, Roran slipped out from under Bast's right arm. The blood on Bast's breastplate made it that much easier to work free, despite the man's immense strength. Roran tried to grab Bast's throat from behind, but Bast tucked his chin, preventing Roran from getting a grip. So instead, Roran wrapped his arms around Bast's chest, hoping to restrain him until someone else could help kill him. Bast growled and threw himself onto his side, jarring Roran's injured shoulder and causing him to grunt with pain. The cobblestones dug into Roran's arms and back as Bast rolled three times. When the bulk of the man was atop him, Roran had trouble breathing. Yet still, Roran maintained his grip. One of Bast's elbows slammed into his side, and Roran felt several of his ribs break. Roran clenched his teeth and tightened his arms, squeezing as hard as he could. Katrina, he thought. Again, Bast's elbow slammed into him. Roran howled, and flashing lights appeared before his eyes. He squeezed even harder. Again, the elbow, like an anvil pounding into his side. You shall not win, Lackhammer, grunted Bast. He staggered to his feet, dragging Roran with him. Though he thought he might tear the muscles from his bones, Roran tightened his embrace even further. He screamed, but he could not hear his voice, and he felt veins pop and tendons snap. And then Bast's breastplate caved in, giving way where the cull had dented it, and there was the sound of crystal breaking. No! shouted Bast, even as a pure white light erupted from the edges of his armour. He went rigid, as if chains had pulled every limb to its farthest reach, and he began to shake uncontrollably. The light blinded Roran and burned his arms and face. He released Bast and fell to the ground, where he covered his eyes with his forearm. The light continued to pour out from under Bast's breastplate until the edges of the metal began to glow. Then the blaze ceased, leaving the world darker than before, and what little remained of Lord Bast tumbled backward and lay smoking on the cobblestones. Roran blinked as he stared at the featureless sky. He knew he should rise, for there were soldiers nearby, but the cobblestones seemed soft beneath him, and all he really wanted to do was to close his eyes and rest. When he next opened his eyes, he saw Oric and Horst and a number of elves gathered around him. Roran, can you hear me? said Horst, peering at him with concern. Roran tried to speak, but he could not form the words. Can you hear me? Listen to me. You have to stay awake. Roran! Roran! Again, Roran felt himself sinking into blackness. It was a comforting sensation, like wrapping himself in a soft woolen blanket. Warmth spread through him, and the last thing he remembered was Oric bending over him and saying something in Dwarvish that sounded like a prayer. 
the gift of knowledge. Eyes locked, Aragon and Murtag slowly circled each other, trying to anticipate where and how the other would move. Murtag appeared fit as ever, but there were dark circles under his eyes, and his face was haggard. Aragon suspected that he had been under a great strain. He wore the same pieces of armour as did Aragon, male hauberk, gauntlets, braces, and greaves, but his shield was longer and thinner than Aragon's. As for their swords, Brisinger, with its hand and a half hilt, had the advantage of length, while Zarok, with its wider blade, had the advantage of weight. They began to edge closer, and when they were about ten feet apart, Murtag, who had his back to Galbatorix, said in a low, anger-filled voice, What are you doing? Buying time, Aragon muttered, keeping his lips as still as possible. Murtag scowled. You're a fool. He'll watch us cut each other to shreds, and what will it change? Nothing. Instead of answering, Aragon shifted his weight forward and twitched his sword arm, causing Murtag to flinch in response. Blast you, growled Murtag. If you had waited just one more day, I could have freed Nasawada. That surprised Aragon. Why should I believe you? The question angered Murtag further, for his lip curled and he quickened his step, causing Aragon to increase his pace as well. Then in a louder tone, Murtag said, So you finally found a proper sword for yourself. The elves made it for you, didn't they? You know they did. Murtag lunged toward him, swinging Zarok at his gut and Aragon skipped backward, barely parrying the red sword. Aragon replied with a looping overhead blow. He allowed his hand to slide down to Brisinger's pommel to give himself more reach, and Murtag danced out of the way. They both paused to see if the other would attack again. When neither did, they resumed circling, Aragon more wary than before. From their exchange, it was obvious that Murtag was still as fast and as strong as Aragon, or an elf. Galbatorix's prohibition on the use of magic apparently did not extend to the spells that fortified Murtag's limbs. For selfish reasons, Aragon disliked the king's edict, but he could understand the rationale behind it. The fight would hardly have been fair otherwise. But Aragon did not want a fair fight. He wanted to control the course of the duel so that he could decide when it should end, and how. Unfortunately, Aragon doubted that he would have the opportunity, given Murtag's skill with a blade, and even if he did, he was not sure how he could use the fight to strike against Galbatorix. Nor did he have time to think about it, though he trusted that Sephira, Arya, and the dragons would try to devise a solution for him. Murtag fainted with his left shoulder, and Aragon ducked behind his shield. An instant later, he realized that it had been a ruse and that Murtag was moving around toward his right in an attempt to get past his guard. Aragon twisted and saw Zarok arcing toward his neck, the edge a glittering wire-thin line. He knocked it aside with a clumsy push of Brisinger's crossguard. Then he retaliated with a quick slash at Murtag's lower arm. To his grim delight, he struck Murtag on the side of his wrist. Brisinger failed to cut through Murtag's gauntlet and the sleeve of the tunic beneath but the impact still hurt Murtag and pushed his arm away from his body, leaving his chest exposed. Aragon stabbed, and Murtag used his shield to deflect the attack. Three more times Aragon stabbed, but Murtag stopped each blow, and when Aragon drew back his arm to strike again, 
Murtag countered with a backhanded cut at his knee, which would have crippled him had it landed. Seeing what Murtag intended, Aragon altered his swing and stopped Zarok an inch from his leg. Then he countered with a cut of his own. For several minutes they exchanged blows, trying to disrupt each other's rhythms, but to no avail. They knew each other too well. Whatever Aragon attempted, Murtag was able to thwart, and the same was true in reverse. It was like a game where they both had to think many moves in advance, which fostered a certain sense of intimacy as Aragon focused on divining the inner workings of Murtag's mind and from them predicting what Murtag would do next. Right from the beginning, Aragon noticed that Murtag was playing the game differently than the previous times they'd fought. He attacked with a ruthlessness that heretofore had been lacking, as if for the first time he wanted to defeat Aragon, and quickly too. Moreover, after his initial outburst, his anger seemed to vanish, and he displayed only a cool, implacable determination. Aragon found himself fighting to the limit of his abilities, and though he was able to hold Murtag off, he ended up on the defensive more than he would have liked. After a while, Murtag lowered his sword and turned toward the throne and Galbatorix. Aragon kept his guard up, but he hesitated, unsure whether it was appropriate to attack. In that moment of hesitation, Murtag leaped toward him. Aragon stood his ground and swung. Murtag caught the blow on his shield, and then instead of following up with a strike of his own, as Aragon expected, he slammed his shield against Aragon's and pushed. Aragon growled and pushed back. He would have reached around his shield to slash at Murtag's back or legs, but Murtag was shoving too hard for Aragon to risk it. Murtag was an inch or two taller, and the extra height allowed him to bear down on Aragon's shield in a way that made it difficult for Aragon to keep from sliding back across the polished stone floor. At last, with a roar and a mighty heave, Murtag sent Aragon stumbling away. As Aragon flailed and struggled to regain his balance, Murtag stabbed at his neck. Let her, said Galbatorix. The tip of Zarok stopped less than a finger's breadth from Aragon's skin. He froze, panting, not sure what had just happened. Restrain yourself, Murtag, or I shall do it for you, said Galbatorix from where he sat watching. I dislike having to repeat myself. You are not to kill Aragon, nor is he to kill you. Now, continue. The realization that Murtag had just tried to kill him, and that he would have succeeded if not for Galbatorix's intervention, shocked Aragon. He searched Murtag's face for an explanation, but Murtag remained stubbornly expressionless, as if Aragon meant little or nothing to him. Aragon could not understand. Murtag was definitely playing the game differently than he ought to be. Something had changed in him, but what it was, Aragon could not tell. In addition, the knowledge that he had lost, and that by all rights he should be dead, undermined Aragon's confidence. He had confronted death many times before, but never in such a stark and uncompromising manner. There was no question of it. Murtag had bested him, and only Galbatorix's mercy, such as it was, had saved him. Aragon, do not dwell on it, said Arya. 
You had no reason to suspect he would try to kill you, nor would you try to kill him. If you had, the fight would have gone differently, and Murtag would never have had the chance to attack you as he did. Doubtful, Aragon glanced over to where she stood by the edge of the pool of light, along with Elva and Sephira. Then Sephira said, If he wishes to rip out your throat, then cut his hamstrings and make sure that he cannot do it again. Aragon nodded, acknowledging what they had said. He and Murtag separated and again took up their positions opposite each other, while Galbatorix looked on approvingly. This time, Aragon was the first to attack. They fought for what felt like hours. Murtag did not attempt any more killing blows, whereas Aragon, to his satisfaction, succeeded in touching Murtag on the collarbone, although he stopped the blow before Galbatorix saw fit to do so himself. Murtag looked unsettled by the touch, and Aragon allowed himself a brief smile at Murtag's reaction. There were other blows that they failed to block as well. For all their speed and skill, neither he nor Murtag was infallible, and without an easy means to end the fight, it was inevitable that they would make mistakes, and that those mistakes would result in injuries. The first wound was a cut Murtag gave Aragon on his right thigh, in the gap between the edge of his hauberk and the upper part of his greave. It was a shallow cut, but exceedingly painful, and every time Aragon put his weight on the leg, blood surged from the wound. The second wound was also Aragon's, a gash above one eyebrow, after Murtag landed a blow upon his helm and the edge of it drove into his flesh. Of the two wounds, Aragon found the second by far the most aggravating, because blood kept dripping into his eye, obscuring his vision. Then Aragon caught Murtag on the wrist again, and this time sliced all the way through the cuff of his gauntlet, the sleeve of his tunic, and a thin layer of skin to the bone beneath. He failed to sever any muscles, but the wound seemed to pain Murtag a great deal, and the blood that seeped into his gauntlet caused him to lose his grip at least twice. Aragon took a nick to his right calf, and then when Murtag was still recovering from a failed attack, he moved around to Murtag's shield side and brought down Brissinger as hard as he could upon the middle of Murtag's left greave, denting the steel. Murtag howled and jumped back on one leg, Aragon followed, swinging Brissinger in an attempt to batter him to the floor. Despite his injury, Murtag was able to defend himself, and a few seconds later, Aragon was the one who was hard-pressed to remain on his feet. For a time, their shields resisted the relentless pounding. Galbatorix, Aragon was pleased to realize, had left intact the enchantments upon their swords and armor. But then the spells on Aragon's shield gave way, as did those on Murtag's which was apparent from the chips and splinters that flew every time their swords landed. Soon afterward, Aragon cracked Murtag's shield with a particularly heavy blow. His victory was short-lived, for Murtag grasped Zarok with both hands and struck at Aragon's own shield twice in quick succession, and it split as well, leaving them equally matched once again. As they fought, the stone beneath them grew slippery with smears and splashes of blood, and it became increasingly difficult to keep their footing. The massive presence chamber returned distant echoes of their clashing weapons, like the sounds of a long-forgotten battle, and it felt as if they were the centre of all that existed, for theirs was the only light, and the two of them were alone within its compass. And all the while, 
Galbatorix and Shrukan continued to watch from within the bordering shadows. Without their shields, Aragon found it easier to land blows upon Murtag, mainly upon his arms and legs, even as it was easier for Murtag to do the same to him. For the most part, their armor protected them from cuts, but it did not protect them from lumps and bruises, of which they accrued many. In spite of the wounds he gave Murtag, Aragon began to suspect that of the two of them, Murtag was the better swordsman. Not by much, but enough that Aragon was never really able to gain the upper hand. If the course of their duel continued, Murtag would end up wearing him down until he was too hurt or too tired to go on, an outcome that seemed to be fast approaching. With every step, Aragon could feel the blood gushing over his knee from the cut on his thigh, and with every moment that passed, it became harder to defend himself. He had to end the duel now, or else he would be unable to take on Galbatorix afterward. As it was, he doubted he would pose much of a challenge to the king, but he had to try. If nothing else, he had to try. The heart of the problem, he realized, was that Murtag's reasons for fighting were a mystery to him, and unless he could figure them out, Murtag would continue to catch him by surprise. Aragon thought back to what Glader had told him outside Drasleona. You must learn to see what you are looking at. And also, the way of the warrior is the way of knowing. So he looked at Murtag. He looked at him with the same intensity with which he had gazed upon Arya during their sparring sessions, the same intensity with which he had studied himself during his long night of introspection on Vroengard. By it, he sought to decipher the hidden language of Murtag's body. He met with some success. It was clear that Murtag was drawn and hard-worn, and his shoulders were hunched in a way that spoke of deep-rooted anger, or perhaps it was fear. And then there was his ruthlessness, hardly a new characteristic, but newly applied to Aragon. Those things Aragon discerned, along with other subtler details, and then he strove to reconcile them with what he knew of Murtag from days past, with his friendship and his loyalty, and his resentment of Galbatorix's control. It took a few seconds, seconds filled with strained breathing and a pair of awkward blows that gained him another bruise on his elbow, until the truth came to Aragon. It seemed so obvious when it did. There had to be something in Murtag's life, something their duel would affect, that was so important to Murtag, he felt compelled to win by any means necessary, even if that meant killing his own half-brother. Whatever that something was, and Aragon had his suspicions, some more disturbing than others, it meant that Murtag would never give up. It meant that Murtag would fight like a cornered animal until his very last breath and it meant Aragon would never be able to defeat him through conventional measures, for the duel did not mean as much to him as it did to Murtag. For Aragon, the duel was a convenient distraction, and he cared little who won or lost, as long as he was still able to face Galbatorix afterward. But for Murtag, the duel was of far more significance, and from experience, Aragon knew that determination such as his was costly, if not impossible, to overcome by force alone. The question, then, was how to stop a man who was resolved to persist and prevail 
in spite of whatever obstacles barred his way. It was an unsolvable conundrum, until at last Aragon realized that the only way to best Murtag was to give him what he wanted. In order to achieve his own desire, Aragon would have to accept defeat. But not entirely. He could not leave Murtag free to carry out Galbatorix's bidding. Aragon would grant Murtag his victory, and then he would take his own. As she listened to his thoughts, Sephira's anguish and concern grew more pronounced, and she said, No, Aragon, there must be another way. Then tell me what it is, he said, for I cannot see it. She snarled, and Thorn growled back at her from across the pool of light. Choose wisely, said Arya, and Aragon understood her meaning. Murtag rushed at him, and their blades met with a clamorous ring, and then they disengaged and paused a moment to gather their strength. As they started toward each other once again, Aragon sidled to Murtag's right, while at the same time allowing his sword arm to drift away from the side of his body, as if through exhaustion or carelessness. It was a slight motion, but he knew that Murtag would notice, and that he would attempt to exploit the opening he had provided. At that moment, Aragon felt nothing. He still registered the pain from his wounds, but at a remove, as if the sensations were not his own. His mind was like a pool of deep water on a breathless day, flat and motionless, and yet filled with the reflection of those things around it. What he saw, he registered without conscious thought. The need for that had passed. He understood all that was before him, and further contemplation would only hamper him. As Aragon expected, Murtag lunged toward him, stabbing at the middle of his belly. When the time was ripe, Aragon turned. He moved neither fast nor slow, but at just the right speed the situation required. The motion felt preordained, as if it were the only action he could have taken. Instead of striking him in the gut, as Murtag had intended, Zarok struck Aragon in the muscles along his right side, directly below his ribcage. The impact felt like a hammer blow, and there was a steely slither as Zarok slid past the broken links of his mail and into his flesh. The coldness of the metal made Aragon gasp more than the pain itself. Behind him, the tip of the blade tugged at his hauberk as it emerged from his body. Murtag stared, seemingly taken aback. Before Murtag could recover, Aragon drew back his arm and thrust Brissinger into Murtag's abdomen close to his navel, a far worse wound than the one Aragon had just received. Murtag's face went slack, his mouth opened as if he were going to speak, and he fell to his knees, still clutching Zarok. Off to the side, Thorn roared. Aragon pulled Brissinger free, then stepped back and grimaced in a soundless howl as Zarok slid out of his body. There was a clatter as Murtag released Zarok and it dropped to the floor. Then he wrapped his arms around his waist, doubled over, and pressed his head against the polished stone. Now Aragon was the one to stare, hot blood dripping into one eye, 
from on his throne, Galbatoric said, Nayana! And dozens of lanterns throughout the chamber sprang to life, once again revealing the pillars and carvings along the walls and the block of stone where Nasawada stood chained. Aragorn staggered over to Murtag and knelt next to him. And to Aragorn goes the victory, said the king, his sonorous voice filling the great hall. Murtag looked up at Aragorn, his sweat-beaded face contorted with pain. You couldn't just let me win, could you? He growled in an undertone. You can't beat Galbatorix, but you still had to prove that you are better than me. Arrgh! He shuddered and began to rock back and forth upon his shins. Aragorn put a hand on his shoulder. Why? he asked, knowing that Murtag would understand the question. The answer came as a barely audible whisper. Because I hoped to gain his favour so that I could save her. Tears blurred Murtag's eyes, and he looked away. At that, Aragorn realised that Murtag had been telling the truth earlier, and he felt a sense of dismay. Another moment passed, and Aragorn was aware of Galbatorix watching them with keen interest. Then Murtag said, You tricked me. It was the only way. Murtag grunted. That was always the difference between you and me. He eyed Aragorn. You were willing to sacrifice yourself. I wasn't. Not then. But now you are. I'm not the person I once was. I have Thorn now, and... Murtag hesitated. Then his shoulders rose and fell in a tiny shrug. I'm not fighting for myself anymore. It makes a difference. He took a shallow breath and winced. I used to think you were a fool to keep risking your life as you have. I know better now. I understand. Why? I understand. His eyes widened and his grimace relaxed as if his pain was forgotten and an inner light seemed to illuminate his features. I understand. We understand, he whispered. And Thorn uttered a strange sound that was half whimper and half growl. Galbatorix stirred on his throne as if uneasy, and in a harsh voice he said, Enough of this talk. Your duel is over and Aragorn has won. Now the time has arrived for our guests to bend their knees and give to me their oaths of fealty. Come closer, the both of you, and I shall heal your wounds, and then we shall proceed. Aragorn started to stand, but Murtag grabbed his forearm, stopping him. Now, said Galbatorix, his heavy brows drawing together, or I will leave you to suffer from your wounds until we have finished. Ready yourself, Murtag mouthed to Aragorn. Aragorn hesitated, not sure what to expect. Then he nodded and warned Arya, Saphira, Glader, and the other Eldenari. Then Murtag pushed Aragorn aside and he rose up on his knees, still clutching his belly. He looked at Galbatorix and he shouted the word. Galbatorix recoiled and lifted a hand as if to shield himself, still shouting, 
Murtag voiced other words in the ancient language, speaking too quickly for Aragon to understand the purpose of the spell. The air around Galbatorix flashed red and black, and for an instant his body appeared to be wreathed in flames. There was a sound like that of a high summer wind stirring the branches of an evergreen forest. Then Aragon heard a series of thin shrieks as twelve orbs of light appeared around Galbatorix's head and fled outward from him and passed through the walls of the chamber, and thus vanished. They looked like spirits, but Aragon saw them for such a brief span he could not be certain. Thorn spun around as fast as a cat whose tail has been stepped on, and he pounced on Shrukan's immense neck. The black dragon bellowed and scrambled backward, shaking his head in an attempt to throw Thorn off. The noise of his growls was painfully loud, and the floor shook from the weight of the two dragons. On the steps of the dais, the two children screamed and covered their ears with their hands. Aragon saw Arya, Elva, and Sephira lurch forward, no longer bound by Galbatorix's magic. Dalthdert in hand, Arya started toward the throne, while Sephira loped toward where Thorn clung to Shrukan. Meanwhile, Elva put her hand to her mouth and seemed to say something to herself, but what it was, Aragon could not hear over the sound of the dragons. Fist-sized drops of blood rained down around them and lay smoking on the stone. Aragon rose from where Murtag had pushed him, and he followed Arya toward the throne. Then Galbatorix spoke the name of the ancient language, along with the word letter. Invisible bonds seized hold of Aragon's limbs, and throughout the chamber silence fell, as the king's magic restrained everyone, even Shrukan. Rage and frustration boiled within Aragon, they had been so close to striking at the king, and still they were helpless before his spells. Get him! he shouted, both with his mind and his tongue. They had already tried to attack Galbatorix and Shrukan. The king would kill the two children, whether or not they continued. The only path left to Aragon and those with him, the only hope of victory that yet remained, was to break past Galbatorix's mental barriers and seize control of his thoughts along with Sephira and Arya and the Eldunari they had brought with them. Aragon stabbed outward with his consciousness toward the king, pouring all his hate, anger and pain into the single burning ray that he drove into the centre of Galbatorix's being. For an instant, Aragon felt the king's mind. A terrible, shadow-ridden vista swept with bitter cold and searing heat, ruled by bars of iron hard and unyielding, which portioned off areas of his consciousness. Then the dragons under Galbatorix's command, the mad, howling, grief-stricken dragons, attacked Aragon's mind and forced him to withdraw within himself to avoid being torn to pieces. Behind him, Aragon heard Elva start to say something, but she had barely uttered a sound when Galbatorix said, Thena! And she stopped with a choked gurgle. I stripped him of his wards, shouted Murtag. He's... Whatever Galbatorix said, it was too fast and too low for Aragon to catch. But Murtag ceased speaking, and a moment later, Aragon heard him fall to the floor with the tinkle of mail and the sharp clink of his helm striking stone. I have plenty of wards, said Galbatorix, his hawk-like face dark with fury. You cannot harm me. He rose from his seat and strode down the steps of the dais toward Aragon, his cape billowing around him 
and his sword Vranger, white and deathly in his hand. In the brief time he had, Aragon tried to capture the mind of at least one of the dragons battering at his consciousness, but there were too many, and his attempt left him scrambling to repel the horde of Eldunari before they completely subjugated his thoughts. Galbatorix stopped a foot in front of him and glared at him, a thick forked vein prominent on his brow, the muscles of his heavy jaw knotting. Think you to challenge me, boy? he growled, fairly spitting with rage. Think you to be my equal? That you could lay me low and steal my throne? The cords in Galbatorix's neck stood out like a skein of twisted rope. He plucked at the edge of his cape. I cut this mantle from the wings of Belgabad himself, and my gloves too. He lifted Vranger and held its bleak blade before Aragon's eyes. I took this sword from Vrail's hand, and I took this crown from the head of the mewling wretch who wore it before me. And yet you think to outwit me? Me? You come to my castle and you kill my men, and you act as if you are better than I, as if you are more noble or virtuous. Aragon's head rang, and a constellation of throbbing, swirling, crimson motes appeared before his eyes as Galbatorix struck him on the cheek with Vranger's pommel, tearing his skin. You need to be taught a lesson in humility, boy, said Galbatorix, moving closer until his gleaming eyes were mere inches from Aragon's. He struck Aragon on the other cheek, and for a second all Aragon could see was a black immensity littered with flashing lights. I shall enjoy having you in my service, said Galbatorix. In a lower voice he said, Ganga, and the pressure from the Eldunari assailing Aragon's mind vanished, leaving him free to think as he would but not so the others, as he could see from the strain on their faces. Then a blade of thought, honed to an infinitesimal point, pierced Aragon's consciousness and sheathed itself in the marrow of his being. The blade twisted, and like a cockleburr lodged within a bat of felt, it tore at the fabric of his mind, seeking to destroy his will, his identity, his very awareness. It was an attack unlike any Aragon had experienced. He shrank from it and concentrated upon a single thought, revenge, as he struggled to protect himself. Through their contact, he could feel Galbatorix's emotions, anger mainly, but also a savage joy at being able to hurt Aragon and watch him writhe in discomfort. The reason Aragon realized that Galbatorix was so good at breaking the minds of his enemies was because it gave him a perverse pleasure. The blade dug deeper into Aragon's being, and he howled, unable to help himself. Galbatorix smiled, the edges of his teeth translucent like fired clay. Defence alone was no way to win a fight, and so despite the searing pain, Aragon forced himself to attack Galbatorix in return. He dove into the king's consciousness and grasped at his razor-sharp thoughts, trying to pin them in place and prevent the king from moving or thinking without his approval. Galbatorix made no attempt to guard himself, however. His cruel smile widened, and he twisted the blade in Aragon's mind even further.
It felt to Aragon as if a nest of briars were ripping him apart from the inside. A scream racked his throat, and he went limp in the grip of Galbatorix's spell. Submit, said the king. He grabbed Aragon's chin with fingers of steel. Submit. The blade twisted yet again, and Aragon screamed until his voice gave out. The king's probing thoughts closed in around Aragon's consciousness, restricting him to an ever smaller part of his mind, until all that was left to him was a small, bright nub, overshadowed by the looming weight of Galbatorix's presence. Submit, the king whispered almost lovingly. You have nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. This life is at an end for you, Aragon Shadeslayer. But a new one awaits. Submit, and all shall be forgiven. Tears distorted Aragon's vision as he stared into the featureless abyss of Galbatorix's pupils. They had lost. He had lost. The knowledge was more painful than any of the wounds he had received. A hundred years' worth of striving, all for naught. Sephira, Elva, Arya, the Eldunari, none of them could overcome Galbatorix. He was too strong, too knowledgeable. Garrow and Brom and Oromis had all died in vain, as had the many warriors of different races who had laid down their lives in the course of fighting the Empire. The tears spilled from Aragon's eyes. Submit, whispered the king, and his grip tightened. More than anything, it was the injustice of the situation that Aragon hated. It seemed wrong, on a fundamental level, that so many had suffered and died in pursuit of a hopeless goal. It seemed wrong that Galbatorix alone should be the cause of so much misery, and it seemed wrong that he should escape punishment for his misdeeds. Why? Aragon asked himself. He remembered then the vision the oldest of the Eldunari, Valder, had shown him and Sephira, where the dreams of starlings were equal to the concerns of kings. Submit! shouted Galbatorix, and his mind bore down on Aragon with even greater force, as splinters of ice and fire lanced through him from every direction. Aragon cried out, and in his desperation he reached for Sephira and the Eldunari, their minds besieged by the crazed dragons of Galbatorix's command, and without intending to, he drew from their stores of energy. And with that energy, he cast a spell. It was a spell without words, for Galbatorix's magic would not allow otherwise, and no words could have described what Aragon wanted, nor what he felt. A library of books would have been insufficient to the task. His was a spell of instinct and emotion. Language could not contain it. What he wanted 
was both simple and complex. He wanted Galbatorix to understand, to understand the wrongness of his actions. The spell was not an attack. It was an attempt to communicate. If Aragon was going to spend the rest of his life as a slave to the king, then he wanted Galbatorix to comprehend what he had done fully and completely. As the magic took effect, Aragon felt Umaroth and the Eldunari turn their attention to his spell, fighting to ignore Galbatorix's dragons. A hundred years of inconsolable grief and anger welled up within the Eldunari like a roaring wave, and the dragons melded their minds with Aragon's and began to alter the spell, deepening it, widening it, and building upon it, until it encompassed far more than he originally intended. Not only would the spell show Galbatorix the wrongness of his actions, now it would also compel him to experience all the feelings, both good and bad, that he had aroused in others since the day he had been born. The spell was beyond any Aragon could have invented on his own, for it contained more than a single person or a single dragon could conceive of. Each Eldunari contributed to the enchantment, and the sum of their contributions was a spell that extended not only across the whole of Alagasia, but also back through every moment in time between then and Galbatorix's birth. It was, Aragon thought, the greatest piece of magic the dragons had ever wrought, and he was their instrument. He was their weapon. The power of the Eldunari rushed through him like a river as wide as an ocean, and he felt a hollow and fragile vessel, as if his skin might tear with the force of the torrent he channeled. If not for Sephira and the other dragons, he would have died in an instant, drained of all strength by the voracious demands of the magic. Around them, the light of the lanterns dimmed, and in his mind, Aragon seemed to hear the echo of thousands of voices, an unbearable cacophony of pains and joys innumerable, echoing forth from both the present and the past. The lines upon Galbatorix's face deepened, and his eyes began to bulge from their sockets. What have you done? he said. His voice hollow and strained. He stepped back and put his fists to his temples. What have you done? With an effort, Aragon said, Made you understand? The king stared at him with an expression of horror. The muscles of his face jumped and twitched, and his whole body began to shake with tremors. Baring his teeth, he growled, You will not get the better of me, boy! You will not! He groaned and staggered, and all at once the spell holding Aragon vanished, and he fell to the floor even as Elva, Arya, Sephira, Thorn, Shrukan, and the two children began to move again as well. A deafening roar from Shrukan filled the chamber, 
and the huge black dragon shook Thorn off his neck, sending the red dragon flying halfway across the room. Thorn landed on his left side, and the bones in his wing broke with a loud snap. I shall not give in, said Galbatorix. Behind the king, Aragon saw Arya, who was closer to the throne than Aragon, hesitate and look back at them. Then she sprinted past the dais and ran with Sephira toward Shrukan. Thorn struggled to his feet and followed. His face contorted like a madman's, Galbatorix strode toward Aragon and swung Vranga at him. Aragon rolled to the side and heard the sword strike the stone by his head. He kept rolling for another few feet, then pushed himself into a standing position. Only the energy from the Eldunari allowed him to remain upright. Shouting, Galbatorix charged at him, and Aragon deflected the king's clumsy blow. Their swords rang like bells, sharp and clear, amid the roars of dragons and the whispers of the dead. Zephira leaped high into the air and battered at Shrukan's enormous snout, bloodying it, then dropped back to the floor. He swung a paw at her talons extended, and she hopped backward, half-spreading her wings. Aragon ducked a savage crosscut and stabbed at Galbatorix's left armpit. To his astonishment, he scored a hit, wetting the tip of Brisinger with the king's blood. A spasm in Galbatorix's arm threw off his next strike, and they ended up with their swords locked at the hilt, both striving to push each other off balance. The king's face was twisted almost beyond recognition, and there were tears on his cheeks. A sheet of flame erupted over their heads, and the air grew hot around them. Somewhere the children were screaming. Aragon's wounded leg gave way, and he fell back onto his hands and feet, bruising the fingers with which he held Brisinger. He expected the king to be upon him within a second, but instead Galbatorix remained where he was, swaying from side to side. No, cried the king, I didn't. He looked at Aragon and shouted, Make it stop! Aragon shook his head even while he scrambled back onto his feet. Pain shot through his left arm, and he looked over to see Sephira with a bloody gash on her corresponding foreleg. On the other side of the room, Thorn sank his teeth into Shrukan's tail, causing the black dragon to snarl and turn on him. While Shrukan's attention was directed elsewhere, Sephira sprang upward and landed atop his neck, close to the base of his bony skull. She hooked her claws under his scales, and then bit down on his neck, between two of the spikes that ran along his spine. Shrukan let out a rumbling, savage yowl, and began to thrash about even more. Once again, Galbatorix ran at Aragon, slashing at him as he did. Aragon blocked one blow, then another, and then took a hit on his ribs, which nearly caused him to black out. Make it stop, said Galbatorix, his tone more pleading than threatening. The pain! Another yowl, this one more frantic than the last, came from Shrukan. Behind the king, Aragon saw Thorn clinging to Shrukan's neck opposite Sephira. The combined weight of the two dragons pulled down Shrukan's head until it was close to the floor. However, the black dragon was still too large and strong for them to subdue. 
Moreover, his neck was so thick, Aragon did not think either Saphira or Thorn would be able to hurt him much with their teeth. Then, like a shadow flitting through a forest, Aragon saw Arya dart out from behind a pillar and run toward the dragons. In her left hand, the green Douthdert glowed with its usual starry nimbus. Shrukan saw her coming and jerked his body, trying to dislodge Saphira and Thorn. When they remained fixed, he snarled and opened his jaws and painted the area in front of him with a torrent of fire. Arya dove forward, and for a moment Aragon lost sight of her behind the wall of flames. Then she came into view again, not far from where Shrukan's head hung above the floor. The ends of her hair were on fire, but she seemed not to notice. With three bounding steps, she leaped onto Shrukan's left forefoot, and from there flung herself toward the side of his head, trailing fire like a comet. Uttering a shout that could be heard throughout the throne room, Arya threw the Douthdert into the center of Shrukan's great, gleaming ice-blue eye, and buried the full length of the spear within his skull. Shrukan bellowed and twitched, and then he slowly fell sideways, liquid fire pouring from his mouth. Saphira and Thorn jumped clear a moment before the gigantic black dragon struck the floor. Pillars cracked, chunks of stone fell from the ceiling and shattered. A number of lanterns broke, and gouts of some molten substance dribbled out of them. Aragon nearly fell as the room shuddered. He had not been able to see what had happened to Arya, but he feared that Shrukan's bulk might have crushed her. Aragon! shouted Elva. Duck! He ducked, and he heard a whistle of wind as Galbatorix's white blade swung over his lowered back. Rising, Aragon lunged forward and stabbed Galbatorix in the center of his stomach, even as he had stabbed Murtag. The king grunted, and then he stepped back, pulling himself off Aragon's blade. He touched the wound with his free hand and stared at the blood on the tips of his fingers. Then he looked back at Aragon and said, The voices, the voices are terrible. I can't bear it. He closed his eyes and fresh tears streamed down his cheeks. Pain, so much pain, so much grief. Make it stop. Make it stop. No, said Aragon. Elva joined him, as did Saphira and Thorn from the other end of the room. With them, Aragon was relieved to see was Arya, burned and bloodied, but otherwise unhurt. Galvatorix's eyes snapped open, round, and rimmed with an unnatural amount of white, and he stared into the distance, as if Aragon and those before him no longer existed. He shook and trembled, and his jaw worked, but no sound came from his throat. Two things happened at once then. Elva let out a shriek and fainted, and Galbatorix shouted, Weizenyet! Be not. Aragon had no time for words. 
Again, drawing upon the Eldunari, he cast a spell to drag himself, Sephira, Arya, Elva, Thorn, Murtag, and the two children on the dais, over to the block of stone where Nasawada was chained. And he also cast a spell to stop or deflect whatever might harm them. They were only halfway to the block when Galbatorix vanished in a flash of light brighter than the sun. Then all went black and silent as Aragon's protective spell took effect. Death Throws Roran sat on a litter that the elves had placed upon one of the many blocks of stone just inside the ruined gate of Urubain, giving orders to the warriors in front of him. Four of the elves had carried him out of the city, where they could use magic without fear of Galbatorix's enchantments distorting their spells. They had healed his dislocated arm and broken ribs, as well as the other wounds Bast had inflicted, although they warned him that it would be weeks before his bones were as strong as before, and they insisted that he remain off his feet for the rest of the day. Likewise, he had insisted upon rejoining the battle. The elves argued with him, but he told them, Either you take me back, or I'll walk there myself. Their displeasure had been obvious, but at last they agreed and carried him to where he now sat, looking over the square. As Roran expected, the soldiers had lost their will to fight with the death of their commander, and the Varden were able to push them back up the narrow streets. By the time Roran returned, the Varden had already cleared a third or more of the city and were fast approaching the citadel. They had lost many. The dead and dying littered the street, and the gutters ran red with blood. But with their recent advances, a renewed sense of victory gripped the army. Roran could see it in the faces of the men and dwarves and urgles, though not the elves, who maintained a cold fury at the death of their queen. The elves worried Roran. He had seen them kill soldiers who were trying to surrender, cutting them down without the slightest compunction. Once loosed, their bloodlust seemed to have few bounds. Soon after Bast fell, King Orin had taken a bolt to the chest while storming a guardhouse deeper within the city. It was a serious wound, one that even the elves apparently were unsure they could heal. The king's soldiers had taken Orin back to the camp, and so far Roran had heard no word of his fate. Although he could not fight, Roran could still give orders. Of his own accord, he had started to organize the army from the rear, gathering up stray warriors and sending them on missions throughout Urubain the first being to capture the rest of the catapults along the walls. When he received a piece of information that he thought Jormunder or Oric or Martland Redbeard or any of the other captains within the army ought to know, now he had runners seek them out among the buildings and convey the news. And if you see any soldiers near the big domed building by the market, be sure to tell Jormunder that as well, he said to the thin, high-shouldered swordsman who stood in front of him. Yes, sir said the man, and the knob in his neck bobbed as he swallowed. Roran stared for a moment, fascinated by the movement. Then he waved and said, Go! As the man trotted away, Roran frowned and looked over the peaked roofs of the houses toward the citadel at the base of the overhanging shelf. Where are you? he wondered. 
Nothing had been seen of Aragon or those with him since they entered the stronghold, and the length of their absence worried Roran. He could think of numerous explanations for the delay, but none boded well. The most benign was that Galbatorix was simply hiding, and that Aragon and his companions were having to search for the king. But after seeing the might of Shrukan during the previous night, Roran could not imagine that Galbatorix would flee from his enemies. If his worst fears had come to pass, then the Vardens' victories would be short-lived, and Roran knew it was unlikely that he or any of the other warriors within their army would live through the day. One of the men he had sent off earlier, a bare-headed, sandy-haired archer, with a ruddy spot in the centre of each cheek, ran out of a street to Roran's right. The archer stopped in front of the block of stone and ducked his head while he panted for breath. You found Martland? Roran asked. The archer nodded again, his hair flopping over his glistening forehead. And you gave him my message? Sir, yes, sir. Martland told me to tell you that... He paused for breath. The soldiers have retreated from the baths, but now they've barricaded themselves in a hall close to the southern wall. Roran shifted on the litter, and a pang ran through his newly healed arm. What of the wall towers behind the baths and the granaries? Have they been secured yet? Two of them. We're still fighting for the rest. Martin convinced a few elves to go and help, though. He also... A muffled roar from within the stone hill interrupted the man. The archer blanched, save for the spots of colour on his cheeks, which appeared even brighter and redder than before, like daubs of paint on the skin of a corpse. Sir, is that... Shh! Roran cocked his head, listening. Only Shrukan could have roared that loud. For a few moments they heard nothing else of note. Then another roar sounded from inside the citadel, and Roran thought he could make out other fainter noises, although he was not sure what they were. Throughout the area in front of the ruined gate, men, elves, dwarves, and urgles paused and looked toward the citadel. Another roar, even louder than the last, rang forth. Roran clutched the edge of the litter, his body rigid. Kill him, he muttered. Kill the bastard! A vibration, subtle but noticeable, passed through the city, as if a great weight had struck the ground. With it, Roran heard what he thought was something breaking. Then silence settled over the city, and every second that passed felt longer than the last. Do you think he needs our help? The archer asked in a soft voice. There's nothing we can do for them, said Roran, keeping his eyes fixed on the citadel. Couldn't the elves? The ground rumbled and shook. Then the front of the citadel exploded outward in a wall of white and yellow flame so bright, Roran saw the bones within the archer's neck and head, his flesh like a red gooseberry, held before a candle. Roran grabbed the archer and rolled off the edge of the stone block, pulling the other man with him. A blast of sound struck them as they fell. It felt as if spikes were being driven into Roran's ears. He screamed, but he could not hear himself, nor after the initial clap of thunder could he hear anything else. The cobblestones bucked underneath them. A cloud of dust and debris hurtled over them, blotting out the sun, and a massive wind tore at Roran's clothes. 
The dust forced Roran to squeeze his eyes shut. All he could do was cling to the archer and wait for the upheaval to subside. He tried to take a breath, but the heated wind snatched the air from his lips and nose before he could fill his lungs. Something struck his head, and he felt his helmet fly off. The shaking went on and on. But at last the ground grew still again, and Roran opened his eyes, afraid of what he would see. The air was grey and dim. Objects past a few hundred feet were lost in the haze. Small chunks of wood and stone rained from the sky, along with flakes of ash. A piece of timber that lay across the street from him, part of a flight of stairs the elves had broken when they destroyed the gate, was burning. The heat of the explosion had already charred the beam along its full length. The warriors who had been standing in the open now lay flat on the ground, some still moving, others clearly dead. Roran glanced at the archer. The man had bitten through his bottom lip, blood coated his chin. They helped each other off the ground, and Roran looked toward where the citadel had been. He could see nothing but grey darkness. Aragon! Could he and Sephira have survived the explosion? Could anyone who had been close to the heart of such an inferno? Roran opened his mouth several times, trying to clear his ears, which rang and hurt badly, but to no avail. When he touched his right ear, his fingers came away bloody. Can you hear me? he shouted at the archer, the words nothing but a vibration in his mouth and throat. The archer frowned and shook his head. A spate of dizziness caused Roran to lean over and prop himself against the block of stone. As he waited for his balance to return, he thought of the shelf hanging over them, and it suddenly occurred to him that the whole city might be in danger. We have to leave before it falls, he thought. He spat blood and dirt onto the cobblestones. Then he looked in the direction of the citadel again. The dust still hid it. And grief clutched at his heart. Aragon. A Sea of Nettles Darkness, and in that darkness, silence. Aragon felt himself slide to a stop, then nothing. He could breathe, but the air was stale and lifeless, and when he tried to move, the strain upon his spell increased. He touched the minds of everyone around him, checking that he had managed to save them all. Elva was unconscious, and Murtag nearly so, but they were alive, as were the rest. It was the first time Aragon had come into contact with Thorn's mind. As he did, the red dragon seemed to recoil. His thoughts felt darker, more contorted than Sephira's. But there was a strength and nobility to him that impressed Aragon. We cannot maintain this spell for much longer, said Umaroth, his voice tense. You have to, said Aragon. If you don't, we'll die. Seconds more passed. Without warning, light flooded Aragon's eyes, and an onslaught of noise assailed his ears. He winced and blinked while his eyes adjusted. Through the smoke-filled air he saw a huge glowing crater where Galbatorix had been standing. 
The incandescent stone pulsed like living flesh as breaths of air wafted over its surface. The ceiling glowed as well, and the sight unnerved Aragon. It was as if they were standing inside a giant crucible. The air smelled like the taste of iron. The walls of the room were cracked, and the pillars, carvings, and lanterns had been pulverized. At the back of the chamber lay Shrukun's corpse, much of the flesh stripped from his soot-blackened bones. At the front, the explosion had shattered the stone walls, as well as the walls beyond, for hundreds of feet, exposing a veritable warren of tunnels and rooms. The beautiful golden doors that had guarded the entrance to the chamber had been blown off their hinges, and Aragon thought he glimpsed daylight at the far end of the quarter-mile-long hallway that led to the outside. As he got to his feet, he noticed that his ward was still drawing strength from the dragons, but not so quickly as before. A piece of stone the size of a house fell from the ceiling and landed next to Shrukan's skull, where it split into a dozen pieces. Around them, more cracks spread through the walls, ominous shrieks and groans sounding from every side. Arya went to the two children, grabbed the boy around his waist, and climbed with him up onto Sephira's back. Once there, she pointed at the girl and said to Aragon, Throw her to me! Aragon lost a second as he struggled to sheath Brissinger. Then he grabbed the girl and tossed her to Arya, who caught her in outstretched arms. Aragon turned and sidestepped Elva as he hurried over to Nasawada. Jirda, he said, placing a hand on the manacles that held her to the block of grey stone. The spell had no apparent effect, so he ended it quickly before it consumed too much energy. Nasawada made an urgent sound, and he pulled the knotted cloth out of her mouth. You have to find the key, she said. Galbatorix's jailer has it on him. We'll never find him in time. Aragon drew Brissinger again and swung at the chain connected to the manacle around her left hand. The sword bounced off the links with a harsh reverberation, leaving not so much as a scratch on the dull metal. He swung a second time, but the chain was impervious to his blade. Another piece of rock fell from the ceiling and struck the floor with a loud crack. A hand gripped his arm, and he turned to see Murtag standing behind him, one arm pressed against the wound in his stomach. Move aside, he growled. Aragon did, and Murtag spoke the name of all names as he had before, as well as Jirda, and the iron cuffs opened and fell from Nasuada's limbs. Murtag took her by the wrist, and he began to lead her toward Thorn. After his first step, she slipped under his arm and allowed him to lean his weight on her shoulders. Aragon opened his mouth, then closed it. He would ask his questions later. Wait, cried Arya, and she leaped down from Sephira and ran over to Murtag. Where is the egg and the Eldunari? We can't leave them. Murtag frowned, and Aragon felt the information pass between him and Arya. Arya spun around, her burnt hair flying, and sprinted toward a doorway on the opposite side of the room. It's too dangerous, Aragon shouted after her. This place is falling apart. Arya! Go, she said. Get the children to safety. Go. You haven't much time. Aragon cursed. At the very least, he wished she had taken Glader with her. He slid Brissinger back into its scabbard, then bent and picked up Elva, who was just beginning to stir. 
What's happening? she asked, as Aragon carried her up onto Sephira's back behind the two other children. We're leaving, he said. Hold on! Sephira had already started moving. Limping because of her wounded foreleg, she trotted around the crater. Thorn followed close behind her, Murtag and Nasawada upon his back. Look out! shouted Aragon, as he saw a chunk of the glowing ceiling break loose directly overhead. Sephira shied to her left, and the jagged piece of stone landed next to her, and sent a burst of straw-yellow shards in every direction. One of them struck Aragon in the side, and lodged in his mail. He plucked it out and threw it away, smoke trailed from the fingers of his gloves, and he smelled burnt leather. More pieces of stone fell elsewhere in the chamber. When Sephira arrived at the mouth of the hallway, Aragon twisted and looked back at Murtag. What of the traps? he shouted. Murtag shook his head and waved for them to continue. Piles of broken stone covered the floor along much of the hallway, which slowed the dragons. To either side, Aragon could see into the rubble-filled rooms and tunnels that the explosion had torn open. Within them, tables, chairs, and other pieces of furniture burned. The limbs of the dead and dying stuck out at odd angles from beneath the tumbled stones, occasionally a grimy face or the back of a head. He looked for Bloodgarm and his spellcasters, but saw no sign of them, either dead or alive. Farther down the hallway, hundreds of people, soldiers and servants alike, poured out of the adjoining doorways and ran toward the now gaping entrance. Broken limbs were common among them, as were burns, scrapes, and other wounds. The survivors moved aside for Sephira and Thorn, but otherwise ignored the dragons. Sephira was nearly at the end of the hall when a thunderous crash sounded behind them, and Aragon looked back to see that the throne room had caved in on itself, burying the chamber floor under a pile of stone fifty feet thick. Arya, thought Aragon. He tried to find her with his mind, but without success. Either too much material separated them, or one of the spells woven throughout the mind-out crag blocked his mental probe, or the one alternative he hated to consider. She was dead. She had not been in the room when it collapsed, that much he knew. But he wondered if she would be able to find her way back out again, now that the throne room was blocked. As they emerged from the citadel, the air cleared, and Aragon was able to see the destruction that the blast had wreaked upon Urubain. It had ripped off the slate roofs of many nearby buildings and set fire to the beams underneath. Scores of fires dotted the rest of the city. The threads and plumes of smoke drifted upward until they collided with the underside of the shelf above. There they pooled and flowed along the angled surface of the stone, like water over a stream bed. By the southeastern edge of the city, the smoke caught the light of the morning sun as it seeped around the side of the overhang, and there the smoke glowed with the reddish-orange colour of a fire opal. The people of Urubain were fleeing their houses, streaming through the streets toward the hole in the outer wall. The soldiers and servants from the citadel hurried to join them, giving Sephira and Thorn a wide berth as they ran across the courtyard in front of the fortress. Aragon paid them little attention. As long as they remained peaceful, he did not care what they did. Sephira stopped in the middle of the quadrangle, and Aragon lowered Elva and the two nameless children to the ground. Do you know where your parents are? he asked, 
kneeling by the siblings. They nodded, and the boy pointed toward a large house on the left side of the courtyard. Is that where you live? The boy nodded again. Go on then, said Aragon, and gave them a gentle push on the back. Without further prompting, the brother and sister ran across the courtyard to the building. The door to the house flew open, and a balding man with a sword at his belt stepped out and wrapped the two of them in his arms. He gave Aragon a glance, then hurried the children inside. That was easy, Aragon said to Sephira. Galbatorix must have had his men find the nearest hatchlings, she replied. We didn't give him time to do much else. I suppose. Thorn sat a number of yards away from Sephira, and Nasawada helped Murtag down from his back. Then Murtag slumped against Thorn's belly. Aragon heard him begin to recite spells of healing. Aragon likewise attended to Sephira's wounds, ignoring his own, for hers were more serious. The gash on her left foreleg was as wide as both his hands put together, and a pool of blood was forming about her foot. Tooth or claw? he asked as he examined the wound. Claw, she said. He used her strength as well as Glader's to mend the gash. When he finished, he turned his attention to his own wounds, starting with the burning line of pain in his side where Murtag had stabbed him. As he worked, he kept an eye on Murtag, watched as Murtag healed his gut wound, Thorn's broken wing, and the dragon's other injuries. Nasawada stayed by him the whole while, her hand on his shoulder. He had, Aragon saw, somehow reacquired Zarok on the way out of the throne room. Aragon then turned to Elva, who was standing nearby. She appeared pained, but he saw no blood upon her. Are you hurt? he asked. Her brow furrowed, and she shook her head. No, but many of them are and she pointed at the people fleeing the citadel. Hmm. Aragon glanced over at Murtag again. He and Nasawada were standing now, talking to each other. Nasawada frowned. Then Murtag reached out, grasped the neck of her tunic, and pulled it to the side, tearing the fabric. Aragon had drawn Brisinger halfway out of its sheath before he saw the map of angry-looking welts below Nasawada's collarbone the sight struck him like a blow. It reminded him of the wounds on Arya's back after he and Murtag had rescued her from Gilead. Nasawada nodded and bowed her head. Again, Murtag began to speak. This time, Aragon was sure in the ancient language. He placed his hands upon various parts of Nasawada's body, his touch gentle, even hesitant, and her expression of relief was all the evidence Aragon needed to understand how much pain she had been suffering. Aragon watched for a minute longer, then a sudden rush of emotion swept through him. His knees grew weak, and he sat on Sephira's right paw. She lowered her head and nuzzled his shoulder, and he leaned his head against her. We did it, she said in a quiet tone. We did it, he said hardly able to believe the words. He could feel Sephira thinking about Shrukan's death. As dangerous as Shrukan had been, she still mourned the passing of one of the last remaining members of her race. Aragon gripped her scales. 
he felt light, almost dizzy, as if he might float away from the surface of the earth. What now? Now we will rebuild, said Gleda. His own emotions were a curious mixture of satisfaction, grief, and weariness. You acquitted yourself well, Aragon. No one else would have thought to attack Galbatorix as you did. I just wanted him to understand, he murmured wearily. But if Glader heard, he chose not to respond. At last the Oathbreaker is dead, crowed Umaroth. It seemed impossible that Galbatorix was no more. As Aragon contemplated the fact, something within his mind seemed to release, and he remembered as if he had never forgotten everything that had transpired during their time in the Vault of Souls. A tingle passed through him. Safira! I know, she said, her excitement rising. The eggs! Aragon smiled. Eggs! Dragon eggs! As a race, they would not pass into the void. They would survive and flourish and return to their former glory as they had been before the fall of the riders. Then a horrible suspicion occurred to him. Did you make us forget anything else? he asked Umaroth. If we did, how would we know? replied the white dragon. Look! cried Elva, pointing. Aragon turned and saw Arya walking out of the dark moor of the citadel. With her were Bloodgarm and his spellcasters, bruised and scraped, but alive. In her arms Arya carried a wooden chest fitted with gold hasps. A long line of metal boxes, each the size of the back of a wagon, floated along behind the elves, a few inches above the floor. Elated, Aragon sprang up and ran over to meet them. You're alive! He surprised Blodgarm by grabbing the fur-covered elf and embracing him. Blodgarm regarded him for a moment with his yellow eyes, and then he smiled, showing his fangs. We are alive, Shade Slayer. Are those the Eldunari? Aragon asked, speaking the word softly. Arya nodded. They were in Galbatorix's treasure room. We will have to go back at some point. There are many wonders hidden therein. How are they? The Eldenari, I mean. Confused. It will take them years to recover, if they ever do. And is that? Aragon motioned toward the chest she carried. Arya glanced around to make sure no one was close enough to see. Then she lifted the lid, the width of a finger. Inside, nestled in velvet, Aragon saw a beautiful green dragon egg webbed with veins of white. The joy in Arya's face lifted Aragon's heart. He grinned and beckoned to the other elves. When they had gathered close to him, he whispered in the ancient language and told them of the eggs on Vroengard. They did not shout or laugh, but their eyes gleamed, and as a group they seemed to vibrate with excitement. Still grinning, Aragon bounced on his heels, delighted by their reaction. Then Sephira said, 
Aragon. At the same time, Arya frowned and said, Where are Thorn and Murtag? Aragon shifted his gaze and saw Nasawada standing alone in the courtyard. Next to her was a pair of saddlebags that Aragon did not remember seeing on Thorn. Wind swept over the courtyard, and he heard the sound of wings flapping. But of Murtag and Thorn, nothing was visible. Aragon cast his thoughts out toward where he thought they were. He felt them at once, for their minds were not hidden, but they refused to speak or listen to him. Blast it! muttered Aragon as he ran over to Nasawada. There were tears on her cheeks, and she seemed on the verge of losing her composure. Where are they going? Away. Her chin trembled. Then she took a breath, released it, and stood taller than before. Cursing again, Aragon bent and pulled open the saddlebags. Within, he found a number of smallish Eldunari, enclosed in padded cases. Arya! Blodgarm! he shouted, pointing at the saddlebags. The two elves nodded. Aragon ran over to Sephira. He did not have to explain himself. She understood. She spread her wings as he climbed onto her back, and the moment he was settled in the saddle, she took flight from the courtyard. Cheers rose from the city as the Varden caught sight of her. Sephira flapped quickly, following Thorn's musky scent trail through the air. It led her south, out from under the shadow of the overhang, and then it turned and curved up and around the great stone outcrop, heading north toward the Rammer River. For several miles, the trail ran straight and level. When the broad, tree-lined river was almost underneath them, the scent began to angle downward. Aragon studied the ground ahead and saw a flash of red by the foot of a small hill on the other side of the river. Over there, he said to Sephira, but she had already spotted Thorn. She spiralled down and landed softly atop the hill, where she had the advantage of height. The air off the water was cool and moist, carrying with it the scent of moss, mud and sap. Between the hill and the river lay a sea of nettles. The plants grew in such thick profusion, the only way to pass through them would have been to cut a path. Their dark, sawtooth leaves rubbed against each other with a gentle susurration that blended with the sound of the rushing river. By the edge of the nettles sat Thorn. Murtag stood next to him, adjusting the girth on his saddle. Aragon loosened Brissinger in its sheath, then cautiously approached. Without turning around, Murtag said, Have you come to stop us? That depends. Where are you going? I don't know. North, maybe. Somewhere away from other people. You could stay. Murtag uttered a bark of mirthless laughter. You know better than that. It would only cause Nasawada problems. Besides, the dwarves would never stand for it. Not after I killed Hrothgar. He glanced over his shoulder at Aragon. Galbatorix used to call me Kingkiller. You're Kingkiller as well now. It seems to run in the family. You'd better keep an eye on Roran, then. Anaria is a dragon killer. That can't be easy for her, an elf killing a dragon. You should talk to her and make sure she's all right. Murtag's insight surprised Aragon. I will. 
There, said Murtag, giving the strap a final tug. Then he turned to face Aragon, and Aragon saw that he had been holding Zarok close against his body, drawn and ready to use. So again, have you come to stop us? No. Murtag gave a thin smile and sheathed Zarok. Good. I would hate to have to fight you again. How were you able to break free of Galbatorix? It was your true name, wasn't it? Murtag nodded. As I said, I'm not, we're not. He touched Thorn's side. What we once were. It just took a while to realise it. And Nasawada? Murtag frowned. Then he turned away and stared out over the sea of nettles. As Aragon joined him, Murtag said in a low voice, Do you remember the last time we were at this river? It would be hard to forget. I can still hear the screams of the horses. You, Sephira, Arya, and me, all together, and sure that nothing could stop us. In the back of his mind, Aragon could feel Sephira and Thorn talking to each other. Sephira, he knew, would tell him later what had passed between them. What will you do? he asked Murtag. Sit and think. Maybe I'll build a castle. I have the time. You don't have to leave. I know it would be difficult. But you have family here. Me, and also Roran. He's your cousin as well as mine, and you've never even met him. You belong as much to Carvajal and Palancar Valley as you do to Urabane. Maybe more. Murtag shook his head and continued to stare over the nettles. It wouldn't work. Thorn and I need time alone. We need time to heal. If we stay, we'd be too busy to figure things out for ourselves. Good company and staying busy are often the best cure for a sickness of the soul. Not for what Galbatorix did to us. Besides, it would be painful to be around Nasawada right now, for both her and me. No, we have to leave. How long do you think you'll be gone? Until the world no longer seems quite so hateful, and we no longer feel like tearing down mountains and filling the sea with blood. To that, Aragon had no response. They stood looking at the river, where it lay behind a line of low willow trees. The rustling of the nettles grew louder, stirred by the westward wind. Then Aragon said, When you no longer wish to be alone, come find us. You'll always be welcome at our hearth, wherever that may be. We will, I promise. To Aragon's surprise, he saw a gleam appear in Murtag's eyes. It vanished a second later. You know, Murtag said, I never thought you could do it, but I'm glad you did. I was lucky, and it wouldn't have been possible without your help. Even so. You found the Aldenari in the saddlebags? Aragon nodded. Good. Should we tell them? Aragon asked Sephira, hoping that she would agree. She thought for a moment. Yes, but do not say where. You tell him, and I will tell Thorn. As you wish. 
to Murtag, Aragon said, There's something you should know. Murtag gave him a sideways glance. The egg that Galbatorix had. It isn't the only one in Alagasia. There are more, hidden in the same place where we found the Eldunari we brought with us. Murtag turned toward him, disbelief evident on his face. At the same time, Thorn arched his neck and uttered a joyful trumpet that scared a flight of swallows from the branches of a nearby tree. How many more? Hundreds. For a moment, Murtag seemed unable to speak. Then, what will you do with them? Me? I think Sephira and the Eldenari will have some say in the matter, but probably find somewhere safe for the eggs to hatch and start to rebuild the riders. Will you and Sephira train them? Aragon shrugged. I'm sure the elves will help. You could as well, if you join us. Murtag tilted his head back and released a long breath. The dragons are going to return, and the riders as well. He laughed softly. The world is about to change. It has already changed. Aye. So you and Sephira will become the new leaders of the riders, while Thorn and I will live in the wilderness. Aragon tried to say something to comfort him, but Murtag stopped him with a look. No, it is as it should be. You and Sephira will make better teachers than we would. I'm not so sure of that. Hmm. Promise me one thing, though. What? When you teach them, teach them not to fear. Fear is good in small amounts, but when it is a constant, pounding companion, it cuts away at who you are and makes it hard to do what you know is right. I'll try. Then Aragon noticed that Sephira and Thorn were no longer speaking. The red dragon shifted and moved around her until he was able to peer down at Aragon. With a mental voice that was surprisingly musical, Thorn said, Thank you for not killing my rider, Aragon Murtag's brother. Yes, thank you, Murtag said dryly. I'm glad I didn't have to, Aragon said looking Thorn in one glittering blood-red eye. The dragon snorted, then bent and touched Aragon on the top of his head, tapping his scales against Aragon's helm. May the wind and sun always be at your back. And at yours. A sense of great anger, grief and ambivalence pressed heavily against Aragon as Glader's consciousness enveloped his mind, and it seemed those of Murtag and Thorn, for they tensed as if in anticipation of battle. Aragon had forgotten that Glader, along with the other Eldenari, hidden within their invisible pocket of space, were present and listening. Would that I could thank you for the same, said Glader, his words as bitter as an oak gall. You killed my body, and you killed my rider. The statement was flat and simple, and all the more terrible because of it. Murtag said something with his thoughts, but Aragon did not know what it was, for it was directed to Glader alone, and Aragon was privy only to Glader's reaction. No, I cannot, said the gold dragon. However, 
I understand that it was Galbatorix who drove you to it, and that it was he who swung your arm, Murtag. I cannot forgive, but Galbatorix is dead, and with him my desire for vengeance. Yours has always been a hard path, since each of you hatched, but today you showed that your misfortunes have not broken you. You turned against Galbatorix when it might have gained you only pain, and by it you allowed Aragorn to kill him. Today, you and Thorn proved yourselves worthy of being considered Shurtugal in full. Though you never had the proper instruction or guidance, that is admirable. Murtag bowed his head slightly, and Thorn said, Thank you, Ebrithil which Aragon heard. Thorn's use of the honorific Ebrithil seemed to startle Murtag, for Murtag looked back at the dragon and opened his mouth as if he was going to say something. Then Umaroth spoke. We know much of the difficulties you have faced, Thorn and Murtag, for we have watched you from afar, even as we have watched Aragon and Saphira. There are many things we would teach you once you are ready. But until then, we will tell you this. In your wanderings, avoid the barrows of Anghelm, where the one and only Urgul king, Kolkarvek, lies in state. Avoid, too, the ruins of Froengard and of El-Harim, Beware the deeps, and tread not where the ground grows black and brittle, and the air smells of brimstone, for in those places evil lurks. Do this, and unless you are greatly unfortunate, you shall not encounter danger beyond your ability to master. Murtag and Thorn thanked Umaroth and then Murtag cast a glance in the direction of Urubain and said, We should be off. He looked at Aragon again. Can you remember the name of the ancient language now? Or is Galbatorix's magic still clouding your mind? I can almost remember it, but... Aragon shook his head with frustration. Then Murtag spoke the name of names twice. First, to remove the spell of forgetfulness Galbatorix had placed on Aragon, and then again so that Aragon and Sephira might learn the name for themselves. I wouldn't share it with anyone else, he said. If every magician knew the name of the ancient language, the language would be worse than useless. Aragon nodded, agreeing. Then Murtag held out his hand, and Aragon grasped him by the forearm. They stood like that for a moment, gazing at each other. Be careful, Aragon said. You too, brother. Aragon hesitated, then nodded again. Brother. Murtag checked the straps on Thorn's harness once more, before he climbed up into the saddle. As Thorn spread his wings and started to move away, Murtag called out, 
See to it that Nasawada is well protected. Galbatorix had many servants, more than he ever told me about, and not all of them were bound to him by magic alone. They will seek revenge for the death of their master. Be on your guard at all times. There are those among them who are even more dangerous than the Razak. Then Murtag raised a hand in farewell. Aragon did likewise, and Thorn took three loping steps away from the Sea of Nettles and leaped into the sky, leaving track-like gouges in the soft earth below. The sparkling red dragon circled over them once, twice, three times, and then he turned and set off to the north, flapping with a slow, steady beat. Aragon joined Saphira on the crest of the low hill, and together they watched as Thorn and Murtag dwindled to a single star-like speck close to the horizon. With a sense of sadness upon them both, Aragon took his place on Saphira's back, and they departed from the knoll and returned thence to Urubain. Heir to the Empire Aragon slowly climbed the worn steps of the green tower. It was close to sunset, and through the windows that pierced the curving wall to his right, he could see the shadow-streaked buildings of Urubain, as well as the hazy fields outside the city, and as he spiralled around, the dark mass of the stone hill that rose up behind it. The tower was tall, and Aragon was tired. He wished he could have flown with Saphira to the top. It had been a long day, and right then he wanted nothing more than to sit with Saphira and drink a cup of hot tea while watching the light fade from the sky. But as always, there was still work to be done. He had seen Saphira only twice since they landed back at the Citadel after parting with Murtag and Thorn. She had spent most of the afternoon helping the Varden kill or capture the remainder of the soldiers, and later gather into camps the families who had fled their homes and scattered across the countryside, while they waited to see if the overhang would break and fall. That it had not, the elves told Aragon, was because of spells they had embedded within the stone in ages past, when Urubain was yet known as Illyria, and also because of the overhang's sheer size, which had allowed it to weather the force of the blast without significant damage. The hill itself had helped contain the harmful residue from the explosion, although a large amount had still escaped through the entrance to the citadel, and most everyone who had been in or around Urubain needed healing with magic, else they would soon sicken and die. Already many had fallen ill. Along with the elves, Aragon had worked to save as many as possible. The strength of the Eldunari had allowed him to cure a large portion of the Varden, as well as many inhabitants of the city. At that very moment, the elves and the dwarves were walling up the front of the citadel to prevent any further contamination from seeping out. This after having searched the building for survivors, of whom there had been many, soldiers, servants, and hundreds of prisoners from the dungeons below. The great store of treasures that lay within the citadel including the contents of Galbatorix's vast library, would have to be retrieved at a later date. It would be no easy task. The walls of many rooms had collapsed. Countless others, though still standing, 
were so damaged that they posed a danger to any who ventured near. Moreover, magic would be required to fend off the poison that had permeated the air, the stone, and all of the objects within the sprawling warren of the fortress. And more magic would be required to cleanse whatever items they chose to bring out. Once the citadel was closed off, the elves would purge the city and the land thereabouts of the harmful residue that had settled upon it, so that the area would again be safe to live in. Aragon knew that he would have to help with that too. Before he had joined in the effort to heal and place wards of protection around everyone in and around Urabain, he had spent over an hour using the name of the ancient language to find and dismantle the many spells Galbatorix had bound to the buildings and the people of the city. Some of the enchantments seemed benign, even helpful, such as one spell whose only apparent purpose was to keep the hinges of a door from creaking, and which drew its power from an excised piece of crystal set within the face of the door. But Aragon dared not leave any of the king's spells intact, no matter how harmless they appeared, especially not those that lay upon the men and women of Galbatorix's command. Among them, oaths of fealty were the most common, but there were also wards, enchantments to grant skills beyond the ordinary, and other more mysterious spells. As Aragon had released nobles and commoners alike from their bondage, he had occasionally felt a cry of anguish, as if he had taken something precious from them. There had been a moment of crisis when he stripped Galbatorix's strictures from the Eldunari the king had enslaved. The dragons immediately began to lash out and assail the minds of the people within the city, attacking without regard for who was friend or who was foe. In those moments, a great pall of dread spread over Urubain, causing everyone, even the elves, to crouch and turn white with fear. Then Blodgarm and his ten remaining spellcasters had tied the convoy of metal boxes that contained the Eldenari to a pair of horses and ridden out of Urubain where the dragon's thoughts no longer had such a strong effect. Glada insisted upon accompanying the maddened dragons, as did several of the Eldunari from Vroengard. That had been the second time Aragon had seen Sephira since their return, when he amended the spell that hid Umaroth and those with him, so that five of the Eldunari could be portioned out and given over to Blodgarm's safekeeping. Glada and the five were of the opinion that they could calm and communicate with the dragons that Galbatorix had for so long tormented. Aragon was less sure, but he hoped they were right. As the elves and Eldunari were on their way out of the city, Arya had contacted him, casting a questioning thought from outside the ruined gate, where she was in conference with the captains of her mother's army. In that brief time when their minds touched, he felt her desolation at Islanzadi's death, as well as the regret and anger that eddied beneath her grief, and he saw how her emotions threatened to overwhelm her reason, and how she struggled to restrain them. He sent her what comfort he could, but it seemed paltry when compared to her loss. Then and now, and ever since Murtag's departure, a sense of emptiness had gripped Aragon. He had expected to feel jubilant if they killed Galbatorix, and though he was glad, and he was glad, with the king gone, he no longer knew what he was supposed to do. He had reached his goal. 
He had climbed the unclimbable mountain, and now without that purpose to guide him, to drive him, he was at a loss. What were he and Sephira to make of their lives now? What would give them meaning? He knew that in time he and Sephira were to raise the next generation of dragons and riders, but the prospect seemed too distant to be real. Pondering those questions made him feel queasy and overwhelmed. He turned his thoughts elsewhere, but the questions continued to nibble at the edges of his mind, and his sense of emptiness persisted. Maybe Murtag and Thorn had the right idea. It seemed as if the stairs of the Green Tower would never end. He trudged upward, round and round, until the people in the streets appeared as small as ants, and his calves and the backs of his ankles burned from the repetitive motion. He saw the nests of swallows built within the narrow windows, and beneath one window he found a pile of small skeletons, the leavings of a hawk or an eagle. When at last the top of the winding staircase appeared, a large lancet door, black with age, he paused to gather his thoughts and allow his breathing to slow. Then he climbed the last few feet, lifted the latch, and pushed forward into the large round chamber atop the elven watchtower. Waiting for him were six people, along with Sephira, Arya and the silver-haired elf lord Daethada, King Orin, Nasawada, King Oric, and the king of the Weircats, Grimmer Halfpaw. They stood, or in the case of King Orin, sat in a widely spaced circle, with Sephira directly opposite the stairs, before the southern-facing window that had allowed her to land within the tower. The light from the dying sun streamed sideways through the chamber, illuminating the elven carvings upon the walls and the intricate pattern of coloured stone set within the chipped floor. Except for Sephira and Grimmer, everyone appeared tense and uncomfortable. In the tightness of the skin around Arya's eyes and the hard line of her tawny throat, Aragorn saw evidence of her grief and upset. He wished he could do something to ease her pain. Orin sat in a deep-seated chair, holding his bandaged chest with his left hand and a cup of wine with his right. He moved with exaggerated care, as if afraid of hurting himself, but his eyes were bright and clear, so Aragorn guessed it was his wound and not the drink that made him cautious. Daethada was tapping the pommel of his sword with one finger, while Oric stood with his hands folded atop the butt of Volan's haft. The hammer rested upright on the floor before him, staring into his beard. Nasawada had her arms crossed as if she was cold. To the right, Grimmer Halfpaw stared out a window, seemingly oblivious to the others. As Aragorn opened the door, they all looked at him, and a smile broke across Oric's face. Aragorn! he exclaimed. He hefted Voland onto his shoulder, trundled over to Aragorn, and grasped him by a forearm. I knew you could kill him. Well done! Tonight we celebrate, eh? Let the fires burn bright, and let our voices ring forth until the heavens themselves echo with the sound of our feasting. Aragorn smiled and nodded, and Oric clapped him on the arm once more, then returned to his place as Aragorn crossed the room to stand by Sephira. Little one, 
she said, brushing his shoulder with her snout. He reached up and touched her hard, scaled cheek, taking comfort from her closeness. Then he extended a tendril of thought toward the Eldenari she still had with her. Like him, they were weary from the day's events, and he could tell they preferred to watch and listen rather than to actively participate in the discussion that was about to take place. The Eldenari acknowledged his presence, and Umaroth said, Aragorn! But thereafter he was silent. No one in the room seemed willing to speak first. From the city below, Aragorn heard a horse whinny. Off by the citadel came the rapping of picks and chisels. King Orin shifted uncomfortably in his chair and sipped his wine. Grimmer scratched one pointed ear, then sniffed as if testing the air. Finally, Daythada broke the silence. We have a decision to make, he said. That we know, elf, rumbled Oric. Let him speak, said Orin, and gestured with his jeweled goblet. I would hear his thoughts on how he thinks we should proceed. A bitter, somewhat mocking smile appeared on his face. He tilted his head toward Daythada, as if to grant him permission to speak. Daythada inclined his head in return. If the elf took offence at the king's tone, it did not show. There is no hiding that Galbatorix is dead. Even now, word of our victory wings its way across the land. By the end of the week, Galbatorix's demise shall be known throughout the greater part of Alagazia. As it should be, said Nasawada. She had changed out of the tunic her jailers had given her and into a dark red dress, which made the weight she had lost during her captivity all the more apparent, for the dress hung loosely off her shoulders and her waist was painfully small. But though she appeared frail, she seemed to have regained some of her strength. When Aragon and Sephira had returned to the citadel, Nasawada had been on the verge of collapse from both mental and physical exhaustion. The moment Jormunder had seen her, he bundled her off to their camp, and she spent the rest of the day in seclusion. Aragon had been unable to consult with her before the meeting, so he was not sure of her opinion on the subject they had assembled to discuss. If he had to, he would contact her directly with his thoughts, but he hoped to avoid that, for he did not want to intrude on her privacy. Not then. Not after what she had endured. As it should be, said Daythada, his voice strong and clear beneath the vaulted ceiling of that high, round chamber. However, as people learn that Galbatorix has fallen, the first question they shall ask is who has taken his place? Daythada looked around at their faces. We must provide them with an answer now, before unrest begins to spread. Our queen is dead. King Orin, you are wounded. Rumours plenty are afoot, I am sure. It is important that we quell them before they cause harm. To delay would be disastrous. We cannot allow every lord with a measure of troops to believe that he can set himself up as ruler of his own petty monarchy. Should that happen, the empire will disintegrate into a hundred different kingdoms. None of us want that. A successor must be chosen, chosen and named, 
however difficult that may be. Without turning around, Grimmer said, You cannot lead a pack if you are weak. King Orin smiled again, but the smile did not touch his eyes. And what part do you seek to play in this, Arya, Lord Daethodor, or you, King Oric, or you, King Halfpaw? We are grateful for your friendship and your help, but this is a matter for humans to decide, not you. We rule ourselves, and we do not let others choose our kings. Nasawada rubbed her crossed arms, and to Aragon's surprise said, I agree. This is something we must settle on our own. She looked across the room at Arya and Daethodor. Surely you can understand. You would not allow us to tell you whom you ought to appoint as your new king or queen. She looked at Oric. Nor would the clans have allowed us to select you as Hrothgar's successor. No, said Oric. That they wouldn't have. The decision is of course yours to make said Daethodor. We would not presume to dictate what you should or should not do. However, as your friends and allies, have we not earned the right to offer our advice upon such a weighty matter, especially when it shall affect us all? Whatever you decide will have far-reaching implications, and you would do well to understand those implications ere you make your choice." Aragon understood well enough. It was a threat. Daethoda was saying that if they made a decision the elves disapproved of, there would be unpleasant consequences. Aragon resisted the urge to scowl. The elves' stance was only to be expected. The stakes were high, and a mistake now could end up causing problems for decades more. That seems reasonable, said Nasawada. She glanced over at King Orin. Orin stared into his goblet as he tilted it around, swirling the liquid within. And just how would you advise us to choose, Lord Daethodor? Do tell. I am most curious. The elf paused. In the low, warm light from the setting sun, his silver hair glowed in a diffuse halo around his head. Whoever is to wear the crown must have the skill and experience needed to rule effectively from the start. There is no time to instruct someone in the ways of command, nor can we afford the mistakes of a novice. In addition, this person must be morally fit to assume such a high office. He or she must be an acceptable choice to the warriors of the Varden, and to a lesser extent, the people of the Empire. And if at all possible, this person should also be one whom we, and your other allies, will find agreeable. You limit our choices a great deal with your requirements, said King Orin. They merely make for good statesmanship. Or do you see it differently? I see several options you have overlooked or disregarded, perhaps because you consider them distasteful. But no matter, continue. Daethoda's eyes narrowed, but his voice remained as smooth as ever. The most obvious choice, and the one the people of the Empire will likely expect, is the person who actually killed Galbatorix. 
that is, Aragon. The air in the chamber grew brittle, as if it were made of glass. Everyone looked at Aragon, even Sephira and the Weircat, and he could feel Umaroth and the other Eldunari observing him closely too. He stared back at the people around him, neither frightened nor angered by their scrutiny. He searched Nasuada's face for a hint as to her reaction, but other than the seriousness of her expression, he could discern nothing of what she thought or felt. It unsettled him to realize that Daithada was correct. He could become king. For a moment, Aragon allowed himself to entertain the possibility. There was no one who could stop him from taking the throne, no one except Elva and perhaps Murtag, but he now knew how to counter Elva's ability, and Murtag was no longer there to challenge him. Sephira, he could sense from her mind, would not oppose him whatever he chose. And though he could not read Nasawada's expression, he had a strange feeling that for the first time she would be willing to step aside and allow him to take command. What do you want? asked Sephira. Aragon thought about it. I want to be of use, but power and dominion over others, those things that Galbatorix sought, they hold little appeal for me. In any case, we have other responsibilities. Shifting his attention back to those watching, he said, No, it would not be right. King Orin grunted and took another swig of his wine, while Arya, Daithada, and Nasawada seemed to relax, if however slightly. Like them, the Eldenari seemed pleased with his decision, although they did not comment upon it with words. I'm glad to hear you say it, said Daithada. No doubt you would make a fine ruler, but I do not think it would be good for your kind, nor for the other races of Alagazia, were another dragon rider to assume the crown. Then Arya motioned to Daithada. The silver-haired elf stepped back slightly, and Arya said, Roran would be another obvious choice. Roran? said Aragon, incredulous. Arya gazed at him, her eyes solemn, and in the sideways light, bright and fierce, like emeralds cut in a raid pattern. It was by his actions that the Vardan captured Urubain. He is the hero of Aros and of many other battles besides. The Vardan and the rest of the Empire would follow him without hesitation. He's rude and overconfident, and he hasn't the experience needed said Orin. Then he glanced over at Aragon with a slightly guilty expression. He is a good warrior, though. Arya blinked once like an owl. I believe you would find that his rudeness depends upon those he is dealing with, your majesty. However, you are correct. Roran lacks the experience needed. That leaves but two choices, then. You, Nasawada, and you, King Orin. King Orin shifted again in his deep-seated chair, and his brow furrowed more severely than before, while Nasuada's expression remained unchanged. I assume, said Orin to Nasuada, that you wish to assert your claim? She lifted her chin. I do. Her voice was as calm as smooth water. Then we are at an impasse, for so do I. 
and I will not relent. Orin rolled the stem of his goblet between his fingers. The only way I can see to resolve the matter without bloodshed is for you to renounce your claim. If you insist upon pursuing it, you will end up destroying everything we have won today, and you will have none to blame but yourself for the havoc that will follow. You would turn upon your own allies for no other reason than to deny Nasawada the throne? asked Arya. King Orin might not have recognized it, but Aragorn saw her cold, hard demeanor for what it was, a readiness to strike and kill at a moment's notice. No, Orin replied. I would turn upon the Varden in order to win the throne. There is a difference. Why? asked Nasawada. Why? The question seemed to outrage Orin. My people have housed, fed, and equipped the Varden. They have fought and died alongside your warriors, and as a country we have risked far more than the Varden. The Varden have no home. If Galbatorix had defeated Aragorn and the dragons, you could have fled and hid. But we had nowhere to go other than Surda. Galbatorix would have fallen upon us like a bolt from on high, and he would have laid waste to the entire region. We wagered everything, our families, our homes, our wealth, and our freedom. And after all that, after all our sacrifices, do you truly believe we will be satisfied to return to our fields with no other rewards than a pat on the head and your royal thanks? Bah! I'd sooner crawl. We've watered the ground between here and the burning plains with our blood, and now we'll have our recompense. He clenched his fist. Now we'll have the just spoils of war. Orin's words did not seem to upset Nasawada. Indeed, she looked thoughtful, almost sympathetic. Surely she won't give this snarling cur what he wants, said Sephira. Wait and see, said Aragon. She's yet to lead us astray. Arya said, I would hope that the two of you could come to an amicable agreement, and... Of course, said King Orin. I hope for that as well. His gaze flicked toward Nasawada, but I fear that Nasawada's single-minded determination will not allow her to realize that in this she must finally submit. Arya continued, And as Dathada said, we would not think of interfering with your race as you choose your next ruler. I remember, said Orin, with a hint of a smug smile. However, said Arya, as sworn allies of the Varden, I must tell you, that we regard any attack on them as an attack on ourselves, and we will respond in kind. Orin's face drew inward, as if he had bitten into something sour. The same holds true for us, the dwarves, said Oric. The sound of his voice was like stones grinding against one another, deep underground. Grimmer Halfpaw lifted his mangled hand before his face, and inspected the claw-like nails on his three remaining fingers. We do not care who becomes king or queen, as long as we are given the seat next to the throne that was promised to us. Still, it was with Nasuada that we made our bargain, 
and it is Nasawada we shall continue to support, until such time as she is no longer pack leader of the Varden. Aha! exclaimed King Orin, and he leaned forward with his hand on one knee. But she isn't the leader of the Varden, not any more. Eragon is. Again, all eyes turned to Eragon. He grimaced slightly and said, I thought it was understood that I gave my authority back to Nasawada the moment she was free. If not, then let there be no mistake. Nasawada is the leader of the Varden, not me. And I believe that she ought to be the one to inherit the throne. You would say that, said King Orin, sneering. You've sworn fealty to her. Of course you believe she should inherit the throne. You're nothing more than a loyal servant standing up for his master, and your opinions carry no more weight than the opinions of my own servants. No, said Aragon, there you're wrong. If I thought that you or anyone else would make a better ruler, then I would say so. Yes, I gave my oath to Nasawada, but that doesn't stop me from speaking the truth as I see it. Maybe not, but your loyalty to her still clouds your judgment. Even as your loyalty to Soda clouds yours, said Oric. King Orin scowled. Why is it that you always turn against me? he demanded, looking from Aragon to Arya to Oric. Why is it that in every dispute you side with her? Wine sloshed over the rim of his goblet as he gestured toward Nasawada. Why is it that she commands your respect and not I or the people of Surda? Always it is Nasawada and the Varden you favour, and before her it was Arjahad. Were my father still alive? Were your father, King Larkin, still alive? said Arya. He would not be sitting there bemoaning how others see him. He would be doing something about it. Peace, said Nasawada, before Orin could utter a retort. There is no need for insults here. Orin, your concerns are reasonable. You are right. The Surdens have contributed much to our cause. I freely admit that without your help, we never would have been able to attack the Empire as we did, and you deserve recompense for what you have risked, spent, and lost over the course of this war. King Orin nodded, appearing satisfied. You will yield then? No, said Nasawada, calm as ever. That I will not. But I have a counter-proposal, one that perhaps will satisfy all our interests. Orin made a noise of dissatisfaction, but he did not interrupt further. My proposal is this. Much of the land we have captured shall become part of Serda. Aros, Feinster, and Melian will all be yours, as well as the Isles to the south, once they are under our governance. By this acquisition, Serda will nearly double in size. And in return? asked King Orin, lifting an eyebrow. In return, you will swear allegiance to the throne here in Urubain, and whoever sits upon it. Orin's mouth twisted. You would set yourself up as High Queen over the land. These two realms, the Empire and Serda, must be reunited if we are to avoid future hostilities. Serda would remain yours to command as you see fit, save for one exception. The magicians of both our countries would be subject to certain restrictions, 
the exact nature of which we would decide upon at a later date. Along with those laws, Surda would of necessity have to contribute to the defence of our combined territories. Should either of us be attacked, the other would be required to provide aid in the form of men and materiel. King Orin placed his goblet upright in his lap and stared down at it. Again, I ask, why should you be the one to take the throne instead of me? My family has ruled Serda since Lady Merelda won the Battle of Sithri, and thereby established both Serda and the House of Langfelt, and we can trace our ancestry all the way back to Thanebrand the Ringgiver himself. We faced and fought the Empire for an entire century. Our gold and our weapons and our armour allowed the Varden to exist in the first place and have sustained you through the years. Without us it would have been impossible for you to resist Galbatorix. The dwarves could not have provided everything you needed, nor the elves as far away as they were. So again I ask, why should this prize fall to you, Nasawada, and not me? Because, said Nasawada, I believe I can make a good queen, and because, as with everything I have done while leading the Varden, I believe it is what is best for our people, and for the whole of Alagazia. You have a very high opinion of yourself. False modesty is never admirable, and least of all among those who command others. Have I not amply demonstrated my ability to lead? If not for me, the Varden would still be cowering inside Farthandur, waiting for a sign from above that it was the right time to advance on Galbatorix. I shepherded the Varden from Farthandur to Surda, and I built them into a mighty army. With your help, yes, but I am the one who led them, and it was I who secured the help of the dwarves, the elves, and the urgles. Could you have done as much? Whosoever rules in Urubain will have to treat with every race in the land, not just our own. Again, this I have done, and this I can do. Then Nasawada's voice softened, although her expression remained as strong as ever. Orin, why do you want this? Would it make you any happier? It isn't a question of happiness, he growled. But it is, in part. Do you really want to govern the whole of the Empire in addition to Surda? Whoever takes the throne will have a huge task ahead. There is a country to rebuild, treaties to negotiate, cities still to capture, nobles and magicians to subdue. It will take a lifetime to even begin to undo the damage Galbatorix has wrought. Is that something you are really willing to undertake? It seems to me that you would prefer your life as it once was. Her gaze shifted to the goblet in his lap, and then back to his face. If you accept my offer... You can return to Aberon and your experiments in natural philosophy. Wouldn't you like that? Surda will be larger and richer, and you will have the freedom to pursue your interests. We don't always get to do what we like. Sometimes we have to do what is right, not what we want, said King Orin. True, but besides, if I were king in Urubain, I would be able to pursue my interests here just as easily as I could in Aberon. Nasawada frowned, but before she could speak, Orin overrode her. 
You don't understand, he scowled and took another sip of wine. Then explain it to us, said Sephira, her impatience conspicuous in the color of her thoughts. Orin snorted, drained his goblet, and then threw it against the door to the staircase, denting the gold of the cup and knocking several of the jewels from their settings so that they spun jittering across the floor. I can't, he growled, and I don't care to try. He glared around the room. None of you would understand. You are too bound up in your own importance to see. How could you, when you've never experienced what I have? He sank back into his chair, his eyes like dark coals beneath the eaves of his brow. To Nasawada, he said, You are determined? You will not withdraw your claim? She shook her head. And if I choose to pursue my own claim, then we will be in conflict. And the three of you will side with her? asked Orin, looking in turn at Arya, Oric, and Grimmer. If the Varden are attacked, we will fight alongside them, said Oric. As will we, said Arya. King Orin smiled a smile that was more a bearing of his teeth than anything. But you would not think to tell us who we ought to choose as our ruler, now would you? Of course not, said Oric, and his own teeth flashed white and dangerous within his beard. Of course not. Then Orin returned his attention to Nasawada. I want Bellatona along with the other cities you mentioned. Nasawada thought for a moment. You're already gaining two port cities with Feinster and Aros, three if you count Aeum on Beal and Isle. I'll give you Furnost instead, and then you'll have the whole of Lake Tudostin, even as I will have the whole of Leona Lake. Leona is more valuable than Tudostin, as it grants access to the mountains and the northern coast, Orin pointed out. Aye, but you already have access to Leona Lake from Douth and the Jeet River. King Orin stared at the floor in the center of the room and was silent. Outside, the top of the sun slipped below the edge of the horizon, leaving a few attenuated clouds illuminated by its light. The sky began to darken, and the first few stars appeared in the gloaming, faint pinpricks of light in the purple vastness. A slight breeze started, and in the sound of it brushing against the sides of the tower, Aragon heard the rustling of the sawtooth nettles. The longer they waited, the more likely it seemed to Aragon that Orin would reject Nasawada's offer, or that he would remain sitting there silent for the entire night. Then the king shifted his weight and looked up. Very well, he said in a low voice. As long as you honor the terms of our agreement, I shall not challenge you for Galbatorix's throne. Your Majesty. A shiver passed through Aragon as he heard Orin utter those words. Her expression somber, Nasawada walked forward until she stood in the center of the open room. Then Oric struck the butt of Volan's haft against the floor and proclaimed, The king is dead. Long live the queen. The king is dead. Long live the queen cried Aragon, Arya, Daithada, and Grimmer. The weircat's lips stretched, baring his sharp fangs, and Sephira uttered a loud, triumphant bugle which echoed off the angled ceiling 
and out over the dusk-ridden city below. A sense of approval emanated from the Eldunari. Nasawada stood tall and proud, her eyes gleaming with tears in the graying light. Thank you, she said, and looked at each of them, holding their gaze. Still her thoughts seemed to be directed elsewhere, and about her was an air of sadness that Aragon doubted the others noticed. And all across the land, darkness sank, leaving the top of their tower a lone beacon of light high above the city. A Fitting Epitaph After their victory at Urabain, the months passed both quickly and slowly for Aragon, quickly because there was much for him and Sephira to do, and rare was the day that they were not exhausted by sundown, slowly because he continued to feel a lack of purpose despite the many tasks Queen Nasawada gave them, and it seemed to him as if they were idling in a patch of becalmed water, waiting for something, anything, to push them back into the main current. He and Sephira stayed in Urabain for another four days after Nasawada was chosen queen, helping establish the Vardan's presence there and throughout the surrounding area. Much of that time they spent dealing with the inhabitants of the city, usually placating crowds who were furious with some action of the Vardan's, and hunting groups of soldiers who had fled Urabain and were preying upon travellers, peasants and nearby estates to support themselves. He and Sephira also participated in the effort to rebuild the city's massive front gate, and at Nasawada's behest, he cast several spells designed to prevent those still loyal to Galbatorix from working against her. The spells applied only to the people within the city and the adjacent lands, but having them in place made everyone in the Varden feel safer. Aragon noticed that the Varden, the dwarves, and even the elves treated him and Sephira differently than they had before Galbatorix's death. They were more respectful and deferential, especially the humans, and they regarded him and Sephira with what he solely came to understand was a sense of awe. He enjoyed it at first. Sephira did not seem to care one way or another, but it began to bother him when he realized that many of the dwarves and humans were so eager to please him, they would tell him whatever they thought he wanted to hear and not the actual truth. The discovery unsettled him. He felt unable to trust anyone other than Roran, Arya, Nasawada, Oric, Horst, and, of course, Sephira. He saw little of Arya during those days. The few times they met, she seemed withdrawn, which he recognized was her way of dealing with her grief. They never had a chance to talk in private, and the only condolences he was able to offer were brief and awkward. He thought she appreciated them, but it was hard to tell. As for Nasawada, she seemed to regain much of her former drive, spirit and energy after a single night's sleep, which amazed Aragon. His opinion of her increased tremendously upon hearing her account of her ordeal in the Hall of the Soothsayer, as did his regard for Murtag, of whom Nasawada spoke not a word thereafter. She complimented Aragon on his leadership of the Varden in her absence, although he protested that he had been gone most of that time, and thanked him for rescuing her as quickly as he had, for as she admitted late in their conversation, Galbatorix had nearly succeeded in breaking her. Upon the third day, 
Nasawada was coronated in a great square near the center of the city, in full view of a vast crowd of humans, dwarves, elves, weircats, and urgles. The explosion that had ended Galbatorix's life had destroyed the ancient crown of the Brodrings, so the dwarves had forged a new crown from gold found in the city and from jewels the elves had taken from their helms or from the pommels of their swords. The ceremony was simple, but all the more effective for it. Nasawada approached on foot from the direction of the ruined citadel. She wore a dress of royal purple, cut short at the elbows so that all might see the scars that lined her forearms, with a train fringed with mink, which Elva carried. For Aragon had heeded Murtag's warning and insisted that the girl stay as close to Nasawada as possible. A slow drumbeat sounded as Nasawada walked up to the dais that had been erected in the center of the square. At the top of the dais, next to the carved chair that would serve as her throne, stood Aragon, with Sephira close behind. In front of the raised platform were the kings Orin, Oric, and Grimmer, along with Arya, Dathada, and Nargarjvag. Nasawada ascended the dais, then knelt before Aragon and Sephira. A dwarf of Oryx's clan presented Aragon with the newly made crown, which he placed upon Nasawada's head. Then Sephira arched her neck, and with her snout touched Nasawada upon the brow, and both she and Aragon said, Rise now as queen, Nasawada, daughter of Arjahad and Nadara. A fanfare of trumpets rang forth, and the gathered crowd, which had been deathly silent, began to cheer. It was a strange cacophony, what with the bellows of urgles intermingled with the melodious voices of the elves. Then Nasawada sat upon the throne. King Orin came before her and swore his allegiance, followed by Arya, King Oric, Grimur Halfpaw, and Nargajvag, who each pledged the friendship of their respective races. The event affected Aragon strongly. He found himself holding back tears as he gazed at Nasawada sitting regnant on her throne. Only with her coronation did it feel as if the spectre of Galbatorix's oppression had begun to recede. Afterward they feasted, and the Varden and their allies celebrated throughout the night and into the next day. Aragon remembered little of the festivities, save the dancing of the elves, the pounding of the dwarves' drums, and the four cull who climbed a tower along the city wall, and there stood blowing horns made from the skulls of their fathers. The people of the city joined in the celebrations as well, and among them Aragon saw relief and jubilation that Galbatorix was no longer king, and underlying their emotions and those of everyone present was an awareness of the importance of the moment, for they knew they were witnessing the end of one age and the beginning of another. Upon the fifth day, when the gate was nearly rebuilt and the city seemed reasonably secure, Nasawada ordered Aragon and Sephira to fly to Drosleona, and thence to Bellatona, Feinster, and Aros, and in each place to use the name of the ancient language to release from their oaths everyone who had sworn fealty to Galbatorix. She also asked Aragon to bind the soldiers and nobles with spells, even as he had bound the people of Urubain, to keep them from trying to undermine the newly established peace. That Aragon had refused, 
for he felt it was too similar to how Galbatorix had controlled those who served him. In Urubain, the risk of hidden killers or other loyalists was great enough that Aragon had been willing to do as she wished, but not elsewhere. To his relief, Nasawada agreed with him, after some consideration. He and Sephira took with them over half the Eldenari from Roengard. The rest remained behind, with the hearts of hearts that had been rescued from Galbatorix's treasure room. Blodgarm and his spellcasters, who were no longer bound to defend Aragon and Sephira, moved those Eldenari to a castle several miles northeast of Urubain, where it would be easy to protect the hearts against any who might seek to steal them, and where the thoughts of the mad dragons would not affect the minds of any but their caretakers. Only once Aragon and Sephira were satisfied that the Eldenari were safe, did they depart. When they arrived at Drasleona, Aragon was astounded by the number of spells he found woven throughout the city, as well as in the dark tower of stone, Hellgrind. Many of them, he guessed, were hundreds of years old, if not older, forgotten enchantments from ages past. He left those that seemed harmless, and removed those that did not. But oft-times it was difficult to tell, and he was reluctant to tamper with spells whose purpose he did not understand. Here the Eldunari proved helpful. In several cases they remembered who had cast a spell and why, or else they were able to divine its purpose from information that meant nothing to him. When it came to Helgrind and the various holdings of the priests, who had gone into hiding as soon as news of Galbatorix's demise had reached them, Aragon did not bother trying to determine which spells were dangerous and which were not. He removed them all. He also used the name of names to search for the belt of Beloth the Wise in the ruins of the great cathedral, but without success. They stayed in Drasleona for three days. Then they proceeded to Bellatona. There, too, Aragon removed Galbatorix's enchantments, as well as at Feinster and Aros. In Feinster, someone tried to kill him with a poisoned drink. His wards protected him, but the incident angered Sephira. If I ever corner the rat coward who did this, I'll eat him alive from the toes up, she growled. On the return trip to Urubain, Aragon suggested a slight change of direction. Sephira agreed and altered her course, tilting so the horizon stood on end and the world was divided equally between the dark blue sky and the green and brown earth. It took a half day of searching, but at last Sephira found the cluster of sandstone hills, and among them one hill in particular, a tall sloping mound of reddish stone with a cave halfway up its side, and upon its crest a glittering tomb of diamond. The hill looked exactly as Aragon remembered. When he gazed upon it, he felt his chest grow tight. Sephira landed next to the tomb, her claws scraped against the pitted stone, chipping off flakes. With slow fingers, Aragon unbuckled his legs. Then he slid to the ground. A wave of dizziness passed through him at the smell of the warm stone, and for a moment he felt as if he were in the past. Then he shook himself, and his mind cleared. He walked to the tomb and looked into its crystal depths, and there he saw Brom. There he saw his father. Brom's appearance had not changed. 
the diamond that encased his body protected him from the ravages of time, and his flesh showed no hint of decay. The skin of his lined face was firm, and it had a rosy tint, as if hot blood still coursed beneath the surface. At any moment it seemed as if Brom might open his eyes and rise to his feet, ready to continue on their unfinished journey. In a way he had become deathless, for he no longer aged as others did, but would remain forever the same, caught in a dreamless sleep. Brom's sword lay atop his chest and the long white pennant of his beard, with his hands folded over the hilt, just as Aragon had placed them. By his side was his gnarled staff, carved Aragon now realized with dozens of glyphs from the ancient language. Tears welled in Aragon's eyes. He fell to his knees and wept quietly for a timeless while. He heard Sephira join him, felt her with his mind, and he knew that she too mourned Brom's passing. At last Aragon got to his feet and leaned against the edge of the tomb as he studied the shape of Brom's face. Now that he knew what to look for, he could see the similarities between their features, blurred and obscured by age and by Brom's beard, but still unmistakable. The angle of Brom's cheekbones, the crease between his eyebrows, the way his upper lip curved, all those Aragon recognized. He had not inherited Brom's hooked nose, however, his nose he had gotten from his mother. Aragon looked down, breathing heavily as his eyes again grew blurry. It's done, he said in an undertone. I did it. We did it. Galbatorix is dead. Nasawada is on the throne. And both Sephira and I are unharmed. That would please you, wouldn't it, you old fox? He laughed shortly and wiped his eyes with the back of his wrist. What's more, there are dragon eggs in Vroengard. Eggs! The dragons aren't going to die out, and Sephira and I will be the ones to raise them. You never foresaw that, now did you? He laughed again, feeling silly and grief-stricken at the same time. What would you think of this all, I wonder? You're the same as ever, but we're not. Would you even recognize us? Of course he would, said Sephira. You are his son. She touched him with her snout. Besides, your face isn't so different that he would mistake you for someone else, even if your scent has changed. It has? You smell more like an elf now. Anyway, he would hardly think I was Shrukan or Glader, now would he? No. Aragon sniffed and pushed himself off the tomb. Brom looked so lifelike within the diamond, the sight of him inspired an idea, a wild, improbable idea that he almost dismissed, but that his emotions would not let him ignore. He thought of Umaroth and the Eldunari, of all their collected knowledge, and of what they had accomplished with his spell in Urabain, and a spark of desperate hope kindled within his heart. Speaking both to Sephira and Umaroth, he said, Brom had only just died when we buried him. Sephira didn't turn the stone to diamond until the following day, but he was still encased in stone, away from the air through the night. Umaroth, with your strength and your knowledge, maybe, 
Maybe we could still heal him. Aragon shivered as if he were in the grip of a fever. I didn't know how to mend his wound before, but now, now I think I could. It would be more difficult than you imagine, said Umaroth. Yes, but you could do it, said Aragon. I've seen you and Sephira accomplish amazing things with magic. Surely this isn't beyond you. You know that we cannot use magic on command, said Sephira. And even if we succeeded, said Umaroth, there is every chance that we would be unable to restore Brom's mind to what it was. Minds are complicated things, and he might easily end up with his wits muddled or his personality altered. And then what? Would you want him to live like that? Would he? No, it is best to let him be, Aragorn, and to honor him with your thoughts and actions, as you have. You wish it were otherwise. So do all who have lost one they care about. However, it is the way of things. Brom lives on in your memories, and if he was the man you showed us, he would be content with that. Let you be content with that as well. But... It was not Umaroth who interrupted, but the oldest of the Eldunari, Baldur. He surprised Aragon by speaking not in images or feelings, but in words of the ancient language, strained and laboured, as if each was foreign to him. And he said, Leave the dead to the earth. They are not for us. Then he spoke no more, but Aragon felt from him a great sadness and sympathy. Aragon let out a long sigh and closed his eyes for a moment. Then in his heart, he allowed himself to release his misguided hope and again accept the fact that Brom was gone. Ah, he said to Sephira, I didn't think this would be so difficult. It would be strange if it were not. He felt her warm breath ruffle the hair on the top of his head as she touched his back with the side of her muzzle. He smiled weakly and gathered up his courage to look at Brom again. Father, he said. The word tasted strange in his mouth. He had never had cause to say it to anyone before. Then Aragon shifted his gaze to the runes he had set into the spire at the head of the tomb, which read, Here lies Brom, who was a dragon rider, and like a father to me. May his name live on in glory. He smiled painfully at how close he had come to the truth. Then he spoke in the ancient language, and he watched the diamond shimmer and flow as a new pattern of runes formed upon its surface. When he finished, the inscription had changed to, Here lies Brom, who was a rider bonded to the dragon Sephira, son of Holcomb and Nelda, beloved of Selina, father of Aragon Shadeslayer, founder of the Varden and Bane of the Forsworn. 
May his name live on in glory, Steiger Unen Moraner. It was a less personal epitaph, but it seemed more fitting to Aragon. Then he cast several spells to protect the diamond from thieves and vandals. He continued to stand next to the tomb, reluctant to turn away, and feeling as if there ought to be something more, some event or emotion or realization that would make it easier for him to say farewell to his father, and thus to leave. At last he put his hand atop the cool diamond, wishing that he could reach through it to touch Brom one final time, and he said, Thank you for everything you taught me. Sophira snorted and bowed her head until her snout tapped against the hard jewel. Then Aragon turned, and with a sense of finality, he slowly climbed onto Sephira's back. He was sombre for a time as Sephira took off and flew northeast toward Urbane. When the patch of sandstone hills was no more than a smudge on the horizon, he let out a long breath and looked up into the azure sky. A smile split his face. What is so amusing? asked Sephira, and she swung her tail back and forth. The scale on your snout is regrowing. Her delight was evident. Then she sniffed and said, I always knew it would. Why would it not? However, he could feel her sides vibrating against his heels as she hummed with satisfaction, and he patted her and laid his chest against her neck, feeling the warmth from her body seeping into his. Pieces on a Board When he and Sephira arrived at Urabain, Aragon was surprised to discover that Nasawada had restored its name to Illyria, out of respect for its history and heritage. Also he was dismayed to learn that Arya had departed for Elasmira, along with Daethada and many of the other high elf lords, and that she had taken with her the green dragon egg they had found in the citadel. She had left a letter for him with Nasawada. In it, Arya explained that she needed to accompany her mother's body back to Duweldenvarden for a proper burial. As for the dragon egg, she wrote, And because Sephira chose you, a human, to be her rider, it is only right that an elf should be the next rider, if the dragon within this egg agrees. I wish to give it that chance without delay. Already it has spent far too long within its shell. Since there are many more eggs elsewhere, I shall not name the place. I hope you do not believe that I have acted presumptuously, or that I have been overly prejudiced in favour of my own race. I consulted with the Eldunari upon this matter, and they agreed with my decision. In any event, with both Galbatorix and my mother having passed into the void, I no longer wish to continue as ambassador to the Varden. Rather, I wish to resume my task of ferrying a dragon egg throughout the land, as I did with Sephira's. Of course, an ambassador between our races is still needed. Therefore, Daethodor and I have appointed as my replacement a young elf named Vanner, whom you met during your time in Elismira. He has expressed a desire to learn more about the people of your race, and that seems to me as good a reason as any for him to have the post, so long as he does not prove completely incompetent, that is. 
The letter continued for several more lines, but Arya gave no indication of when, if ever, she might return to the western half of Alagasia. Aragon was pleased that she had thought enough of him to write, but he wished that she could have waited until their return before she had departed. With her gone, there was a hole in his world. And though he spent a fair amount of time with Roran and Katrina, as well as Nasawada, the aching emptiness within him refused to subside. That, along with his continued sense that he and Sephira were merely biding their time, left him with a feeling of detachment. It often seemed as if he were watching himself from outside his body, as might a stranger. He understood the cause of his feelings, but he could think of no cure other than time. During their recent trip, it had occurred to him that with the command of the ancient language bestowed by the name of names, he could remove from Elva the last vestiges of his blessing that had proved a curse. So he went to the girl where she was living in Nasawada's grand hall, and he told her his idea, then asked her what she wanted. She did not react with the delight he expected, but sat staring at the floor, a frown upon her pale face. She remained silent for the better part of an hour, he sitting across from her, waiting without complaint. Then she looked at him and said, No, I would rather stay as I am. I am grateful that you thought to ask, but this is too large a part of me, and I cannot give it up. Without my ability to sense others' pain, I would only be an oddity a misbegotten aberration, good for nothing but satisfying the low-minded curiosity of those who consented to have me around, of those who tolerated me. With it, I am still an oddity, but I can be useful as well, and I have a power that others fear, and a control over my own destiny, which many of my sex do not. She gestured at the ornate room where she was staying. Here I can live in comfort, I can live in peace, and yet I can continue to do some good by helping Nasawada. If you take away my ability, then what would I have? What would I do? What would I be? To remove your spell would be no blessing, Aragon. No, I will stay as I am and I will bear the trials of my gift of my own free will. But I do thank you. Two days after he and Sephira alit in what was now Illyria, Nasawada sent them out once more, first to Gilead and then to Siunon, the two cities that the elves had captured, so that Aragon could again use the name of names to clear away Galbatorix's spells. Both Aragon and Sephira found Gilead unpleasant to visit. It reminded them of when the Urgles had captured Aragon at Durza's orders, and also of Oromus's death. Aragon and Sephira slept in Siunon for three nights. It was unlike any other city they had seen before. The buildings were mainly wood, with steep shingled roofs that in the case of the larger houses had several layers. The peaks of the roofs were often decorated with a stylized carving of a dragon head, while the doors were carved or painted with elaborate knot-like patterns. When they departed, 
Safira was the one who suggested a change of path. She did not have to try very hard to convince Aragon. He was happy to agree once she explained that the side trip would not take too long. From Siunon, Safira flew westward across the Bay of Fundor, a broad, white-capped expanse of water. The grey and black humps of great sea fish often breached the waves like small leathery islands. Then they would spray water from their blowholes and lift their flukes high into the air before slipping back into the silent depths. Across the Bay of Fundor, through winds cold and blustery, and then across the mountains of the Spine, each of which Aragon knew by name, and thus to Palankar Valley, for the first time since they had set off in pursuit of the Razak, along with Brom, what seemed like a lifetime ago. The valley smelled like home to Aragon. The scent of the pines and the willows and the birches reminded him of his childhood, and the bitter bite of the air told him that winter was near. They landed in the charred ruins of Carvajal, and Aragon wandered along streets fringed with encroaching grass and weeds. A pack of wild dogs trotted out of a nearby stand of birch. They stopped when they saw Sephira, then snarled, yelped, and ran for cover. Sephira growled and loosed a puff of smoke, but made no move to chase them. A piece of burnt wood cracked under Aragon's foot as he dragged his boot through a pile of ashes. The destruction of the town left him saddened but most of the villagers who had escaped were still alive. If they returned, Aragon knew that they would rebuild Carvajal and make it better than it had been. The buildings he had grown up with, though, were gone forever. Their absence exacerbated his feeling that he no longer belonged in Palankar Valley, and the empty spaces where they ought to have been left him with a sense of wrongness, as if he were in a dream where everything was off-kilter. The world is out of joint, he murmured. Aragon built a small campfire next to what had been Morn's tavern, and he cooked a large pot of stew. While he ate, Zephira prowled the surrounding landscape, sniffing at whatever she found interesting. When the stew was gone, Aragon carried his pot, bowl and spoon to the Enora River and washed them in the icy water. He sat squatting on the rocky shore, and stared at the drifting white plume at the head of the valley, the Igualda Falls, which stretched upward for half a mile before disappearing over a shoulder of stone high on Narnmore Mountain. Seeing it brought back the evening he had returned from the spine with Sephira's egg in his pack, knowing nothing of what lay before the two of them, or even that there would be two of them. Let's go, he said to Sephira, rejoining her by the caved-in well in the centre of the town. Do you want to visit your farm? she asked as he took his place on her back. He shook his head. No, I would rather think of it as it was, not as it is. She agreed. However, by unspoken consent she flew south, following the same path as when they had left Palankar Valley. Along the way, Aragon glimpsed the clearing where his home had been, but it was distant and obscure enough that he was able to pretend that perhaps the house and barn were still intact. At the southern end of the valley, Sephira rode a pillar of rising air up to the top of the huge bare mountain, Utgard, where stood the crumbling turret the riders had built to keep watch over mad King Palankar. The turret had once been known as Edok Sil, but now bore the name Ristvakbane, 
or the place of sorrow, as it was there that Galbatorix had slain Vrail. In the ruins of the turret, Aragon, Sephira, and the Eldunari with them paid their respects to the memory of Vrail. Umaroth in particular was somber, but he said, Thank you for bringing me here, Sephira. I never thought to see the place where my rider fell. Then Sephira spread her wings and leaped out of the turret and soared away from the valley and over the grassy plains beyond. Halfway to Illyria, Nasawada contacted them through one of the Varden's magicians and ordered them to join a large group of warriors she had sent to march from the capital to Tiam. Aragon was pleased to learn that Roran commanded the warriors and that among their ranks were Jode, Baldor, who had regained full use of his hand after the elves reattached it, and several more of the villagers. Somewhat to Aragon's surprise, the people of Tiam refused to surrender, even after he released them from their oath to Galbatorix, and even though it was obvious that the Varden, with Sephira and Aragon to help, could easily capture the city if they wished. Instead, the governor of Tiam, Lord Ristart, demanded that they be allowed to become an independent city-state, with the freedom to choose its own rulers and set its own laws. In the end, after several days of negotiations, Nasawada agreed to his terms, provided that Lord Ristart swore allegiance to her as High Queen, even as King Orin had, and consented to abide by her laws concerning magicians. From Tiam, Aragon and Sephira accompanied the warriors south, along the narrow coast, until they arrived at the city of Kuasta. They repeated the process from Tiam, but unlike Tiam, the governor of Kuasta yielded and agreed to join Nasawada's new kingdom. Then Aragon and Sephira flew alone to Nada, far to the north, and extracted the same promise from them, before finally returning to Illyria, where they stayed for some weeks in a hall next to Nasawada's. When time allowed, he and Sephira left the city and went to the castle where Blodgarm and the other spellcasters guarded the Eldunari rescued from Galbatorix. There Aragon and Sephira aided in the effort to heal the minds of the dragons. They made progress, but it was slow, and some of the Eldunari responded faster than others. Many of them, Aragon worried, simply did not care about life any more, or were so lost within the labyrinths of their minds that it was almost impossible to communicate with them in a meaningful manner, even for the elder dragons such as Valder, to prevent the hundreds of maddened dragons from overwhelming those who were trying to help them. The elves kept most of the Eldenari in a trance-like state, choosing to interact with only a few at a time. Aragon also labored alongside the magicians of Duvrangergata to empty the citadel of its treasures. Much of the work fell to him, as none of the other spellcasters had the knowledge or experience needed to deal with many of the enchanted artifacts Galbatorix had left behind. But Aragon did not mind. He enjoyed exploring the damaged fortress and discovering the secrets that lay hidden therein. Galbatorix had collected a host of wonders over the past century, some more dangerous than others, but all of them interesting. Aragon's favourite was an astrolabe that, when put to his eye, allowed him to see the stars even in daylight. He kept the existence of the most perilous artefacts a secret between him, Sephira, and Nasawada, deeming it too risky to allow knowledge of them to spread. 
Nasawada put the trove of riches they recovered from the citadel to immediate use, feeding and clothing her warriors, as well as rebuilding the defences of the cities they had captured during their invasion of the empire. In addition, she gave a gift of five gold crowns to every one of her subjects, a trifling amount to the nobles, but a veritable fortune to the poorer farmers. The gesture Aragon knew earned her their respect and allegiance in a way Galbatorix would never have understood. They also recovered several hundred riders' swords, swords of every colour and shape made for both humans and elves. It was a breathtaking find. Aragon and Sephira personally carried the weapons to the castle where the Eldunari were, in anticipation of the day when they would again be needed by riders. Runan, Aragon thought, would be pleased to know that so much of her handiwork had survived. And there were the thousands of scrolls and books that Galbatorix had collected, which the elves and Jode helped to catalogue, setting aside those that contained secrets about the riders or the inner workings of magic. As they sorted through Galbatorix's great hoard of knowledge, Aragon kept hoping that they would find some mention of where the king had hidden the rest of the leatherblucker's eggs. However, the only mentions of the leatherblucker or the razak he saw were in works by the elves and the riders from ages past, where they discussed the dark menace of the night and wondered what was to be done about a foe that could not be detected with magic of any sort. Now that Aragon could speak openly with him, he found himself talking with Jode on a regular basis, confiding in him all that had happened with the Eldunari and the eggs, and even going so far as to tell him about the process of finding his true name on Vroengard. Talking with Jode was a comfort, especially as he was one of the few people who had known Brom well enough to call him a friend. Aragon found it interesting, in a rather abstract way, to watch what went into ruling and rebuilding the kingdom Nasawada had formed from the remnants of the empire. The amount of effort required to manage such an enormous and diverse country was tremendous, and the task never seemed finished. There was always more that needed doing. Aragon knew that he would have hated the demands of the position, but Nasawada appeared to thrive upon them. Her energy never flagged, and she always seemed to know how to solve the problems that came before her. Day by day, he saw her stature grow among the emissaries, functionaries, nobles, and commoners with whom she dealt. She seemed perfectly suited for her new role, although he was not sure how happy she really was, and he worried about her because of it. He watched how she rendered judgment upon the nobles who had worked with Galbatorix, willingly or not, and he approved of the fairness and mercy she displayed, as well as the punishments she meted out when necessary. Most she stripped of their lands, titles, and the better portion of their ill-gotten wealth, but she did not have them executed, for which Aragon was glad. He stood by her side when she granted Nargajvog and his people vast swaths of land along the northern coast of the Spine, as well as along the fertile plains between Lake Flam and the Tork River, where few, if any, people now lived. And that, too, Aragon approved of. Like King Orin and Lord Ristart, Nargajvag had sworn fealty to Nasawada as his high queen. However, the huge cull said, My people agree with this, Lady Nightstalker, but they have thick blood 
and short memories, and words will not bind them forever. In a cold voice, Nasawada replied, Do you mean to say your people will break the peace? Am I to understand our races will once again be enemies? No, said Garjvag, and shook his massive head. We do not want to fight you. We know that fire sword would kill us. But when our young ones have grown, they will want battles in which to prove themselves. If there are no battles, then they will start them. I am sorry, Night Stalker, but we cannot change what we are. The exchange troubled Aragon, and Nasawada as well, and he spent several nights thinking about the Urgles, trying to solve the problem they presented. As the weeks rolled by, Nasawada continued to send him and Sephira to various locations within Serda and her kingdom, often using them as her personal representative to King Orin, Lord Ristart, and the other nobles and groups of soldiers throughout the land. Wherever they went, they searched for a place that could serve as a home for the Eldunari in the centuries to come, and as nesting and proving grounds for the dragons hidden on Vroengard. There were areas of the spine that showed promise, but most were too close to humans or urgles, or else were so far north. Aragon thought it would be miserable to live there year-round. Besides, Murtag and Thorn had gone north, and Aragon and Sephira did not want to cause them additional difficulty. The Beyond Mountains would have been perfect, but it seemed doubtful that the dwarves would welcome hundreds of ravenous dragons hatching within the bounds of their realm. No matter where they went in the Beors, they would still be a short flight from at least one dwarven city, and it would not do if a young dragon were to start raiding the dwarves' flock of Feldunost, which, knowing Sephira, Aragon deemed more than likely. The elves would, he thought, have no objection to the dragons living on or around one of the mountains in Dueldenvarden, but Aragon still worried about their nearness to the elven cities. Also, he disliked the idea of placing the dragons and the Eldunari within the territory of any one race. Doing so would give the appearance that they were lending support to that race in particular. The riders of the past had never done that, nor, Aragon believed, should the riders of the future. The only location that was far enough away from every town and city, and that no race had yet claimed, was the ancestral home of the dragons, the heart of the Hadarak Desert where stood Dufel's Nangoroth, the blasted mountains. It would, Aragon was sure, be a fine place to raise hatchlings. However, it had three drawbacks. First, they would not be able to find enough food in the desert to feed the young dragons. Zephira would have to spend most of her time carrying deer and other wild animals to the mountains. And of course, once the hatchlings grew larger, they would have to start flying out on their own which would take them close to the lands of either the humans, the elves, or the dwarves. Second, everyone who had travelled widely, and many who had not, knew where the mountains were. And third, it was not unduly difficult to reach the mountains, especially in the winter. The last two points concerned Aragon the most, and made him wonder how well they would be able to protect the eggs, the hatchlings, and the Eldunari. It would be better if we were high up on one of the peaks in the Beors, where only a dragon could fly, he said to Sephira. Then no one would be able to sneak up on us. 
no one except for Thorn, Murtag, or some other magician. Some other magician? Like every elf in the land? Besides, it would be cold all the time. I thought you didn't mind the cold. I don't. But I don't want to live in the snow year-round either. Sand is better for your scales, Glada told me. It helps polish them and keep them clean. Hmm. Day by day, the weather grew colder. Trees shed their leaves. Flocks of birds flew south for the year. And winter thus came upon the land. It was a cruel, harsh winter. And for a long while, it felt as if the whole of Alagazia was locked in slumber. At the first fall of snow, Oric and his army returned to the Beor Mountains. All of the elves who were still in Illyria, save Vanna and Blodgarm and his ten spellcasters, likewise left for Duweldenvarden. The Urgles had departed weeks earlier. Last to go were the Weircats. They seemed to simply disappear. No one saw them leave, and yet one day they were all gone, except for a large, fat Weircat by the name of Yellow Eyes, who sat on the padded cushion next to Nasawada, purring, napping, and listening to everything that went on in the throne room. Without the elves and the dwarves, the city felt depressingly empty to Aragon as he walked along the streets, ragged flakes of snow drifting sideways underneath the shelf of creviced stone overhead. And still Nasawada continued to dispatch him and Sephira upon missions, but never did she send them to do Weldenvarden, the one place Aragon wanted to go. They had had no word from the elves as to who had been chosen as Islanzadi's successor, and when asked, Vanna would only say, We are not a hasty people, and for us appointing a new monarch is a difficult, complicated process. As soon as I learn what our councils have decided, I will tell you. It had been so long since Aragorn had seen or heard from Arya, he considered using the name of the ancient language to bypass the wards around Duweldenvarden, so that he could communicate with, or at least scry her. However, he knew the elves would not look kindly on the intrusion, and he feared Arya would not appreciate him contacting her in that way without a pressing need. Therefore he instead wrote her a short letter, asking after her, and telling her some of what he and Sephira had been doing. He gave the letter to Vanna, and Vanna promised that he would have it sent to Arya at once. Aragon was sure that Vanna kept his word, for they had been speaking in the ancient language, but he received no response from Arya, and as the moons waxed and waned, he began to think that for some unknown reason she had decided to end their friendship. The thought hurt him terribly, and it caused him to concentrate on the work Nasuada gave him with even greater intensity, hoping to forget his misery. In the deepest part of winter, when sword-like icicles hung from the shelf above Illyria and deep drifts of snow lay upon the surrounding landscape, when the roads were nearly impassable and the fare at their tables had grown lean, three attempts were made on Nasawada's life, as Murtag had warned might happen. The attempts were clever and well thought out, and the third one, which involved a net full of stones falling on Nasawada, nearly succeeded. 
but with Aragorn's wards and Elva to protect her, Nasawada survived, although the last attack cost her several broken bones. During the third attempt, Aragorn and the Nighthawks managed to kill two of Nasawada's attackers, the exact number of which remained a mystery, but the rest escaped. Aragorn and Jormunda went to extraordinary lengths to ensure Nasawada's safety after that. They increased the number of her guards once again, and wherever she went, at least three spellcasters accompanied her. Nasawada herself grew ever more wary, and Aragorn saw in her a certain hardness that had not been apparent before. There were no more attacks upon Nasawada's person, but a month after winter broke and the roads were again clear, a displaced earl by the name of Hamlin, who had gathered up several hundred of the Empire's former soldiers, started launching raids against Gilead and attacking the travellers on the roads thereabouts. At the same time, another slightly larger rebellion began to brew in the south, led by Tharos the Quick of Aros. The uprisings were more of a nuisance than anything, but they still took several months to quell, and they resulted in a number of unexpectedly savage fights, although Aragorn and Sephira attempted to settle matters peacefully whenever they could. After the battles they had already participated in, neither of them was thirsty for more blood. Soon after the end of the uprisings, Katrina gave birth to a large, healthy girl, with a lock of red hair atop her head, the same as her mother. The girl bawled louder than any infant Aragorn had ever heard, and she had a grip like iron. Roran and Katrina named her Izmira, after Katrina's mother, and whenever they looked at her, the joy in their faces made Aragorn grin as well. The day after Izmira's birth, Nasawada summoned Roran to her throne room and surprised him by granting him the title of Earl, along with the whole of Palankar Valley as his domain. As long as you and your descendants remain fit to rule, the valley shall be yours, she said. Roran bowed and said, Thank you, your majesty. The gift Aragorn could see meant almost as much to Roran as had the birth of his daughter, for after his family the thing Roran prized most was his home. Nasawada also tried to give Aragorn various titles and lands, but he refused them, saying, It is enough to be a rider. I need nothing more. A few days later, Aragorn was standing with Nasawada in her study, examining a map of Alagazia and discussing matters of concern throughout the land, when she said, Now that things are somewhat more settled, I think it's time to address the role of magicians within Serda, Tiam, and my own kingdom. Oh? Yes, I've spent a great deal of time thinking about it, and have reached a decision. I have decided to form a group, much like the riders, but for magicians alone. And what will this group do? Nasawada picked up a quill from her desk and rolled it between her fingers. Again, much the same as the riders. Travel through the land, keep the peace, resolve disputes of law, and most important, watch over their fellow spellcasters so as to ensure they do not use their ability for ill. Aragorn frowned slightly. Why not just leave that to the riders? because it will be years before we have more of them, and even then there won't be enough to mind every petty conjurer and hedge witch. You still haven't found a place to raise the dragons, have you? 
Aragon shook his head. Both he and Sephira had been feeling increasingly impatient, but as of yet, they and the Eldunari had been unable to agree upon a location. It was becoming a sore point between them, for the infant dragons needed to hatch as soon as possible. I thought not. We have to do this, Aragon, and we cannot afford to wait. Look at the havoc Galbatorix wrought. Magicians are the most dangerous creatures in this world, even more dangerous than dragons, and they have to be held accountable. If not, we'll always be at their mercy. Do you really believe you will be able to recruit enough magicians to watch over all of the other spellcasters, here and in Serda? I think so, if you ask them to join, which is one of the reasons I want you to lead this group. Me? She nodded. Who else? Triana? I don't fully trust her, nor does she have the strength needed. An elf? No. It has to be one of our own. You know the name of the ancient language. You're a rider. And you have the wisdom and authority of the dragons behind you. I cannot think of a better person to lead the spellcasters. I've spoken to Orin about this, and he agrees. I can't imagine the idea pleases him. No, but he understands that it is necessary. Is it? Aragon picked at the edge of her desk, troubled. How do you intend to keep watch over the magicians who don't belong to this group? I hoped you might have some suggestions. I thought perhaps with spells and scrying mirrors, so that we could track their whereabouts and supervise their use of magic lest they use it to better themselves at the expense of others. And if they do, then we see to it that they make amends for their crime, and we have them swear in the ancient language to give up the use of magic. Oaths in the ancient language won't necessarily stop anyone from using magic. I know, but it's the best we can do. He nodded. And what if a spellcaster refuses to be watched? What then? I can't imagine very many would agree to be spied upon. A sigh escaped Nasawada, and she put down her quill. There's the difficult part. What would you do, Aragon, if you were in my place? None of the solutions he thought of were very palatable. I don't know. Her expression grew sad. Nor do I. This is a difficult, painful, messy problem. And no matter what I choose, someone will end up hurt. If I do nothing, the magicians will remain free to manipulate others with their spells. If I force them to submit to oversight, many will hate me for it. However, I think you will agree with me that it is better to protect the majority of my subjects at the expense of a few. I don't like it, he murmured. I don't like it either. You're talking about binding every human spellcaster to your will, regardless of who they are. She did not blink. For the good of the many. What about people who can only hear thoughts and nothing more? That's a form of magic as well. Them too. The potential for them to abuse their power is still too great. Nasawada sighed then. I know this isn't easy, Aragon. But easy or not, it's something we have to address. Galbatorix was mad and evil, but he was right about one thing. The magicians need to be reined in. But not as Galbatorix intended. Something needs to be done, though. 
and I think my plan is the best solution possible. If you can think of another better way to enforce the rule of law among spellcasters, I would be delighted. Otherwise, this is the only path available to us, and I need your help to do it. So will you accept charge of this group, for the good of the country, and the good of our race as a whole? Aragon was slow to answer. At last, he said, If you don't mind, I'd like to think about it for a while, and I need to consult with Sephira. Of course. But don't think for too long, Aragon. Preparations are already underway, and you will soon be needed. Afterward, Aragon did not return directly to Sephira, but wandered through the streets of Illyria, ignoring the bows and the greetings from the people he passed. He felt uneasy, both with Nasawada's proposal and with life in general. He and Sephira had been idling for too long. The time had come for a change, and circumstances would no longer allow them to wait. They had to decide what they were going to do, and whatever they chose, it would affect the rest of their lives. He spent several hours walking and thinking, mainly about his ties and obligations. In late afternoon, he made his way back to Sephira, and without speaking, climbed onto her back. She leaped out of the courtyard of the hall and flew high above Illyria, high enough that they could see for hundreds of miles in every direction. There she stayed, circling. They spoke without words, exchanging their mind states. Sephira shared many of his concerns, but she was not as worried as he about their bonds with others. Nothing was as important to her as protecting the eggs and the Eldunari, and doing what was right for him and her. Yet Aragon knew they could not just ignore the effects their choices would have, both political and personal. Finally, he said, What should we do? Sephira dipped as the wind underneath her wings slowed. What we need to do, as has always been the case. She said nothing more, but turned then and began to descend toward the city. Aragon appreciated her silence. The decision would be harder for him to make than for her, and he needed to think about it on his own. When they landed in the courtyard, Sephira nudged him with her snout and said, If you need to talk, I'll be here. He smiled and rubbed the side of her neck, and then slowly walked to his rooms while staring at the floor. That night, when the waxing moon had just appeared beneath the edge of the cliff over Illyria, and Aragon was sitting against the end of his bed, reading a book about the saddle-making techniques of the early riders, a flicker by the edge of his sight, like the flapping of a drape, caught his attention. He sprang to his feet, drawing Brissinger from its sheath. Then, in his open window, he saw a small three-masted ship woven from stalks of grass. He smiled and sheathed his sword. He held out his hand, and the ship sailed across the room and landed upon his palm, where it listed to one side. The ship was different from the one Arya had made during their travels together in the Empire, after he and Roran rescued Katrina from Helgrind. It had more masts, and it also had sails fashioned from the blades of grass. Though the grass was limp and browning, it had not dried out entirely. 
which led him to think that it had been picked only a day or two earlier. Tied to the middle of the deck was a square of folded paper. Aragon carefully removed it, his heart pounding, then unfolded the paper on the floor. It read, in glyphs of the ancient language, Aragon, we have finally decided upon a leader, and I am on my way to Illyria to arrange an introduction with Nasawada. I would like to talk with you and Safira first. This message should reach you four days before the half-moon. If you would, meet me the day after you receive it, at the easternmost point of the Rama River. Come alone, and do not tell anyone else where you are going. Arya Aragon smiled without meaning to. Her timing had been perfect. The ship had arrived exactly when she intended. Then his smile faded, and he reread the letter several more times. She was hiding something, that much was obvious. But what? Why meet in secret? Maybe Arya doesn't approve of the elves' next ruler, he thought. Or maybe there's some other problem. And though Aragon was eager to see her again, he could not forget how she had ignored him and Sephira. He supposed that from Arya's point of view the intervening months were a trifling amount of time, but he could not help feeling hurt. He waited until the first hint of sunlight appeared in the sky, then hurried down to wake Sephira and tell her the news. She was as curious as he, if not quite as excited. He saddled her, and then they left the city and set off to the northeast, having told no one of their plans, not even Glada or the other Eldenari. Fiernan It was early in the afternoon when they arrived at the location Ari had designated, a gentle curve in the Rama River that marked its farthest excursion eastward. Aragon strained to look over Sephira's neck as he searched for a glimpse of anyone below. The land appeared empty, save for a herd of wild oxen. When the animals caught sight of Sephira, they fled, lowing and kicking up plumes of dust. They, and a few other smaller animals, scattered about the countryside, were the only living creatures Aragon could sense. Disappointed, he shifted his gaze to the horizon, but saw no sign of Arya. Sephira landed on a slight rise, fifty yards from the banks of the river. She sat, and Aragon sat with her, resting his back against her side. On the top of the rise was an outcropping of soft, slate-like rock. While they waited, Aragon amused himself by grinding a thumb-sized flake into the shape of an arrowhead. The stone was too soft for the arrowhead to be anything other than decorative, but he enjoyed the challenge. When he was satisfied with the simple triangular point, he set it aside and began to grind a larger piece into a leaf-bladed dagger, similar to those the elves carried. They did not have to wait as long as he first thought. An hour after their arrival, Sephira lifted her head from the ground and peered across the plains in the direction of the not-so-distant Haderach Desert. Her body stiffened against his, and he felt a strange emotion within her, a sense of impending momentousness. Look, she said. Keeping hold of his half-finished dagger, he clambered to his feet and peered eastward. He saw nothing but grass, dirt, and a few lone, windswept trees between them and the horizon. He broadened his area of scrutiny, but still saw nothing of interest. What? he started to ask, then cut himself off 
as he looked up. High in the eastern sky, he saw a wink of green fire like an emerald glimmering in the sun. The point of light arced through the blue mantle of the heavens, approaching at a rapid pace, bright as a star at night. Aragon dropped the stone dagger and, without taking his eyes off the glittering spark, climbed onto Sephira's back and strapped his legs into her saddle. He wanted to ask her what she thought the point of light was, to force her to put into words what he suspected, but he could not bring himself to speak any more than she could. Sephira held her position, although she unfolded her wings, and keeping them bent nearly in half, lifted them in preparation to take off. As it grew larger, the spark proliferated, dividing into a cluster of dozens, then hundreds, then thousands of tiny points of light. After a few minutes, the true shape of it became visible, and they saw that it was a dragon. Sephira could wait no longer. She uttered a resonant trumpet, leaped off the rise, and flapped downward. Aragon clutched the neck spike in front of him as she ascended at a nearly vertical angle, desperate to intercept the other dragon as quickly as possible. Both he and she alternated between elation and a weariness born of too many battles. In their caution, it pleased them that they had the sun to their backs. Sephira continued to climb until she was slightly above the green dragon, whereupon she levelled off and concentrated upon speed. Closer, Aragon saw that the dragon, while well built, still had some of the gangly look of youth. His limbs had yet to acquire the stocky weight of gladers or thorns, and he was smaller than Sephira. The scales upon his sides and back were a dark forest green, while those upon his belly and the pads of his feet were lighter, with the smallest ones verging upon white. When against his body, his wings were the colour of holly leaves, but when the light shone through them, they were the colour of oak leaves in the spring. At the juncture between the dragon's neck and back was a saddle much like Zephyra's, and on the saddle sat a figure that looked to be Arya, her dark hair streaming from her head. The sight filled Aragon's heart with joy, and the emptiness he had laboured under for so long vanished like the darkness of night before the rising sun. As the dragons swooped past each other, Sephira roared, and the other dragon roared in response. They turned and began to circle as if chasing each other's tails, Sephira still slightly above the green dragon, who made no attempt to climb above her. If he had, Aragon would have feared he was attempting to gain the advantage before attacking. He grinned and shouted into the wind. Arya shouted back and raised an arm. Then Aragon touched her mind just to be sure, and he knew in an instant that it really was Arya, and that she and the dragon meant them no harm. He withdrew a moment later, for it would have been rude to prolong the mental contact without her consent. She would answer his questions when they spoke on the ground. Sephira and the green dragon roared again, and the green dragon lashed his whip-like tail, then they chased each other through the air until they reached the Rama River. There Sephira took the lead and spiralled down until she landed upon the same rise where she and Aragon had been waiting. The green dragon landed a hundred feet away, settling into a low crouch while Arya freed herself from her saddle. Aragon tore the straps off his legs and jumped to the ground, banging the sheath of Brissinger against his leg. He ran over to Arya and she to him, and they met in the middle between the two dragons, who followed at a more sedate pace, 
their steps weighing heavily on the ground. As he drew near, Aragon saw that in place of the leather strip that Arya usually wore to keep her hair back, a circlet of gold rested upon her brow. In the centre of the circlet, a teardrop-shaped diamond flashed, with light that came not from the sun, but from within its own depths. At her waist hung a green-hilted sword in a green sheath, which he recognised as Tamerlane, the same sword the elf lord Fiola had offered him as a replacement for Zarok, and that had once belonged to the rider Arva. However, the hilt looked different than he remembered, lighter and more graceful, and the sheath appeared narrower. It took Aragon a moment to realise what the diadem meant. He looked at Arya with astonishment. You! Me, she said, and inclined her head. Atra esterni ono Thelduin, Aragon. Atra du evarinho ono varda, Arya Drotning? It did not escape him that she had chosen to greet him first. Drotning, she confirmed. My people chose to give me my mother's title, and I chose to accept. Above them, Zephira and the green dragon brought their heads close together and sniffed one another. Zephira was taller. The green dragon had to stretch his neck to reach her. As much as Aragon wanted to talk with Arya, he could not help staring at the green dragon. And him? he asked, motioning upward. Arya smiled and then she surprised him by taking his hand and leading him forward. The green dragon snorted and lowered his head until it hung just above them, smoke and steam rising from the depths of his crimson nostrils. Aragon, she said, and she placed his hand on the dragon's warm snout. This is Firnan. Firnan, this is Aragon. Aragon looked up into one of Firnan's brilliant eyes, the bands of muscle within the dragon's iris were the pale green and yellow of new blades of grass. I am glad to meet you, Aragon friend Shadeslayer, said Fiernan. His mental voice was deeper than Aragon expected, deeper even than that of Thorn or Gleda or any of the Eldunari from Roangard. My rider has told me much about you. And the dragon blinked once with a small, sharp sound, like a shell bouncing against a stone. In Fiernan's wide, sunlit mind, planked as it was with transparent shadows, Aragon could feel the dragon's excitement. Wonder swept through Aragon, wonder that such a thing had come to pass. I am glad to meet you as well, Fiernan Finiarel. I never thought that I would live to see you hatched and free of Galbatorix's spells. The Emerald Dragon snorted softly. He looked proud and full of energy, like a stag in fall. Then he returned his gaze to Sephira. Between the two of them, much passed. Through Sephira, Aragon could feel the flow of thoughts, emotions and sensations, slow at first, but then swelling into a torrent. Arya smiled slightly. They seem to have taken to each other. That they have. A mutual understanding guiding them. He and Arya walked out from under Sephira and Fiernan, leaving the dragons to themselves. Sephira did not sit as she normally did, but remained crouched as if she were about to spring onto a deer. Fiernan did the same. 
the tips of their tails twitched. Arya looked well, better, Aragorn thought, than she had since their time together in Ella's mirror. For a lack of a more suitable word, he would have said she looked happy. Neither of them spoke for a while as they watched the dragons. Then Arya turned toward him and said, I apologize for not contacting you sooner. You must think badly of me for ignoring you and Sephira for so long, and for keeping such a secret as Fiernan. Did you receive my letter? I did. To his surprise, she reached inside the front of her tunic and removed a square of battered parchment that after a few seconds he recognized. I would have answered, but Fiernan had already hatched, and I did not want to lie to you, even by omission. Why keep him hidden? With so many of Galbatorix's servants still on the loose, and so few dragons remaining, I did not want to risk anyone finding out about Fiernan until he was large enough to defend himself. Did you really think a human could have snuck into Duweldenwarden and killed him? Stranger things have happened. With the dragons yet on the brink of extinction, it was not a risk worth taking. If I could, I would keep Fiernan in Duweldenwarden for the next ten years, until he is so large that none would dare attack him. But he wished to leave, and I could not deny him. Besides, the time has come for me to meet with Nasawada and Oric in my new role. Aragon could feel Fiernan showing and telling Sephira about the first time he caught a deer in the elves' forest. He knew that Arya was aware of the exchange as well, for he saw her lip twitch in response to an image of Fiernan hopping in pursuit of a startled doe after he tripped over a branch. And how long have you been queen? Since a month after my return. Vanna doesn't know, however. I ordered the information kept from him and our ambassador to the dwarves, so that I could concentrate on raising Fiernan without having to worry about the affairs of state that otherwise would have fallen to me. You might like to know, I raised him on the crags of Telneir, where Oromis lived with Glader. It seemed only right. Silence fell between them. Then Aragon gestured at Arya's diadem and at Fiernan and said, How did all of this happen? She smiled. On our return to Ellesmira, I noticed that Fiernan was beginning to stir within his shell, but I thought nothing of it, as Sephira had often done the same. However, once we reached Duweldenwarden and passed through its wards, he hatched. It was nearly evening, and I was carrying his egg in my lap, as I used to carry Sephira's, and I was speaking to him, telling him of the world, and reassuring him that he was safe, and then I felt the egg shake, and... She shivered and tossed her hair, a bright film of tears in her eyes. The bond is everything I imagined it to be. When we touched, I always wanted to be a dragon rider, Aragon, so that I could protect my people and avenge my father's death at the hands of Galbatorix and the Forsworn. But until I saw the first crack appear in Fiernan's egg, I never allowed myself to believe that it might actually come to pass. When you touched, did... Yes. She lifted her left hand and showed him the silvery mark on the palm, the same as his own Gedway Ignazia. It felt like... She paused searching for the words, like ice-cold water that tingled and snapped 
he suggested. Exactly like that. Without seeming to notice, she crossed her arms as if chilled. So you returned to Elasmira, said Aragon. Now Sophia was telling Fiernan about when she and Aragon swam in Leona Lake while travelling to Dras Leona with Brom. So we returned to Elasmira. And you went to live on the crags of Telnir. But why become queen when you were already a rider? It was not my idea. Dathada and the other elders of our race came to the house on the crags, and they asked me to take up my mother's mantle. I refused, but they returned the next day, and the day after that, and every day for a week, and each time with new arguments for why I should accept the crown. In the end, they convinced me that it would be best for our people. Why you, though? Was it because you are Islanzadi's daughter, or was it because you had become a rider? It was not just because Islanzadi was my mother, although that was part of it, nor was it just because I was a rider. Our politics are far more complicated than those of the humans or the dwarves, and choosing a new monarch is never easy. It involves obtaining consent from dozens of houses and families, as well as several of the older members of our race, and every choice they make is part of a subtle game that we have been playing amongst ourselves for thousands of years. There were many reasons why they wanted me to become queen, not all of them obvious. Aragon shifted, glancing between Sephira and Arya, unable to reconcile himself to Arya's decision. How can you be a rider as well as a queen? he asked. The riders aren't supposed to support any one race above the others. It would be impossible for the other peoples of Alagazia to trust us if we did. And how can you help rebuild our order and raise the next generation of dragons if you're busy with your responsibilities in Elismira? The world is not as it used to be, she said. Nor can the riders remain apart as they once did. There are too few of us to stand alone. And it will be a long while before there are again enough of us to resume our former place. In any event, you have already sworn yourself to Nasawada and to Oric and Dorgrimstingitum, but not to us, not to the Aelfakin. It is only right that we should have a rider and dragon as well. You know that Sephira and I would fight for the elves as much as for the dwarves or the humans, he protested. I know, but others do not. Appearances matter, Aragon. You cannot change the fact that you have given your word to Nasawada and that you owe your loyalty to Oryx's clan. My people have suffered greatly over the past hundred years, and though it may not be apparent to you, we are not what we once were. As the fortunes of the dragons have declined, so too have our own. Fewer children have been born to us, and our strength has waned. Also some have said that our minds are no longer as sharp as they used to be, although it is difficult to prove one way or another. The same is true of humans, or so Glader told us, said Aragon. She nodded. He is right. Both of our races will take time to recover, and much will depend upon the return of the dragons. Moreover, even as Nasawada is needed to help guide the recovery of your race, so too do my own people need a leader. With this Lanzadi dead, I felt obliged to take the task upon myself. She touched her left shoulder 
where her tattoo of the Yahweh glyph lay hidden. I pledged myself to the service of my people when I was not much older than you. I cannot abandon them now, when their need is so great. They will always have need of you. And I will always answer their call, she replied. Do not worry. Fiernan and I shall not ignore our duties as a dragon and rider. We will help you to patrol the land and settle what disputes we can, and wherever it seems best to raise the dragons, we shall visit and lend our assistance as often as we can, even if it be at the far southern end of the spine. Her words troubled Aragon, but he did his best to hide it. What she promised would not be possible if he and Sephira did as they had decided during the flight there. Although everything Arya had said helped confirm that the path they had chosen was the right one, he worried that it was a path that Arya and Fiernan would be unable to follow. He bowed his head then, accepting Arya's decision to become queen and her right to make it. I know you won't neglect your responsibilities, he said. You never do. He did not mean the statement unkindly. It was merely a statement of fact, and one for which he respected her. And I understand why you did not contact us for so long. I probably would have done the same in your place. She smiled again. Thank you. He motioned toward her sword. I take it Runan reworked Tamerlane to better fit you. She did, and she grumbled about it the whole while. She said the blade was perfect the way it was, but I am well pleased with the changes she made. The sword balances as it should in my hand now, and it feels no heavier than a switch. As they stood watching the dragons, Aragon tried to think of a way to tell Arya of their plans. Before he could, she said, You and Sephira have been well? We have. What else of interest has occurred since you wrote? Aragon thought for a minute, then told her in brief about the attempts on Nasawada's life, the uprisings in the north and the south, the birth of Roran and Katrina's daughter, Roran's ennoblement, and the list of treasures they had recovered from within the citadel. Lastly, he told her of their return to Carverhull and their visit to Brom's final resting place. While he spoke, Sephira and Firnan began to circle each other, the tips of their tails whipping back and forth faster than ever. They both had their jaws slightly open, baring their long white teeth, and they were breathing thickly through their mouths and uttering low, whining grunts, the likes of which Aragon had never heard before. It looked almost as if they were going to attack each other, which worried him. But the feeling from Sephira was not one of anger or fear, it was... I want to test him, said Sephira. She slapped her tail against the ground, causing Fiernan to pause. Test him? How? For what? To find out if he has the iron in his bones and the fire in his belly to match me. Are you sure? he asked, understanding her intent. She again slapped her tail against the ground, and he felt her certainty and the strength of her desire. I know everything about him, everything but this. Besides, she displayed a flash of amusement. It's not as if dragons mate for life. Very well, but be careful. He had barely finished speaking when Sephira lunged forward and bit Fiernan on his left flank, drawing blood and causing Fiernan to snarl 
and spring backward. The green dragon growled, appearing uncertain of himself, and retreated before Sephira as she prowled toward him. Sephira! Chagrined, Aragorn turned to Arya, intending to apologize. Arya did not seem upset. To Theonan and to Aragorn as well, she said, If you want her to respect you, then you have to bite her in return. She raised an eyebrow at Aragorn, and he responded with a wry smile, understanding. Fiernan glanced at Arya and hesitated. He jumped back as Sephira snapped at him again. Then he roared and lifted his wings as if to make himself appear larger, and he charged Sephira and nipped her on a hind leg, sinking his teeth into her hide. The pain Sephira felt was not pain. Sephira and Fiernan resumed circling, growling and yowling with increasing volume. Then Fiernan jumped at her again. He landed on Sephira's neck and bore her head to the ground, where he held her pinned and gave her a pair of playful bites at the base of her skull. Sephira did not struggle as fiercely as Aragorn would have expected, and he guessed that she had allowed Fiernan to catch her, as it was not something even Thorn had managed to do. The courting of dragons is no gentle affair, he said to Arya. Did you expect soft words and tender caresses? I suppose not. With a heave of her neck, Sephira threw Fiernan off and scrambled backward. She roared and clawed at the ground with her forefeet, and then Fiernan lifted his head toward the sky and loosed a rippling pennant of green fire twice the length of his own body. Oh, exclaimed Arya, sounding delighted. What? That's the first time he has breathed fire. Sephira released a blast of fire herself. Aragorn could feel the heat from over fifty feet away. And then she crouched and jumped into the sky, climbing straight upward. Theonan followed an instant later. Aragorn stood with Arya as they watched the glittering dragons ascend into the heavens, spiralling around each other with flames streaming from their mouths. It was an awe-inspiring sight, savage and beautiful and frightening. Aragorn realised he was watching an ancient and elemental ritual, one that was part of the very fabric of nature itself, and without which the land would wither and die. His connection with Sephira grew tenuous as the distance between them increased, but he could still sense the heat of her passion, which darkened the edges of her vision and blotted out all thoughts save those driven by the instinctual need that all creatures, even the elves, are subject to. The dragons shrank, until at last they were no more than a pair of sparkling stars orbiting each other in the immensity of the sky. As far away as they were, Aragorn still received a few flashes of thoughts and feelings from Sephira, and though he had experienced many such moments with the Eldenari when they had shared their memories with him, his cheeks grew hot as did the tips of his ears, and he found himself unable to look directly at Arya. She too seemed affected by the dragon's emotions, although differently than he. She stared after Sephira and Fiernan with a faint smile, and her eyes shone brighter than usual, as if the sight of the two dragons filled her with pride and happiness. Aragorn let out a sigh, and then squatted, and began to draw in the dirt with a stalk of grass. Well, that didn't take long, he said. No, said Arya. 
They remained that way for a number of minutes, she standing, he squatting, and all silence around them, save for the sound of the lonely wind. At last Aragon dared look up at Arya. She looked more beautiful than ever, but more than that he saw his friend and ally. He saw the woman who had helped save him from Durza, who had fought alongside him against countless enemies, who had been imprisoned with him under Drasleona, and who in the end had killed Shrukan with the Douthdert. He remembered what she had told him about her life in Elasmira when she was growing up, her difficult relationship with her mother, and the many reasons that had driven her to leave de Weldenvarden and serve as an ambassador to the elves. He thought, too, of the hurts she had suffered, some from her mother, others from the isolation she had experienced among the humans and the dwarves, and still more when she had lost Phaelin and then endured Durza's tortures in Gilead. All those things he thought of, and he felt a deep sense of connection with her, and a sadness, too and a sudden desire came upon him to capture what he saw. While Arya meditated upon the sky, Aragon looked about until he found a piece of the slate-like rock projecting from the earth. Making as little noise as possible, he dug out a slab with his fingers and brushed off the dirt until the stone was clean. It took him a moment to remember the spells he had once used, and then to modify them so as to extract the colours needed from the earth around him. Speaking the word silently, he encanted the spell. A stir of motion, like a swirl of muddy water, disturbed the surface of the tablet. Then colours, red, blue, green, yellow, bloomed on the slate, and began to form lines and shapes, even as they intermingled to form other, subtler shades. After a few seconds, an image of Arya appeared. Once it was complete, he released the spell and studied the ferth. He was pleased with what he saw. The image seemed to be a true and honest representation of Arya, unlike the ferth he had made of her in Ella's mirror. The one he held now had a depth that the other one had lacked. It was not a perfect image with regard to its composition, but he was proud that he had been able to capture so much of her character. In that one image, he had managed to sum up everything he knew about her, both the dark and the light. He allowed himself to enjoy his sense of accomplishment for a moment more, then he threw the tablet off to the side to break it against the ground. Caster, said Arya, and the tablet curved through the air and landed in her hand. Aragon opened his mouth, intending to explain or to apologize, but then he thought better of it and said nothing. Holding up the ferth, Arya stared at it with an intent gaze. Aragon watched her closely, wondering how she would react. A long, tense minute passed. Then Arya lowered the ferth. Aragon stood and held out his hand for the tablet, but she made no move to return it. She appeared troubled, and his heart sank. The ferth had upset her. Looking him straight in the eye, she said in the ancient language, Aragon, if you are willing... I would like to tell you my true name. Her offer left him dumbstruck. He nodded, overwhelmed, and with great difficulty managed to say, I would be honoured to hear it. Arya stepped forward and placed her lips close to his ear, and in a barely audible whisper, 
she told him her name. As she spoke, the name rang within his mind, and with it came a rush of understanding. Some of the name he knew already, but there were many parts that surprised him, parts that he realized must have been difficult for Arya to share. Then Arya stepped back and waited for his response, her expression studiously blank. Her name raised numerous questions for Aragorn, but he knew that it was not the time to ask them. Rather, he needed to reassure Arya that he did not think any less highly of her because of what he had learned. Nor did he. If anything, her name had increased his regard, for it had shown him the true extent of her selflessness and her devotion to duty. He knew that if he reacted badly to her name, or even said the wrong thing without intending to, he could destroy their friendship. He met Arya's gaze full on, and said, also in the ancient language, Your name, your name is a good name. You should be proud of what you are. Thank you for sharing it with me. I am glad to call you my friend, and I promise that I will always keep your name safe. Will you, now, hear mine? She nodded. I will, and I promise to remember and protect it for so long as it remains yours. A sense of import came over Aragon. He knew there was no going back from what he was about to do, which he found both frightening and exhilarating. He moved forward and did as Arya had done, placing his lips by her ear and whispering his name as softly as he could. His whole being vibrated in recognition of the words. He backed away, suddenly apprehensive. How would she judge him, fair or foul? For judge him she would, she could not help it. Arya released a long breath and looked at the sky for a while. When she turned to him again, her expression was softer than before. You have a good name as well, Aragon, she said in a low voice. However, I do not think it is the name you had when you left Palancar Valley. No, nor do I think it is the name you bore during your time in Elasmira. You have grown much since we first met. I've had to, she nodded. You are still young, but you are no longer a child. No. That I am not. More than ever, Aragon felt drawn to her. The exchange of names had formed a bond between them, but of what sort he was unsure, and his uncertainty left him with a sense of vulnerability. She had seen him with all his flaws, and she had not recoiled, but had accepted him as he was, even as he accepted her. Moreover, she had seen in his name the depth of his feelings for her, and that too had not driven her away. He debated whether to say anything on the subject, but he could not let it go. After gathering up his courage, he said, Arya, what is to become of us? She hesitated, but he could see that his meaning was clear to her. Choosing her words with care, she said, I don't know. Once, as you know, I would have said nothing, but again, you are still young and humans often change their minds. In ten years or even five, you may no longer feel as you now do. My feelings won't change, he said 
with utter certainty. She searched his face for a long, tense while. Then he saw a change in her eyes, and she said, If they don't, then perhaps in time. She put her hand on the side of his jaw. You cannot ask more of me now. I do not want to make a mistake with you, Aragon. You are too important for that, both to me and to the whole of Alagasia. He tried to smile, but it came out more as a grimace. But we don't have time, he said, his voice choked. He felt sick to his stomach. Arya's brow furrowed, and she lowered her hand. What do you mean? He stared at the ground, trying to think how to tell her. In the end, he just said it as simply as he could. He explained the difficulty he and Sephira had had in finding a safe place for the eggs and the Eldunari, and then he explained Nasawada's plan to form a group of magicians to keep watch over every human spellcaster. He spent several minutes talking, and concluded by saying, So Sephira and I have decided that the only thing we can do is leave Alagasia and raise the dragons elsewhere far away from other people. It's what's best for us, for the dragons, for the riders, and all the other races of Alagasia. But the Eldunari, said Arya, appearing shocked. The Eldunari can't stay either. They would never be safe, not even in Elismira. As long as they remain in this land, there will be those who will try to steal them or use them to further their own designs. No, we need a place like Vroengard, a place where no one can find the dragons to hurt them, and where the younglings and the wild dragons cannot hurt anyone themselves. Aragon tried to smile again, but gave it up as hopeless. That is why I said we have no time. Sephira and I intend to leave as soon as we can. And if you stay, I do not know if we will ever see each other again. Arya glanced down at the faith she still held, troubled. Would you give up your crown? To come with us? he asked, already knowing the answer. She lifted her gaze. Would you give up charge of the eggs? He shook his head. No. For a time they were silent, listening to the wind. How would you find candidates for the riders? she asked. We'll leave a few eggs behind, with you, I suppose. And once they hatch, they and their riders will come join us and we'll send you more eggs. There must be another solution, besides you and Sephira and every Eldunari abandoning Alagasia. If there were, we would take it, but there isn't. What of the Eldunari? What of Gleda and Umaroth? Have you spoken to them of this? Do they agree? We haven't spoken to them, but they will agree. That I know. Are you sure about this, Aragon? Is it really the only way? To leave behind everything and everyone you have ever known? It's necessary, and our departure was always meant to be. Angela foretold it when she cast my fortune in Tiam, and I've had time to accustom myself to the idea. He reached out and touched Arya on the cheek. So I ask again, will you come with us? A film of tears appeared on her eyes, and she hugged the fair 
against her chest. I cannot. He nodded and took his hand away. Then we will part ways. Tears welled in his own eyes, and he struggled to retain his composure. But not yet, she whispered. We still have some time together. You will not leave immediately. No, not immediately. And they stood next to each other, gazing into the sky and waiting for Sephira and Fiernan to return. After a while, her hand touched his, and he grasped it. And though it was a small comfort, it helped dull the ache in his heart. A Man of Conscience Warm light streamed through the windows along the right of the hallway, illuminating patches of the far wall, where banners, paintings, shields, swords, and the heads of various stags hung between the dark, carved doors that dotted the wall at regular intervals. As Aragon strode toward Nasawada's study, he gazed out the windows at the city. From the courtyard, he could still hear the bards and musicians performing by the banquet tables laid out in Arya's honour. The celebrations had been ongoing since she and Firnan had returned to Illyria with him and Sephira the previous day. But now they were beginning to wind down, and as a result he had finally been able to arrange a meeting with Nasawada. He nodded to the guards outside the study, then let himself into the room. Inside he saw Nasawada reclined on a padded seat, listening to a musician strumming on a lute and singing a beautiful, if mournful, love song. On the end of the seat sat the witch-child Elva, engrossed with a piece of embroidery, and in a nearby chair Nasawada's handmaid Ferica, and curled up on Ferica's lap lay the weircat Yellow-Eyes in his animal form. He looked sound asleep, but Aragon knew from experience that he was probably awake. Aragon waited by the door until the musician finished. Thank you. You may go, said Nasawada to the player. Ah, Aragon, welcome. He bowed slightly to her. Then to the girl, he said, Elva? She eyed him from under her brow. Aragon? The weircat's tail twitched. What is it you wish to discuss? asked Nasawada. She took a sip from a chalice resting on a side table. Perhaps we could speak in private, said Aragon, and motioned with his head toward the glass-panelled doors behind her, which opened onto a balcony overlooking a quadrangle with a garden and fountain. Nasawada considered for a moment, then rose from her seat and swept toward the balcony, the train of her purple dress trailing behind her. Aragon followed, and they stood side by side, gazing at the spouting water of the fountain, cool and grey within the shadow cast by the side of the building. What a beautiful afternoon, said Nasawada, as she took a deep breath. She looked more at peace than when he had last seen her, only a few hours before. The music seems to have put you in a good mood, he observed. No, not the music. Elva. He cocked his head. How so? A strange half-smile graced Nasawada's face. After my imprisonment in Urubain, after what I endured and lost, and after the attempts on my life, the world seemed to lose all colour for me. I did not feel myself 
and nothing I did could stir me from my sadness. I thought as much, he said, but I did not know what to do or say that might help. Nothing, nothing you could have said or done would have helped. I might have gone on like that for years, if not for Elva. She told me, she told me what I needed to hear, I suppose. It was the fulfilment of a promise she made me long ago, in the castle at Aberon. Aragon frowned and glanced back into the room where Elva sat poking at her embroidery. For all they had gone through together, he still did not feel as if he could trust the girl, and he feared that she was manipulating Nasawada for her own selfish ends. Nasawada's hand touched his arm. You don't need to worry about me, Aragon. I know myself too well for her to unbalance me, even if she tried. Galvatorix couldn't break me. Do you think she could? He looked back at her, his expression grim. Yes. She smiled again. I appreciate your concern, but in this it's unfounded. Let me enjoy my good mood. You can put your suspicions to me at a later time. All right. Then he relented a bit and said, I'm glad you're feeling better. Thank you. As am I. Are Sephira and Fiernan still cavorting about as they were earlier? I don't hear them any more. They are, but they're above the overhang now. His cheeks warmed somewhat as he touched Sephira's mind. Ah. Nasawada placed her hands, one atop the other, upon the stone balustrade, the uprights of which were carved into the shape of flowering irises. Now, why did you wish to meet? Have you arrived at a decision with regard to my offer? I have. Excellent. Then we may proceed apace with our plans. I have already... I've decided not to accept. What? Nasawada looked at him with incredulity. Why? To whom else would you entrust the position? I don't know, he said gently. That's something you and Orin will have to figure out on your own. Her eyebrows rose. You won't even help us choose the right person? And you expect me to believe that you would not follow orders from anyone but me? You misunderstand, he said. I don't want to lead the magicians, and I won't be joining them either. Nasawada stared at him for a moment. Then she walked over and closed the glass panel doors to the balcony, so that Elva, Ferica, and the Weircat could not overhear their conversation. Turning back to him, she said, Aragon, what are you thinking? You know you have to join. All of the magicians who serve me have to. There can't be any exceptions, not one. I can't have people think that I'm playing favourites. It would sow dissent among the ranks of the magicians, and that is exactly what I don't want. As long as you are a subject of my realm, you have to abide by its laws, or my authority means nothing. I shouldn't have to tell you that, Aragon. You don't. I'm well aware of it. Which is why Sephira and I have decided to leave Alagazia. Nasawada put her hand on the railing as if to steady herself. For a time, the splashing of the water below was the only sound. I don't understand. So once more, as he had with Arya, he set forth the reasons why the dragons, and therefore he and Sephira, could not stay in Alagazia. And when he finished, he said, It never would have worked for me to take charge of the magicians. 
Safira and I have to raise the dragons and train the riders, and that must take precedence before all else. Even if I had the time, I couldn't lead the riders and still answer to you. The other races would never stand for it. Despite Arya's choice to become queen, the riders have to remain as impartial as possible. If we start to play favourites, it will destroy Alagazia. The only way I would consider accepting the position would be if the magicians were to include those of every race, even the Urgles. But that's not likely to happen. Besides, it would still leave the question of what to do about the eggs and the Eldunari. Nasawada scowled. You can't expect me to believe that with all your power you can't protect the dragons here in Alagazia. Maybe I could, but we cannot depend on magic alone to safeguard the dragons. We need physical barriers, we need walls and moats, and cliffs too high for man, elf, dwarf or urgle to scale. More important, we need the safety that only distance can provide. We have to make it so difficult to reach us that the challenges of the journey will discourage even our most determined enemies from attempting it. But ignore that. Assuming that I could protect the dragons, the problem would still remain of how to keep them from hunting livestock, ours as well as the dwarves and urgles. Do you want to have to explain to Oric why his flocks of Feldunos keep disappearing? Or do you want to have to keep appeasing angry farmers who have lost their animals? No, leaving is the only solution. Aragon looked down at the fountain. Even if there were a place for the eggs and the Eldunari in Alagazia, it wouldn't be right for me to stay. Why is that? He shook his head. You know the answer as well as I. I've become too powerful. As long as I'm here, your authority and that of Arya, Oric and Orin will always be in doubt. If I ask them to, most everyone in Surda, Tirm, and your own kingdom would follow me. And with the Eldunari to help me, there is no one who can stand against me, not even Murtag or Arya. You would never turn against us. That's not who you are. No, in all the years I shall live, and I might live a very long time, do you honestly believe that I will never choose to interfere with the workings of the land? If you do, I'm sure it will be for a good reason, and I'm sure we will be grateful for your help. Would you? No doubt I would believe my reasons were just, but that's the trap, isn't it? The belief that I know better, and that because I have this power at my disposal, I have a responsibility to act. Remembering her words from before, he echoed them back to her. For the good of the many. If I was wrong, though, who could stop me? I could end up becoming Galbatorix despite my best intentions. As it is, my power makes people tend to agree with me. I've seen it in my dealings throughout the Empire. If you were in my position, would you be able to resist the temptation to meddle just a little in order to make things better? My presence here unbalances things, Nasawada. If I am to avoid becoming what I hate, then I have to leave. Nasawada lifted her chin. I could order you to stay. I hope you don't. I would prefer to leave in friendship, not anger. So you will answer to no one but yourself? I will answer to Sephira and to my conscience, as I always have. 
the edge of Nasawada's lip curled. A man of conscience, the most dangerous kind in the world. Once more, the sounds of the fountain filled the gap in their conversation. Then Nasawada said, Do you believe in the gods, Eragon? Which gods? There are many, any of them, all of them. Do you believe in a power higher than yourself? Other than Sephira? He smiled an apology as Nasawada frowned. Sorry. He thought seriously for a minute, then said, Perhaps they exist? I don't know. I saw... I'm not sure what I saw, but I may have seen the dwarf god Guntera in Tronchim when Oric was crowned. But if there are gods, I don't think very highly of them for leaving Galbatorix on the throne for so long. Perhaps you were the god's instrument for removing him. Did you ever consider that? Me? He laughed. I suppose it could be, but either way, they certainly don't care very much whether we live or die. Of course not. Why should they? They are gods. Do you worship any of them, though? The question seemed of particular importance to Nasawada. Again, Aragon thought for a while. Then he shrugged. There are so many. How could I know which ones to choose? Why not the creator of them all, Unulukuna, who offers life everlasting? Aragon could not help but chuckle. As long as I don't fall sick and no one kills me, I may live for a thousand years or more. And if I live that long, I can't imagine I would want to continue on after death. What else can a god offer me? With the Eldenari, I have the strength to do most anything. The gods also provide the chance to see those we love again. Don't you want that? He hesitated. I do. But I don't want to endure for an eternity. That seems even more frightening than someday passing into the void, as the elves believe. Nasawada appeared troubled. So you do not hold yourself accountable to anyone other than Sephira and yourself. Nasawada, am I a bad person? She shook her head. Then trust me to do what I believe is right. I hold myself accountable to Sephira and the Eldenari, and all of the riders who are yet to be, and also to you and Arya and Oric and everyone else in Alagazia. I need no master to punish me in order to behave as I ought. If I did, I would be no more than a child who obeys his father's rules only because he fears the whip and not because he actually means good. She gazed at him for several seconds. Very well, then. I will trust you. The splashing of the fountain once more achieved prominence. Overhead, the light from the sinking sun picked out cracks and flaws in the underside of the stone shelf. What if we need your help? she asked. Then I'll help. I won't abandon you, Nasawada. I'll bind one of the mirrors in your study with a mirror of my own, so that you will always be able to reach me, and I'll do the same for Roran and Katrina. If trouble arises, I'll find a way to send assistance. I may not be able to come myself, but I will help. She nodded. I know you will. Then she sighed, unhappiness plain on her face. What? he asked. It was all going so well. Galbatorix is dead, 
The last of the fighting has settled down. We were going to finally solve the problem of the magicians. You and Sephira were going to lead them and the riders. And now... I don't know what we'll do. It'll sort out, I'm sure. You'll find a way. It would be easier with you here. Will you at least agree to teach the name of the ancient language to whomever we choose to lead the magicians? Aragon did not have to think about it, since he had already considered the possibility, but he paused while he tried to find the right words. I could, but in time, I think we would come to regret it. So you won't. He shook his head. Frustration crossed her face. And why not? What are your reasons now? The name is too dangerous to bandy about lightly, Nasawada. If a magician full of ambition but lacking scruples got hold of it, he or she could wreak an incredible amount of havoc. With it they could destroy the ancient language. Not even Galbatorix was mad enough to do that, but an untrained, power-hungry magician? Who knows what might happen? Right now, Arya, Murtag, and the dragons are the only ones besides me who know the name. Better to leave it at that. And when you go, we will be dependent upon Arya, should we have need of it. You know she will always help. If anything, I would worry about Murtag. Nasawada seemed to turn inward. You needn't. He's no threat to us. Not now. As you say. If your goal is to keep the spellcasters in check, then the name of the ancient language is one piece of information that is better to withhold. If that is truly the case, then I understand. Thank you. There's something else you should know as well. Masawada's expression grew wary. Oh? He told her then about the idea that had recently occurred to him concerning the Urgles. When he finished... Nasawada was quiet for a while. Then she said, You take much upon yourself. I have to. No one else can. Do you approve? It seems the only way to ensure peace in the long run. Are you sure it's wise? Well, not entirely, but I think we have to try. The dwarves as well? Is that really necessary? Yes, it's only right, it's only fair and it will help maintain the balance among the races. What if they don't agree? I'm sure they will. Then do as you see fit. You don't need my approval. You've made that clear enough. But I agree that it seems necessary. Otherwise, twenty, thirty years from now, we may be facing many of the problems our ancestors faced when they first arrived in Alagasia. He bowed his head slightly. I'll make the arrangements. When do you plan on leaving? when Arya does. So soon? There's no reason to wait longer. Nasawada leaned against the railing, her eyes fixed on the fountain below. Will you return to visit? I'll try, but I don't think so. When Angela cast my fortune, she said I would never return. Ah! Nasawada's voice sounded thick, as if she were hoarse. She turned and faced him directly. I'm going to miss you. I'll miss you too. She pressed her lips together, as if struggling not to cry. Then she stepped forward and embraced him. He hugged her back, and they stood like that for several seconds. 
They parted then, and he said, Nasawada, if you ever tire of being queen, or you want a place to live in peace, come join us. You'll always be welcome in our hall. I cannot make you immortal, but I could prolong your years far beyond what most humans enjoy, and they would be spent in good health. Thank you. I appreciate the offer, and I won't forget it. However, he had a feeling that she would never be able to bring herself to leave Alagazia, no matter how old she was. Her sense of duty was too strong. Then he asked, Will you give us your blessing? Of course. She took his head between her hands, kissed him upon his brow, and said, My blessings upon you and Sephira. May peace and good fortune be with you, wherever you go. And with you, he said. She kept her hands upon him for another moment. Then she released him, and he opened the glass door and exited through her study, leaving her standing alone upon the balcony. Blood Price As Aragon made his way down a flight of steps, on his way toward the main entrance of the building, he happened upon the herbalist Angela, sitting cross-legged in the dark alcove of a door. She was knitting what appeared to be a blue-and-white hat, with strange runes along its lower part, the meaning of which was lost on him. Next to her lay Solembum, his head propped up in her lap, and one of his heavy paws resting atop her right knee. Aragon stopped, surprised. He had not seen either of them since... It took him a moment to remember, since shortly after the battle in Urubain. Thereafter they had seemed to disappear. Greetings, said Angela, without looking up. Greetings, replied Aragon. What are you doing here? Knitting a hat. That I can see. But why here? Because I wanted to see you. Her needles clacked with swift regularity, their motion as entrancing as the flames of a fire. I heard tell that you, Sephira, the eggs and the Eldenari, are leaving Alagazia. As you predicted, he retorted, frustrated that she had been able to discover what ought to have been the deepest secret. She could not have eavesdropped upon him and Nasawada. His wards would have prevented it. And so far as he knew, no one had told her or Solombam about the existence of the eggs or the Eldenari. Well, yes, but I didn't think to see you off. How did you find out? From Arya? Her? Ha! <laughs> Hardly. No, I had my own ways of gathering information. She paused in her knitting and looked up at him, her eyes twinkling. Not that I'll share them with you. I have to keep some secrets after all. Humph. Humph yourself. If you're going to be that way, I'm not sure why I bother coming. I'm sorry. I'm just feeling a bit... uneasy. After a moment, Aragon said, Why did you want to see me? I wanted to say farewell, and to wish you luck on your journey. Thank you. Hmm. Try not to let yourself get too wrapped up in your head, wherever you settle. Make sure you get out in the sun often enough. I will. What of you and Solombam? Will you stay here for a while and watch over Elva? You mentioned you would. The herbalist snorted in a very unladylike fashion. Stay? How can I stay when Nasawada seems intent on spying on every magician in the land? 
You heard about that as well? She gave him a look. I disapprove. I disapprove very much. I will not be treated like a child who has done something naughty. Nope. The time has come for Solombum and me to relocate to more friendly climes. The Beor Mountains, perhaps, or do Weldon Varden. Aragon hesitated for a moment, and then said, Would you like to come with Sephira and me? Solombum opened one eye and studied him for a second before closing it again. That's very kind of you, said Angela, but I think we will decline, at least for the time being. Sitting around guarding the Eldunari and training new riders seems boring, although raising a clutch of dragons is sure to prove exciting. But no, for the time being, Solemn Bum and I will stay in Alagasia. Besides, I want to keep an eye on Elva for the next few years, even if I can't watch over her in person. Haven't you had your fill of interesting events? Never. They're the spice of life. She held up her half-finished hat. How do you like it? It's nice. The blue is pretty. But what do the runes say? Raxacora... Oh, never mind. It wouldn't mean anything to you anyway. Safe travels to you and Sephira, Aragon. And remember to watch out for earwigs and wild hamsters. Ferocious things, wild hamsters. He smiled despite himself. Safe travels to you as well. And to you, Solombum. The weircat's eye opened again. Safe travels, King Killer. Aragon left the building and picked his way through the city until he arrived at the house where Jode and his wife Helen now lived. It was a stately hall with high walls, a large garden, and bowing servants stationed within the entryway. Helen had done exceedingly well. By provisioning the Varden and now Nasawada's kingdom with much-needed supplies, she had quickly built up a trading company larger than the one Jode had once owned in Tiem. Aragon found Jode washing up in preparation for their evening meal. After refusing an offer to dine with them, Aragon spent a few minutes explaining to Jode the same things he had explained to Nasawada. At first, Jode was surprised and somewhat upset, but in the end he agreed that it was necessary for Aragon and Sephira to leave with the other dragons. As with Nasawada and the herbalist, Aragon also invited Jode to accompany them. You tempt me sorely, said Jode, but my place is here. I have my work, and for the first time in a long while, Helen is happy. Illyria has become our home, and neither of us wants to pick up and move elsewhere. Aragon nodded, understanding. But you, you're going to travel where few but the dragons or riders have ever gone. Tell me, do you know what lies to the east? Is there another sea? If you travel far enough. And before that? Aragon shrugged. Empty land for the most part, or so the Eldenari say and I have no reason to think that's changed in the past century. Then Jode moved closer to him and lowered his voice. Since you are leaving, I will tell you this. Do you remember when I told you about the Arcana, the order devoted to preserving knowledge throughout Alagasia? Aragon nodded. You said that Heslant the monk belonged to them. As do I. 
at Aragon's look of surprise. Jode made a sheepish gesture and ran his hand through his hair. I joined them long ago, when I was young and looking for a cause to serve. I've provided them with information and manuscripts throughout the years, and they've helped me in return. Anyway, I thought you should know. Brom was the only other person I've told. Not even Helen? Not even her. Anyway, when I finish writing my account of you and Sephira and the rise of the Varden, I'll send it to our monastery in the Spine, and it will be included as a number of new chapters in Domia Aberwirta. Your story will not be forgotten, Aragon. That much at least I can promise you. Aragon found the knowledge strangely affecting. Thank you, he said, and grasped Jode by the forearm. And you, Aragon Shadeslayer? Afterward, Aragon made his way back to the hall, where he and Sephira had been living along with Roran and Katrina, who were waiting to eat with him. All through supper, the talk was of Arya and Thiernan. Aragon held his tongue about his plans for departure until after the food was gone, and the three of them and the baby had retired to a room overlooking the courtyard, where Sephira lay napping with Thiernan. There they sat drinking wine and tea, and watching as the sun descended toward the distant horizon. When an appropriate amount of time had passed, Aragon broached the subject. As he expected, Katrina and Roran reacted with dismay and tried to convince him to change his mind. It took Aragon nearly an hour to lay out his reasons to them, for they argued every point and refused to concede until he answered their objections in exacting detail. Finally, Roran said, Blast it, your family! You can't leave! I have to. You know it as well as I do. You just don't want to admit it. Roran struck his fist against the table between them and then strode over to the open window, the muscles in his jaw clenching. The baby squalled, and Katrina said, Shh, now, and patted her on the back. Aragon joined Roran. I know it isn't what you want. I don't want it either, but I have no choice. Of course you have a choice. You of all people have a choice. Aye, and this is the right thing to do. Roran grunted and crossed his arms. Behind them, Katrina said, If you leave, you won't be able to be an uncle to Ismira. Is she supposed to grow up without ever knowing you? No, said Aragon, going back to her. I'll still be able to talk with her, and I'll see to it that she's well protected. I may even be able to send her presents from time to time. He knelt and held out a finger, and the girl wrapped her hand around it and tugged with precocious strength. But you won't be here. No, I won't be here. Aragon gently extricated his finger from his mirror's grip and returned to stand by Roran. As I said, you could join me. The muscles in Roran's jaw shifted. And give up Palancar Valley? He shook his head. Horst and the others are already preparing to return. We'll rebuild Carvajal as the finest town in the whole spine. You could help. It would be like before. I wish I could. Below, Sephira uttered a throaty gurgle and nuzzled the side of Fiernan's neck. 
the green dragon snuggled closer to her. In a low voice, Roran said, Is there no other way, Aragorn? Not that Sephira or I can think of. Blast it! It's not right! You shouldn't have to go live by yourself in the wilderness! I won't be entirely alone. Blodgarm and a few other elves will be going with us. Roran made an impatient gesture. You know what I mean! He gnawed on the corner of his moustache and leaned on his hands against the stone lip underneath the window. Aragon could see the sinews in his thick forearms knotting and flexing. Then Roran looked at him and said, What will you do once you get to wherever you're going? Find a hill or a cliff and build a hall atop it, a hall large enough to house all the dragons and keep them safe. And you? Once you rebuild the village, what then? A faint smile appeared on Roran's face. Something similar. With the tribute from the valley, I plan to build a castle atop that hill we always talked about. Not a big castle, mind you. Just a bit of stonework with a wall. Enough to hold off any Urgles who might decide to attack. It'll probably take a few years, but then we'll have a proper way to defend ourselves. Unlike when the Razak came with the soldiers. He cast a sideways glance at Aragon. We'd have room for a dragon as well. Would you have room for two dragons? Aragon gestured towards Sephira and Fiernan. Maybe not. How does Sephira feel about having to leave him? She doesn't like it, but she knows it's necessary. Hmm. The amber light from the dying sun accentuated the planes of Roran's face. Somewhat to Aragon's surprise, he saw the beginnings of lines and wrinkles on his cousin's brow and around his eyes. He found the signs of encroaching age sobering. How quickly life passes. Katrina laid his mirror in a cradle. Then she joined them at the window and placed a hand on Aragon's shoulder. We'll miss you, Aragon. And I you, he said, and touched her hand. We don't have to say goodbye quite yet, though. I'd like the three of you to come with us to Ella's mirror. You would enjoy seeing it, I think and that way we could spend another few days together. Roran swiveled his head toward Aragon. We can't travel all the way to do Weldon Varden with his mirror. She's too young. Returning to Palancar Valley is going to be difficult enough. A side trip to Ella's mirror is out of the question. Not even if it was on Dragonback? Aragon laughed at their surprised expressions. Arya and Fiernan have agreed to carry you to Ella's mirror while Sophia and I fetched the dragon eggs from where they're hidden. How long would the flight to Ellesmira take? asked Roran, frowning. A week or so. Arya intends to visit King Oric in Tronchim on the way. You'd be warm and safe the whole while. Ismira wouldn't be in any danger. Katrina looked at Roran, and he at her, and she said, It would be nice to see Aragon off, and I've always heard tell of how beautiful the elves' cities are. Are you sure you would be up to it? asked Roran. She nodded. As long as you're there with us. Roran was silent for a moment. Then he said, Well, I suppose Horst and the others can go on ahead without us. A smile appeared under his beard, and he chuckled. I never thought to see the Beor Mountains, or to stand in one of the elves' cities. But why not, eh? We might as well while we have the chance. Good. That's settled then, said Katrina, beaming. We're going to do Weldenvarden. How will we get back? 
asked Roran. On Fiernan, said Aragon, or I'm sure Arya would give you guards to escort you to Palancar Valley, if you would prefer to travel by horse. Roran grimaced. No, not by horse. If I never have to ride another horse in my life, it would be too soon by half. Oh, then I take it you don't want Snowfire any more? said Aragon, raising an eyebrow as he named the stallion he had given Roran. You know what I mean. I'm glad to have Snowfire, even if I haven't had need of him for a while. Mm-hmm. They stood by the window for another hour or so, as the sun set and the sky turned purple and then black, and the stars came out, planning their upcoming trip and discussing the things Aragon and Sephira would need to take with them when they left Duweldenvarden for the lands beyond. Behind them, Ismira slept peacefully in her cradle, her hands balled up in tiny fists beneath her chin. Early the next morning, Aragon used the polished silver mirror in his room to contact Oric in Trondheim. He had to wait for a few minutes, but eventually Oric's face appeared before him, the dwarf running an ivory comb through his unbraided beard. Aragon! Oric exclaimed with obvious delight. How are you? It's been too long since last we spoke. Feeling a bit guilty, Aragon agreed. Then he told Oric of his decision to leave and the reasons why. Oric stopped combing and listened without interrupting, his expression serious throughout. When Aragon finished, Oric said, I will be sad to see you go, but I agree this is what you must do. I have thought about this myself, worried about where the dragons might live. But I keep my concerns to myself, for the dragons have as much right to share the land as we do, even if we do not like it when they eat our Feldenost and burn our villages. However, raising them elsewhere will be for the best. I'm glad you approve, said Aragon. He talked to Oric about his idea for the Urgles then which involved the dwarves as well. This time Oric asked many questions, and Aragon could see that he was doubtful about the proposal. After a long silence, wherein Oric stared down into his beard, the dwarf said, If you had asked this of any of the Grimstonsborthen before me, they would have said no. Had you asked me at any time before we invaded the Empire, I would also have said no. But now... After having fought alongside the Urgles, and after having seen in person how helpless we were before Murtag and Thorn, and Galbatorix and that monster Shruken, now I no longer feel the same. He gazed up through his bushy eyebrows at Aragon. It may cost me mine crown, but on behalf of Nurlan everywhere, I will accept, for their own good whether or not they realize it. Again, Aragon felt proud to have Oric as his foster brother. Thank you, he said. Oric grunted. My people never desired this, but I am grateful for it. When will we know? Within a few days, a week at most. Will we feel anything? Maybe. I'll ask Arya. Either way, I'll contact you again once it's done. Good. Then we will speak later. Safe travels and sound stone, Aragon.
May Helsvog watch over you. The following day, they departed Illyria. It was a private event, devoid of fanfare, for which Aragon was grateful. Nasawada, Jormunda, Jode, and Elva met them outside the city's southern gate, where Sephira and Firnan sat side by side, pushing their heads against one another, while Aragon and Arya inspected their saddles. Roran and Katrina arrived a few minutes later, Katrina carrying Ismira swaddled in a blanket, and Roran carrying two packs full of blankets, food, and other supplies, one slung over each shoulder. Roran gave his packs to Arya, and she tied them atop Firnan's saddlebags. Then Aragon and Sephira said their last farewells, which was harder for Aragon than for Sephira. His were not the only eyes with tears, however. Both Nasawada and Jode wept as they embraced him and offered him and Sephira their good wishes. Nasawada also said farewell to Roran, and she again thanked him for his help against the Empire. At last, as Aragon, Arya, Roran and Katrina were about to climb onto the dragons, a woman called out, Hold there! Aragon paused with his foot atop Sephira's right foreleg, and looked to see Burgit striding toward them from the city gates, grey skirts billowing, and her young son, Nolfavrel, trailing after her, with a helpless expression on his face. In one hand, Burgit carried a drawn sword, in the other, a round wooden shield. Aragon's stomach sank. Nasawada's guards moved to intercept the two of them, but Roran shouted, Let them pass! Nasawada signaled to the guards, and they stepped aside. Without slowing, Burgit walked over to Roran. Burgit, please don't, said Katrina in a low voice. But the other woman ignored her. Arya watched them unblinkingly, her hand on her sword. Stronghammer, I always said that I would have my compensation from you for my husband's death, and now I have come to claim it, as is my right. Will you fight me, or will you pay the debt that is yours? Aragon went to stand by Roran. Burgit, why are you doing this? Why now? Can't you forgive him and let old sorrows rest? Do you want me to eat her? asked Sephira. Not yet. Burgit ignored him and kept her gaze fixed on Roran. Mother, said Nolfavrel, tugging on her skirts. But she showed no reaction to his plea. Nasawada joined them. I know you, she said to Burgit. You fought with the men during the war. Yes, your majesty. What quarrel have you with Roran? He has proved himself a fine and valuable warrior on more than one occasion, and I would be most displeased to lose him. He and his family were responsible for the soldiers killing my husband. She looked at Nasawada for a moment. The Razak ate him, your majesty. They ate him, and they sucked the marrow from his bones. I cannot forgive that and I will have my compensation for it. It was not Roland's fault, said Nasawada. This is unreasonable, and I forbid it. No, it's not, said Aragon, though he hated to. By our custom, she has the right to demand a blood price from everyone who was responsible for Quimby's death. But it wasn't Roland's fault, exclaimed Katrina. But it was, said Roran in a low voice. I could have turned myself over to the soldiers. I could have led them away, or I could have attacked. But I didn't. 
I chose to hide, and Quimby died as a result. He glanced at Nasawada. This is a matter we must settle among ourselves, Your Majesty. It is a matter of honour, even as the trial of the long knives was for you. Nasawada frowned and looked to Aragon. He nodded, so with reluctance she stepped back. What will it be, Stronghammer? asked Burgett. Aragon and I killed the Razak in Hellgrind, said Roran. Is that not enough? Burgett shook her head, her determination never wavering. No, Roran paused then, the muscles in his neck rigid. Is this what you really want, Burgett? It is. Then I will pay my debt. As Roran spoke, Katrina uttered a wail and thrust herself between him and Burgett, still holding their daughter in her arms. I won't let you. You can't have him, not now. Not after everything we've gone through. Burgett's face remained as stone, and she made no move to retreat. Likewise, Roran showed no emotion as he grasped Katrina by the waist and without apparent effort lifted her off to the side. Hold her, would you? he said to Aragon in a cold voice. Roran! His cousin gave him a flat stare, then turned back to Burgett. Aragon grabbed hold of Katrina's shoulders to keep her from flinging herself after Roran, and he exchanged a helpless look with Arya. She glanced toward her sword, and he shook his head. Let go of me! Let go! shouted Katrina. In her arms, the baby began to scream. Never taking his eyes off the woman before him, Roran undid his belt and dropped it to the ground, along with his dagger and his hammer, which one of the Varden had found in the streets of Illyria soon after Galbatorix's death. Then Roran pulled open the front of his tunic and bared his hair-covered chest. Aragon, remove my wards, he said. I remove them. Roran, no, shouted Katrina. Defend yourself. He's mad thought Aragon, but he dared not interfere. If he stopped Burgett, he would shame Roran, and the people of Palancar Valley would lose all respect for his cousin. And Roran, Aragon knew, would rather die than allow that to happen. Nevertheless, Aragon had no intention of letting Burgett kill Roran. He would let her have her price, but no more, speaking softly in the ancient language, so that none might hear the words he used. He did as Roran had asked but he also placed three new wards upon his cousin, one to protect the spine within his neck from being severed, one to keep his skull from being broken, and one to safeguard his organs. All else, Aragon felt confident he could heal if necessary, as long as Burgett did not start cutting off limbs. It is done, he said. Roran nodded, and to Burgett said, Take your price of me then. And let this be an end to the quarrel between us. You will not fight me? No. Burgett eyed him for a moment. Then she threw her shield onto the ground, crossed the few remaining feet that separated her from Roran, and placed the edge of her sword against Roran's breast, in a voice loud enough for only Roran to hear, though Aragon and Arya did as well, with their cat-like acuity. She said, I loved Quimby. He was my life, and he died because of you. I'm sorry, Roran whispered. Burgett, pleaded Katrina, please. No one moved, not even the dragons. Aragon found himself holding his breath. 
The hiccuping crying of the baby was the loudest sound. Then Burgett lifted the sword from Roran's breast. She reached down to take his right hand and drew the edge of the sword across his palm. Roran winced as the blade cut into his hand, but he did not pull away. A crimson line appeared upon his skin. Blood filled his palm and spilled dripping to the ground, where it soaked into the trampled earth, leaving a dark blotch upon the dirt. Burgett ceased pulling on the sword and held it motionless against Roran's palm for a moment more. Then she stepped back and lowered the scarlet-edged sword to her side. Roran closed his fingers around his palm, blood flowing between them, and pressed his hand against his hip. I have had my price, said Burgett. Our quarrel is at an end. Then she turned, picked up her shield, and strode back to the city, with Noel Favrel dogging her heels. Aragon released Katrina, and she rushed to Roran's side. You fool, she said, a bitter note in her voice. You stubborn, pig-headed fool. Here, let me see. It was the only way, said Roran, as if from far away. Katrina frowned, her face hard and strained as she examined the cut on his hand. Aragon, you should heal this. No, said Roran, with sudden sharpness. He closed his hand again. No, this is one scar I'll keep. He looked around. Is there a strip of fabric I can use as a bandage? After a moment of confusion, Nasawada pointed to one of her guards and said, Cut off the bottom part of your tunic and give it to him. Wait, said Aragon, as Roran started to wrap the strip around his hand. I won't heal it, but at least let me cast a spell to keep the cut from getting infected. All right? Roran hesitated, then he nodded and held out his hand toward Aragon. It took Aragon only a few seconds to mount the spell. There, he said. Now it won't turn green and purple and swell up as large as a pig's bladder. Roran grunted, and Katrina said, Thank you, Aragon. Now, shall we leave? asked Arya. The five of them climbed onto the dragons, Arya helping Roran and Katrina safely into the saddle on Fearnan's back, which had been modified with loops and straps to hold additional passengers. Once they were properly seated atop the green dragon, Arya raised a hand. Farewell, Nasawada. Farewell, Aragon and Sephira. We will expect you in Alasmira. Farewell, said Fiernan in his deep voice. He spread his wings and jumped skyward, flapping quickly to lift the weight of the four people on his back, helped by the strength of the two Eldenari Arya was taking with her. Sephira roared after him, and Fiernan replied with a trumpeted bugle, before arrowing his way toward the southeast and the distant Beor Mountains. Aragon twisted around in his saddle and waved to Nasawada, Elva, Jormunder, and Jode. They waved in return, and Jormunder shouted, Best of luck to the both of you! Goodbye! cried Elva. Goodbye! shouted Nasawada. Be safe! Aragon replied in kind, and then he turned his back to them, unable to bear the sight any longer. Sephira crouched underneath him and sprang into the air as they began the first leg of their long, long journey. Sephira circled as she gained altitude. Below, Aragon saw Nasawada and the others standing in a clump by the city walls, Elva holding up a small white kerchief 
which fluttered in the gusts of wind from Sephira's passage. Promises New and Old From Illyria, Sephira flew to the nearby estate where Blodgarm and the elves under his command were packing the Eldunari for transport. The elves would ride north with the Eldunari to do Weldenvarden, and thence through the vast forest to the elven city of Silthrim, which sat upon the shore of Ardwen Lake. There the elves and the Eldunari would wait for Aragorn and Sephira to return from Vroengard. Then together they would begin their journey out of Alagazia, following the Gaina River as it flowed eastward through the forest and on to the plains beyond. All of them, that was, save Laufin and Uthinare, who had elected to stay behind in Duweldenvarden. The elves' decision to accompany them had surprised Aragon, but he was grateful for it nevertheless. As Blodgarm had said, We cannot abandon the Eldunari. They need our help, as will the younglings once they hatch. Aragon and Sephira spent a half hour discussing the safe transport of the eggs with Blodgarm, and then Aragon gathered up the Eldunari of Gleda, Umaroth, and several of the older dragons. He and Sephira would need their strength on Vroengard. Upon taking their leave of the elves, Sephira and Aragon set off to the northwest, Sephira flapping at a steady, unhurried pace, compared with that of their first trip to Vroengard. As she flew, a sadness fell upon Aragon, and for a time he felt despondent and self-pitying. Sephira, too, was sad, she because of having parted from Firnan. But the day was bright, and the winds were calm, and their spirits soon lifted. Still a faint sense of loss coloured everything Aragon beheld, and he gazed at the land with renewed appreciation, knowing that he would likely never see it again. Many leagues across the verdant grasslands Sephira flew, her shadow frightening the birds and the beasts below. When night came, they did not continue onward, but stopped and made camp by a rivulet that lay at the bottom of a shallow gully, and sat watching the stars turning above them, and talking of all that had been, and all that might be. Late the next day, they arrived at the Urgle village that had sprung up near the Lake Flam, where Aragon knew they would find Nargajvog and the Herndal, the council of dams who ruled their people. Despite Aragon's protests, the Urgles insisted upon throwing an enormous feast for him and Sephira, so he spent the evening drinking with Garjvag and his rams. The Urgles made a wine out of berries and tree bark that Aragon thought was even stronger than the strongest of the dwarves' mead. Sephira enjoyed it more than he. To him it tasted like cherries gone bad, but he drank it anyway to please their hosts. Many of the female Urgles came up to him and Sephira, curious to meet them, as few of the Urgle women had joined in the fight against the Empire. They were somewhat slimmer than their men, but just as tall, and their horns tended to be shorter and more delicate, though still massive. With them were Urgle children, the younger ones lacking horns, the older ones with scaly nubs upon their foreheads that protruded between one and five inches. Without their horns, they looked surprisingly like humans, despite the different colour of their skin and their eyes. It was obvious that some of the children were cull, for even the younger ones towered over their compatriots, and sometimes their parents. So far as Aragon could tell, there was no pattern that determined which parents bore cull and which did not. 
The parents, who were cull themselves, it seemed, bore urgles of ordinary stature, just as often as giants like themselves. All that evening, Aragon and Sephira caroused with Garjvog, and Aragon fell into his waking dreams while listening to an urgle chanter recite the tale of Nartuqua's victory at Stavorosk. Or so Garjvog told him, for Aragon could understand nothing of the urgle's tongue, other than that it made the dwarves sound as sweet as honeyed wine. In the morning, Aragon found himself blotched with a dozen or more bruises, the result of the friendly knocks and cuffs he had received from the cull during their feasting. His head throbbing, and his body as well, he and Sephira went with Garjvog to speak with the Herndal. The twelve dams held court in a low, circular hut, filled with the smoke of burning juniper and cedar. The wicker doorway was barely large enough for Sephira's head, and her scales cast chips of blue light across the dark interior. The dams were exceedingly old, and several were blind and toothless. They wore robes patterned with knots similar to the woven straps that hung outside each building, and which bore the crest of the inhabitants' clan. Each of the Herndal carried a stick carved with patterns that held no meaning for Aragon, but which he knew were not meaningless. With Garjvag translating, Aragon told them the first part of his plan to forestall future conflict between the Urgles and the other races, which was for the Urgles to hold games every few years, games of strength, speed and agility. In them, the young Urgles would be able to win the glory they needed in order to mate and earn a place for themselves within their society. The games Aragon proposed would be open to every race, which would also provide the Urgles a means to test themselves against those who had long been their foes. King Oric and Queen Nasawada have already agreed to this, said Aragon, and Arya, who is now Queen of the Elves, is also considering it. I believe that she too will grant the games her blessing. The Handal consulted among themselves for several minutes, then the oldest, a white-haired dam, whose horns had worn away to almost nothing, spoke. Garjvag again translated, Yours is a good idea, Firesword. We must speak with our clans to decide upon the best time for these contests. But this we will do. Pleased, Aragon bowed and thanked them. Another of the dams spoke then. We like this, Firesword, but we do not think this will stop the wars between our people. Our blood runs too hot for games alone to cool. And that of the dragons does not? asked Sephira. One of the dams touched her horns. We do not question the fierceness of your kind, Flame Tongue. I know that your blood runs hot, hotter than most, said Aragon. That is why I have another idea. The Hound Doll listened in silence as he explained though Garjvag stirred as if uneasy and uttered a low grunt. When Aragon finished, the Herndal did not speak or move for several minutes, and Aragon began to feel uncomfortable under the unblinking stare of those who could still see. Then the rightmost Urgel shook her stick, and a pair of stone rings attached to it rattled loudly in the smoke-filled hut. She spoke slowly, the words thick and muddied, as if her tongue was swollen. You would do this for us, Firesword? I would, 
said Aragon, and bowed again. If you do, fire sword and flame tongue, then you will be the greatest friend the Urgraldra have ever had, and we will remember your names for the rest of time. We will weave them into every one of our Tolkna, and we will carve them onto our pillars, and we will teach them to our younglings when their horns bud. Then your answer is yes? asked Aragon. It is. Garjvag paused, and speaking for himself, Aragon thought, he said, By a sword, you do not know how much this means to my people. We will always be in your debt. You owe me nothing, said Aragon. I only wish to keep us from having to go to war. He talked with the Herndal for a while longer, discussing the particulars of the arrangement. Then he and Safira made their farewells and resumed their journey to Rowengard. As the rough-hewn huts of the village shrank behind them, Safira said, They will make good riders. I hope you are right. The rest of their flight to Rowengard Island was uneventful. They encountered no storms over the sea. The only clouds that barred their way were thin and wispy and posed no danger to them or the gulls with whom they shared the sky. Safira landed on Rowengard before the same half-ruined nesting house where they had stayed during their previous visit. There she waited while Aragon walked into the forest and wandered among the dark, lichen-encrusted trees until he found several of the shadow birds he had encountered before, and after them a patch of moss infested with the hopping maggots Nasawada had told him Galbatorix called burrow grubs. Using the name of names, Aragon gave both of the animals a proper title in the ancient language. The shadow birds he called Sundavar Blaka, and the burrow grubs Ilgrathar. The second of the two names amused him in a grim sort of way, as it meant bad hunger. Satisfied, Aragon returned to Sephira, and they spent the night resting and talking with Glader and the other Eldunari. At dawn, they went to the rock of Cuthian. They spoke their true names, and the graved doors within the mossy spire opened, and Aragon, Sephira, and the Eldunari descended to the vault below, in that deep-set cavern, lit by the lake of molten stone that lay beneath the roots of Mount Erelus. The guardian of the eggs, Guarok, helped them place each egg into a separate casket. Then they piled the caskets near the centre of the chamber, along with the five Eldunari who had stayed within the cavern to help protect the eggs. With Umaroth's help, Aragon cast the same spell he had once before and placed the eggs and hearts into a pocket of space that hung behind Sephira, where neither she nor he could touch it. Kuarok accompanied them out of the vault. The metal feet of the dragon-headed man clanged loudly against the tunnel floor as he climbed to the surface alongside them. Once they were outside, Safira grasped Kuarok between her talons, for he was too large and heavy to sit comfortably upon her back, and she took flight, rising above the circular valley that lay in the heart of Rowengard. Across the sea, dark and shining, flew Safira, then over the spine, the peaks like blades of ice and snow, and the rifts between them like rivers of shadow. She diverted north, 
and crossed over Palancar Valley, so that she and Aragon might have one last look at their childhood home, if only from high above, and then over the Bay of Fundor, which was scalloped with lines of foam-crested waves, like so many rolling mountains. Siunon, with its steep, many-layered roofs and sculptures of dragon heads, was their next landmark of note, and soon afterward the leading edge of Dewelden Varden appeared, the pines tall and strong. Nights they spent camped by streams and ponds, the light of their fires reflecting off Kuarok's polished metal body, while frogs and insects chorused about them. In the distance, they oft-times heard the howls of hunting wolves. Once at Duweldenvarden, Sephira flew for an hour toward the centre of the great forest, whereupon the elves' wards stopped her from proceeding any further. Then she landed and walked through the invisible barrier of magic, Kuarok striding alongside her, and again took flight. League after league of trees sailed by underneath them, with little variation save for clusters of deciduous trees, oaks and elms, and birch and aspen and languorous willows, which often lined the waterways below. Past a mountain, the name of which Aragon had forgotten, and the elven city of Ocelon, and then trackless acres of pines, each unique and yet nearly identical to its countless brethren. At last, in late evening, when both the moon and the sun hung low upon opposing horizons, Sephira arrived at Elasmira, and glided down to land amid the living buildings of the elves' largest and proudest of cities. Arya and Fearnan were waiting for them, along with Roran and Katrina. As Sephira drew near, Fearnan reared and spread his wings, uttering a joyful roar that frightened birds into the air for a league around. Sephira answered in kind as she settled onto her hind legs and gently placed Kuarok on the ground. Aragon unbuckled his legs and slid down off Sephira's back. Roran ran up, grasped him by the forearm and clapped him on the shoulder, while Katrina hugged him on the other side. Laughing, Aragon said, Ah, stop! Let me breathe! So, how do you like Elasmira? It's beautiful, said Katrina, smiling. I thought you were exaggerating, said Roran but it's every bit as impressive as you said. The hall we've been staying in. Teodari Hall, said Katrina. Laura nodded. That. It's given me some ideas as to how we should rebuild Carvajal. And then there's Tronchim and Farthendur. He shook his head and uttered a low whistle. Aragon laughed again and started walking along the forest path toward the western edge of Elasmira, they leading him. Arya joined them looking every bit as much a queen as her mother once had. Well met by moonlight, Aragon. Welcome back. He looked at her. Well met indeed, Shadeslayer. She smiled at his use of the title, and the dusk beneath the swaying trees seemed to grow brighter. Once Aragon had removed Sephira's saddle, she and Fearnan took flight, although Aragon knew Sephira was exhausted from their journey and together they disappeared in the direction of the crags of Telnir. As they departed, Aragon heard Fearnan say, I caught three deer for you this morning. They are waiting for you on the grass by Oromis's hut. Kuarok set off in pursuit of Sephira, for the eggs were still with her, and it was his duty to protect them. 
Through the great bowls of the city, Roran and Katrina led Aragon until they arrived at a clearing edged with dogwood and hollyhocks, where tables sat laden with a vast assortment of food. Many elves, garbed in their finest tunics, greeted Aragon with soft cries, mellifluous laughter, and snatches of song and music. Arya took her place at the head of the banquet, and the white raven Blagden rested upon a carved perch nearby, croaking and spouting occasional scraps of verse. Aragon sat by Arya's side, and they ate and drank and made merry until late in the night. When the feast began to draw to a close, Aragon snuck away for a few minutes and ran through the darkened forest to the Manoa tree, guided more by his senses of smell and hearing than by sight. The stars appeared overhead as he emerged from beneath the angled boughs of the great pine trees. He paused then to slow his breathing and collect himself before picking his way across the bed of roots that surrounded the manoa tree. He stopped at the base of the immense trunk and placed his hand against the creviced bark, reaching out with his mind toward the slow consciousness of the tree that had once been an elf woman. He said, Linnea, Linnea, awake! I must needs speak with you. He waited, but detected no response from the tree. It was as if he were attempting to communicate with the sea or the air or the earth itself. Linnea, I must speak to you. A sigh of wind seemed to pass through his mind, and he felt a thought faint and distant, a thought that said, What, O rider? Linnea, when last I was here, I said that I would give you whatever you wanted in exchange for the bright steel under your roots. I am about to leave Alagazia, so I have come to fulfil my obligation ere I go. What would you have of me, Linnea? The manoa tree did not answer, but its branches stirred slightly. Needles fell pattering onto the roots about the clearing, and a sense of amusement emanated from its consciousness. Go, whispered the voice, and then the tree withdrew from Aragon's mind. He stood where he was for another few minutes, calling her name, but the tree refused to respond. In the end, Aragon left, feeling as if the matter was still unsettled, although the Manoa tree obviously thought otherwise. The next three days, Aragon spent reading books and scrolls, many of which had come from Galbatorix's library, and which Vanna had sent onward to Elismira at Aragon's request. In the evenings, he dined with Roran, Katrina, and Arya, but otherwise he kept to himself, and did not see even Sephira, for she remained with Fiernan on the crags of Telneir, and showed little interest in anything else. At night, the roars and bellows of the dragons often echoed across the forest, distracting him from his studies and making him smile when he touched Sephira's thoughts. He missed Sephira's companionship, but he knew that she had only a short time to spend with Fiernan, and he begrudged her not her happiness. On the fourth day, when he had learned all he could from his reading, he went to Arya and presented his plan to her and her advisers. It took him the better part of the day to convince them that what he had in mind was necessary, and moreover, that it would work. Once he had, they broke to eat. As dusk began to creep across the land, they assembled in the clearing around the Minoa tree, 
he, Sephira and Fionan, Arya, thirty of the elves' oldest and most accomplished spellcasters, Glader and the other Eldenari that Aragorn and Sephira had brought with them, and the two caretakers, the elf women, Iduna and Nea, who were the living embodiment of the pact between the dragons and the riders. The caretakers disrobed, and in accordance with the ancient rituals, Aragorn and the others began to sing, and as they sang, Iduna and Nea danced, moving together, so that the dragon tattooed across them seemed to become a single, unified creature. At the height of the song, the dragon shimmered, and then it opened its jaws and stretched its wings and leaped forward, pulling itself off the elf's skin and rising above the clearing, until only its tail remained touching the intertwined caretakers. Aragorn called to the glowing creature, and when he had its attention, he explained to it what he wanted, and asked if the dragons would agree. Do as you will, King Killer, said the spectral creature, if it will help ensure peace throughout Alagasia. We do not object. Then Aragorn read from one of the books of the riders, and he spoke the name of the ancient language in his mind. The elves and the dragons who were present lent him the strength of their bodies, and the energy from them coursed through him like a great whirling tempest. With it, Aragorn cast the spell he had spent days perfecting, a spell such as had not been cast for hundreds of years, an enchantment like unto the great old magics that ran deep within the veins of the earth and the bones of the mountains. With it, he dared to do what had been done only once before. With it, he forged a new compact between the dragons and the riders. He bound not just the elves and the humans to the dragons, but also the dwarves and the urgles, making it so that any one of them could become a rider. As he spoke the final words of the mighty enchantment, and thus sealed it into place, a tremor seemed to run through the air and the earth. He felt as if everything around them, and everything in the world, perhaps, had shifted ever so slightly. The spell exhausted him, Sephira, and the other dragons, but upon its conclusion a sense of elation filled him, and he knew that he had accomplished a great good, the greatest, perhaps, of his entire life. Arya insisted on throwing another feast to mark the occasion. Tired though he was, Aragorn participated with good cheer, happy to enjoy her company and that of Roran, Katrina, and Ismira. In the midst of the feast, however, the food and music suddenly became too much for him, and he excused himself from the table where he sat with Arya. Are you all right? asked Sephira, looking over from her place by Firnan. He smiled at her from across the clearing. I just need some quiet. I'll be back soon. He slipped away and walked slowly among the pines, breathing deeply of the cool night air. A hundred feet from where the tables lay, Aragorn saw a thin, high-shouldered elf-man sitting against a massive root, his back to the nearby celebration. Aragorn altered his path to avoid disturbing him, but as he did so, he caught a glimpse of the elf's face. It was no elf at all, but the butcher Sloan. Aragorn stopped, caught by surprise. In all that had gone on, 
He had forgotten that Sloane, Katrina's father, was in Ella's mirror. He hesitated for a moment, debating, and then with quiet steps walked over to him. As he had the last time Aragon had seen him, Sloane wore a thin black strip of cloth tied around his head, covering the empty sockets where his eyes had once been. Tears seeped out from under the cloth, and his brow was furrowed, and his lean hands clenched. The butcher heard Aragon approach, for he turned his head in Aragon's direction and said, Who goes there? Is that you, Adderie? I told you, I need no help. His words were bitter and angry, but there was also grief in them, such as Aragon had not heard from him before. It's me, Aragon, he said. Sloane stiffened, as if touched with a red-hot brand. You, have you come to gloat at my misery then? No, of course not, said Aragon, appalled by the thought. He dropped into a crouch several feet away. Forgive me if I don't believe you. It's often hard to tell if you're trying to help or hurt a person. That depends on your point of view. Sloane's upper lip curled. Now there's a weaselly elf answer if ever I heard one. Behind him, the elves struck up a new song on lute and pipe, and a burst of laughter floated toward Aragon and Sloane from the party. The butcher motioned over his shoulder with his chin. I can hear her. Fresh tears rolled out from under the strip of cloth. I can hear her, but I can't see her, and your blasted spell won't let me talk to her. Aragon remained silent, unsure what to say. Sloane leaned his head against the root, and the knob in his throat bobbed. The elves tell me that the child, Ismira, is strong and healthy. She is. She's the strongest, loudest baby I know. She'll make a fine woman. That's good. How have you spent your days? Have you kept up with your carving? The elves keep you informed of my activities, do they? As Aragon tried to decide how to answer, he did not want Sloane to know he had visited him once before. The butcher said, I guessed as much. How do you think I spend my days? I spend them in darkness, as I have ever since Hellgrind, with nothing to do but twiddle my thumbs, while the elves pester me about this and that and never give me a moment's peace. Again, laughter sounded behind them. Within it, Aragon could make out the sound of Katrina's voice. A fierce scowl contorted Sloane's face. And then you had to go and bring her to Ellesmira. It wasn't enough just to exile me, was it? No, you had to torture me with the knowledge that my only child and grandchild are here, and that I'll never be able to see them, much less meet them. Sloane bared his teeth, and he looked as if he might spring forward at Aragon. You're a right heartless bastard, you are. I have too many hearts, said Aragon, though he knew the butcher would not understand. Nah. Aragon hesitated. It seemed kinder to let Sloane believe that Aragon had meant to hurt him, rather than to tell him that his pain was merely the result of Aragon's forgetfulness. The butcher turned his head away, and more tears rolled down his cheeks. Go, he said, leave me, and never trouble me again, Aragon, or I swear one of us will die. Aragon poked at the needles on the ground. Then he stood and stared down at Sloane. He did not want to leave. What he had done to Sloane by bringing Katrina to Ellesmira felt wrong and cruel. 
Guilt gnawed at Aragon, growing stronger second by second, until at last he reached a decision, whereupon calm settled over him again. Speaking no louder than a whisper, he used the name of the ancient language to alter the spells he had placed on Sloane. It took him over a minute, and as he neared the end of his incantations, Sloane growled between clenched teeth, Stop your accursed muttering, Aragon, and be gone! Leave me, blast you, leave me! Aragon did not leave, however, but began a new spell. He drew upon the knowledge of the Eldunari and of the riders whom many of the older dragons had been paired with, and he sang a spell that nurtured and fostered and restored what had once been. It was a difficult task, but Aragon's skill was greater than it had once been, and he was able to accomplish what he wished. As Aragon sang, Sloane twitched, and then he began to curse and scratch with both hands at his cheek and brow, as if an itch had seized him. Blast you! What are you doing to me? Ending his incantation, Aragon squatted back down and gently removed the strip of cloth around Sloane's head. Sloane hissed as he felt the strip being pulled away, and he reached up to stop Aragon, but was too slow, and his hands closed on empty air. You would take my dignity as well, said Sloane, hate in his voice. No, said Aragon. I would give it back. Open your eyes. The butcher hesitated. No, I can't. You're trying to trick me. When have I ever done that? Open your eyes, Sloane, and look upon your daughter and granddaughter. Sloane trembled, and then, slowly, ever so slowly, his eyelids crept upward and revealed, instead of empty sockets, a pair of gleaming eyes. Unlike those he had been born with, Sloane's new eyes were blue as the noonday sky and of startling brilliance. Sloane blinked, his pupils shrinking as they adjusted to the meagre light within the forest. Then he jolted upright and twisted to peer over the top of the root at the festivities taking place between the trees beyond. The glow from the elves' flameless lanterns lit his face with a warm light, and by it he seemed suffused with life and joy. The transformation in his expression was amazing to behold. Aragon felt tears in his own eyes as he watched the older man. Sloane continued to stare over the route like a parched traveller seeing a great river before him. In a hoarse voice, he said, She's beautiful. They're both so beautiful. Another burst of laughter rang forth. Oh, she looks happy. And Roran too. From now on, you can look at them if you want, said Aragon. But the spells upon you still won't let you talk with them or show yourself to them or contact them in any way. And if you try, I'll know. I understand, murmured Sloane. He turned, and his eyes focused on Aragon with unsettling force. His jaw worked up and down for a few seconds as if he were chewing on something. And then he said, Thank you. Aragon nodded and stood. Goodbye, Sloane. You'll not see me again, I promise. Goodbye, Aragon. And the butcher twisted round to gaze once more 
into the light of the elven feast. Leave-taking A week passed, a week of laughter and music and long walks amid the wonders of Ella's mirror. Aragon took Roran, Katrina and Ismira to visit Oromus's hut on the crags of Telneir, and Sephira showed them the sculpture of licked stone she had made for the Blood Oath celebration. As for Arya, she spent a day guiding them about the many gardens in the city, so they might see some of the more spectacular plants the elves had collected and created throughout the ages. Aragon and Sephira would have been happy to stay in Elasmira for another few weeks, but Blodgarm contacted them and informed them that he and the Eldunari under his charge had arrived at Ardwin Lake, and though neither Aragon nor Sephira wished to admit it, they knew it was time to leave. It cheered them, however, when Arya and Fiernan announced that they would fly with them, at least until the edge of Duweldenvarden, and maybe a bit farther. Katrina decided to stay behind with Ismira, but Roran asked to accompany them on the first part of their journey, for as he said, I'd like to see what the far side of Alagazia looks like, and travelling with you is faster than having to ride all the way out there on a horse. At dawn the next day, Aragon said his farewells to Katrina, who cried the whole while, and to Ismira, who nursed on her thumb and stared at him without comprehension. Then they set out, Sephira and Fiernan flying side by side as they headed eastward over the forest. Roran sat behind Aragon, holding him by the waist, while Kuarok dangled from Sephira's talons, his body reflecting the sunlight as brightly as any mirror. After two and a half days, they sighted Ardwen Lake, a pale sheet of water larger than the whole of Palancar Valley. On its western bank stood the city of Sealthrim, which neither Aragon nor Sephira had visited before, and bobbing in the water by the city's wharves was a long white ship with a single mast. The vessel looked as Aragon knew it would, for he recognised it from his dreams, and a sense of inexorable fate settled upon him as he gazed at it. This was always meant to be, he thought. They spent the night in Sealthrim, which was much like Ella's mirror, though smaller and more densely built. While they rested, the elves loaded the Eldunari onto the ship, along with food, tools, cloth and other useful supplies. The ship's crew was composed of twenty elves who wished to help with the raising of the dragons and the training of future riders, as well as Blodgarm and all of his remaining spellcasters, save Laufin and Uthinare, who at that point took their leave. In the morning, Aragon modified the spell that kept the eggs hidden above Sephira and removed two, which he gave to the elves Arya had chosen to safeguard them. One of the eggs would go to the dwarves, the other to the Urgles, and hopefully the dragons within would see fit to choose riders from their designated race. If not, then they would swap places, and if they still did not find riders for themselves, well, Aragon was not quite sure what to do then, but he was confident Arya would figure something out. Once the eggs hatched, they and their riders would answer to Arya and Fiernan until they were old enough to join Aragon, Sephira, and the rest of their kin in the east. Then Aragon, Arya, Roran, Kuarok, Blodgarm, and the other elves travelling with them boarded the ship, and they set sail across the lake, while Sephira and Fiernan circled high overhead. 
The ship was named the Talita, after a reddish star in the eastern sky. Light and narrow, the vessel needed only a few inches of water to float. It moved without sound, and hardly needed steering, as it seemed to know exactly where its helmsman wished to go. For days they floated through the forest, first across Ardwen Lake, and then later down the Gainer River, which was swollen with the spring snowmelt. As they passed through the green tunnel of branches, birds of many kinds sang and flew about them, and squirrels, both red and black, would scold them from the tops of the trees, or would sit watching on branches that hung just out of reach. Aragon spent most of his time with either Arya or Roran, and only flew with Sephira on rare occasions. For her part, Sephira kept with Fiernan, and he often saw them sitting on the bank, their paws overlapping, and their heads resting side by side on the ground. During the days, the light in the forest was gold and hazy. During the nights, the stars twinkled brightly, and the waxing moon provided enough illumination to sail by. The warmth and the haze and the constant rocking of the Talita made Aragon feel as if he were half asleep, lost in the remembrance of a pleasant dream. Eventually, as of course it had to, the forest ended, and they sailed out onto the fields beyond. The Gainer River turned south then, and carried them alongside the forest to Eldor Lake, the waters of which were even larger than those of Ardwin Lake. There the weather turned, and a storm sprang up, Tall waves pummeled the ship, and for a day they were all miserable, as a cold rain and a fierce wind battered them. The wind was at their back, however, and it sped their progress considerably. From Eldor Lake they entered onto the Edda River, and sailed southward past the elven outpost of Ceres. After that they left the forest behind entirely, and the Talita glided on the river across the plains, seemingly of its own volition. From the moment they had emerged from within the trees, Aragon had expected Arya and Fiernan to leave, but neither said anything about departing, and Aragon was content not to ask them their plans. Farther south they went, across more and more empty land. Looking about them, Roran said, It's rather desolate, isn't it? And Aragon had to agree. At last they arrived at the easternmost settlement in Alagazia a small, lonely collection of wooden buildings by the name of Hedrath. The dwarves had built the place for the sole purpose of trading with the elves, for there was nothing of value in the area save the herds of deer and wild oxen visible in the distance. The building stood at the juncture where the Ajragni poured into the Edda, more than doubling its size. Aragon, Arya and Sephira had passed through Hedrath once before, in the opposite direction, when they had travelled from Farthandur to Elismira, after the battle with the Urgles. Thus Aragon knew what to expect when the village came into sight. However, he was puzzled to see hundreds of dwarves waiting for them at the head of a makeshift pier that extended into the Edda. His confusion turned to delight when the group parted and Oric strode forth. Raising his hammer volund over his head, Oric shouted, you didn't think I would let mine own foster brother leave without saying a proper goodbye now, did you? Grinning, Aragon cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted back, Never! 
The elves docked the Talita long enough for everyone to disembark, save Kuarok, Blodgarm, and two other elves who stayed to guard the Eldunari. The water where the rivers met was too rough for the ship to hold its position without scraping against the pier, so the elves then cast off and sailed farther down the Edda in search of a calmer place to lay anchor. The dwarves Aragon was astounded to see had brought to Hedeth four of the giant boars from the Beor Mountains. The Nagran were spitted on trees as thick as Aragon's leg and were roasting over pits of glowing coals. I killed that one myself, Oryx said proudly, pointing to the largest of the boars. Along with the rest of the feast, Oryx had brought three wagons of the dwarves' finest mead, specifically for Sephira. Sephira hummed with pleasure when she saw the barrels. You will have to try it as well, she told Fiernan, who snorted and extended his neck, sniffing curiously at the barrels. When evening came and the food was cooked, they sat at the rough-hewn tables the dwarves had built just that day. Oryk banged his hammer against his shield, silencing the crowd. Then he picked up a piece of meat, put it in his mouth, chewed, and swallowed. Ilfganeth, he proclaimed. The dwarves shouted with approval, and the feast began in earnest. At the end of the evening, when everyone had eaten their fill, even the dragons, Oryk clapped his hands and called for a servant, who brought out a casket filled with gold and gems. A small token of our friendship, Oryk said as he gave it to Aragon. Aragon bowed and thanked him. Then Oryk went to Sephira, and with a twinkle in his eye, he presented her with a gold and silver ring that she might wear on any of the claws of her forefeet. It is a special ring, for it will not scratch, nor will it stain, and as long as you wear it, your prey will not hear you approaching. The gift pleased Sephira immensely. She had Oryk place the ring on the middle talon of her right paw, and throughout the evening, Aragon caught her admiring the band of gleaming metal. At Oryx's insistence, they stayed the night in Hedeth. Aragon hoped to leave early the following morning, but as the sky began to brighten, Oryx invited him, Arya, and Roran to breakfast. After breakfast, they fell to talking, and then they went to see the rafts the dwarves had used to float the Nagran from the Beor Mountains to Hedeth. And before long, it was nearly dinner time again and Oryx succeeded in convincing them to stay for one last meal. With the dinner, as with the feast the previous day, the dwarves provided song and music, and listening to the performance of a particularly skilled dwarf bard delayed the departure of their party even further. Stay another night, Oryx urged. It's dark, and no time for travelling. Aragon glanced up at the full moon and smiled. You forget, it's not so dark for me as it is for you. No, we must go. If we wait any longer, I fear we will never leave. Then go with mine blessings, brother of mine heart. They embraced, and then Oryk had horses brought for them, horses the dwarves kept stabled in Hedeth for the elves who came to trade. Aragon raised his arm in farewell to Oryk, then he spurred his steed forward and galloped with Roran and Arya and the rest of the elves away from Hedeth 
and down the game trail that ran along the southern bank of the Edda, where the air was sweet with the aroma of willows and cottonwoods. Above, the dragons followed, twining around each other in a playful, spiralling dance. Outside Hedderth, Aragorn reined in his mount, as did the others, and they rode on at a slower, more comfortable pace, talking softly amongst themselves. Aragorn discussed nothing of importance with Arya or Roran, nor they with him, for it was not the words that mattered, but rather the sense of closeness they shared in the confines of the night. The mood between them felt precious and fragile, and when they spoke, it was with greater kindness than usual, for they knew their time together was drawing to an end, and none wished to mar it with a thoughtless phrase. They soon arrived at the top of a small hill and gazed down from it upon the Talita, which sat waiting for them on the far side. The ship appeared as Aragon knew it would, as it must. By the light of the pale moon, the vessel looked like a swan ready to take flight from the wide, slow-moving river and carry him into the vast unknown. The elves had lowered its sails, and the sheets of fabric gleamed with a faint sheen. A single figure stood at the tiller, but otherwise the deck was empty. Past the Talita, the flat, dark plain extended all the way to the distant horizon, a daunting expanse broken only by the river itself, which lay upon the land like a strip of hammered metal. A tightness formed in Aragon's throat, and he pulled the hood of his cloak over his head, as if to hide himself from the sight. They slowly rode down the hill and through the whispering grass to the pebble beach by the ship. The hooves of the horses sounded sharp and loud against the stones. There Aragon dismounted, as did the others. Unbidden, the elves formed two lines leading to the ship, one facing the other, and they planted the ends of their spears in the ground by their feet, and stood thus, statue-like. Aragon looked them over, and the tightness in his throat increased, making it difficult to breathe properly. Now is the moment, said Sephira, and he knew she was right. Aragon untied the casket of gold and gems from the back of his horse's saddle and carried it to Roran. This is where we part, then? Roran asked. Aragon nodded. Here, he said, giving the casket to Roran. You should have this. You can make better use of it than I. Use it to build your castle. I'll do that, said Roran, his voice thick. He placed the casket under his left arm, and then he embraced Aragon with his right, and they held each other for a long moment. Afterward, Roran said, Be safe, brother. You too, brother. Take care of Katrina and Ismira. I will. Unable to think of anything else to say, Aragon touched Roran once more on the shoulder, then turned away and went to join Arya where she stood waiting for him by the two rows of elves. They stared at each other for a handful of heartbeats, and then Arya said, Aragon. She had drawn her cowl as well, and in the moonlight he could see little of her face. Arya. He looked down at the silvery river, and then back at Arya, and he gripped the hilt of Brisinger. He was so full of emotion, he trembled. He did not want to leave, but he knew he must. Stay with me. Her gaze darted up. I cannot. 
stay with me until the first curve in the river. She hesitated, then nodded. He held out his arm, and she looped hers through his. And together they walked onto the ship and went to stand by the prow. The elves behind them followed, and once they were all on board, they pulled up the gangplank. Without wind or oars, the ship moved away from the stony shore and began to drift down the long, flat river. On the beach, Roran stood alone, watching them go. Then he threw back his head and uttered a long, aching cry, and the night echoed with the sound of his loss. For several minutes, Aragorn stood next to Arya, and neither spoke as they watched the first curve in the river approach. At last Aragorn turned to her, and he pushed the cowl away from her face so that he could see her eyes. Arya, he said, and he whispered her true name. A tremor of recognition ran through her. She whispered his true name in response, and he too shivered at hearing the fullness of his being. He opened his mouth to speak again, but Arya forestalled him by placing three of her fingers upon his lips. She stepped back from him then and raised one arm over her head. Farewell, Aragorn Shadeslayer, she said. And then Fiernan swept down from above and snatched her off the deck of the ship, buffeting Aragorn with the gusts of air from his wings. Farewell, Aragorn whispered, as he watched her and Fiernan fly back toward where Roran still stood upon the distant shore. Then Aragorn finally allowed the tears to spill from his eyes, and he clutched the railing of the ship and wept as he left behind all that he had ever known. Above, Sephira keened, and her grief mingled with his as they mourned what could never be. In time, however, Aragorn's heart slowed and his tears dried, and a measure of peace stole over him as he gazed out at the empty plain. He wondered what strange things they might encounter within its wild reaches, and he pondered the life he and Sephira were to have, a life with the dragons and riders. We are not alone, little one, said Sephira. A smile crept across his face, and the ship sailed onward, gliding serenely down the moonlit river toward the dark lands beyond. The End And now, an exclusive interview between Christopher Paolini and his editor, Michelle Fry. Hi, I'm Michelle Fry, Christopher Paolini's editor, and I am sitting here with Christopher just before the 
publication of Inheritance, the fourth book in the Inheritance Cycle. Fourth and final. Fourth and final book in the Inheritance Cycle. That's important to say. From the horse's mouth. (laughs) This series has been quite a journey for you, both personally and professionally. How did this whole story start for you, and how is it ending? (laughs) I could spend quite a while talking about that, as you as you well know. Um, I mean, the story started with me as a teenager, 15, 14, actually, when I originally got the idea for a young man finding a dragon egg. And it started with me wanting to write the sort of story I would enjoy reading myself and then has sort of transformed into a way of life, a career, uh, a completely new experience for me, for my family, uh, for a lot of the people uh, involved with the series. And now, of course, to actually wrap that up and to move on to new projects is exciting, daunting. Uh, You know, the list of adjectives could be quite long here. It's been, I think the main word for me is transformative. Uh, If I had not started Aragon, no, no, if I had not finished Aragon, because I started lots of projects and lots of aspiring writers start books. But if I hadn't finished Aragon and then tried to market it and tried to sell it, my life would be completely different. I would have uh, gone to college. I might still be in college or have just gotten out of college. And everything in the rest of my life and my family's would have played out completely differently. And I think about that sometimes, you know, like a parallel universe uh, where we didn't make that choice, where we didn't take that leap. And Honestly, I think it would be uh, a far less happy place for our family because in many ways we we risked a lot on Aragon. And if the series hadn't taken off, I don't know where we would be right now. Certainly not in Montana and certainly I wouldn't have the freedom to do what I love to do so much, which is tell stories. And speaking of that, you're 27 now, so that (laughs) means you've spent more than a decade living with these characters and in this land. What does it feel like to be saying goodbye to them. Well, the day I wrote the last page, I was shaking so badly. Wow. It wasn't like I was was really feeling that much emotion. It's just weird. It was a physical reaction. It was like I was was amped up on like 10 cups of coffee. That's what it felt like. I mean, I wasn't actually drinking that much coffee. But I was really shaking, and I actually had to walk away from the last couple lines of the book and actually write them later because I I just wrote placeholders because it was just affecting me so strongly. I know these characters so well that if I sit down, and even if I didn't have an idea for a story in place, if I started writing a scene with Aragon in New York City, for example, I know exactly how he reacts. I know exactly how Safira reacts, how Arya, how Nasuata, how Roran, all these characters... I don't even have to think about it at this point. Even when they're changing and becoming more than they used to be or different than they used to be, I don't have to think about it. It's just burned into my brain. Do you ever get surprised by your characters? Has anything happened that has kind of come out of you and you said, huh, where did that come from? More than once. Uh, I think mainly it's happened with... uh, well, with Aragon in a few places, but uh, Roran. I mean, Roran's whole sort of storyline really kind of surprised me. I knew I was going to have him being the, the big bad warrior and all that stuff, but the way it played out surprised me. In this book in particular or in all of them? Uh, in all of them. Um, Nasawada's character. I actually, Nasawada was sort of a late addition to the series when I was plotting it out. So she has, as I think 
people will know by now if you're if you're listening to this. She has an amazing storyline, I think, in the fourth book. Uh, that definitely surprised me, and sort of her relationship with Murtag in the fourth book. Uh, the character of Angela the Herbalist, of course, has always been full of surprises. And ultimately, the character of Arya. She's always been difficult for me to write, and you've provided a lot of input on that and a lot of help on sort of pointing out where perhaps I've I've not seen her character as clearly as I needed to. So her ending with Aragon and how their romance resolves, that wasn't something I originally envisioned. There have definitely, for me as the editor, been moments that have surprised me as well. Those scenes that you mentioned between mm. Nasuada and Galbatorix mm-hmm. are so compelling and so visceral. <laughs> What was it like for you to write those scenes? Because they are really powerful. They were a little tough just because the subject material was, t- you know, so intense. But actually, those were some of the easiest chapters to write because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew it was romance and horror intermixed. The chapters that gave me more trouble were the ones where, for whatever reason, my concept of them was not quite as clear. Like, for example, when... Solombum and Aragon, the thing with the Vault of Souls and Solombum and Aragon, that was difficult. And that was something you helped me a large, uh, you know, a large amount on as well, figuring out how to resolve that story point. Right. What about very detailed scenes? Like the scene of, and this being a very emotionally impactful scene as well, but the scene of Aragon healing Elaine's baby. There are so many layers I know that went into creating that. Can you talk about that a little bit and the challenges that Uh, went into that? With the healing the child, I knew that, I mean, I wanted, one, I wanted to touch on the feeling that I think a lot of people have had where having a loved one who is sick or injured and that sense of hopelessness where you, you can't help them. And I really wanted to, you know, go for the heartstrings by having it be this, uh, you know, this infant, which, of course, is, is the worst thing of all, is, is, you know, someone so young having a disability or an illness, which is not their fault, and they have to live with through the rest of their life. And then also, the one of the inspirations for the scene was that I wanted to show how Aragon's stature within the Varden had grown, that he wasn't just the young boy wonder hero anymore, that he was this you know, rather major figure and that people came to him with problems like this baby who was born with the the hair lip. And so that was sort of a way of showing instead of telling how Aragon had changed. And then also I think I wanted to just touch on, because I've mentioned elsewhere that a lot of the spells that the elves use and stuff are delivered through means of song. And I wanted to show Aragon really using song as a way of using magic. You know, he sings the spell that he heals the the girl with. And I like that idea. You know, I that really... I grew up listening to a lot of lullabies and other songs that my mom would play for me. And I guess that, that was sort of lodged in the back of my head when I was writing this scene. So as, as you said, there were a lot of layers and a lot of things that went into it. And a lot of detail with how the anatomy of a baby is different than that of an adult. Yeah, well. I actually did some research on that. Uh, that that's one reason why... I'm, I end up wasting whole days sometimes (laughs) in the writing is because I'm going online and saying, okay, so, you know, how does, how does the anatomy work? How do the blood vessels and the the bones and muscles knit up together? 
Uh, in fact, readers or listeners will will notice that when Aragon flies to Vroengard with Sephira, when they land on the sea, when they land on the ocean, mm-hmm. there is a, a some seaweed that Aragon sees floating on the water nearby. I kid you not, I spent six hours reading up on seaweed on various parts of the internet because seaweed is a lot more complicated than you think. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> no, seriously, there's all those different kinds and some grow closer to the... Because the problem is most seaweed and algae and stuff like that grows really close to the shore, but Aragon's not really that close to the shore, so I had to find something that might be out in the deep sea and in cold water. Uh, yeah, so, you know, a lot of research goes into some of these scenes. Even though we're in Allegasia, the rules of nature still apply. That's right. That's right. What about Rorin in Aros? <laughs> How did you come up with that brilliant plan for him to take the city? Oh, boy. Well, I deliberately set out to come up with a brilliant plan. My idea was to come up with a ridiculous, convoluted scheme that would sort of take the readers by surprise. And I think the initial inspiration from that came from Sun Tzu's The Art of War, where, uh, and I, I, it's been a while since I've read it, so my, my memory is a little bit hazy, but there was some story in there of how some general or another was low on arrows in his in his army. So he got arrows by taking ships and putting dummies on them and floating the dummies past the enemy army. So the enemy army would shoot the dummies. And then uh, the the general who'd sent the dummies out would collect the boats on the other end of the river or something and would pull all the arrows out of the straw dummies and thus refill the quivers of his own archers. So I wanted something kind of clever like that. Mm-hmm. And I'd also read a book called The Ancient Engineers. or some, It was something about engineering, and it was written by another fantasy art author, and I think it was Lynn Carter, who also worked on some of the... He wrote some of the Conan the Barbarian books himself and various... He wrote Kellery the Warlock, I believe, which I... Kellery the Warlock is a great pulpy fantasy novel. But there were lots of interesting engineering details from the ancient world in there. So I was thinking about mills and mines and things like that. And, uh, And then the last piece came from when I was visiting the fantasy author Tad Williams, whose work I'm a big fan of. And we were talking about various interesting things from early, early periods, and he mentioned a slate mine. And so that got me thinking, and I incorporated a slate mine in the capture of Aro. So it was like all, it was like these three different sources. It was the, it was the art of war, it was this book on ancient engineering feats, and then it was the mention of a slate mine from Tad Williams, plus the desire to make Roar and appear like, you know, a totally awesome warrior. Which he is. To put it in uh, a more, mo- more modern terms. And it was complicated, too getting the descriptions right. You remember the one on the, the mills? Yes, that when the, when was the a water, real challenge. When the water breaks free. Mm-hmm. Especially for someone urban like me who doesn't <laughs> perhaps understand exactly how these mills connect to the waterfalls, etc. It was really challenging to we, get We that were drawing down. diagrams, weren't we? We were, but, you know, we finally got it uh, in a way that I think even any New York City girl can understand. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I know a lot of people have asked you if you are Aragon. What parallels do you see between yourself and Aragon? And also, what traits do you see in yourself, in your other characters? Mm. Well, I mean, there's part of me in all the characters, even Galbatorix. I think Galbatorix is probably my desire to um, uh, just talk and talk and talk and talk, which he gets <laughs> to do. Uh, with Aragon, although I kind of hate to admit it, uh, I think the main trait at this point, which I share with Aragon, is probably his 
indecisiveness at times and his questioning, you know, the fact that he is always pondering the world around him and trying to figure out what the best path is and what the right path is, you know, morally. As far as other characters, though, and in, in other ways, you know, I empathize a lot with Roran as well. Uh, there's a lot of me in Roran and a lot of my father in Roran. Uh, he's... Uh, my my parents' relationship is very much like Roran and Katrina in that if something happened to my mother, um, my father would stop at nothing to get her back safely or, you know, whatever might need to be done. So that's definitely been an inspiration. Um, but I don't know. I mean, in every character I write, even no matter how good or bad, I always try to find something interesting. And then I try to make sure that they're internally self-consistent. And that's always the struggle. You know, even if you don't always agree with the character... You have to make sure that what they're doing makes sense for that character. And that's where you really, again, you really help me with Arya, because sometimes I, I would see her too strongly from Aragon's point of view and not strongly enough from her point of view. And so she would end up, I would end up having her behave the way Aragon would like her to behave instead of the way she herself would behave. Right. And you were always good calling me on that. Do you think you'll ever return to the world of Alagazia? Oh, I definitely think so. I, not in the immediate future. Uh, I have too many other things I want to try my hand at writing. But I have laid the groundwork for a fifth book in the series. In, well, not in the series. It would be in the world, and it would be with some of the same characters and some new characters. But I have laid the groundwork very carefully for that. Because uh, it always annoys me when you read a, a, usually a fantasy series, and you have a big bad villain in the first book or two or a couple of books and then the author hits it big and they finish their series and they say oh gee i need to come up with another big bad villain because i need to keep writing in this world and series now that it's popular and then all of a sudden you have you know another villain just basically come out of nowhere for their next book so i have thought very carefully about the future of my world and if i wish to return to it i have the framework in place it, I, it would be a fun story too well I know we've hit against that a couple of times in the editorial process where I've asked, why is this scene in here? Mm -hmm. Only to discover that <laughs> you're keeping your eye out for things that may come down the line five, ten years from now. Yeah. No, I've laid the groundwork for at least two more books. Um, one is the fifth book, of course, and then another one would be sort of like a standalone set within the world. And then I have a couple other ideas for stories within Allegasia, but they wouldn't really be continuations of this main story. They'd be tangential side stuff, other stuff that's happening in the land, but not really the, the main epic story that's been going on. What would you say was the most fun section of this book, of Inheritance, for you to write? Mm. Well, I enjoyed the Weird Cat chapter near the beginning. That's like a great King chapter. King Cat. That was fun. Um, the Razak section. The stuff with the Razak underneath Drosliona. Drosliona. Mm. I loved writing that. I mean, it was extremely grisly and, and a little bit difficult because of that. You know, when Arya pulls her hand through the manacles and there's, Oof. you know, blood and skin. Yeah, that was pretty gruesome. But... That was fun. I was truly going for full horror. It was like, how scary can I make this? That was pretty darn scary. That was one of my favorite sections in the book. I remember when you sent me this, because you often send it to me in sections, right. just tearing, tearing, tearing <laughs> through and not being able to wait to get till the end. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, I think the last... The last two chapters, I mean, they were produced under uh, ridiculous deadline pressures, which kind of colored my perception of them. But I really did enjoy writing them just because they had sort of a 
dreamy quality almost to it, a little bittersweet. And, you know, and that's something. I mean, this isn't really a 100% happy ending to this series either. You know, it's not just everyone sails off into the sunset. Was it strange to kind of get to that moment of the premonition that's been anticipated since book one and then be writing it and having that experience be perhaps a little twist on what readers would have expected? Uh, it was. It was. I mean, I, I, I think I did have a little bit of a twist. Uh, I think most people expected the scene to go, you know, one way with Aragon and someone else heading off together. And then I, I, I yeah, I twist that a bit. But it did. It kind of felt like, partly because I was sleep deprived when writing it, but it felt like a bit of a dream myself when I wrote it because I'd spent so long thinking about it. I mean, if you remember, I mean, as I'm sure fans know, that premonition was in Aragon, and I, you know, have had been holding that scene in my head since since day one, basically. So then to actually sit down and write it, and then it was it was actually terrifying in one way because I knew this is it, and you want to make sure the ending is perfect, of course. And of course, nothing's ever perfect. So there's that horrible sense of expectation that you have to get it absolutely right. You you know, this is the end of the series. You're never going to be able to come back and fix this. You Not have to do it right. Word can Not be one wrong. word. No. But at that point, you just really have to trust that the situation itself is going to is going to carry the emotion and the the feelings you want. Because if you try to tell it to the reader, I think it's just not going to work at that point. You know, either either all the work you've done before, all the groundwork is going to get the reader to the place that you want, hope they're going to be, or you're just you've totally made a mess of it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that ending, when I read it, for sure, was so poignant and and heart wrenching. And beautiful and hopeful at the same time. So shall I, t- shall I tell readers, uh, listeners, um, about the name of the ship? Sure. So this, this is something that uh, I find, I, I always try to put little mentions into each of my books of, you know, little shout outs to various people and little in-jokes and stuff. But the, the boat, the ship, at the very end that carries Aragon off is named the Talita, which also happens to be the name of my mother. And she's actually named after a star herself. And I just thought it was so fitting, though, because she provided so much inspiration and help, as did my father. But uh, my mother uh, really, really, you know, she she did a lot of the teaching when I was growing up with my sister. And um, in any case, I thought it was really nice to have the ship Talita carrying Aragon out on the Edda River, which, if you don't know, you know, the Eddas are the stories, you know, the Norse Eddas. So he's literally sailing out on a on the on the river of story out of out of the series. What was your mom's response when she saw that in the book? It was horrible. I felt guilty because she called me up. And she was sobbing on the phone. I mean, she was like <laughs> breaking down. And I thought something had happened to my dad at first because I wasn't at home when I when I sent this back back to them for to read. And 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 she's sobbing, and <laughs> I felt guilty, very 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 guilty. But it was it, it was, was happy tears. It was happy tears. So I was, you know, I felt a little bit better after that. <laughs> Good. And I thought I was afraid at first actually that she might ask me to change the name, you know. And I told her I'd be happy to change it if she. Didn't want her name used like that, but no, she she was happy with it. Yeah, I'm sure she was. It's a beautiful moment. Can you talk a little bit about your writing process? My writing process has changed enormously over the past few years. Um, the writing, for some personal reasons, got extremely difficult over the past couple of years. And to the point where I was having difficulty finishing a single page in a day, which... 
is not a good pace for a professional author, especially not one who wishes to write books of this immense size. Eventually, however, and by eventually, I mean actually the beginning of uh, 2011, which is this year. Uh, actually, it was in mid-February or something. I finally figured out what was going on and managed to address the problem. And at that point, my writing style, well, not style, my writing process changed completely. I mean, up to that point, since Brissinger, that is, since the third book, my writing process was basically sit down and torment myself for a day and then feel badly about it because uh, I had not gotten as much done as I really needed to be getting done. And that was really a bad way of working. Once I figured out what was going on and what I needed to change, I went from producing, you know, a page a day to, on my better days, 14, 15 pages. Not that I did that every day, as you know, but... That's true. <laughs> but, you know, on whole, the production, you know, went through the roof. Um, for this book, it's been basically uh, working all day, every day. There really wasn't a choice given the size of the book and the deadlines we were under. Normally, I much more, I much prefer to, uh, you know, work until one or two, break, exercise, and then... Uh, you know, maybe work in the evenings or preferably, again, work on something completely else to sort of refresh my creative juices, so to speak. And what what are the things that refresh your creative juices? What do you like to do oh, for you, fun, you for know, hobby? Uh, drawing. You know, I did the illustrations for inside the books. Uh, exercise, uh, carving, metalworking. As soon as I get home and have some time after all the, the touring with this, I intend to finally finish up a male hauberk for myself. Excellent. So, yes, yes. I figure every fantasy author needs a, a sword and a male hauberk. And I've had the sword. You've seen the sword. And the sword is amazing. Yes, this beautiful um, Damascus Viking sword with engraving on uh, hand and a half sword with engraving on the first third of each side of the blade. So I have the sword. Now I need the male hauberk. Uh, I'll probably need a helmet then at some point. I won't make that myself, though. Uh, but basically, uh, anything creative. That's you know not writing or some other form of writing, but just something to get my mind off the main project that I'm engaged with. Once this is all wrapped up and the publication of Inheritance is behind you, is there something you want to do or some place you really want to go that you've been thinking about? I'm not sure. I mean, I, there were some places I visited in Europe that I had a lot of fun with on the tour for Eldest that I hope to have a chance to sort of vacation in and not actually be there for work. Mainly, though, I think what I just really want to do is to have time to work on projects without having to work on them, mm -hmm. you know, without having a deadline saying you have to do X, Y, Z. One of the things I want to do is uh, perhaps try try my hand at um, telling stories through the medium of film. But But we'll see. I mean, I have a bunch of books I'd like to write as well. And in fact, I think the next thing I'll be tackling is probably a science fiction story. So you have other ideas that are... Outside of the fantasy realm oh, as yeah. well. Oh, yeah. You know, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mystery, thriller, romance, you name it. I'd like to try my hand at it. But I, I, I don't intend to abandon fantasy either, you know. And if I get pigeonholed in the genre, fantasy is the perfect one because, you know, from fantasy, you can go to sci-fi. From sci-fi fantasy, you can segue pretty easily into horror if you really want to. And within those three genres, you can tell any kind of story, especially in fantasy, romance, historical, pseudo-historical fiction, whatever you want to do. So it's a, it's a very large playing field. Are there any books you're looking forward to reading once you have a little <laughs> bit more time? 
My reading pile, which you saw. Yes. My reading pile is 153 books at the moment, waiting at home. I am in the middle of reading Ian M. Banks' uh, sci-fi novels. So I'm going to finish those. I'm enjoying them a great deal. And then I have just a huge amount of reading to catch up on since I have not been reading basically at all for a year and a half now. Uh, That's about three months of reading for me. Solid. So I'll I'll get through that, and then I'll probably feel like writing something else. I bet you will. (laughs) So let me ask you a question now, Michelle. Sure. Given that you've been on this series since the very beginning, I mean, you're the one that originally sort of stood up for it at Random House and said, you know, let's let's publish this. Let's take a chance on the 17, was I a 16-year-old author then? 17? 18? No, no, because remember, my parents had to sign the contract for me. I was still... You were a minor. Still a minor. Right. Um... So given all that, what has this experience been like for you to go from the first book all the way now to the fourth book and now, again, to have it over? Well, it's been an incredible journey. And to see the characters grow and develop, to see you grow and develop, but still be completely the same person inside, even amidst all the success that has come your way, has been really incredible and breathtaking. I love these characters, and I feel that you have brought them so authentically through a tremendous journey to get to the other side. And I'm really sad to say goodbye to them. For myself, I'm always, of course, Aragon, Roran, you know, are just incredible characters. To say goodbye to Nasuwada is really hard for me. I really love and admire her a lot. And I've always been so struck by how you, even as a teenage boy, could get (laughs) inside the head of this young woman and inside her motivations and her character so well. And to see her develop into such an impressive leader Mm. who's able to take on new challenges has been really something astonishing. Well, I don't want to toot my own horn too much, but uh, I've always enjoyed writing strong female characters. I think that, you know, they make stories a lot more interesting just because there are so many out there with strong male characters and a lack of strong female characters. One other thing I'm really going to miss, speaking of female characters, Safira. <laughs> yes. I have always, it never fails to amaze me how there'll be something really serious going on in the story. And then there's this fantastically funny interaction that leavens the moment between Aragon and Safira. I'm thinking specifically in this book, one of my favorites being when she loses a scale. Oh, yes. How did that come about? You know, dragons are vain. They are. They're very vain creatures. And the thing is, is that, I mean, and they they have every right to be because they're so darn pretty. Uh, I mean, they're covered in gem-like scales. My my dragons are. And I, the thing is, is I, I always try to work in a little bit of humor because there is a lot of grim stuff going on around. But I think if you're as big and strong and powerful and fierce as a dragon, you can afford to look a little foolish every now and then because you know no one's going to make fun of you. You know, she doesn't, I mean, yes, her scale bothers her and the missing scale, and she's she's self-conscious about it, but she doesn't really care. You know, it's just something for her to complain about a little bit to Aragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. There's there's something, uh, a little bit of my sister in, in Safira, but then, of course, there's quite a bit of my sister in the character Angela Herbalist as well that she's based on. 
Is there anything else, Christopher, that you'd like to share with the fans before we sign off? Well, uh, overall, I think just that I hope I hope that they feel that this book and the ending of this book is a fitting culmination for the series and a fitting send-off for the characters. And, uh, you know, I, I very much hope that they're going to enjoy what I choose to write next. And I want to thank them for coming along with me for this whole journey from start to finish. It's been, you know, and if it weren't for their support, I would not be able to do this. I wouldn't be able to do what I love so much. So, you know, a big thank you to everyone listening and to everyone who reads the series. And a big thank you to you as well, well, Michelle. I mean, seriously, I have to say this. I mean, without your help, because of everything that went into this book, this book would not have gotten published. Well, thank you very much. It has been so much fun working on this book together, even though we've been doing it against tight deadlines. And I think it's really been a beautiful experience with a beautiful outcome. And I'm so sad for it to be drawing to a close, but it's wonderful as well. And I want to thank you for sitting down with me today to talk a little bit about wrapping up the inheritance cycle. I'm glad we could. And hopefully we can do this again with another book someday. That would be great. This is Gerard Doyle. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Inheritance, or The Vault of Souls, Inheritance, Book 4, by Christopher Paolini. This program was directed by Taro Meyer, producer Orly Moskowitz. Text copyright 2011 by Christopher Paolini. Production copyright 2011, Random House Inc. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.